This is Heisenberg. This book contains up to four sides per cassette. Side one, RC five zero eight five nine, Lord Brocktree, by Brian Jakes, illustrated by Fangorn. Text copyright two thousand by the Redwall Abbey Company Limited. Read by Brian Kahn. This book contains three hundred seventy pages on nine sides. If you would like to skip over any remaining announcements or introductory material, place your cassette player in fast forward until a beep is heard. Stop at that point to hear the table of contents, or at the second beep to locate the beginning of the book. Library of Congress annotation. The mountain of Salamandistron needs the help of Brocktree, the Badger Lord, and Dotty, a young hairmaid, when evil comes in the form of the wildcat Ungat Trun and his blue hordes. This is the thirteenth tale in the Redwall series, for grades five through eight, two thousand. From the book jacket. From the pen of Redwall's master storyteller Brian Jakes. The brazen young hairmaid Dotty and the badger warrior Lord Brocktree, unlikely comrades, set out for Salamandistron together, only to discover the legendary mountain has been captured by the wildcat Ungat Trun and his blue hordes. This is not what they expected. Seized by rage, the badger knows blood wrath is not enough. To face the blue hordes, the two must rally an army. Hares and otters, shrews and moles, mice and squirrels, and execute a plan that makes up in cleverness what it lacks in force. With the spell-binding magic that is only Redwall, master storyteller Brian Jakes brings this thirteenth novel in the epic gloriously to life, dramatically revealing the power and beauty of true friendship. About the author. Brian Jakes is a consummate storyteller who began writing his beloved Redwall tales to entertain the children at Liverpool's School for the Blind. He wanted to create a story so full of life the children could see it. Unbeknownst to him, a good friend showed the manuscript to a publisher who saw the genius in it. Thus began the Redwall series, of which Lord Brocktree is the thirteenth volume. Mr. Jakes lives in Liverpool. Where he hosts his own weekly radio show and continues to spin his magnificent tales, creating new chapters in the Redwall saga. In addition, Mr. Jakes has written seven strange and ghostly tales, a collection of ghost stories, and the Great Redwall Feast, an illustrated storybook with pictures by Christopher Denise. Other books by Brian Jakes: Redwall, Mossflower, Matemayo. Mariel of Redwall, Salamandistron, Martin the Warrior, the Bellmaker, Outcast of Redwall, Pearls of Lutra, the Long Patrol, Marl Fox, the Legend of Luke, Redwall Map and Riddler, Redwall Friend and Foe, Build Your Own Redwall Abbey, in memory of Jerry Ryan. A great singer and a good friend. Contents, Book One, The Days of Ungat Trun, also entitled Dorothea Leaves Home, 
Side 1. Book 2. At the Court of King Bucko, also entitled The Tribulations of a Hairmaid. Side 3. Book 3. Comes a Badger Lord, also entitled A Shawl for Aunt Blanche. Side 6. Reader's Note. The map found in the print edition is not included in this recording. End of Note. I am the teller of tales. Gaze into the fire with me, for I know of the badger lords and their mountain by the sea. Tis of a fearsome warrior, full of fate and destiny, who followed dreams along strange paths unknown to such as we. This badger lord was fearless, as all who followed him knew, and the hairmaid he befriended, why, she was as young as you, but no less bold or courageous, full of valor and strong of heart. I, young'uns like you, good and true, may stand to take their part. So here is my story. May it bring some smiles and a tear or so. It happened once upon a time, far away and long ago. Outside the night wind keens and wails. Come listen to me, the teller of tales. Prologue Lord Rossano of Salamandistron put aside his quill and capped a tiny gourd of ink with a wooden sopper. Leaving his study, the badger went downstairs, clutching a wooden pail full of parchment scrolls. He was met at the bottom by his wife, Lady Rosalon, who shook her head reprovingly at him. So, that's where my pail went. I've been looking everywhere for it. Aren't you ashamed of yourself, pinching pails? However, Rossano looked anything but ashamed. He held up the pail and shook it triumphantly. Look, Rosalon, I've finished it. My history of Lord Brocktree's journey and conquest of our mountain. Rosalon smiled at her husband. He was the kindest and wisest badger Salamandistron had ever known. Though when he was enthusiastic about his pet projects, he behaved like a cheerful, eager youngster. She took hold of his ink-stained paw as they walked to the dining hall. They're all waiting, you know. Remember, you promised to read them the story once you'd completed it. Rossano chuckled. I don't suppose Snowstripe, Melanius, and the Leverets would wait a day or two until I tidy this manuscript up a bit? Rosalon stopped Rossano in his tracks. There's not just our son and daughter and some young Leverets waiting to hear you read the tale. Word has got round. Every hair on the mountain wants to hear it, too. Rossano turned and made for the stairs, but his wife held on to his paw. The badger lord appeared rather flustered. Every hair, you say? You mean all of them? But, but, I only meant this as something for the young'uns, to teach them a little of our mountain's history. Rosalon squeezed his paw affectionately. That's not fair. What about us older ones, the parents and grandkin? Aren't we entitled to know our mountain's history? I, for one, would love to hear it. Besides, you have a wonderful storytelling voice. Oh, say you'll read it to us all, Rossano, please. The badger lord allowed himself to be led off again toward the dining hall. Oh, all right, but it'll take a few days. This is a big work. I've been two seasons now, reading through dusty old parchments, interviewing creatures for stories about their ancestors, and studying carvings in the forge. 
I've sat on the shore, listening to sea otters, stood beneath trees, recording squirrels. Huh, I've even had to crouch for four days in a mole dwelling. Had to keep waking those two fat old moles up so I could hear their story. Do you know, it was told to them by their great-grandma, who had it from her old aunt's cousin, twice removed on the uncle's side, or so they said. Rosalon stood with her hand on the door latch. Yes, yes, I know all that, Rosano. It won't matter how long you take to read the thing. You can space it out a bit every evening. Nothing nicer on a winter's night than a good story. Now, the fire's banked up, supper's on the table, and every beast is waiting. So in you go. The dining hall was packed to capacity, mainly with hares. There was a scattering of moles, squirrels, hedgehogs, mice, and some visiting otters. Lord Rossano was immediately captured by his two young offspring, Melanius and Snowstripe, who tugged him up the three broad steps to where his chair had been placed next to a supper-laden table. Papa, Papa, read the story to us, please, please. Are me and Snowstripe in the story, Papa? Rossano chuckled as he sat them down on the cushioned chair arms on either side of him. Great seasons. You'd have to be many, many seasons old to be in this tale. Now sit still and be quiet, my dears. Silence fell over the hall, broken only by the doors opening as the duty cooks came hurrying in. Every beast turned around and shushed them loudly, and quiet was restored once more. Rossano split open a small loaf, cut a thick chunk of cheese, and jammed it in the bread, making himself a rough sandwich. Every eye was upon him as he took a few good bites and washed them down with a half-tankard of October ale. The still atmosphere was broken by a small hedgehog squeaking aloud, When's the badger lord going to get on with it? Rosano left off eating and looked quizzically at the hog babe. Get on with what? A deafening roar rang out from the crowded hall. The story! Rosano looked up in mock surprise. Oh, did you want me to read you my story? He clapped paws to his ears as the noise hit him like a tidal wave. Yes! The small, polished, hardwood stick that Rosano always carried with him was lying on the table. Lady Rosalon picked it up and waved it warningly under his nose. Lord Rosano, will you please stop teasing and read the story? Either that or straight off to bed with you. Every beast, especially the little ones, laughed at the idea of a badger lord being sent to bed for being naughty. Rosano pulled the first scroll from the pail. Unrolling it across the tabletop, he placed his tankard on the top edge to stop it folding back. His kind brown eyes roamed the hall, a smile hovering upon his lips as he spoke. Friends, I will read to you for a few hours each evening. Salamandastron's history goes back further into the mists of time than even I would dare to guess. But the mountain, as we know it today, with its leveret school, long patrol, and laws set down for all to live in peace by, is due mainly to the work of one creature, Lord Brocktree of Brock Hall. It was he who was responsible for the life we enjoy here, the outer gardens and terraces, the orchards and crop-growing areas, and the wonderful chambers so full of comfort. Other badgers were here before him, and they were all good lords in their own fashion, 
But not until the time of Lord Brocktree of Brockhall did the mountain really come into its own. I have recorded the history of his early years as faithfully as I could. So then, here it is. I hope you learn lessons from it, take heed of its value, and most of all, I hope you enjoy it as a mighty tale of great warriors. Book One The Days of Ungat Trun Also entitled, Dorothea Leaves Home One. Loneliness was everywhere. Hopelessness and an air of foreboding had settled over the western shores, casting their pall over land, sea, and the mountain of Salamandistron. Yet no beast knew the cause of it. A pale moon of early spring cast its wan light down upon the face of the mighty deeps, touching each wind-driven wave-top with flecks of cold silver. Sowing breakers crashed endlessly upon the strand, weary after their journey from the corners of the earth. Above the tide-line, gales chased dry sand against the rocks, forcing each particle to sing part of the keening dirge that blended with the sounds of the dark ocean. In his chamber, overlooking the scene, Lord Stonepaw sat in his great chair, feeling as ancient as the mountain he ruled. In one corner, his bed stood neatly made, unused now for a score of seasons. He was far too old. The ritual of lying down each night and rising next day had become painful for his bones. Drawing his cloak tight against vagrant night chills, the once mighty badger lord squinted roomily out to sea, worrying constantly about his domain. Without bothering to knock, a venerable hare creaked his way into the chamber, leaning heavily upon a small serving cart which he was pushing before him. Stonepaw's efforts to ignore him were of no avail. He fussed hither and thither like a broody hen with only one chick, chunnering constantly as he went about his chores. Mm, no fire lit again, eh, my lord? Catch your death a cold one night you will, mark my words. Sparks from the flint he was striking against a blade, coupled with his wheezy blowing, soon had a flame from dry moss crackling against pine twigs. Mmm, that's better. What? Come on, get this supper down. You've got to blink and eat well to live, you know. Stonepaw shook his head at the sight of the food his servant was laying out on the small table at his side. Leave me alone, Fleet's Cut. I'll have it later. No, you won't, sire. You'll flippin' well have it now. I ain't going to the bother of luggin' vittles from the kitchen to watch you let em go cold. Hot vegetable soup and fresh bread. That'll do you the world of good, what? The ancient badger sighed with resignation. Oh, give your tug a rest. I'll take the soup. Bread's no good to me, though. Too crusty. Hurts my gums. Fleet's Cut brooked no arguments. Drawing his dagger... He trimmed the crusts from the still oven-warm loaf. No crust now, what? Dip it in your soup, my lad. The hare perched on the chair arm, helping himself to soup and bread, in the hope that it might encourage his master's appetite. Stonepaw snorted mirthlessly. Huh, look at us. Me, Stonepaw, hardly able to hold a spoon with the same paws that used to lift huge boulders. And you, Fleet's Cut. "'Doddering round with a trolley!' "'The hare nudged his old friend and cackled. <laughs> "'Maybe so, 
but I can still remember the days when I could leap three times as high as that trolley by and run from dawn to dusk without stopping to draw breath. Wasn't a bally hair on the mountain could even stay with my dust trail. Those were the seasons, what? You too, Stonepaw. I saw you lift boulders bigger than yourself when we were young. You could break spears and bend swords with your bare paws. Stonepaw gazed at the paws in question. That may have been my old messmate, but look at my paws now. Silver-furred, battered, scarred, and so full of aches and pains that they're no good for anything. Fleetscut hauled himself from the chair arm and went to lean at the long window overlooking the sea. So, what's the blinking problem? Every beast has to grow old. Nothing can stop that. We've had a long and good life, you and me. Fought our battles, protected the western coast against all comers, and never once backed off from any fight. There's been peace now for as long as any creature on the mountain can remember. What are you worrying about, sire? With a grunt, Stonepaw rose slowly from his chair and joined his companion at the window. He stared out at the darkened waters as he replied, Peace has gone on too long. Something inside me says that trouble such as these shores have never known is headed our way. I wish that we could live our days out without having to take up arms again, Fleet's Cut. But deep down I'm stone-cold certain it won't happen. Worst part of it is that I can't even guess what the future holds. Fleet's Cut looked strangely at the Badger Lord, then shuddered and went to warm himself by the fire. Sire, I know exactly how you feel. Matter of fact, I was thinking those very thoughts this afternoon when old Blinch the cook said to me, Looks like evil coming soon. She says, See for yourself, there ain't a sight or sound of a single bird anywhere on land or sea. Lord Stonepaw stroked his long silver beard thoughtfully. Blinch was right, too, now you come to mention it. Where do you suppose all the birds have gone? The skies are usually thick with gulls, cormorants, petrels, and shearwaters in late spring. Fleetscut shrugged expressively. Who knows what goes on in the mind of a seabird? Maybe they know things we don't. Stands to reason, though, sire. Why should they hang out if they know something bad is due to come here? The badger smiled at his faithful old friend. Why, indeed. They have no duty to protect this coast, and they can always build nests elsewhere. Leave me now. I'll talk to you on the morrow. There are things I must do. Fleetscut had never questioned his badger lord's authority, and was not about to do so now. Bobbing a stiff bow, he left the chamber, pushing his trolley. Lord Stonepaw made his way to the secret chamber where countless other badger rulers of Salamandistron had gone to dream mysterious dreams. It was a place that would have made the hairs on any other creature's back stand stiff. Ranged around the walls of the inner chamber were lines of little carvings telling of the mountain's history. Guarding it in fearsome armored array stood the mummified bodies of past badger warriors. Earthrun, the Gripper, Spear Lady Gorse, Bluestrite, the Wild, Sita Ruler, the Just, and many other legendary figures. From his own lantern, Stonepaw lit three others. Then, 
Taking a paw full of herbs from a shelf, he sprinkled them into the lantern vents. As the sweet-smelling incense of smoke wreathed him, he sat down upon a carved rock throne. Closing both eyes, he breathed in deeply and let his mind take flight. After a while, he began speaking. If the gates of dark forest lie open for me soon, if the shadow of evil darkens our western shores, who will serve in my stead? My hairs are scattered far and wide. Peacetime makes young warriors restless. They are gone questing afar for adventure. Only the old guard are left here with me on this mountain, dim of eye and feeble of limb, the seasons of their strength long flown. Lord Stonepaw's eyes began flickering, and the herbal smoke swirled about his great silver head as he sat up straight, his voice echoing around the rock-bound cavern. Where is the strongest of the strong? Who can be so perilous that a force of fighting hares will rise and follow that creature? Is there a badger roaming the earth, brave and mighty enough to become Lord of Salamandistron? Outside on the strand, the gale increased. Waves crashed widespread on the tide line in their effort to conquer the land. Like a maddened beast, the ocean roared. Sand swept upward into winding columns, driving, spiraling crazily across the shore. Yet still was there no sound of birds or any other living thing to be heard. A foreboding of great evil lay over the land and sea, but no beast knew the cause of it. Yet. 2. In the northeast reaches of Mossflower Wood, a traveler had walked straight into trouble. Drig Slopmouth and his brood numbered thirteen in all, nasty, vicious stoats every one. Drig's family loved to cheat, lie, steal, bully, or murder, even among themselves. Their chief hatred was honest toil. The only work they had done that day was to lie in wait for an unsuspecting wayfarer, a lanky, carefree young hare known to her friends as Dottie. She was reckless and impatient and not over-fond of studying. But what she lacked in scholarly achievement she made up for in impudence, courage, and a sharp wit. The realization that she was surrounded by Drig and his band of robbers did not seem to upset her unduly. She nodded amiably at them. Good morning, chaps and chappesses. Not a bad old sort of day for the time of season, what? A snigger arose from the stoats. Look at what we caught, Drig. A posh rabbit. Dottie rounded on the speaker, a fat, frowsy female. Specifically incorrect, don't you know, my old stotus? I'm a hare, not a rabbit. Now say it correctly after me. Look at what we caught, Drig, a posh hare. Drig stepped between them, pointing to the traveling haversack, which resembled an outsized handbag swinging from the young hare's paw. Empty your bag on the ground. Dottie smiled sweetly at him. Oh, I'd rather not, sir. It'd take me half the day to get the jolly old thing repacked. What? A large, dim-looking stoat, Drig's eldest son, pushed forward. Then tell us what you got in your bag, and don't say it isn't nothing. Dottie clucked reprovingly. You mean don't say it isn't anything? Deary me, I'll bet you never attended woodland school. 
the big stoat snarled, pawing at a long dagger he wore hanging from his belt. Just show us what's in the bag, rabbit. The hair-maid wagged a paw at him. There you go again with that rabbit error. Did I call you a stoat? Of course I didn't. It's obvious to any beast. You're an oversized toad. Oh, sorry, the bag. Here, you take it. Dottie swung the bag hard. There was a cracking noise as it struck the stoat's head, laying him out flat. She whirled upon the others, a perilous glint in her eyes. I can forgive bad grammar and insults, but that was a good flagon of old cider, a gift for my Aunt Blench, and that oaf has just broken it with his head. Unforgivable! Ah, well, there's only one thing I've got left to say to you lot. You lay Leah! The time-honored war cry of fighting hares rang out as Dottie hurled herself upon the would-be robbers, laying about her with her bag left and right, leaping and kicking out fiercely with powerful, rangy footpaws. From the shelter of a broad beach nearby, another traveler watched the melee. He chuckled quietly. The young hare seemed to be doing fine, despite the number of vermin she was facing. Dottie had accounted for three more stoats, and was in the process of depriving the fat, frowsy one of her remaining snaggle teeth when Drig caught her footpaws in a noose. The hairmaid was yanked off balance and floored as three stoats leapt upon her back. Drig's slopmouth drew a sharp, double-edged dagger and circled his fallen victim, calling to those who had piled in on her. Get her on her back and stretch her neck so's I can get a stab in. Older still, you blithering oafs. From his position behind the beech tree, the watcher decided it was time to step in and help the beleaguered hare. Drig screeched in terror as he was lifted into the air and used as a swatter to knock the other stoats willy-nilly. His flailing paws swept vermin left and right. The wind was knocked from him as his stomach connected with the back of another, and stars exploded when his head cracked against the jaw of a hefty young stoat. Dottie scrambled upright, swinging her bag, but there was no beast to strike. Vermin lay everywhere, those still conscious moaning aloud, nursing their injuries. Drig still hung, half-dazed, from the paw of a mighty male badger. The huge creature looked like one who would brook no nonsense from any beast, from his wild, dark eyes and rough, bearded muzzle to the homespun tunic and traveler's cloak he wore. An immense, double-hilted battle-sword hung at his back. He tossed Drig aside like a discarded wash-rag and nodded sternly at the hair-maid. "'I've been watching you a while from beyond yon beach. For a young'un, you were doing well until they came at you from behind.' Remember, if there's more than one enemy, always get your back against a rock or a tree. The hairmaid kicked over a stoat who was struggling to rise. She addressed the badger none too cordially. Well, you've got a bally nerve, I must say, telling a girl how to conduct her battles while you sit hidden on the blinking sidelines watching. Are you sure it wasn't too much bother having to jolly well get off your bottom and help me out? The badger shrugged noncommittally. As I said, I thought you were doing quite well. If I'd thought you could have taken them single-pawed, I wouldn't have stepped in. Dottie was subject to instant mood changes. She smiled, scratching ruefully at her long ears. Hmm, suppose you're right. I lost my head a bit when that flagon of rare old cider got broken. Confounded stoat must have a noggin like a boulder. 
Never lose one's temper. That's what my old mom used to say. The badger nodded sagely, carelessly stepping on Driggs' tail as the stoat tried to crawl away. She sounds like a wise creature to me. Pity you never heeded her words. By the way, my name's Lord Brocktree. The hairmaid clapped a paw to her cheek. Oh, my giddy aunt! I do apologize for speaking to you in that sharp manner, sir. I didn't know you were a badger lord. A ghost of a smile hovered around Brocktree's stern face. No matter. You were upset at the time. What do they call you, miss? The hairmaid did an elegant leg, half bow, half curtsy. Dorothea Duckfontaine Dilworthy at your service, sir. But I'm generally called Dotty. Though my papa always said you could call me anything as long as you didn't call me late for lunch. Excuse me a tick. The fat, frowsy female stoat had risen and was preparing to make a run for it. Dotty reflattened her with a well-placed swing of her bag. She gestured at Driggs' band. What do we do with this covey of curmudgeons, my lord? With a fearsome swish, Lord Brocktree drew his great battle sword. It was almost as tall as himself, with a blade wide as two dock leaves. A moan of fear arose from the stoats. Holding it single-pawed between the double hilt, Brocktree swung the huge weapon, making the air thrum like a swan taking off into flight. Whoop! He buried the point deep in the earth, and his voice dropped to a dangerous growl as he addressed the cowed vermin. I save my sword for proper combat with real warriors. Scum such as you would only dishonor its blade. But I will make exceptions if any of you are still within my sight by the time I have counted to three. Remember, I always keep my word. One. Dotty was bowled over in the mad scramble. Before the badger lord had counted further, Driggs' slop mouth and his wicked brood had vanished. Dotty chuckled. By gum, that's what I should have done in the first place. Pity I didn't have a sword like this one. What a smashing old destroyer it is. She tugged with both paws, unearthing the blade, then fell over backward under its colossal weight. Flamin' sunset, sir! How do you handle a weapon like this? For answer, the badger picked up his sword, twirled it in a warrior's salute, and stowed it one paw across his broad back, nodding seriously at her. Strength, I suppose. They say I was born even stronger than my father, Lord Stonepaw. Dottie flopped her ears understandingly. I know what you mean. Beauty's always been my curse. They say I was born more beautiful than the jolly old setting sun at Solstice. That's probably what made those blinking stoats attack me. Some beasts take beauty as a sign of weakness, you know. I say, did you mention that old Lord Stonepaw was your pater? Brocktree retrieved his traveling bag from behind the beach and shouldered it. I did. Why, do you know of him? Dotty pulled a face and scuffed the dust with her footpaw. I should bally well say so. I'm being sent to his blinkin' old mountain. Sala what you call it? Salamandistron? Aye, that's the place. My Aunt Blench is the chief cook there. I believe she's a right old battle-axe. Lord Brocktree sensed a story behind Dotty's remarks. Seating himself, with his back against the beech tree, he unpacked provisions from his bulky haversack. Sit down here by me, Dotty. 
Do you like oat cakes, cheese, and elderflower cordial? The hair maid plunked herself willingly on the grass. Rather, I haven't eaten for absolute ages. Almost an hour, I think. Mmm, that cheese looks good. Lord Brocktree could not help but smile at the hungry youngster. Well, there's plenty for two, miss. Help yourself, and we'll exchange our stories. You first. Tell me, why are you being sent to Salamandistron? Three. It was an hour past dawn. The gale had passed on, and the wind subsided. Mist from the seas cloaked the western shoreline. Stiffener Medic, an old boxing hare, was just completing his daily exercise on the sands above the tide line. Though he was well on in seasons, Stiffener never neglected his daily routine. He had finished his dawn run, lifted stone and log weights, and was on to the final part of his duck and weave drill. Throwing a final few combination jabs into the mist, he retrieved his champion's belt from a rock and began fastening it about his hard-muscled waist. Stiffener's scarred ears picked up an unfamiliar sound on the ebbing tide. Batting at his nose with a loose-clenched paw, he jogged down to the water. A narrow sailing boat with its sail furled was being rowed in by a dozen big rats, their fur dyed dark blue. A cloaked figure stood at its prow as it cut through the sea mist. The hare stood his ground ready for trouble. As the keel scraped on the sand, the craft nosed up onto the beach. Shipping their oars, the rats silently piled out and threw themselves prone upon the wet sand. Without a glance at them, the gowned and cowled figure used them as a bridge to reach dry land without wetting its elegantly shod footpaws, treading carelessly upon their upturned backs. Stiffener nodded toward the newcomer aggressively. Ahoy there, mate! Who are you and what do you want here? One of the rats arose and walked over to face Stiffener. He was a big, evil-looking creature, clad in armor under a tabard embroidered with a sickle-hook insignia. The rat's voice was heavy with contempt as he addressed the old boxing hare. Koya! Creatures of the lower orders are not allowed to speak with the Grand Fragoral. Kneel before her and stay silent, unless I address you further. Stiffener smiled dangerously at the armored rat. I think you'd better kneel to me, laddie buck. A lesson in good manners wouldn't go amiss in your case. A smart whack to the jaw caused the rat to totter groggily. Stiffener clubbed down with his left paw on the rat's shoulder, forcing him into a kneeling position. Suddenly the boxing hare found himself hemmed in on all sides by the swords of the other rats. One of them looked toward the hooded figure, who made a few gestures with its shrouded paws. The rat turned back to Stiffener and spoke. No beast ever raises paw to the chosen ones and lives. You are fortunate that the Grand Fragoral has spared your miserable life, for she wishes to deliver a message to your chief, he who rules the mountain. You will take us to him. Stiffener was not about to argue with twelve blades. He nodded to the cloaked figure, speaking as he turned to go. You best follow me, marm. I'll take you to Lord Stonepaw. Oh, I doubt he'll offer you breakfast, if and you're bound to keep acting all high and mighty. Stonepaw was back in his living quarters when Pleatscott ambled in without knocking, as usual. Turning from the fog-bound view at his window, 
The old badger raised his hoary eyebrows at the absence of a trolley. No breakfast today? Has Blench overslept? Grave-faced, the ancient servant bowed stiffly. I think the trouble we were talking about has finally arrived, my lord. Some beast to see you down at the shore entrance. You'd best get dressed for company. Wordlessly, Stonepaw allowed his retainer to select a flowing green robe from the closet. When the badger lord had shrugged out of his nightgown, Fleetscott climbed on a chair and assisted his master to get into the robe. Hmm. I'll get your red belt to go with that, and maybe a war helmet and javelin. Stonepaw ignored Fleetscott's selection. Bring my white cord girdle. No helmet. It keeps slipping over my eyes. There's no need of a javelin either. Picking up a long ceremonial mace, the badger surveyed himself in a long copper mirror. Get stiffener, bungworthy, sail ears, and troby. They can accompany me. Now that dawnlight was clearer and the mist had begun to disperse, one or two of the old hares watching from vantage windows in the mountain remarked on the curious appearance of the rats and their cloaked leader below at the mountain's main entrance. Stop my whiskers, they're blue. Must be something wrong with your eyes, old chap. Whoever heard of blue rats? I know, but look, their fur is a sort of darkish blue. Can't tell what the dickens color that one with the cloak on is. Sinister-looking bod, what? Blench, the cook, took a final look before going off to supervise breakfast with her kitchen helpers. Pink, blue, or rainbow-colored, that lot down there looked like trouble. You mark my words. The heavily-robed figure of the Grand Fregoral stood immobile and mysterious, but the rat who had challenged Stiffener paced up and down impatiently. He was obviously some type of officer. After a lengthy while, Lord Stonepaw and his retinue of four hares, all carrying javelins, appeared. The spokesrat swaggered forward. Toying arrogantly with his sword hilt, he looked Stonepaw up and down. Are you the one in charge here? Speak! Lord Stonepaw brushed past him as if he were not there, and pointed a great gnarled paw at the cloaked one. Who are you? And why do you trespass upon the western shore with armed soldiers? Removing the cowl of her cloak, the hooded one revealed herself. She was a blue-furred ferret, wearing a nose ring, from which hung a gold-sickle-hook amulet. Her voice carried with it the haughty tone of one used to being obeyed. I am Grand Fregoral to Ungat Trun, ruler of the earth. You are one of the inferior species, but he has given me permission to deliver his message to you. Feeling his hackles begin to rise, the badger lord growled, Inferior species, eh? Stand here talking like that to me, vermin, and you'll be crab meat before the mist lifts fully. I and your rats, too. If you have something to say, then spit it out and be gone while I'm still in a reasonable mood. So speak your peace now. Drawing a scroll from her robe, the ferret read aloud, Be it known to all creatures of lowly order, the days of Ungat Tron are here. All of these lands and the seas that skirt them are from here on in his property. You have until nightfall to vacate this place. 
you must take nothing with you, neither victuals nor weapons. You will also leave behind you any serving beasts who are of use. This is the will and the law of Ungat Trun, he who holds the power to make the stars fall from the sky and the earth to tremble. Obey or die. Stiffener Medic raised his javelin. Just say the word, my lad, and we'll give em blood and vinegar. Us lower orders are pretty good at things like that, you know. Stonepaw touched Stiffener's javelin so that it pointed down to the sand. He heaved a sigh of resignation as he replied to the Grand Fregoral. Deliver this message back to whatever lunatic scum you serve. Tell him that Lord Stonepaw of Salamandistron is accustomed to the blowing of windbags, as your master will find to his cost if he dares to land here. Now get out of my sight and take those blue-painted idiots with you. Wordlessly, the ferret and her soldiers retreated to their boat and rowed off into the mists. Sailors, a garrulous old female warrior, twirled her lance nonchalantly. Nice little parley, what? Well, is that it? Shaking his grizzled old head, Stonepaw turned and stumped back into his beloved mountain. I wish it was, friend. I wish it was. Four. Lord Brocktree listened with amusement as Dottie unfolded her story. Well, sir, what with one bally thing or another, I was always in trouble back home in the Mid-Eastern Hills. If a confounded pie went missing from a window sill, or some beast had been at the cider store, guess who got the blinkin' blame? Me, trouble causer, rattle rouser, scoff swiper. I've been called all of those, you know. Not to mention, frog walloper and butter wouldn't melt in me mouth. Fiddle-dee-dee, I say. T'was all because of my fatal beauty. They always pick on the pretty ones. I've already told you that. Anyhow, just after Grandpa's whiskers went afire and some villain tore the seat out of Uncle Septimus's britches, my dear old parents made a decision. Here, cast your lordly peepers over this little scrawl. Dottie dug a tattered bark-cloth letter from her arm-bag. Brocktree's dark eyes twinkled as he read it. Dear Sister Blench, Cramsey and I can no longer put up with Dorothea, so I am sending her to you. Your badger lord has our permission to deal with the wretch as he sees fit, short of slaying her. You also may do likewise. Please keep her captive upon your mountain until such time as she is civilized enough to live among decent creatures. Teach her to cook and other domestic skills. I know it is too much to ask that she be taught etiquette, deportment, and other maidenly pursuits. She is a fiend in hare's fur, believe me. Sister dear, I implore you to take her off our paws while we still have a roof over our heads, which are gray with care and worry. I would be fibbing if I said Dorothea does not eat much. She is an empty sack with legs. Her appetite would frighten a flock of seagulls. Grant her father and me this one favor, and you will have our heartfelt thanks, plus the beaded shawl mother passed down to me, and a flagon of palest old cider from Cramsey's drinks cabinet. Please write to let me know she has arrived safely, and if she does not return by winter, 
I will take it that she has settled down to her new life. Cramsey sends his love to you, Blanche. I remain your devoted sister. Signed, Daphne Duckfontaine Dilworthy. Brocktree had to turn his head aside and wipe his eyes on a spotted kerchief to keep from laughing. Dotty, surmising that he was wiping away tears, nodded sympathetically. Sad, ain't it, sir, the woeful tale of a fatal beauty? I say, did you get chucked out by your parents, too? You'll forgive me saying, but a chap of your size must have taken some bally chuckin', what-what? The badger lord patted his young friend's paw. No, no, t'was nothing like that, Dotty. I was restless, just like all badger lords before me. It grieved me to leave behind my young son. Boar the Fighter, I named him. A badger's son is his pride and joy when he is a babe. But he must grow up, and it is a fact that two male badgers cannot live together in peace, especially badger lords, for that is what boar will grow to be one day. So I had to observe the unwritten law. I left Brock Hall and began roaming to follow my dream. Dotty carefully stowed the letter back in her bag. Beg pardon, sir, but what dream is that? Brocktree unshouldered his battle blade and began wetting its edge on a smooth rock, even though it looked as keen as a razor. A vision I see in my mind's eye, sometimes when I'm awake, or other times when I sleep. It must have been the same picture that other badgers have dreamed. A mountain that once shot forth flames and molten rock, older than time itself. Its fire's now gone, waiting, always waiting for me on the shores of a great ocean. I could not describe the way to Salamandistron, for that is what I know the mountain is called, nor could I draw a map of the route, but something in my brain, my very heart, is guiding me there. Dottie interrupted perkily. Oh, super-duper, sir! I'm glad you know the flippin' way! I haven't got a confounded clue, only that it's some place down on the western shores. Oh, beg pardon, sir. Didn't mean to butt in on you. Bad form, what? Brocktree smiled at his young companion and ruffled her ears indulgently. We'll find it together, young'un. You're right. Tis on the western shores. In my dreams I've seen the sun setting in the seas beyond the mountain. But my feelings tell me that the place for which we are bound will have great need of a badger lord, one who will not shrink from evil and cruelty, a warrior ready to stand and fight. Dottie chuckled, cutting once more into Brocktree's speech. Well, your jolly old feelings have no further to look than yourself, sir. You look like the very badger to do the job, and you come ready equipped with that bloomin' great monstrosity you call a sword. Squinting one eye, Brocktree peered down the mighty blade, its deadly double edge keener than midwinter. Aye, methinks it will have its work well cut out when the time comes. That face, the one which visits and disturbs my slumbers, I have seen nothing like it, the face that turns dreams to haunting nightmares. The tone of Brocktree's voice caused Dottie to shudder. Great seasons! What face is that, sir? Nothing I want to talk more about, young'un. Now, no more questions, please. We'll make camp here. There's a brook beyond that tall elm yonder, 
You go and fill this bowl with water while I get a small fire going. Come on now, Dotty, stir your stumps. You'll have to shape up if you want to travel with me. The hair maid sprang up, grabbing the pole from Brock Tree's big paws and saluting smartly in a comical manner. Brook beyond tall elm, fill bowl with water. Yes, sir. Three bags full, sir. Going right away, sir. About turn, quick march. One, two, hop. Brock Tree grinned as he watched her strut off, trip, send the bowl flying, and catch it clumsily. She grinned back at him sheepishly. Good wheeze, sending me for water, what? If you'd told me to light a fire, I'd have probably sent the whole forest up in flames. Not too clever at fires, don't you know? Brocktree took out his tinderbox, murmuring to himself. At least she can't flood the forest with a single bowl full of water, but who knows? Ah, oh, well, at least she's company for a lone traveler. Flickering shadows from the fire hovered about the woodland glade. Somewhere close by, a nightjar warbled in the branches of a sycamore. Dotty scraped a wooden ladle around the empty bowl and licked it. Confounded good soup that was, sir. Can all badger lords cook as well as you do? Maybe you'd best fire my Aunt Blanche and promote yourself to head cook when we get to Salamathingy, what? Brock Tree hooded his eyes in mock ferocity. If I do become head cook, I'll make sure that you get lots of sticky, greasy pots to wash, young miss. Dottie began rummaging in her bag. If the scoff tastes as good as that, I'll lick them all shining clean. Least I can do is to render you a little ditty to aid your digestion, sir. The badger folded his paws across his stomach. Aye, that'd be nice. Carry on. Dottie peered into the bag as she rooted around in its interior. Corks. Half the beads have fallen off this blinking shawl the mater gave me for Aunt Blanche. It's absolutely soaked with cider, too. Aha! Here's me faithful old hair accordion. A few of the keys and reeds are sticking, but that cider may have loosened them up a touch. Right? Here goes. Pin years back and get ready for a treat. What? To describe the hairmaid's voice as being akin to a frog trapped beneath a hot stone would have been a great injustice to both frog and stone. Moreover, the instrument she was playing on sounded like ten chattering squirrels swinging on a rusty gate. However, Dottie played and sang on blithely. Brocktree squinched both eyes shut, fervently hoping that the song did not contain too many verses. I am but a broken-hearted maid, my tale I'll tell to you, as I sit alone in this woodland glade, yearning for a puddin' or two. I high, 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 sigh, high, 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 high-ing. Whack, folly, doodle, ho, whoops, come, whang. The greatest song my grandma sang was to her family of twenty-three. Ho, dish up the puddin', save some for me. Twas made from fruit and arrowroot. Hard pears and apples, too. Some honey that the bees chucked out that set as hard as glue. Some comfrey leaf and bulrush sheaf and damson sour as ever. She stirred the lot in a big old pot while we sang Fail Me Never. When all of a sudden Grandma's puddin' burst right out the pot. Round as a boulder, not much older, fifty times as hot. It shot down the road, laid out a toad, and knocked two hedgehogs flat. Splashed in the lake and slew a snake, and the frogs cried, What was that? 
Oh, dearie me, calamity, oh, woe, and lack-a-day, without a puddin' to my name, I'll sit and pine away, away, whack for holly doo-hoo-hoo-dell day. Dottie made her ears stand rigid on the last note to add effect. Fluttering her eyelids dramatically, she was squeezing the hair accordion finally shut when its bellows shot forth a stream of old pale cider right up her nose. She sneezed and curtsied awkwardly. Whew! That cleared my head. Shall I sing you another of my ditties, sir? The badger lord demurred, hoping she would not insist. No, Dottie, please. You must save your voice for another evening. Now you should get some rest. Here, take my cloak. The hairmaid settled down with the cloak swathed around her like a huge collapsed tent. She sighed. Funny thing, you know. My voice has that effect on many creatures. You should thank the stars that you were born just a plain old badger lord. That's the trouble with being a fatal beauty with a voice that's too fine to be heard more than once a night. Hmm. It affected my dad so much that he said once in a lifetime was sufficient for him. Good job you ain't like him, sir. At least I can sing to you once every night, what? Turning his back to her, Brocktree winced. Well, perhaps not every single night. Don't want to strain a beautiful voice, do we? Dottie closed her eyes, snuggling down in the cloak. Let's just say I'll sing to you whenever I feel up to it. Good night, Brocktree, sir. I say, can I call you Brockers? The tone of the Badger Lord's reply stifled any argument. You certainly cannot miss. Ha! Huh, the very idea of it. Brockers. Good night. Morning sun broke cheerfully down upon the little camp. The twittering of birdsong caused Dottie to poke her head out of the cloak folds. Blue smoke rose in a thin column amid the dappled sun shadows cast by trees in full spring leaf. Brocktree was turning oatcakes over on a flat stone, which was laid upon the fire he had rekindled. His great striped head shook reprovingly. Dawn has been up two hours, miss. Are you going to lie there all day? Yawning and stretching, the hairmaid lolloped over to the fire, muttering as she helped herself to hot oatcakes and mint tea sweetened with honey. It's the confounded beauty sleep, that's what tis. My mater was always saying to me when I came down late for breakfast, Been taking your beauty sleep again, Miguel. I say, these oat cakes are spiffing when they're hot. Well, sir, which way do your voices say we go today, what? Brocktree recovered his cloak and bundled it into his haversack. I think we should follow the course of that brook where you got the water from. Sooner or later it'll bring us to a stream. Dottie rescued the oatcakes just in time as Brocktree doused the fire and broke camp. Stuffing items in her bag, she hop-skipped behind him, slopping mint tea about and bolting oatcakes as she breakfasted on the move. Question, sir! Why are we looking for a stream? The Badger Lord replied without looking back. Streams always run to rivers. Rivers run to the sea. That way we find the shoreline and follow it south. Sooner or later we'll come to the mountain on the west shore. Save your breath for marching, young'un. By mid-morning Dottie was hungry, paw sore, and had nearly talked herself out, though to no effect. 
All she saw was the badger's broad, cloaked back with the great sword slung across it in front of her. All her observations and complaints were met with either silence or a deep grunt. Lord Brocktree was not one for lengthy conversations when he was on the march. Dottie stumbled, barking her footpaw upon a willow root as they followed the meandering brook. Yo, wouch! Oh, I've gone and broke a limb. The pain's shooting right up to my bally ear tips. There was no reply, either sympathetic or otherwise, from Brocktree, who merely trudged onward. Dottie continued her lament to a ladybird that had lighted on her shoulder. Might have to borrow that big sword and chop off me blinking footpaw. If I find the right piece of wood, I should be able to carve another to hop along on. Breakfast was ages ago. Ages and ages and ages. I'll bet lots of poor beasts die of starvation, having to walk along for days and days behind big rotten old badgers who never say a flippin' word. Brocktree bit his lip hard to keep from chuckling. Now, if I was a badger, I'd talk all the time. In fact, I'd make it me duty to talk to nice, friendly hair maids. Oh, dearie me, I'd say. Hurt your foot, paw, Dottie? Here, let me cut it off with my sword. You can ride up on my back until I find a log to chop up and make you a new one. Brocktree halted without warning, and Dottie walked straight into his back, still chunnering to herself. He turned. There's the stream up ahead, Missy. You can sit on the bank and cool your paw in the water. That'll make it feel a lot better. And while you do that, I'll get lunch ready for us. With a deft motion, he produced his great battle blade. But I can always oblige by doing as you wish. Here, hold out your footpaw and I'll chop it off. Dottie shot past him for the stream bank, yelling, Yah! I'd chop both your blooming great footpaws off if I could lift that sword. At least it'd slow you down a bit. Lord Paul Whacker, they should have called you. The hairmaid's mood softened as she sat cooling her footpaws in the shade of a tree, letting the soothing stream work its magic as she ate lunch. Brocktree had gathered some early berries and mixed them with chopped apple and hazelnuts from his pack, which made a delicious fruit salad with a syrup of honey and stream water poured over them. Then the badger gave her dock leaves and waterweed he had collected along the stream bank. If your paw's still sore, bind it with these. That will fix it up. Taking the badger's face in both paws, Dottie murmured, Now look straight at me, sir. Pretend I'm thanking you. Now don't look over. But there's a willow overhanging the water the other side of the stream. Don't look. There's some beast in there watching us. Rocktree straightened up, winking swiftly at her. Oh, right. I'll look further down the bank. See if I can find you some bigger dock leaves. Sit and rest. I'll not be long. He strode off down the bank, disappearing around a bend. Dottie could feel the watcher's eyes on her from the willow shade on the far bank. Taking care not to stare back, she acted as though she were completely unaware of the presence of an eavesdropper. Taking the hair cordian out of her bag, she placed it in the warm sunlight to dry out. Then, dangling her footpaws in the clear, cool current, the hairmaid hummed a little tune to herself, flicking the odd, secret glance across the stream. She reflected that had she been completely alone, a tranquil setting such as this would have been the ideal place to while away the sunny spring midday. However, the peace was short-lived, 
Amid sudden howls and roars, the overhanging willows seemed to explode in a shower of leaves and twigs. Foliage scattered across the stream surface as two burly forms smashed through the tree cover and crashed heavily into the water. Dottie hurled herself into the stream, whirling her bag aloft. Hang on, sir! I'm coming! You lay Leah! Five. Off the western shores, a heavy fog persisted. The afternoon had not fulfilled the morning's promise. Beneath a dirty white sky, layers of mist sat unmoved on a still sea, its oily, waveless swell lapping tiredly against the hull of a large, barnacle-crusted ship, whose single sail hung furled. A small boat hove alongside, and the Grand Fragoral climbed into a canvas sling which had been lowered from the ship. She nodded and was hoisted swiftly aboard. An isle appeared amidst the blue-furred rats who crowded the deck, and silently she climbed out and made her way through to the stern cabin. The interior of Ungatron's stateroom resembled the stuff of which nightmares are made. Dangling from thick chains, deep copper bowls contained fire that burned blue and gave off a heavy lilac-colored smoke. Oppressive heat enveloped the cabin, heightening the nauseous stench of rotting flesh. Huge cobwebs festooned every corner, spreading up over the deckheads, set a-quiver by fat, hairy forms which scuttled back and forth after the flies that buzzed everywhere. Carefully avoiding the webs, the Grand Fragoral made her way to the cabin center and prostrated herself, face down, with one paw raised in the air. Two other creatures sat in silence watching her, one a small silver-furred fox, its growth stunted by some terrible accident, giving it a shriveled appearance. The fox, a quill pin held awkwardly in its crabbed paw, was seated at a table where it had been peering through thick, crystal-lensed eyeglasses at various scrolls piled upon the tabletop. This was Grottle, high magician to Ungat Trun. Now, turning his eyes from the Grand Fragoral, he sat watching his master for a sign. Only the tail of the wildcat moved. Black-ringed and yellowish-gray with a thick, rounded tip, it seemed to possess a life of its own, swishing back and forth behind Ungat's chair. The fiercest of warriors, Ungat Trun had no time for personal fripperies, but dressed like any plain fighter. Chain-mail tunic, two iron bracelets, and a male-fringed steel helmet surmounted by a spike. Yet any beast only had to look at him to see that here was a ruthless conqueror. Beneath the striped brow, permanently creased in a frown, the wildcat's fearsome black and gold eyes remained hooded and unblinking, his stiff white whiskers overhanging two sharp amber fangs, which showed even when his mouth was shut. He stared at the prone ferret stretched on his cabin floor. Then, turning his gaze aside, he nodded briefly to his magician. Grottle spoke in a thin, reedy voice, starting with his master's praises. Know ye that ye are in the presence of the mighty Ungatron, son of the highland king Mortspear and brother to Verdaga Greeneye. Ungatron, who makes the stars fall and the earth shake so that the lesser orders will fear him. Ungatron, 
whose blue hordes are as many as leaves of the forest or sands of the shores, Ungatron, who drinks wine from the skulls of his enemies. This is Ungatron, the fearsome beast, and these are his days. The Grand Fregoral, still face down on the floor, called aloud the ritual answer required of her. Though I dare not look upon his face, I know that Ungatron is here, and these are his days. Ungat replied in his coarse, rasping voice, So be it. Did you see my mountain? What took place there? Tell me all, and speak true, or flies will be born from your carcass to feed my webmakers. The Fregoral allowed herself a fleeting glimpse of a dead rat moldering in the corner, knowing all too well what happened to any beast foolish enough to displease Ungat Trun. Though the heat in the cabin was stifling, the ferret felt cold sweat break out beneath her long robes. She spoke, fighting to stop her voice trembling. Oh, fearsome one, I saw your mountain, though not all of it, only what the mists would allow. I was not invited inside. It is called Salamandastron, just as you said. The place is defended by inferior species, rabbit things who all appear to be well on in seasons. They are ruled by a strike dog called Lord Stonepaw, who is even older than they. He said many insulting things, which I fear to repeat. But mainly, he said it would be to your cost if you dared to land upon his shores. I followed your orders, O Ungatron, and not stopping to bandy words with the strike dog or his creatures, I returned to you immediately. Only the flies could be heard as they buzzed around the conqueror's stateroom. Neither Fregoral nor Grottle moved. A fly swooped across Ungat's vision, and his paw shot out like grease lightning and caught it. Holding it to his ear, he listened to its anguished hum, then tossed it swiftly upward where it lodged in a cobweb. In a flash, two voracious webmakers were upon the trapped insect. Ungat never looked up, his hooded eyes fixed on the ferret sprawled near his footpaws. You did well, my Fregoral. You may rise and go now. When the ferret had departed, Ungat poured wine into a goblet fashioned from the bleached skull of a long-dead otter. Read me the prophecy again, Grottle. Hastily sorting out a scroll, the fox unrolled it. No highland willed from kin deceased, or quest for castles vague unknown, for Ungat Trun the fearsome beast will carve a fortune of his own. Find the mountain, slay its lord, put his creatures to the sword. When the stars fall from the sky, red the blood flows neath the sun. Then let mothers wail and cry, these are the days of Ungat Trun. Hark, no bird sings in the air, the earth is shaking everywhere. His reign of terror has begun, for these are the days of Ungat Trun. A fat spider fell from its web, landing on the wildcat's shoulder. He let it run down onto his paw, turning the paw over and back again as the spider scurried to escape. Now explain it to me. 
as he had done several times, Grottle translated. It says that you are too fierce and strong to accept the Highland kingdom when your father dies, nor are you a wandering robber dreaming of conquering some castle as your young brother Verdaga says he will do some day. You will establish your own realm, ruling it from a mountain that is greater than any other. No beast has an army to command as large as your blue hordes. I am your magician, and I say that tonight you will see the stars fall from the sky. At tomorrow's dawn you will feel the earth shake beneath you. The wild cat stared levelly at the undersized fox. You have many clever tricks, Grottle, but if you fail me, then you will feel the earth shake from above you, because I will be dancing on your grave. What about the badger lord? Tell me. Grottle knew the wild cat would not slay him. He was far too valuable a creature for any warlord to kill. The magician fox merely shrugged and went back to studying his scrolls. The striped dog is as your Fragoral described, an old one. He should be no trouble to the mighty Ungatrun. The wildcat leaned on the desk, bringing his face close to the fox. My dreams do not contain any doddering ancient striped dog. The one who disturbs my slumbers is a badger of middle seasons with the mark of a warrior stamped on him. So, my withered friend, explain that to me. Grottle removed his eyeglasses and began wiping them. I cannot dream your dreams for you all the time. This badger, you see, might be just that, a dream. Ungat returned to his chair, stroking his fangs. You'd better hope for your sake that he is, Grottle. Lord Stonepaw had been staring from his window at the masses of fog shrouding the seas. He was beginning to see phantom shapes looming in the mists, as one is apt to after gazing a while. He rubbed at his tired old eyes and lumbered over to his bed, where he sat down to brood over the troubles that beset him. Stiffener Medic knocked on the door and entered. Sire, every hair jack in the place is waiting on you to come and talk to him. They're gathered in the main chamber, armed to the ears and primed for action. With a weary sigh, the badger lord rose. The old, the weak, and the feeble. I wish we were all as fit as you, Stiffener. Ah, if wishes were fishes. Oh, well, fetch me my armor and javelin. Least I can do is to go down there looking like a mountain lord. The main chamber was just short of half-filled with hares. Two of them, Bungworthy and Troby, assisted the armored badger up onto a rock platform. Stonepaw shook his head sadly as he assessed his army. Holding up his javelin, he waited until silence fell, then he spoke up loudly for the benefit of those hard of hearing. Good creatures, faithful comrades, you know I have always spoken truly to you, so I am not going to lie about our present situation. I see before me many brave warriors. Alas, none of them young and sprightly any more. Like you, I too can remember the seasons gone, 
when this chamber and the passages outside would be packed solid with young fighting hares. Now we are but a pitiful few. But that does not mean we cannot fight. A ragged cheer rose from the old guard, accompanied by warlike comments. Eulalia! Aye, we'll give them blood and vinegar, sire. Where with you to the last beast, lord? We ain't called Stonepaw's stalwarts for nothing, what? Send them on and let's begin the game. A tear trickled from Stonepaw's eye. Hastily, he brushed it aside and swelled his chest out proudly. I am honored to lead you. We know not the number of our foes or how skilled they be at weaponry, but let's give them a hot old time in true Salamandistron fashion. Amid the cheering, orders were shouted out. Bar all entrances! Archers at the high window slits! Long pikes at the low windows! Stone slingers on the second level! Sailors, take your crew up onto the high ledges where the boulder heaps are ready! As the hares dispersed to their places, Lord Stonepaw held two of them back. Blench, marm. They'll need feeding. I know you've only got a few kitchen helpers left, but can you see to it? The head cook saluted with an iron ladle. Hain't seen the day I couldn't, my lord. There'll be no beast fighting on a empty belly while I'm around. She whirled off, yelling at her helpers. Check the larders and bring the list to me. Gather in anything that's a growing up on those ledge gardens. Fruits, salad, vegetables, anything. Stonepaw turned to the one hair left, his faithful retainer. Fleet's cut. Have you still got the ability and wind to be called a runner? The ancient hare laughed mirthlessly. Suppose I could still kick up a bit of dust, my lord. Why? Stonepaw lowered its voice to a whisper. Good creature, I want you to draw field rations and leave this mountain within the hour. Go where you will, but use your wits. Search out your young wandering warriors and any bands of hares about the countryside, young ones with a touch of warrior's blood in their eye. We need help as we've never needed it. Find them and bring them back to Salamandistron as fast as you can. Fleet's cut bowed dutifully as he flexed his paws. I'll give it a jolly good try, sire. Lord Stonepaw hugged his old friend briefly. I know you will, you old grass walloper. Good luck. When Fleet's cut had left, the badger lord retired to his secret chamber. When he had sprinkled herbs into the burning lanterns, he sat back, closing his eyes and breathing deeply. Concentrating hard, he willed the face of his successor to appear in his mind. Where are you, strong one? Come to me. I need you now. Feel the call of the mountain and hurry to it. Stonepaw finally drifted into slumber, rewarded by no sight of any badger's face, just a worrying puzzlement of troubles as yet unborn. Six. Lord Rocktree felt himself borne underwater by an adversary of tremendous strength, which seemed to increase on contact with the stream. The beast was built of muscle and steely sinew, wrapping itself about the badger's head, neck, and shoulders, blocking off air and light in a skillful deathlock. 
As soon as he felt his paws touch bottom, Brocktree used his formidable strength, thrusting upward to the surface with a powerful shove. As both beasts broke the surface, the badger managed to gasp in a breath of air. Then he was aware of thudding blows raining on his opponent as Dottie yelled, Gear off! I'll pound your blinking head to a jelly if you don't let him go and jolly well fight fair! The beast wrapped around Brocktree's head roared aloud, Fair? You called two to one fair? Youch! Ouch! Ouch that bag, you doodle-pawed fool! You near put me eye out! Ow! The badger lord seized his chance. Clamping his paws around his assailant's tail and jaws, he tore the creature from him and lifted it above his head. It was kicking and wriggling as he hurled it forcefully into the far shallows. Then, diving down, he grabbed his battle blade, which had fallen from his back in the struggle. Dottie gasped with fright as the massive badger lord surfaced in a cascade of stream water, whirling his sword aloft. Brock Tree of Brock Hall! Bones and blood! The otter, for it was a fully grown male of that species, stood up dripping in the shallows. Aye, aye, steady on there, matey. There ain't no need to go swinging swords around. What's your trouble? Brocktree waded toward him, sword still upraised. You were trying to drown me back there, murderer. The otter threw back his head and chortled. Ho, ho, ho! Murderer, is it, Cully? Shame on ye. You're the one who sneaked up and started all this, ambusher. Dottie thought about this for a moment, then, wading over, she placed herself between both creatures. Stop me if you ain't right, sir. It was you who attacked him first, you know. Rocktree dropped his sword in bewilderment. Hi there, miss. Whose side are you on, mine or his? The otter sat down in the shallows, chuckling merrily. Now, now, you two stop all your argifying. Tell you what, do you like water shrimp and not root soup? I've got a pan of it on the go. Should be plenty for three. At the mention of food, Dottie felt immediately friendly. I've never tasted it, but I'm sure I like it, sir. The otter waded over, paw outstretched. Ha! Don't serve me, young'un. I goes by the name of Ruffgar Brookback. You can call me Ruff, though. Ruff by name, Ruff by nature. That's what my old grandma used to say when I wrestled her. Dottie looked at him in surprise. You used to wrestle with your old grandma? Ruff grinned. Aye, but she always beat the daylights out of me. Come on, hearties, follow me. Further upstream, they came upon Ruff's camp, merely a blanket made into a lean-to. There was a slow-burning turf fire on the bank edge and a long, flat elm trunk floating in the water. Ruff attended to a cauldron of soup bubbling on the fire, dipping in a wooden ladle and sampling it gingerly. Ha-ha! All right and ready. This is the stuff to put a shine on your fur and a glint in your eye. Good old hot root. He scrambled aboard the log, which was obviously his boat, and retrieved a battered traveling bag. From this, he dug three enormous scallop shells, tossing one apiece to Dottie and Brocktree. Dig in now. I ain't your mother. Serve yourselves, mates. Dottie filled her shell and went at it like a gannet in a ten-season famine. Yeah! Woo! Mother, help me! I'm on fire! Oh! Oh! 
Ruff, who had been watching in amusement, took pity on her and scooped up some cold stream water in his shell. Cool your gob on this, missy. She drained the water in a single gulp, blinked the tears from her eyes, and sniffed. Good stuff, this what? A little warm and spicy, but first-class soup. I like it. Ruff and Brocktree sat gaping as she refilled her shell and tucked in with a will. The badger winked at the otter. She's a hare, you see. Ruff nodded sagely. Aye, that explains it, mate. After the meal, they lay about on the bank, and Dotty and Brocktree told Ruff their stories. Ruff explained to them how he came to be in those parts. I'm a bit like you, young Dotty. I left home when I was young, just afore they decided to sling me out. Wild and mischievous. Ha <laughs> ha! I was more trouble than a bag of bumblebees. Me poor old grandma was sorry to see me go, but the rest of me family breathed a sigh of relief. Anyhow, I've been a loner most of the time. It ain't so bad. No beast to keep shouting. Rough, stop that. Rough, don't you dare. Nowadays, I can do what I likes without any beast hollering at me. Brocktree nodded. And what are you doing at present, Ruff? Oh, a bit of this and a bit of that. Nothing, really. Why? The Badger Lord's eyes twinkled. Dotty and I need to get down to the shores of the Great Sea. Best way to do that is to follow waterways, as you well know. It would be nice if we could go by boat instead of all that tracking by paw. Suppose you came with us. Ruff's rudder-like tail thwacked down upon the bank, propelling him upright, grinning from ear to ear. No sooner said than done, Brock me hearty. Can you two paddle? Dotty replied for them both. Well, if we can't, I bet you'll soon teach us what. I'm no badger lord, but I'm jolly well strong of paw. Ruff touched the swelling around his eye. You already proved that by the way you swing your bag. Floating down the broad sunlit stream was a very pleasurable experience. Dotty and Brocktree soon picked up the knack of wielding a paddle. Passing beneath overhanging trees, the young hairmaid sighed with joy, watching the dappled patterns of sunshine and shade drifting by on the smooth dark green water. Oh, whoopsie doo and fiddly dee! This is the life, eh, sir? I say there, Ruff, my old stream basher, do you know any jolly songs that creatures sing when they're out boating? The otter flicked water at her with his paddle. Bless your art, Dotty. Of course I do. But they're called shanties or water ballads. Here's one you can both join in with. The chorus is very simple. Helps to keep the rhythm of the paddles going, you see. It goes like this. Ruff sang the chorus once, then launched into a deep-throated old boat song. Hey-ho, ahoy we go. Row me hearties, row, row, row. Chucklin', bubblin', life's a dream. I'm the brook that finds the stream. Hey-ho, ahoy we go. Row me hearties, row, row, row. Sun and shade and fish a-quiver. This old stream flows to the river. Hey-ho, ahoy we go, row me hearties, row, row, row. Down, mates, down and foller me, I'm the river bound to the sea. Hey-ho, ahoy we go, row me hearties, row, row, row. 
Ruff's elm tree fairly skimmed the water, with him singing the verses and his two friends roaring out the chorus like two seasoned old river beasts. The otter signaled them to stop rowing. Ship your paddles, mates. Let her run with the current. Normally a staid creature, as befits a badger lord, Brocktree was exhilarated, grinning like a divin. My, my, Ruff, I can see why you love the freedom of the waterways. It certainly is a pleasant experience. Guiding his elm-log boat with the odd paddle stroke, Ruff watched the stream ahead knowingly. Oh, it ain't so bad most seasons, but don't go getting too taken up with it, Brock. He gets the ice in winter, snow, hail, rainstorms, dry creeks, rocks, driftwood, and gales. Once you get used to that lot, then you got to face rapids, sandbanks, cross currents, and waterfalls. Aside from that, there's savage pike and eel shoals and all manner of bad-minded vermin watching the water and hunting their prey both sides of the banks. Dottie waved a paw dismissively. Oh, pish-tush, sir. It doesn't seem to bother you. Ruff pulled a tangle of line from his pack. Checking the hook and weight on it, he'd baited up with a few water shrimp left over from the hot root soup. Fish for supper, shipmates. Look here, this fat shoal of dace. Through the deep, fast-flowing stream, they glimpsed the dace, cruising through the trailing moss and weed, their olive-green backs and silver flanks shining wherever rays of sunlight pierced the water. They were fine, plump fish. Ruff trailed the line as they followed the log, keeping in its shadow. I'll just snag two of the beauties. That should do us. Hearken to me, Dottie. If you're bound to take the life of a living thing for food, then take only what you need. Life's too precious a thing to be wasted. Ain't that right, Brock? The badger nodded solemnly. Aye, that's so. A lesson every creature should learn. That evening they camped at the mouth of a small inlet and Ruff cooked the fish for them. After the long day on the stream, it was a delicious meal. Lord Brocktree sat back, cleaning his teeth with a twig. I've tasted trout and grayling, but never anything like that dace before. You must tell me how you prepared it, Ruff. Looking furtively about, the otter managed a gruff whisper. My grandma's secret recipe, tis, and if and she was here now, she'd scalp me tail with a birch rod for telling you. You needs tender new dandelion shoots wild onions and hedge parsley, oh, and two fat leeks. Chop em all up and set em o'er the fire in a little water, but don't boil em. Then when you've topped and tailed your two dace, you lays them fishes flat on a thin rock. Mix corn flour and oats with a drop of water from your vegetables and spread it o'er the fishes so they bakes with a good crunchy crust. Drain off the vegetables while they're still firm, spread em in a bed and Top the lot off with your dace. But don't you two ever breathe a word to any otter that twas me what told you the recipe. Alive or dead, old grandma'd either hunt or haunt me. Dottie began reaching for her hair cordian. Time for a jolly old ditty, eh, chaps? No beast was more relieved than Brocktree when Ruff put the blocks on the hairmaid's warbling. Best not, Missy Mate. This ain't too friendly a part of the woodlands. You'd probably attract unwelcome visitors. Best sleep now. We've got an early start in the morn. 
end of side one. To continue, turn the cassette over. Side two, Lord Brocktree by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page 42. Dottie yawned. You're right, of course. My beauty sleep. When the fire had burned to white embers, Ruff checked that Dottie was sound asleep. He shook the badger gently, cautioning him to silence. Listen, Brock, we could have sailed further today, but I chose to berth in this spot because I feel there'll be trouble further downstream. No sense in upsetting young, pretty features there. Look, I've got a plan. Here's what we'll do. I'll wake you at the crack of dawn, and the pair of us will rise nice and quiet. Then... When Ruff had outlined his scheme, Lord Brocktree nodded agreement. Then he lay down again and stared at the canopy of stars twinkling through the trees, his paw clasping the battle blade at the ready, noting every noise of flora or fauna in the forest night. 7. The night that fell over the three companions on the stream bank also lowered its shades over Salamandistron and the western shores. Silently, with furled sails, ships drifted in on the flood tide. Out of the thinning mists they slid, headed for the shore on the quiet swell. Ships upon ships upon ships, craft of every description, from single to four-masted, flat-bottomed, deep-keeled, bulky and sleek, large and small. Any creature could have walked the length of the sea, a league from north to south, by stepping from ship to ship without once wetting a paw. Then came the blue hordes of Ungat Trun from north and south, marching along the shores, the sounds of their footpaws muffled in the soft sands, in columns fifty deep and fifty long following their commanders. No war drums were seen, nor trumpets, nor any other instrument, flute, cymbal, or horn to aid the marching. Starlight glinted dully off armor, spear-tip, blade and arrowhead as they came, closing in on Salamandistron like the jaws of a giant pincer. Inscrutable masses, perfectly drilled, the ultimate machine of destruction. Flanked by two-score soldiers, Ungatron strode up to the rocky fortress, his only illumination a torch held in the paws of Grottle. The wildcat's keen eyes flicked up to the long, open rectangle of Stonepaw's room. There stood the badger lord of Salamandistron, clad in war armor, holding an enormous javelin. So, you are still here, strike dog? Ungatron called up in his savage, guttural growl. The reply was immediate. Aye, to the death, strike cat. The wildcat's fangs showed in a sneer of derision. So be it. It will be your death, not mine. Big words, Stonepaw retorted mockingly. I've already heard big words from the bad-mannered scum you sent here earlier today. They mean naught to me, the ravings of fools and idiots. Your messenger said you would make the stars fall from the sky. Look up, braggart. They are still there, and always will be. The badger's words stung the wildcat. His voice quivered with rage as he detected the laughter of hares all around. I have no more words for you, strike dog. 
Tell them, Fragoral. Like a ghost, the hooded figure materialized out of the night. These are the days of Ungatron, the fearsome beast. Know you that he always speaks truth. If he says the stars will fall from the sky, then even they must obey. Look! Grottle flung a pawful of powder on his palely burning torch. With a whoosh, it shot up a bolt of brilliant blue flame. This was the signal. Every beast of the horde on shore and every creature crowding the decks of the hovering ships immediately lighted, each one a torch they carried specially for the purpose. In the awesome scene that was revealed, land and sea, as far as the eye could gaze, was a blaze. Stiffener Medic peered up at the sky. Because of the intensity of light below, not a single star could be seen, just a wide, black void. Any creature on the reaches of Salamandastron's heights could look out and see countless myriad lights ranging out to the horizon. At another signal from Grottle, the two-score guards nearest the mountain roared out aloud, Mighty Ungatron has made the stars fall from the sky. Every hair on the mountain was stunned with shock. The seas and the whole shore were ablaze with light. It was like having day below and night above, the stars made invisible in the sky due to the powerful lights radiating upward. Grottle held a whispered conference with Ungat, and the wildcat nodded before speaking out. His voice echoed off the mountain in the awe-struck silence. I see you have no scornful comments to make, Strike Dog. You have witnessed the power of Ungat Trun. My blue hordes will camp here on your doorstep. When dawn comes, you will feel the earth shake. You have left it too late to retreat from the mountain, as I commanded you to do. Now you must reap the penalty. Then, turning his back on Lord Stonepaw, the wildcat marched off back to his ship. The badger lord watched as the torches turned into campfires. Bramwell, the oldest hare on the mountain, came shakily forward to clutch the badger's paw, his voice trembling like a reed in the wind. Lord, I would not have believed it had I not seen it with these old eyes. What can we do against one who is truly magic? Stonepaw patted Bramwell's stooped back gently. That was no magic, my friend. It was only a very clever trick, an illusion. But the reality of all those lights is a fearful thing, for it shows the extent of Trun's army. Troby, your eyes are still useful. Could you have counted the number of torches out there? Troby shook his head vigorously. You must be jesting, sir. No beast alive could do that. Stiffener's comment confirmed Stonepaw's worst fears. Aye, and every one of those torches was held by a vermin soldier. It is hard to imagine such an army. Stonepaw stared out at the campfires, burning holes into the night, both near and far. No doubt you all heard what the wildcat had to say. We've left it too late to retreat. Silently the hares pondered the enormity of what their lord had said. But the feeling of doom was broken when Stiffener Medic spoke out boldly. So, 
What do we do? Stand around here waiting to be conquered and slain? Not this hair, no sir. Chin in, chest out, stiffen the old lip and stand firm. Maybe that scum can make stars fall and earth tremble, but let's see him crack a mountain with us to defend it. Lord Stonepaw's eyes lit up with a flame of battle. Stiffener, gather my hairs at every ledge and window. Let's show the vermin what we think of them. Ungat Trun came hurrying from his stateroom cabin, his defiant roaring from Salamandistron ripped through the night stillness. Eulalia! 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 Grottle hobbled behind his master and spat contemptuously into the sea. Fools! Do they think they can scare us with their battle cries? Ungatron did not even deign to look at the shrunken fox. No, they don't mean to scare us, but they're letting us know that they aren't scared either. That's called courage, Grottle, but you wouldn't understand it. If those hairs were enough in number to match us one to one, then I'd be scared. Dawn arrived, pale washed, though in less than an hour it had blossomed into a beautiful late spring day, showing the promise of a good summer. Lord Stonepaw had witnessed the day's arrival. He had scarcely slept throughout the night. Now, sitting on the edge of his bed in a warm shaft of sunlight, he fell into a doze. Blench, the cook, shook him gently. Wake up, sire. Those villains are waiting to see you outside on the shore. I brought you a bite of breakfast. Stonepaw opened his eyes slowly and winced. Oh, don't ever fall asleep wearing armor, Blench. It feels like waking up in a cooking pot. I suppose that wildcat villain is showing off his army at our gates. Blench placed the tray of food at his side. Aye, there's all manner of blue-dyed vermin parading up and down on the beach, in full fig, too. Mercy me, they're a strange lot. Do you think they're about to start the war? The badger lord chose a warm, damson muffin and poured himself a beaker of dandelion and rosehip tea. More than likely, Blench, more than likely. Hmm. I feel peckish this morning. Let them wait until I've broken my fast. Did you bring any honey? Right there under your muzzle, Lord. Stonepaw spread honey on his muffin. You run along now, Marm, and see that my hairs get fed. As she withdrew, Blanche chuckled. Fat chance of any salamandestron hair going into battle on an empty belly. Did you ever hear of such a thing? Ungat Trun stood on a rock, Grottle and his grand fragoral alongside him, and looked around the western shores. Nodding his satisfaction, he turned to the fox and the ferret. Can you see the sand? Fragoral shook her hooded head. No, mightiness, only the blue hordes. They are in such great numbers that no beast could see the sand they stand upon. They are even shoulder to shoulder in the shallows. Ungat fixed his stern eye upon the shrunken fox. Another trick you've missed, eh, Grottle? The magician cringed as he shook his head in bewilderment. 
Sire? Ungat Trun's paw swept across, indicating the scene. Not only can I make the stars fall, but I can also cause the land to disappear. Use your head, stupid. Thinking to divert his master's wrath, Grottle pointed to the mountain. But the striped dog shows his insolence by not bothering to appear and witness your power, O oh exalted one. That is a mere ploy which the commanders of armies use upon one another, Ungatron replied scornfully. He thinks to fray my temper by keeping me waiting. Have you no brains at all? I should have slain you with the rest of your family, eh, Grottle? Lowering his head, the fox mumbled humbly, I thank you for sparing my life every day since, sire. Ungat smiled dispassionately at the fox's bowed head. I think I must have damaged your brain when I crippled your back. Ha! There's the striped dog at his window. Turning his attention to the mountain, the wildcat did not see the hate-laden glance which Grottle shot at him. Lord Stonepaw and a dozen archers looked down from the window, showing no surprise at the masses of vermin crowding the shores. A fine day to die, eh, striped dog? Ungat Trun called. The badgers smiled down in a patronizing way. So soon, cat? I thought you were going to make the earth tremble. Could you not spare us long enough to see your next trick? At a nod from Ungat, the Fregorl held a red banner high and announced aloud, Let the enemies of Ungat Trun feel the earth tremble! The entire army began to jump up and down in perfect unison, chanting as they did, Ungat Trun! Ungat Trun! Ungat Trun! As Fregorl waved her banner, they increased their speed, jumping in the air and landing hard on the sand, their chant becoming a roar, the noise of countless footpaws stamping down becoming greater. Water splashed high on the tide line, and clouds of sand began rising as they continued their relentless pounding. Though he could scarcely be heard above the din, the hare named Bungworthy funneled both paws around his mouth and shouted at Stonepaw, Look, Lord! The earth is shaking, see? Great ripples are spreading seaward. The shore is shaking where they jump. Great seasons, the earth is shaking. It's shaking. As suddenly as it had started, the demonstration stopped. Ungat Trun stood smiling grimly up at Stonepaw as the sand clouds settled and the ripples receded. Well, striped dog. Did you feel the earth shake? Did I not speak truly? Throw down your arms and come out! Ungat climbed down from his rock perch and stood at the head of his army, confident he had made his point. Lord Stonepaw merely grunted. Ha! You might have felt the earth tremble, cat, but Salamandastron remained rock firm. We didn't feel a thing. Now let me show you something. Stonepaw hurled his big war javelin right at his foe. The ranks closed around the wildcat. A rat, transfixed, fell dead, another behind him sorely wounded. 
No matter how fearsome the foe or how great their numbers, when it came to fighting, badger lords were renowned. Old as he was, the present ruler was no exception. Lord Stonepaw of Salamandistron had begun the war. Fleet's cut was close to total exhaustion. The old hare had not stopped since he left the mountain. Ranging east to begin with, then sweeping back west in a great arc, he searched hills, flatlands, valleys, and clifftops, finally arriving back on the shores somewhere north of Salamandistron. Slumping down on the beach, he waited until his breathing calmed a bit before unslinging a small pack and drinking some cold mint tea. Like an angry wasp, a barbed arrow buzzed by the hare, nicking his ear and burying itself in the sand. A small patrol, ten rats, from the great blue hordes emerged from the dunes behind Fleet's Cut. Stop there! Move and you die! their officer shouted. With blood trickling from his ear onto his jaw, Fleet's Cut took off as only a hare can, galvanized back to his former self as he sought to lose his pursuers but the rats were hard on his paws as he led them on a twisting course around the shore and back into the dunes. With his footpaws sinking deep into the soft sand hills, Fleet's cut panted raggedly, strong sunlight beating down on him as he breasted one dune and rolled down it to face another. He wished with all his heart that he were many seasons younger. He could have drawn circles around the rat patrol when he was a leveret. Every so often, arrows zipped into the sand alongside him. Once, a spear almost pierced his footpaw. Fleet's cut kept going. He knew that a moving target was the hardest to hit. Now, as he turned inland, the dunes gave way to hummocks and hillocks, coated with sharp, long-bladed grass. He tripped over a blackberry creeper, leaping up as best he could, ignoring the scratches the thorns had inflicted on him but he could hear the labored breathing of the ten rats getting closer. Fan out and circle him! Lame him if you can! Their leader rasped out. Straining as though his lungs would burst, Fleet's Cut managed an extra turn of speed, dashing headlong to outdistance the flanking maneuver. A small grove of pines appeared up ahead, seeming to offer a hiding place. But one rat, faster than the rest, detached himself from the flankers and went directly after the hare. No matter how hard he ran, Fleet's Cut could not prevent the rat closing up on him. Now he was not more than ten paces behind. Chancing a backward glance, Fleet's Cut saw the rat preparing his spear for a throw. Then his footpaws hit thick beds of pine needles as he dived headlong into the grove, the spear thudding into a pine trunk a fraction to his side. Next moment, there was the sound of a meaty thud. The rat fell poleaxed, his scream cut short by a slingshot. Up with thy paws, olden! Quick! Without thinking, Fleet's Cut rolled over and threw up his paws. A thick, woven net enveloped him, and he grabbed tight as he was swung off his back into the branches above. A big, rough-looking female squirrel with a loaded sling dangling from one paw winked at him. Don't thee say a word now, Long Ears. Be still! Sighting the rats entering the fir grove, she glared fiercely about her at forty-odd squirrels, similarly armed, concealed in the upper branches. Take no prisoners. To the dark forest with them all. Whack! Thwack! Thock! Thud! In less time than it took to draw breath, 
The rat column was slain to a beast, strewn about the bottom of the pines, some of them with their eyes still wide open in surprise. Leaving Fleet Scott still caught up in the net, the squirrel and her band leapt down onto the corpses, stripping every scrap of armor and every weapon from them. Squabbles broke out over the ownership of possessions, and there was much tooth-bearing. I sighted yon sword first. Give it here. Nah, tis mine, not thine. I slew the long tail. The big female squirrel was among them like a whirlwind, sending argumentative ones winded to the earth as she clubbed their stomachs savagely with her loaded sling. I say who gets what. Up on thy paws, battle, or I'll give you more than just a love tap next time. One young male muttered something, and she laid him flat with a tremendous smack. They've been told about using language like that, Grood. Can you not see we've got company? Behave now, all of ye. Fleetscut strove to disentangle himself from the net. Stop me! Any bloomin' chance of getting out of this, you chaps? Lay the paw here, he called down. The female squirrel and two equally big males bounded up and lowered the net expertly to the earth, where the others soon had fleets cut free. Somersaulting neatly out of the tree, the big female landed lightly on her footpaws. Fleet's cut bowed gravely to her. Thanks for saving my life, marm. She examined a dead rat's bow and arrows. Twasn't to save thy life we dropped them. Weapons and plunder, that's why we slew the long tails. I'm called Juka, the sling, and these are my tribe. Be you from the mountain south of here? The hare nodded. Aye, my name's Fleetscott. Juka sat, her tail brush against a pine trunk. You've got big trouble o'er there, Fleetscott. We've been watching blue vermin marching down coast for days, all headed for thy mountain. Fleetscott crouched down, facing her. That's only a third of them, Juka Marm. There's as many must have come up from the south and another horde from the sea. Great fleet of the blighters. Juka watched her band dragging the rats off for burial. Old Badger'll have his paws full. They'll massacre him. Hairs on yon mount be as old as thee. My young'uns are long gone from there. Fleetscut was mildly surprised at Juka's intelligence. You seem to know rather a lot about Salamandastron. The squirrel wound her sling around her tail tip. Tis my business to know what goes on hither and yon. Only a fool would live a lifetime in these parts and know naught of them. Did ye escape the mountain, Fleet's Cut? The old hare shook his head sadly. No, I was sent out by Lord Stonepaw to scout up reinforcements. But there ain't a bally hare around here any more. Don't suppose you'd fancy helping us out, Marm? Juca tossed a slingstone deftly from one paw to the other. Nay, not I, nor my tribe. E'en though I pity thy plight, friend. Other creatures' troubles are their own, not ours. But that doesn't mean we don't show hospitality to guests. They must be weary and hungered, too. Come rest a while and sup with us. Thou art too tired to go further, friend. Fleetscott heaved a sigh as he rose stiffly. Sorry, marm, but I have to travel on, what? Can't let the jolly old side down by taking time off. He accepted Juka's paw, and she smiled wryly at him. Fare thee well, olden. Fortune attend thy search. 
Aye, and good luck to you, Juke of the Sling. Let me know if you change your mind. You've got a perilous tribe there. Good warriors all. Juca watched Fleet's Cut lope off through the pine grove. Huh. Brave and foolish, like all hares. What say you, Grood? The young squirrel muttered half to himself, half to Juca. She whacked him soundly across both ears. He'd been told about that language. I'll scrub thy mouth out with sand and ramsons, if there be any more of it. 8. At the inlet camp, dawn was already well advanced, and dewdrops glistened on the blossoms of hemlock, marshwort, and angelica. From upstream, the constant call of a cuckoo roused Dottie from sleep. She lay there for a moment, expecting her nostrils to be assailed by the odors of wood smoke and cooking. However, the hairmaid was disappointed. Apart from the monotonous cuckoo noise, the little camp was quiet and ominously still. Rising cautiously, she checked around. The elm tree trunk lay moored in the shallows, but of her two friends, there was no sign. Taking care not to raise her voice too much, Dottie hailed her companions. I say, rock trees, uh, rough, are you there? A rustle from some bushes caused her to turn, smiling. Come on out, you chaps. I know you. Yeek! As she leaned into the shrubbery, a big blackbird burst from it, the bird's wings striking her face as it flew off. Dottie decided then to be stern with her fellow travelers. Now see here, you two. A joke's a joke and all that, but I've had about enough. Show yourselves front and center, please, right now. But the only answer she received was the cuckoo calling, Cuckoo! 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 Dottie flung a twig irately in its direction. Oh, shut your blistering beak, you valley nuisance! She decided that Brocktree and Ruff had gone out foraging for breakfast. Muttering darkly to herself, the hairmaid sat on the bank, munching a stale barley scone and an apple she had dug from her bag. The warming sunlight did nothing to raise her spirits. She felt deserted and alone. Huh! Rotten old Brocko and Slyboots Ruff, sneaking off just cause a gal's got to have her beauty sleep. What? Bet they've found a patch of juicy berries or something, probably sitting there stuffing their great fat faces. She pictured the otter and the badger doing just that and began imitating their voices in conversation. Har! Step me rudder and swoggle me barnacles, matey these berries his prime vittles. Shall we save some and take them back to camp for the young'un? Ha! Huh. Don't talk silly, Ruff. Let the lazy whippersnapper find her own berries. That's the trouble with young'uns these days. Want everything done for em. She was working herself up into a fine old temper when she noticed something on the flat top of the elm boat. It was a crude sketch done with a piece of burnt wood from last night's fire. There was an arrow pointing downstream and a depiction of herself sitting on the boat. By a sharp bend in the stream, Ruff and Brocktree were drawn, apparently waiting for her. Also, there was some sketchy writing, obviously Ruff's. See you at noon. The hairmaid studied it, still chunnering to herself. See me at noon where the stream bends, eh? Well, how flippin' nice to let a body know, blinkin' deserters. Cha! Is that supposed to be a picture of me? Just look at those miserable ears. Mine are a jolly sight prettier than that, what? Hmph. No wonder that otter's folks chucked him out. His spelling's dreadful. 
She found the burnt stick and corrected it all to her satisfaction, drawing a huge stomach on Ruff and an ugly drooping snout on the badger lord. Finally, after adding many touches to make the likeness of herself more beautiful, Dottie gave Ruff a black mark for his spelling. Feeling much better, she tossed the charcoal away. Right-o, young Herr Miguel. Time you commanded your own vessel, what-what. After one or two minor setbacks, Dottie found the going fairly simple. The stream was straight and smooth enough, and she soon got the knack of keeping the log in midstream and sailing on course. The hair maid never tired of holding conversations with herself, for who better was there to talk with, she reasoned. I say, I've just thought of a wheeze. I'll paddle right past those two, leave them on the blinkin' bank. What ho! I'll shout to them, Keep the jolly old paws pounding. The exercise will do you the world of good, chaps. Put yourselves about a bit. That's the ticket. Find lots of super grub, and I may consider letting you back aboard. Bye-bye now. She giggled aloud at the picture she conjured up and continued her conversation. Yes, I think I'd make a good captain, or a captainess, maybe. Wish I could play my hair cordy in a while. Pity I've got to keep hold of this confounded paddle. Never mind. I'll just have to sing unaccompanied. Think I'll compose one of those shanty-type things, like these watery types are always caterwauling as they sail along. Here goes. She broke out into a ditty which caused nearby birds to abandon their nests, chicks and all. Whomping along with a waffle-de-ho, as down the stream I jolly well go, shouting, lower your rudder and furl that log. There's nothing on land like a sea-going frog. So oar that paddle and paddle that oar. Listen, me hearties, I'll sing you some more. I'm a beautiful hare what lives on the river. In winter I sweat, and in summer I shiver. I don't need no badger or otter for crew. I'm cook, and I'm paddler, and captainess too. So mainsail me gizzards until we reach shore. Listen, me hearties, I'll sing you some more. You don't mess with Dottie, that old river beast. I'm grizzled and fearsome, and that ain't the least. So swoggle me scuppers, ten dozen I've slew. I'm a jolly young creature, and quite pretty, too. So mizzen me muzzle and mop the boat's floor. I'm sorry, me hearties, I don't know no more. Beg pardon about the grammar, of course, she commented to a water beetle swimming alongside. Dreadful terms us nautical types use, you know. I'll work on it, I promise, what? Er, let's see. Strangle me binnacle? No, that doesn't sound right. How about boggle me bowsprit? Rather, that sounds much better. Away down the stream, Dottie paddled, composing more horrible lyrics from her store of seagoing knowledge. So boggle me bowsprit, mate, just one word more, and I'll give ye a whack with the back of me paw. She backed water with her paddle to slow the log down, for a creature had appeared on the bank. He was an enormously fat, scruffy weasel with a runny snout and the better part of that morning's breakfast evident on the filthy tunic he wore. He was hanging on to a thick vine rope which trailed upward and was lost among the trees above. Spitting into the stream, he eyed Dottie nastily and uttered one word. More! The hairmaid smiled politely at him. Beg pardon? What was that you said, old chap? He thrust his chin out belligerently at her. More, I said, more. So then, are you going to give me a whack with the back of your paw? 
Just you try it, rabbit. The hairmaid sighed, rolling her eyes upward as if for help. If you washed your face this morning, then you missed out cleaning your eyes, sir. I am not a rabbit. I'm a hare, you know. As for swiping chaps with paws, it didn't apply to you. It was merely a ditty I was singing. The weasel spat into the stream again. You said that if and I said one word more, you'd give me a whack with the back of your paw. So I said one word more. More. Dotty eyed him disdainfully. Her mother had warned her about creatures who used aggressive language and spat a lot. There was only one way to treat such beasts, with disdain. Accordingly, she stared regally down her nose at him. Disgusting habit, spitting. And let me tell you, my good vermin, this stream level won't rise a fraction no matter how much you continue to spit in it. Good day. As she sailed by him, the weasel roared out, Boat ahoy! She waggled her ears at him, a sign of contempt often used by well-bred hairmaids. Of course it's a boat, you benighted buffoon. What did you suppose it was, a tea trolley? The weasel signaled to the opposite bank, where another similarly fat and untidy weasel appeared. He, too, was hanging on to a vine rope and was in the habit of spitting into the stream. He leered at Dottie as she sailed by. Think you're tough, don't you? We'll see. Both weasels let go their ropes, and a log came crashing out of the trees above. It splashed sideways into the water, blocking off the stream behind Dottie's boat. The hairmaid knew she was in trouble and paddled furiously to get away from the revolting pair. Unfortunately, she had not gone more than a dozen boat lengths when another log came hurtling downward into the stream. Now she was blocked in fore and aft. Dottie controlled her craft as the prow bucked slightly on the bow waves set up by the falling trunk. She watched in apprehension while two more weasels emerged from the bushes. These were females, even bigger, fatter, and more repulsive than the two males who came shambling up to join them. Dottie sat primly on her vessel. She knew that reasoning with such blackguards was likely to be useless, but she decided to give it a try. Good morning to you, ladies. I trust I find you well, what? One of the females spat in the stream. Ooh, listen to her, will you? She called us ladies, la-dee-da. Her male companion scratched his head with a grimy claw. I ain't no lady, and she was gonna whack me with the back of her paw. Immediately things got nasty. The other female produced a rusty wood saw and began wading out toward Dottie. Oh, did she now? Well, I'll leave me mark on her for that. Dottie stood up, wielding her paddle warningly. Stay away from me, marm. I'm beautiful, but I'm dangerous. Lunging forward, the weasel grabbed her victim's footpaw. Ha! You won't be pretty no more when I'm done with you. Whack! The hairmaid brought the paddle down hard between her opponent's ears. Making a horrendous din, the weasel flopped back to the bank. Ow, 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 murder! I'm killed, me poor skull splitted in twenty places, yarg! There's blood everywhere, I'm killed, murdered, slayed, I tell you, yeek! Dottie could see she had raised a bump on the weasel's head, but there was no sign of blood. 
Oh, stop moaning, you great fat fraud. There's nothing wrong with you apart from a bump on the noggin. I wasn't about to let you come at me with that big rusty wood saw. The other weasel, who was hauling his injured comrade out of the water, let her fall back in with a splash. He clapped both paws over his mouth. Oh, oh, did you hear that? She called Ermie fat. She's an insulter as well as a murderer. The other male sniffed and wiped a paw across his eyes, looking ready to burst into tears. You had no need to hit Ermie like that, and you got no right to call her fat. We'll punish her when you come ashore. Dottie brandished her weapon. Not while I've got this paddle, you won't. Now pull that log out the way and let me by. The weasel stuck out his bottom lip and scuffed the soil with a footpaw. Won't. Dottie splashed the water with her paddle and glared fiercely. Oh, yes, you will. Won't. The female Ermy set up a fresh wail. Yah! Ha, ha. I told you we should have sneaked up just after dawn and killed her after the badger and otter runned away. Now look at me, dying away. Wah, ha, ha. Brocktree and Ruff stepped out of the woodlands, both trying hard not to smile. The badger pointed a warning paw across at Ermy. Stop that blubbering before I give you something to cry for. She lapsed into instant silence. Ruff shook his head at her. Good job you never tried to ambush Dottie after dawn. We were watching you from the trees. Brocktree pointed to the log barrier blocking the way downstream. Haul on your ropes and raise that thing. He unsheathed his battle blade. Now! Dottie had never seen four overweight weasels move so fast. Puffing and blowing in between sobs of distress, they hauled the log back up, whining continuously. Oh, spare us, sire. We never met her no harm. No, you never mean harm to any creature brave enough to stand up to you. I never liked bullies. Now hang on tight to those ropes and hold out your left foot paws. Be quick about it. Wah, you ain't gonna chop em off, are you, sire? We won't never bully no more travelers. Don't hurt us. Ruff knotted the free end of their rope tight around the footpaws of the nearest pair, then swam across to perform the same office for Ermie and her companion. Bless your filthy arts. Course we won't hurt ye. Left? Left, the beast said. That's your right. When they were securely tied, Brocktree barked out an order. Let go of those ropes now. As the four weasels released their hold, the logs started to fall back toward the stream jerking the vermin off their footpaws and slowing suddenly as it was counterbalanced by their weight. With yelps of alarm, they were raised upside down with their left footpaws bound securely to the ropes. Equilibrium found all four dangling alongside the log in midstream, just above Dottie's head. The hair made winced as Ermie's wailing rang out close to her ear. Yah ha ha don't leave me here hanging upside down with a big lump on me head. I beg you. Wah ha Placing her wet paddle blade over the lump, Dottie soothed the unhappy vermin. Hush now, my dear, crying won't make it better. Here, I'll flatten it for you. Hold still, please. Dottie whacked the paddle forcefully with her paw and flattened the bump completely. 
She also stunned Ermy, much to every beast's relief. Brocktree and Ruff had climbed aboard, and now they sailed on downstream, with Dottie admonishing them. I'm surprised at you, Ruff, deserting me like that, what? But as for you, sir, it comes as no surprise, let me tell you. I was beset by villains once before, as I recall, while you hid behind a tree until I was overcome. This is the second time you've left me to it now. Bad form, sir, bad form. I thought you Brocktree types were made of sterner stuff. Seems I was wrong, though, what, what? Brocktree dangled his footpaws in the stream flow, nodding. I can understand how you feel, miss, but we had our reasons. We didn't want to confront them until you learned a little object lesson, which you did wonderfully. What do you think, Ruff? The big otter saluted Dottie with a swirl of his tail. I was proud of you, missy mate. You never showed any fear. You stood up to him. That's the only way to deal with bullies. Inwardly, Dottie glowed happily at her friend's remarks, but she was still a bit peeved, and she let them know. Yes, all very nice, thank you, but that's not the point. One of those weasels had rushed me. I wouldn't have stood much blinking chance against four of them, not to mention that awful rusty saw. I shudder to think what they might have done to me if anything had gone wrong with your timing. Ruff winked roguishly at his indignant young companion. Ha-ha! You had no cause to worry. We were watching you every bit of the way. There was never any real danger. You see, I knows this stream and those vermin, too. They're not but bad old blusterers. I've seen them back off from a bad-tempered frog. But if and you didn't know that, and you were a bit faint-hearted, the looks and the size of those four nasty lumps might have scared you into surrendering to them. But you taught those baddies a lesson, Dottie. Brocktree chuckled dryly. I'll say you did, young'un. A born perilous hare you are. Dottie was about to make some frosty rebuke when Ruff caught sight of the sketch and message he had so painstakingly written out on the log. Boy, that ain't the way I drew it. Dottie fluttered her sweetest smile at him. It was far too crude. I altered it a teensy bit. Suddenly it was the otter's turn for indignation. You cheeky little tailwag. Look at the great fat belly you've drawn on me. I look like a stuffed stoat. Brocktree's booming laughter echoed off the banks. Ho, 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 ho. Well done, miss. Ha, ha, ha. A stuffed stoat, eh? Oh, come on, rough. Where's your sense of humor? The otter looked him straight in the eye. Same place as yours'll be when you see what she's done to your picture, my lord. The badger put aside his paddle and leaned across to view Dottie's artwork. She covered both ears as he exploded. You foul little fur-covered grub scoffer! I haven't got a wobbly, fat, drooping nose like that! How dare you, miss! For answer, Dottie leapt to her paws, waving her paddle about. Back, I say! Back! Droopy nose and fatty gut! You know that I'm a blistering, perilous beast, and know no fear! Ruff went into a pretty fair imitation of the weasel Ermy. Ow, ow, ow! I beg you, don't arm us, Miss Floppy Ears! The situation was so funny that the three friends fell about laughing until tears streamed from their eyes. A deep, gruff voice hailed them from the south bank. Yer, I do likes to ear arpy creatures, particularly in the springtime. What be you larfin' about, Zer Ruffo? 
Wiping moisture from her eyes, Dottie saw the mole more clearly. He was a stout, dapper-looking creature, wearing a green smock embroidered with daisies and buttercups, and sporting a bright orange kingfisher feather in his tall, mushroom-shaped cap. Clutched in his paw was a ladle, almost as long as a traveling staff. He had the friendliest of smiles, exposing lots of milky white teeth. Ruff evidently knew the mole. He waved his tail at him as he steered the log to shore. Sink me, rudder. Tis rog long ladle. How's your snout twitching, mate? It must be four seasons since I clapped eyes on you. Well, this is an happy day. Bounding ashore, Ruff embraced Rog's stout form heartily. Still smiling, the mole protested. Er, let oi go, e girt lump, increasing moy smock. The otter called his friends onto the bank. Brock, Dottie, come here, mates. I want you to meet my pal Rog, the best cook on this or any other stream, and the smartest turned-out mole on or under the earth. Rog doffed his hat gallantly, bowing his velvety head. Good day to ee, sir and miss. Nice to meet ee, I'm sure. Dottie let lightly ashore and curtsied nicely. Bo er, good day to ee, sir, Rog. Stand on my tunnel, but you an handsome girt beast, her eye. Rog threw up his big digging claws in surprise. Burr. You spaky mole speak very good, miss. Where did he learn it? Dottie answered in the quaint mole dialect. My old mom's mole chum, Blossom Bun. She tautin' it to oi when oi were a hinfant, or I. Ruff shrugged helplessly at Brocktree. Just listen to those two going at it. I could always understand mole speak, though I never learnt to speak it. Me neither, Brocktree said as they followed in the wake of the chattering hairmaid and mole. Er, blossom bun, do he say, Miss? Sheem bees my hanty, twice removed on my grandmum's side. How sheem a doin'? Brr, old blossom bees brisker in a bumblebee and lively as he bucket of froggers, zur. Rog Long Ladle's dwelling was a marvelous cavern beneath the roots of a great beech. Lord Brocktree gazed about wistfully. This place puts me in mind of my old home, Brock Hall. Very much so. Hmm. Don't suppose I'll ever see it again. Ruff patted the badger's broad back. Same as me and Dottie. Don't be sad, mate. We're good friends and both with you. Amid the alcoves of thick, down-growing roots, Dottie sat herself in a comfortable old armchair. Moles kept scurrying by to introduce themselves to the hare who could speak their dialect. "'Oi be grand for club, miss, and this year's moy old dairy grandma Dumbrel. You'll stay and take vittles with us, and I hopes, miss.' Dottie shook all the outstretched paws as more came by. Thank you, Zer Club. I'd be girtly pleased to, or I. Ruff and Brocktree seated themselves on a thickly moss-grown ledge where they were inspected by some tiny young moles. The smallest of them had a voice like a bass foghorn. Good day to ee, Zers. My name be's Trouble. I can see that. You look like Trouble. Her, her. 
Boy, Mum always says that. What sort of mole bees you, sir? I bain't never seed one with a girt stoipy ed like yourn. Oh, I'm called a badger mole, and ruffs an otter mole. Hmm. He must be eating girt bowlfuls of puddin' to grow big like ye are. How did he get so girt? Ruff winked at the badger and replied, Keepin' clean, my little mate, that's how. We get scrubbed five times every day, and that's why we grow big. Trouble wrinkled his baby snout at the other small moles. Whirr! Reckons all stay lickle then. Rog appeared, dabbing at his brow with a dock leaf which he used to shoo the moles off with. Grr, be often with thee trouble. Gurlo, Burkle, Plug, you uns leave gentle beast to rest a while. Come and help oi in the kitchen if any wants vittles to be ready sooner. Her, and be washing any paws first. Left to themselves, the three travelers took their ease. Rock tree and rough stretching out on the mossy ledge. Dottie sprawled comfortably in the armchair, letting tempting aromas from the kitchen hover about her. Through half-closed eyes she took in the homely cavern. Lanterns of varying hues hung everywhere. Shelves and cupboards were carved neatly into the rocks and heavy tree roots. The floors were strewn with woven rush mats, and two black and orange-banded sexton beetles dozed close to the embers on the hearth. Household pets, used by the moles to keep the cavern free of crumbs and other morsels which the babes left about. Before Dottie's eyes finally closed, she sighed. What a pleasant place. A real home. 9. It was sometime in the late evening when Fleetscott collapsed. A combination of overwhelming fatigue, thirst, and hours of strong sunlight, together with the fact that the old hare had run without stopping for almost two days, brought him down. Head hanging, paws dragging, he tottered about on the open flatlands like a beast driven crazy. He did not realize he had fallen at first. Fleetscott lay on the rough ground, the tongue hanging dry from his mouth, footpaws still moving in a running action, kicking up small dust clouds. In his delirium, he squinted at a rock, imagining it was Lord Stonepaw gazing sternly at him. Sire, there ain't a hare nowheres to be found, he croaked feebly. I tried. I did my best for you. But alas, Lord, the young hares are gone from the land. Fleetscut's eyes glazed over and he fell back senseless. From a rocky outcrop, a crow had been watching the old hare, waiting. Now it flew forward, cautiously at first, using rocks as cover. On reaching the fallen hare, it pecked lightly at his ear. He did not stir. Emboldened by this, the crow swaggered and strutted around Fleet's cut, weighing up its prey. At the very moment the crow decided to start pecking at the hare's eyes, a slingstone knocked the talons from under it. Squawking angrily, the hefty blackbird took awkwardly to the air and flapped off, sent on its way by another stone, narrowly missing its wingtip. The young squirrel Bettle and five companions hurried to Fleet's cut side and ministered to him. Just drip the water on his tongue, not too fast. Poor fool, 
Juca said he'd not get far. Look at his paws. Aye, they'd be torn badly. Hast any herbs in thy bag, Ruro? The squirrel Ruro emptied out the bag. Sanicle, dock leaves, and moss. Here, let me attend him. Pouring water on the ingredients, she made compresses. He be lucky Juca sent us after him. Bettle, can thee make up a stretcher? Bettle set about removing his tunic. He slotted two spears down the sleeves, calling out to the youngest of the party, Grood, I'll need thy tunic. Give it here. Reluctantly, Grood removed the garment. Bettle eyed him fiercely. Watch thy tongue, young'un, or thine ears will get boxed twice, once by me and once by Juca Sling. Moonlight shafted pale through the pines. A small fire encased within a rock oven sent out a welcome ruddy glow. Fleetscott became aware of creatures hovering over him. Squirrels. One of them called out softly. He be right, Juca. He lives. Juca the sling's tough features hove into view. Most creatures of long seasons will be dead after putting themselves through such a trial. Fleetscott's tongue moistened his lips his voice, when it came, sounding cracked and hoarse. When I go, it'll be with a weapon in me paw fighting. Till then, I'll just hang about and annoy you, friend. Juca chuckled. What's that they say on yon mountain? Thou art a perilous creature. Rest now, long ears. Drink some soup and sleep. We'll talk on the morrow. Rest was the last thought on Fleetscott's mind. But no sooner had he drunk half a beaker of mushroom soup than the vessel slipped from his paws and he went into a deep slumber. Morning and noontide came and passed, and it was evening when Fleetscut wakened. How do thy paws feel? Sore, I'll wager. The old hare struggled to a sitting position, allowing Ruro to change the dressings. Just bandage them tight so I can run on them, marm. Ruro shook her head at the defiant old hare. Nay, thou art going nowhere. Juca Sling would have words with thee. Rest and eat something. Fleetscut tried to get up onto his paws, but collapsed, wincing from the pain. Where is Juca? Bettle brought food and placed it before the hare. She'll be back by dark a night. You must wait. Juca will have news of thy mountain. What has taken place there? Come. Be not foolish. You must eat to live. Fleetscut picked up a potato and hazelnut pasty. So be it, old lad. But tis you who are foolish, inviting a hare to eat. Is that a carrot flan I see? When he had satisfied his hunger and thirst, Fleetscut lay back and fell into a doze. Bettle sat wide-eyed. Struth! Did you ever see a creature eat like that in all thy born days? Ruro removed the empty platters, shaking her head. And still he be skinny as a willow wise. Would that I could pack away vittles like that and stay lean as he. Midnight had long gone when Juca the Sling arrived back at the pines. She sat panting and sipping at a flask of elderberry wine. Our hare sleeps yet, eh? Ruro fed the fire with a dead pine log. He wakened earlier, ate like a mad beast, and fell asleep again. Shall I wake him? The squirrel leader put aside her wine. Nay, let him sleep on. There's naught but bad news to hear when he wakens. 
The mountain of Salamandastron has fallen, then? Juca warmed her paws by the fire. A chill breeze was blowing in from the seas. Aye, it is conquered by the blue ones. I could not get too near, but I saw from a distance some vermin scaling the slopes. They carried large new banners to put up there. Tis a sad day for these western coasts, Ruro. Bettle crouched nearby, preparing Juca's meal. Mayhap we should have helped the old one, Juca. Thou art a fool if that's what thee think, Bettle. We'd be naught but slain carcasses rolling in the tide shallows now, had we gone up against such a force. Yon badger lord and his hares were brave, mad beasts. They did what they had to, but twas a foregone conclusion. Spots of rain that had found their way through the pine canopy roused Fleetscott in the dawn hour. Juca was awake also, sitting watching him, cloaked in a blanket. Turning her back on the old hare, she raked ash from the fire embers and brought it to crackling life by feeding broken pine branches into the rock oven. Fleetscott's voice hit her back like a whip. Tell me, what has happened to my mountain? Speak! Juca did not turn, but she gave him his answer. By the time the entire squirrel camp was up and about, Fleetscott had hauled himself upright and stood supporting himself against a pine trunk, a plate of food lying at his footpaw, untouched. Juca still sat watching him. There was naught any beast could have done, Fleetscott. Come now, eat. I hear tell that thou art a beast with great appetite. A kick from the hare's footpaw sent the plate flying. His eyes were like stone, his voice dripping contempt. I don't eat with cowards. Juca sprang up, a loaded sling automatically in her paw. No beast calls Juca the sling a coward. The old hare tore his tunic open, exposing his scrawny chest. Then kill me, Juca. Go on, kill me. One old hare shouldn't be too difficult for a warrior like you, what? Slay me and see how long you and your band can hide out in this pine grove until Ungat Trun's blue hordes find you all. Then you'll wish you'd help to fight against him and save Salamandistron. Thrack! Juca's slingstone clipped off a branch a hair's breadth from Fleetscut's head and whirred off among the trees. The squirrel stood before him, her wild eyes blazing. Any other beast would have been dead by now, Hare. But I'll prove to thee that me and mine aren't cowards. We'll go with thee on thy search, aye, and carry ye if needs be. I'll help ye build an army, hares or any creature crazy enough to go against the hordes on yonder mountain. Then we'll fight them, us for the taking of weapons, which we value so highly, and thou for thy vengeance on the foes who slew thy brothers. I, Juca the Sling, do not do this out of comradeship for ye. War is a business. I do it for profit, for all the weapons my tribe may plunder if victory is ours. Hare and Squirrel stood face to face, their wrathful eyes searing one another. Fleetscut curled his lips scornfully. Do it for whatever reason you like, Brushtail, but do it! Juca was trembling all over with rage. Ho, oh, ho! I'll do it! Never fret about that long ears, she growled. Once Juca the Sling gives her word, thou canst stake thy life on it. 
Fleetscut turned his back on the squirrel and began hobbling off, calling back over his shoulder. Well, you won't get it done standing round making blooming speeches all day. Actions speak louder than words, don't you know? In total, Juca's tribe numbered fifty able-bodied creatures and a dozen who were either too young or too old to serve her purpose. She left eight of the warriors with these twelve, and the other forty-three, counting herself, were ready to march within the hour, each of them armed and provisioned. Ruro caught up with Fleetscut, who was limping ahead near the pine grove's edge. Hold up, friend! My tribe will be with thee shortly. Here, take these. Twill make the going easier. Fleetscut allowed her to loop a small bag over his shoulder. Then he took the short, thick-handled spear and hefted it. The weapon had a sharp, double-edged blade, shaped like a gray willow leaf, with a cross tree where it joined the shaft. Strange spear, what? Wouldn't be very accurate to throw. Rations in this bag, I suppose, though by the feel of it there's not more than a couple of days' supply. Ruro showed him her spear, which was the same type as his. Useful things, these. Juca designed them for close combat, not for throwing. See, the blade is as good as a sword. The cross tree can ward off blade thrusts, and the thick shaft makes a fine long club. Our food is good for long treks. It is made of dried fruit and berries stuffed into a farrel of oat and rye bread, which has been well soaked in honey. A creature can march all day on just a few mouthfuls, providing there's water to drink. Here come the others now. Lean down on thy spear, fleet's cut. Grasp the cross hilt, but keep thy paw clear of the blade. Makes a good walking stick, eh? The old hare was forced to agree. The going was much easier with the spear to aid him. Juca strode by them in high, bad humor, remarking to Ruro as she passed, Tell me if the ancient one falls behind. We can carry him trussed to a long pike like a carcass. Fleet's cut voice rang out after her. You've got a good fast stride there, Marm. Stap me, but you have. Must be with having to retreat from all your foes, what? Juca kept marching, but her ears and tail shot up rigid with anger at the insult. Ruro shook her head sadly. Do not provoke Juca's sling over much, my friend. She has never been bested in a fight. No matter how much thou thinkest she hath wronged thee, remember, she was only doing what was best for her tribe. I would have done the same in her place. Fleetscott had come to like Ruro a lot, so he did not argue with her, but changed the subject. I wonder where she's taken us. His friend pointed to the northeast. To the Rockwood. We should be there by nightfall, methinks. Juca will want words with Udara Groundslay. And who in the name of seasons is Udara Groundslay? Ruro quickened her pace as the other squirrels went by. Enough talk now, friend. We're starting to lag behind. Save thy breath for traveling, or mayhap Juca will carry out her threat and have you slung on a pike. Fleetscut stumped along faster on his makeshift stick. Ah, if she ever tries it, she'll find out what the term perilous hair really means. Juca marched them ruthlessly all through that day, taking it out on Fleetscut for his ill-chosen remarks to her. Out on the flatlands there was no water. The sun beat down without respite, and not a breeze stirred the brownish scrub grass, which would be withered before the advent of summer. Grasshoppers chirruped dryly. Larks could be heard high overhead. Like the squirrels, the old hare sucked on a flat pebble to retain the moisture in his mouth. 
His paw ached abominably from holding and leaning upon the metal cross-tree of the spear, even though he had tried to cushion it with clumps of grass. Juca remained silent and angry, but her tribe sang a marching song to keep up their spirits. The old hare had never heard the tune before, so he too kept quiet as they tramped wearily across the scorched acres of open land, though like any old soldier he kept pace with a beat. Down goes the paw, and up rises dust. Keep thy courage, hold thy trust. Come to our journey's end we must, marching the high road together. Tramp, tramp, tramp. Can we make camp? Not whilst there's light, not till tonight. One, two, one, two, beneath a sky of blue. Sing out, comrades, tramp, tramp, tramp. On goes the trail forevermore, weary of limb and sore of paw. Keep on moving, that's our law, marching the high road together. Tramp, tramp, tramp. Can we make camp? I'll tell you when. Don't stop till then. One, two, one, two, daylight hours growing few. Sing out, comrades. Tramp, tramp, tramp. In the late afternoon, Fleet's cut stumbled and fell. Before any beast had noticed, Ruro heaved him up, set him back on his stick, and supported his other side. The old hare gritted his teeth as he stumbled onward at the rear of the tribe. How far is it now, Ruro? She indicated with a nod of her head. Yonder, see, there's the rockwood. We made good time. Methinks we'll be there before evening. Can you carry on, friend? It would not hurt to take a rest now that rockwood be in sight. Fleet's cut white dust from his eyes with a free paw. If a squirrel can do it, I'm sure a salamander strong hare can. I'll blink and well make it, my gal. Just you watch. Rockwood turned out to be a huge stone outcrop, dotted with gnarled trees and stunted bush. Betel had been sent ahead to scout it out, and he came dog-trotting back to report as the tribe arrived at its base. I spotted Udara, but he vanished mid the shrubbery. Good news, though. The little lake hasn't dried up. Plenty of water there. Juca held up a paw for order as a ragged cheer went up. Hearken, all of ye! We be on the domain of Udara Groundslay. Give no offense. Mind thy manners. That goes for thee too, long ears. Wait you all here till I return. She scrambled up into the rocks and was lost to sight amid the foliage. Fleetscott sat down with the tribe, glad of the rest, but still very curious. So then, Ruro, who is this Udara Groundslay? Tell me. The squirrel lay back, shading both eyes with her tail. You'll find out soon enough, friend. Juca returned after a short while. Udara will see us after sundown. You may drink of his water, but not swim in it nor wash. I will deal with any beast that does. There be small apples and pears on some of the trees. Take only the high ones. Leave those in the lower branches. You will do as I say, understand? A weary rumble of assent came from the squirrels. As they moved off into the rocks, Grood could be heard muttering under his breath. Juca caught the youngster by his ear and tweaked it none too gently. I heard that mouthful you came out with, wretch. See this strip of mark? I'll gag you with it if I hear one more word from you while we're guests upon Rockwood. Fleetscut patted his stomach. 
It made a swilling noise from all the cool, sweet water he had drunk from the little shaded pool. He gnawed upon a pear, which felt as hard as the rocks surrounding him, and lay still while Ruro changed his dressings. The good squirrel soaked dock leaves, sanicle, and rock moss in water and pounded them into a soothing poultice before applying them to the old hare's footpaws. Fleet's cut sighed. Ah, my thanks, friend. You know, my paws are starting to feel wonderful, what? I feel like a young leveret again. Ruro put the final touches to her dressings. Then rest thee and try not to go dashing about. It would ruin all my work. Lay up in the shade here where it is cool. Fleetscut did as she instructed. He took a few bites from the heavy, honey-soaked farl of trekking bread, a couple more swigs of water to counteract the sticky sweetness, and lay back. All around him others were doing likewise. Some distance away he glimpsed Juca, sitting alone and waiting for evening shades to fall. That would be when their mysterious host might put in an appearance. Fleetscut dozed off wondering just what sort of creature Udara Groundslay would turn out to be. 10. Ungat Trun sat closeted in his humid stateroom while his officers led his blue hordes against Salamandastron. He watched the spiders scuttling across their silky gossamer webs, pursuing flies, trapping them, and finally sucking the life from their victims' bodies. Spiders were savage, independent, and deadly. Ungat liked them. He had learned many lessons by lying back in his cabin and watching them. One thing, however, was troubling his mind. The striped dog. Not the old one who ruled the mountain, but he who bestrode his dreams. Big, strong, and forbidding, with his face always wreathed in a blur of mist. The wildcat would have given much to see the features of his foe, for foe he surely was, and coming closer each day. Now, when Ungat's eyes closed, he saw the phantom badger looming larger, surrounded by an ever-growing presence. The signs were there. This striped dog was gathering an army about him. Ungat Trun had never been a superstitious creature, until he first heard of the mountain called Salamandastron. Prior to that, he had been a conqueror, a warrior, with little regard for omens and dreams. Now he found himself listening to the riddles of a crippled fox, simply because, being neither wizard nor magician, he could not construe what went on in the land of visions. It angered him. He closed his eyes tightly and spoke aloud, trying his utmost to concentrate his thoughts on the big striped dog who haunted the corridors of his mind. Come, show your face to me. Come to my mountain and meet with your fate. I am Ungatrun, the fearsome beast. You will die by my paw the day you look upon my face. Outside on the afterdeck, Grottle and the Grand Fregoral were leaning on the stern rail, watching Salamandastron fall to the blue hordes, who broke upon it like the never-ending waves of the sea. Both creatures heard the wildcat's raised voice from the cabin beneath. They could not hear his exact words, so, fearing that they might be absent when he was calling for them, Grottle and Fregoral hastened down to the stateroom door. The magician fox tapped respectfully and called, Mightiness, do you wish us to attend you? Ungatrun prowled sinuously out onto the deck, his plain war armor accentuating the strength and size of a fully grown male wildcat. 
His slitted eyes flicked shoreward before turning to the pair. How goes the conquest of my mountain? Grand Fregoral replied in her usual monotone. You will be enthroned within it by nightfall, O shaker of the earth. Already they are battering down its gates. The wildcat strode to the rail, both creatures following in his wake. Bring a boat. We will go ashore. One of the horde's most respected captains, a female rat named Meyerfleck, stood awaiting them on the tide line. With her were two newcomers, big, sturdy young rats, one carrying bow and arrows, the other with a cutlass thrust in his belt. Ungat silently sized them up, sea rats both. He stood to one side, allowing Meyerfleck and his Fregoral to do the speaking. Meyerfleck saluted with her spear. These are two rats from the seas. They heard of the master's fame and wished to join his blue hordes. Fregoral nodded and turned to address the pair. Know ye that you can serve no other master than Ungat Trun, son of King Mortspear. Swear this under pain of death. The rats looked at one another, and then the one with the cutlass bowed his head slightly, answering for them both. I'm Rip Bang, and this is my brother, Dumai. We swear we will serve Ungat Trun. Fregoral held a small, whispered conference with the wildcat before turning her attention back to the brothers. His mightiness looks upon you both with favor. Beasts who are skilled with arms and useful in battle are ever welcome to the blue hordes. Put aside your weapons and come. Rip Fang and Dumai carried out the orders issued by Grottle. First, they immersed themselves completely from ears to tails in a rock pool. Then, climbing out, they both knelt in front of him. Grottle bade them close their eyes as he shook the contents of a large bag containing dark blue powder over them. Meanwhile, Fregoral intoned the initiation words. Blue is the sea, blue is the sky, mightiest under the sun. Blue are you the same as I, servants of Ungat Trun. Let him see what you are worth, make lesser creatures see why. The chosen ones can shake the earth whilst the foes of their master die. Turning on his heel, the wildcat headed for the mountain with Fregoral in his wake. Grottle stayed momentarily to acquaint the new recruits with their duties. Rub the powder into your fur all over and stay away from water until the sun has risen three times. By then the blue color will be permanent and you can report to Captain Meyerflack and join her horde section. The din of battle rang out from the mountain. Both rats opened their eyes, wiping away blue powder residue from their eyelids as they watched the three retreating figures. The one called Dumai retrieved his bow and arrows, rubbing the powder into his fur as he did so. Well, it looks like we're blue horde beasts now, eh, brother? Rip Fang suited his name. Some quirk of nature had left him with one great curved tooth growing out of the center of his top jaw, so that now his smile appeared as a ghastly grimace. Aye, for as long as we gain more plunder and vittles than we did at Piraten. Lord Stonepaw knew defeat was inevitable. Against frighteningly overwhelming odds, his hares had put up a gallant battle, but to no avail. Stiffener Medic had fought his way up to the high-level chambers where the Badger Lord and his remaining warriors had retreated. 
Black, oily smoke swirled around them as it rose from the lower mountain passages and chambers. Ignoring a deep slash in his paw, the fighting hare threw a salute to Stonepaw. We're cut off from the rest, sir. Bungworthy's command were cut to pieces trying to hold the main gate. Those vermin burned and battered it down. Old Bungworthy was standing up to his scut in slain bluins, yelling Eulalias and hacking at wave after wave of the scum, but they kept on coming. He went down just as I made it to the main stairs. Season's rest is brave memory. Stonepaw's shattered lance fell to the floor. Did you see any of Sailor's command on the second level? Stiffener wiped tears from his eyes. They was taken, Lord, surrounded and beaten. It was full of foe beasts, packed tight. Sailors and the rest didn't even get a chance to fight. I got a smack o'er the ears and fell down stunned. One of them thought he'd stuck me with a blade, but I only got cut on me paw and side. They dashed off then, carrying torches to search the chambers for more prisoners. That's when I escaped and made it up here, sire. We'd best do something quick before they come. Ever gallant, the hare called Troby, drew his blade. We'll hold him at the stairhead. Maybe we won't last long, but we'll take a tidy few of the villains with us. Who's with me? Eulalia! Stonepaw plucked the blade from Troby's grasp. No, listen to me. I know you're all perilous beasts, but if we're dead, then Salamandastron's completely lost. There are secret passages that lead down to the cellar caves. We'd never be found down there. At least we'd be alive until help arrives in one form or another. Come on! Eighteen hares, the pitiful remainder of the mountain's old guard, were left to follow Lord Stonepaw. They filed after him, with his final words ringing in their ears. At least where there's life, there's hope, my friends. Evening skies rimmed the western horizon with fiery scarlet as the sun dipped to the wine-dark seas, and still no birds were heard or seen. Warm from the day's heat, the sand was crowded with fresh blue horde beasts, none of whom had seen action that day. Ungat Trun had the Badger Lord's great chair brought out from the dining hall onto the beach, where he sat watching black smoke wreathe from the rock-carved windows while his officers made their reports. The first, Captain Frawl, a somber-looking stoat, bowed his head. Losses in the first wave amounted to— Silence! Grottle interrupted in a squeaky shout. His mightiness does not want to know about losses, fool! Report the victory, you great oaf! Our victory was complete, O oh great one! The Grand Fregoral took her place at Ungat Trun's right paw. What other outcome could there be for Ungat Trun— Son of King Mortspear. Captain Swinch, you were in the second wave. How many foe beasts do you report slain? Ungat held up a paw, halting Swinch. The wildcat's other paw circled the Fregoral's neck in what appeared a friendly embrace. However, it was anything but friendly as Ungat tightened his grip into a stranglehold. Pulling the Fregoral close, he growled low and harsh into her ear. I am Ungat Trun. I carve my own path. I conquer for myself. Call me son of Mortspear again, 
and I'll see to it that you die slowly over a fire. Erase Mort Spears' name from my list of titles. I never want to hear it again. He released the ferret, and she staggered back, holding her throat. Ungat signaled Captain Swinch to continue. Three score and twelve of the lesser orders lie dead, mighty one. Their unworthy carcasses will be fed to the waters of the seas at ebb tide. Grottle did some hasty figuring before pursuing the matter. And how many were taken captive? Captain Frawl answered. My horde beasts have three score captives awaiting your judgment, mightiness. The stunted fox cocked his head on one side, facing a circle around the stowed officer. Hmm. Seventy-two dead and sixty captured. I make that one hundred and thirty-two in all, Captain. Surely there were more hares defending the mountain than that. Frawl swallowed and stood to attention, looking straight ahead. Sire, I do not know the exact number we fought against. I can only report on the ones we have, dead or alive, sire. Ungat Trun stepped down from his great chair then, right onto the fox's bushy tail. Grottle winced, but stayed still, fearing to move. Like a knife, the wildcat's voice pierced his back. Our scouts who watched the mountain reported at least a hundred and a half of those old hares. Then there's another matter, my malformed magician. Where's the badger lord Stonepaw? Grottle jumped as Ungat shouted the last words, though he knew better than to try to give an answer. Ungat kicked him, sending him sprawling as his master ranted. Old Stonepaw, the striped dog, must still be alive inside that mountain, with a faithful few around him. Did no beast have the sense to think of that? I want that badger here, flat on his muzzle in front of me, and the last of his hairs alive or dead. Find him, Grottle. Take some horde beasts with you. Search every crack or hiding place inside that mountain, but find him. Now get out of my sight. The fox signaled to Captain Swinch to bring his soldiers and scrambled off through Salamandastron's broken gates. Stonepaw and his hares encountered no beast on their journey down to the cellars. Without even torches, they felt their way through dark, unused corridors and silent, forgotten chambers, down, down to the network of caverns beneath Salamandastron. Holding tight to the ancient Bramwell, Blench, the cook, waved her ladle in the Stygian blackness so that she would not bump into any unseen rocks. Her voice echoed spectrally. Are you sure you know where we're going, Lord? The badger's weighty paw descended lightly on her shoulder. Hush, marm. Sound carries down here. Don't fret. I know this place like the back of my paw. I've been Lord of Salamandastron more seasons than I care to recall, longer than any other badger. Stay to your left now. Keep the rocks close to your backs, every beast. There was a slight splash, followed by a muffled groan. Stonepaw's voice sounded out a whisper of reprimand. Left, I said, Blench. The paw you wear that shell bracelet on. Keep close now. Not far to go. Blench heard her ladle clicking on rock both sides of her, and guessed that they were passing through a narrow tunnel. Wisely, she ducked her head. Wait here, all of you. I'll be back in a moment. The hares obeyed their lord's command, speculating in low voices as they huddled together in the dark. Where's he gone? Wish he'd jolly well hurry up. What 
that flip-flopping sound up ahead, Toby? Don't ask me. I'm as much in the dark as any beast. As much in the dark. <laughs> That's a good one. Keep your blinking voice down, Bramwell. You sound like a frog in a barrel. I say, what's that? Sparks flew up ahead, and there was a chinking sound of steel striking flint. In an instant, the area was flooded with light and waving shadows. Lord Stonepaw loomed up, a blazing torch creating a red-gold aura around him. This way, friends. Follow me. Gratefully, they shuffled along in the badger's wake until he halted, holding the torch up against what appeared to be a solid rock face. Through here. It was a bit of a squeeze for me, but you hares shouldn't find it too difficult. There was a fissure in the rock wall, barely detectable. Stiffener looked at it incredulously. You got through there, my lord? Tain't not but a sort of sideways crack. Emerging one by one from the narrow gap, the hares greeted the sight that met their eyes with gasps of surprise. They were in a medium-sized cavern with a pool at its center, which threw off a pale, luminescent green aura. Water, dripping from white limestone stalactites, plopped gently into the pool, rippling it constantly and causing a shimmering effect in the light. Smooth, worn stone ledges bordered the cave walls, with knobbly stalagmites looking as if they had popped up from the floor. Stonepaw busied himself filling four big lanterns from a barrel of vegetable oil near the entrance. He lit them with his torch. Here, place these about midway on the ledges. When this was done, the added light had quite a cheering effect. The Badger Lord called them all to sit in a semicircle around him. First, a few words for our dear comrades who are slain or captured by the foe-beast. Bramwell, would you say it? Faint, eerie echoes rebounded from the walls as the ancient hare intoned in a husky whisper to the bowed heads before him. When sunlight tinges the dawn of the day, remember those brave ones now gone. We who recall them to mind, let us say, they were perilous beasts, every one. For those who live but are not free, may we see their dear faces again. Mother Fortune grant them sweet liberty and cause slaves not to suffer in pain. A moment's silence followed. The only sound, the measured cadence of droplets hitting the pool surface. Lord Stonepaw coughed gruffly and wiped his eyes, blinking as he surveyed the pitiful remnants of one hundred and fifty loyal hares. Right, Council of War. First, we've no food down here, but as you see, there's lots of cold, clear water. Now let's take a vote by show of paws. What do we do next? Shall we sit here and wait to be rescued, or do we search for a way out to freedom? Every paw was raised for finding a way out of Salamandistron. The Badger Lord nodded approvingly. Well, at least there'll be no arguments. Down to business, then. What weapons have we, Stiffener? The boxing hare had his estimate ready. Four light rapiers, bows and arrows, eight, full quivers, too. No more than half a dozen javelins, but every beast carries a sling, and there ain't a shortage of stones hereabouts. Oh, eight daggers and blenches ladle. That's the lot, sir. End of side two. To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. Side three, Lord Brocktree. 
by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page 86. Stonepaw mused over the situation before speaking. Hmm. If we're going to get out, we'd best make it soon. I'll guarantee that Ungat Trun is having the mountains searched stone by stone for me right now. If we linger down here, we'll have to face three things, discovery and a fight to the death, or capture and slavery. Our final option is that we remain hidden here and die of starvation. Not a pleasant thought, eh? Blench dipped her ladle in the pool and drank. So, Lord, let's get going right away. You know the way out? Stonepaw shook his massive striped head. I haven't got a single clue. Have any of you? Maybe an old ballad or poem might hold the answer. Let's put our thinking caps on. Hark, what was that? Listen. Sound carried far in all directions beneath Salamandistron, and now faint echoes reached them. Voices. Hmm, it's like searching for a grain of salt on a seashore down here. Just think, we could all get lost ourselves, one complained. There followed a screech of pain and the voice of Captain Swinch threatening the speaker. Just think, eh? You ain't down here to think, rot face. You're down here to obey orders. Now get searching, or next time I won't be using only the flat of me blade on you. We need more torches, Swinch. Send some beast back for them. Ha! Couldn't your magic is some grottle? You're supposed to be Ungat Trun's magician. I think it'll be a great piece of magic if we finds anything but rock down here. Oh, do you indeed? Well, let me tell you, Swinch, if we return empty pawed, we could end up paying for it with our lives. You know how his mightiness must be obeyed? Aye, you're right there, Fox. Boy, rot face, you and Grenick go back and get more torches, and fetch some vittles back with you, too. We might be some time getting the job done. Well, don't stand there gawping, get going! The voices faded as the search direction changed, and soon there was silence again. Ooh, that was close. Where do you reckon they were, what? Stonepaw gestured for Troby to lower his voice. These caves do strange things to sound. They could have been anywhere. One thing you can count on, though. They'll be back. The wildcat won't give up until he's found me. Old Bramwell's stomach gurgled. He rubbed it hungrily. I could eat a mushroom and cheese pasty right now. One with a soft-baked crust. Maybe a salad, too. Blinch patted the old one's paw. If and I was in me kitchens, I'd bake you one. Aye, and a deep apple pudding with lots of fresh meadow cream on it. Stiffen Hermetic licked his lips. You could throw in a cob of cheese, too, Marm. The yellow one with sage and onion herbs in it. My favorite. Then he wilted under Lord Stonepaw's stare. Thinking of vittles when we should be racking our brains for a way out? My fault, sir. Sorry, sir. The Badger Lord softened to his faithful creatures. I'm hungry, too, but tis easier for a badger to forget food than tis for a hare. Never mind, friends. Let's get back to figuring our way out. Hours passed, interspersed by the dropping of water and the odd sigh from a hare who could see no answer to the problem. Lord Stonepaw kept his silence, knowing there was no solution available. 
they were imprisoned inside their own mountain and likely to perish miserably down in its cellars. 11. Food. Dottie vowed to herself that she could not touch another morsel that night. Then she relented and set about nibbling candied lilac buds from the edges of an almond cake. Rog Longladle was surely a master of vittles, unequaled at baking, boiling, grilling, or cooking any edible his moles could find. The hairmaid watched Lord Brocktree digging into a huge bowl with a wooden ladle, his cheeks bulging as he ate. Well, pick em ears, sir. You look pleased enough with that. The badger grinned wolfishly over another ladleful. Scrumptious, miss. The moles call it deeper and ever turnip and tater and beetroot pie. I could eat it all night. Ruff took his nose out of a foaming tankard still half-filled with chestnut and buttercup beer and chortled as he blew froth from his upper lip. Har-har! Ain't it true, though? I'd have never left home if and I'd got vittles of this quality. Rog, you old oven dog, give us another of your kitchen ditties. Brandishing his oversized ladle and smiling from ear to ear, the good mole beckoned the little dibbins to take their dancing places. Brisk as bumblebees and plump as robins, the tiny mole babes formed two facing lines. Dottie marveled at the fact that they could eat so much and still be eager to dance. The infant mole maids grabbed their pinafores and curtsied comically as their partners licked paws and dabbed them on their snouts in reply. Rog's wife scraped out the opening bars on an old fiddle, and all the watchers started tapping their paws in time. Rog's rotund body bobbed up and down with the rhythm until he found the appropriate moment to join in with his tuneful bass voice. Oh, berries and pickles and cordial what tickles, good apples and pears from ye orchard do come, girt taters and beets and ye red currink sweet. Giddy out of thy tunnel and go fetch oi some. Er rattle de tootle de spring be a born, e fields be all full of ripe barley and corn. Ho oh, turnips and danny loin, damsing and plum, yon loafs in e oven and crispin oot noise. Carrots and onions and chestnutters come, get out in e tunnel, oi won't tell e twice. Er golly be gully be wood for e fire. Oi loves ye, moi dearie, moi old art's desire. Oh, radish and celery, custard and cake, and ye sweetest of honey from Bumblebee. Bee. There's beer in ye cellar, come now, my old feller. You fill up in thy tummy with what pleasures ye. Er trickle bee, ruckle bee, lark soup above, come dance ye, my petal, and old my paw love. Amid the applause, Rog skipped swiftly to one side, giving way to the little ones, who danced furiously, twirling and whirling, smocks, tunics, and aprons billowing. It was the funniest sight, all those tiny dibbins, bowing, leaping, touching noses, kicking up their paws, whooping in their gruff, small voices. Rog sat down next to Dottie, rattling his digging claws on the tabletop, as he watched the attics of the mole babes. Same lively little dancers, sure enough, Miz. Oh, aye, Zer Rog. Them'll sleep like hogs in e beds after all e whirligigging. The mole clasped Dotty's paw, immensely pleased that she spoke his own odd dialect. 
You'm a good her beast, Miss Dot. In truth, the Dibbins did sleep well, though they snored uproariously, which moles consider a virtue among their babes, reckoning that snoring improves the gruffness and depth of voice. Dottie found herself a nice moss-strewn arbor close to the ledge where Ruff and Brocktree chose to lay their heads for the night. It must have been some time before the dawn hours when the entire mole household was roused by Brocktree. It was a nightmare, but clear as day. A swaying room decked with cobwebs and spiders and flies buzzing everywhere. Tossing and turning in his sleep, the Badger Lord tried to rid his mind of the unbidden vision. Then suddenly a great evil-looking wildcat appeared, its voice grating through him like a rusty blade. Come, show your face to me. Come to my mountain and meet with your fate. I am Ungatrun, the fearsome beast. You will die by my paw the day you look upon my face. Still in the grip of nightmare, the badger lord sprang up. Seizing his battle blade, he roared out in a thunderous voice, It is my mountain! I am the lord Brocktree of Brockhall! My sword will look into your mind and touch your heart on the day we meet, Ungatrun! You lay lee Dottie and Ruff leapt up in shock. The hairmaid was knocked to one side as her otter friend hurled himself at her, shoving her out of danger in the nick of time. Brocktree's great battle blade whooshed past them, a hair's breadth away, cleaving a rock ledge in two and plowing a furrow in the floor like a small trench. Back, mates! Get back, all of ye! The otter was up and waving paws and rudder at moles scurrying about in their nightshirts, wanting to see what all the disturbance was about. Rog Longladle acted swiftly. Taking a jug of cold mint tea from the banqueting table nearby, he sloshed it accurately in Brocktree's face. The Badger Lord staggered back and slumped on the ledge. Freeing a paw from his sword handle, he wiped the liquid from his eyes. Then he looked at the creatures all about him in bewilderment. The room. It was moving from side to side. Spiders, webs, flies, everywhere. Every... Without warning, the double-hilted sword was in his paws again. He swung it up in a fighting stance, glaring at every beast with dangerous eyes. Where's the wildcat? Did any of you see him? Tell me! With great courage, Ruff stepped forward, placing himself in the path of the monstrous blade. Put up your weapon, mate. It was only a dream. With a dazed look, Rocktree lowered the sword and sat down. I don't understand it, Ruff. He was here. His name is Ungat Trun, and he wanted to do battle with me. Rog dispersed the moles with a wave of his long ladle. Go on now, back a bed, all of ye. Leave usins be. Rog listened as Dottie told him of their quest for Salamandistrant and Brocktree's reasons for needing to be there. When the Badger Lord recounted the scenes of his nightmare, Rog had something to say. Wait ye, sir. Bide your e instant. He trundled off, returning shortly with another mole, a full-grown male, very sturdy, with a look of Rog about him. This in your be my son Girth. Him a fine biggin, bain't he? Us calls him Girt Girth. 
I'm a born wanderer and fond of traveling. Tell him what he seed, Gerth. Rog's son touched his snout politely to the guests. Pleasure to meet ees, miss. Her now, about three moons back, I were roaming south and west of yer. I waked up one morn and seed a girt harmy of vermints, all a-painted blue, trampin' westward to e sand shores. Them was a-chantin' like this. E chief vermin, e shouts, Ungat! And t'others shout back three times, Trun, trun, trun! Oi watch till him varnished any distance, trampin' and a-shoutin' all e way. Ungat! Trun, trun, trun! Just like that, sir. Bower, says oi to myself, there be a thing to tell e mole folk back home. But my old dad, he says to keep soilin' about it. So oi did till now. In the light of Gert's tale, it took a lot of persuading to stop Rocktree following the vermin instantly. In the end, he agreed to wait until dawn. They would set off immediately after breakfast. Daylight had barely cracked when Lord Brocktree levered himself away from one of Rog's epic spreads and shouldered his sword. Come on, you two, or are you going to sit there feeding your famine-stricken faces all day? Dottie wiped her lips ruefully on an embroidered napkin. I bally well wish we could. I've never tasted honeyed oatmeal like that in my life. I say, Rog, how the dickens do you make it taste so jolly good, what? Rog chuckled at Dottie's momentary lapse from old speech. Her, her, young miss, oi chops in lots of chestnutters and hazelnutters, too, covery lot with sprinkles of candied apple and pear flakers, and bakes it slow in the oven. Ruff twitched his rudder in admiration of Rog's skill. Ha, ha, I can't tell one nutter from another, but old Rog there makes it sound wonderful. The friendly mole dumped four packs on the table. There be vittles for re-journey, good beasts. Brocktree had noted the number of packs. There's four lots here, and we're only three. Rog twiddled his digging claws, as moles do when they are confronted with a tricky situation. Er, er, would he grant oy a boon, sir? Dotty translated. He wants a favor from you, sir. Brocktree spread his paws magnanimously. I would be churlish if I refused, after such hospitality. Ask away, Rog, my friend. The mole hemmed and hawed a bit before coming out with it. Could he taken my son Girth along with thee? I'd be all us obliged. Im good company. Deadly with thee slinger and stronger than any mole alive. Oi be girtly worried when he goes off a roaming alone, sir. But moy art it be easier if in moy girth were with gentle beasts like you uns. Lord Brocktree shook Rog's paw warmly. Girth will be a welcome addition to our little band, and if his cooking is anything like yours, I beg you to let him come along with us. Girth appeared out of nowhere and swept up his ration pack. Oi been teach de cookin' trick or two by my old dad's er. 
Thank ye coinly for letting oi join ye. At the river bend, the four friends boarded their log and paddled off along the sun-flecked stream, with Rog and his family calling farewells. Goombye, twere pleasure ever need to visit. Miss Dot, goombye, pity ye were too full to sing for us since last night. Maybe next time. They don't know how lucky they were not to hear our dotty warbling. Ruff muttered under his breath to Brocktree. Girth was receiving instructions from his kin, to all of whom he replied with the same phrase, Thank ye, I'll remember that. You keep a clean anky chief with ye always, Girth. Mind ye manners, and don't scoff ye too much. Pay attention to what Girt Badger Lord tells ye, Girth. Bring in a pressink back for ye old mum. Be guarding ye young hermaid well now, son. Girth's gruff bass voice echoed back along the stream. Thank ye, I'll remember that. The moles stood in the shallows, waving until the log was out of sight. Girth's mother wiped a kerchief about her eyes. Burhoo, I do hope she'll be safe. Rog placed a paw about her shoulders. He certainly will, Marm. He be a rock of sense, that un. Twelve. Udara Groundslay was a short-eared owl. Unfortunately, he had been born without the gift of flight, but this did not seem to worry him one little bit. He had made his birthplace, the rockwood, and its surrounding moors, his domain. Nothing moved or went on there that he did not know about. Udara was immensely wise and very fierce. He protected his territory jealously and made his own rules for any creature venturing within its boundaries. These rules he enforced by his own natural ferocity. Fleet Scott sat with the squirrels around a small fire. It was almost twilight when the owl arrived. Juca rose to greet him. Thou art looking hale and fine of feather ground slaying. Ruffling his brown and umber barred feathers, the big owl stared solemnly at the squirrels with huge golden eyes which shone in the reflected firelight. Rookadoo! What brings bush tails to my lands? Fleetscott had never heard a creature speaking so slowly and deliberately. Moreover, the murderous curved beak of Udara scarcely moved when he spoke. Juka politely let a moment elapse before replying. We have brought a long ears with us. He seeks news of his kind, or any other beasts seen hereabouts. The owl closed both eyes and twitched his ear feathers gently. Fleetscut thought he had gone to sleep, but then the big golden orbs opened again. Huruku! Udara sees all, even in the moon dark. Long ears have passed through here. Young ones, noisy and frivolous creatures. Spike dogs also. I like not the spike dogs. They are rough, ill-mannered beasts. Fleetscut stood up from the fire. How many long ears went through here, and when? Udara's body did not move, but his head turned as if it were a separate part of him in a great half-circle. 
He regarded the old hare like a piece of mud stuck to his talon, his eyes anything but friendly. You have lessons in courtesy to learn, long ears. Speak only when you are spoken to. Your seasons have not made you any more sensible than the young ones of your kind. The head turned in leisurely fashion until Udara was facing Juka once more. Nothing in this life is free, believe my words. If the old long ears wants information, he must pay me. Juka shot an inquiring glance at Fleetscott, who nodded his head vigorously. The squirrel spoke for him. The long ears wants to know what you require as payment. Hoo! Udara let out the long, slow noise as if he were considering. The sweet, heavy bread you carry. Udara likes that. It is good. Fleetscut tossed his ration pack to Juka, who placed it on the ground, close to the owl's talons. Udara Groundslay looked down at it. His eyes closed, then reopened. Ookookook! More. I want more than just one. The old hare stared around the fire at the other squirrels. None seemed ready to give up their rations. Fleetscut shrugged and held his paws wide. Juka stared at him impassively. Udara says one is not enough. Thou wilt have to find more. Ruro tossed her ration alongside that of Fleetscut. Silence seemed to stretch out into the growing darkness before Udara deigned to reply to the offer. One more. You hear him, Long Ears. Hast thou any more? Fleetscut shook his head. Udara kicked the packs lightly. And you wasted your time coming here, Long Ears. Fleetscott had put up with enough. Just a tick there, Featherbag. I think you're the one needs a lesson in courtesy. It's no blinking wonder that other creatures avoid coming here, what? You bad-mannered old swindler? I wouldn't give you the dust off me paws after the way you've treated me. A gasp arose from the squirrels. Udara stalked slowly around the fire until his beak was level with the hare's eye. Kroom! Two it is, then, long ears. You are a perilous beast. I have slain many for less than what you said to me. But mind, two only buys the information that two merits. Thud. Juka's pack landed with the other two. There, now thou hast three. Give the long ears all your information, Udara, all. Hooking the three packs with his talons, the owl slung them up over his useless wings, calling as he stalked off. Be here at dawn light. I'll tell you all then. Coo, mm-hmm. When Udara had gone, Fleetscut slumped down angrily by the fire. Great feather buffoon, what? Juka squatted in front of him, shaking her head knowingly. "'Tis ye who art a buffoon, hare. Hadst thou not given up thy pack so quick, I could have bargained and got thine information for one pack. And thee, Ruro, what were you thinking of, adding thy pack to his so quickly? I only gave up my ration to Udara when the situation became hopeless. Udara was insulted by thee, long ears. Hadst thou walked away with the pack, he'd have hunted and killed thee. That bird is not named Udara Groundslay for nothing. 
Now put a latch on thy tongue and get some sleep. Feeling rather foolish and properly chastened, Fleetscott lay down. However, before he closed his eyes, the old hare patted Ruro's shoulder. You're a jolly good pal, Ruro. I won't forget the way you offered up your pack to get my information. Thanks. Ruro lay staring into the fire as she replied. Juka Sling was right. We be naught but two fools. Aye, and we'll find that out soon enough, methinks, when we have to march on empty bellies. Good night to thee. Udara returned in the dawn hour, when most of the squirrels were still sleeping, thanks to the previous day's marching. Juka and Fleetscott hastily got a fire going and made mint and dandelion tea, sweetening it with lots of honey to suit the owl's taste. Sunlight was beginning to flood gold into the aquamarine skies of the eastern horizon before Udara deemed it fit to begin his narrative, which he did with much deliberation. Hum, rum, rum. There is a certain long ears, a hare, not of the mountain from which you come. They say he is a march hare, wild and perilous. I have not met him. I do not know. Many long ears are gathering to him at a secret place. I have heard them whisper his name, King Bucko Big Bones. Fleetscott could not help cutting in. King? Udara's huge golden eyes blinked reprovingly. I did not ask you to interrupt me. If you want to talk, then carry on, and I will hold my silence, long ears. Juka apologized for Fleetscott hastily. Forgive him. It is the manner of long ears to be excited. I will vouch for his silence. Please, the floor is thine. She shot a warning glance at the old hare. Udara continued. Ooh, hum. One of the long ears dropped a piece of bark scroll. Reading is not part of my wisdom and of no interest to me. That is all I have to say. You will be gone from my land before noontide. Here is the writing. You may keep it. Lifting his left wing slightly, with great effort, Udara allowed a small folded scroll to drop near the fire. Fleetscut pounced upon it before it rolled into the flames. Without a backward glance, Udara Groundslay, the flightless owl, ambled off to pursue his solitary existence. Read thee aloud. I wouldst hear this long ear message. Juka's arrogant words got the better of Fleetscut's temper. Now just a bloomin' moment, Bushtail. Ha! I see you don't like me calling you that, do you? Well, I'm sick and fed up of being called Long Ear, see? I'll call you Juka, you call me Fleetscut. I'll call your blinkin' lot squirrels, and you call my flippin' lot hares. What, what? Juka feigned an air of indifference. As thou pleasest. You can bet your jolly life I pleasest. Then calm thee down and read, Long... Fleet's cut. Juka's tribe were awake by this time. They gathered around to hear what was on the scroll as the old hare read aloud. Two points north of dawn, find stone and shade and drink. Follow where no water runs. March on through two moons and suns. My sign you'll see, I think. Discover then a stream wolf's ford, tug thrice upon the royal cord. Then my honor guard will bring loyal subjects to their king. 
Fleet Scott's paw thwacked against the parchment. Chaw! The very idea of it! A hare promoting himself to king! The pollywoggle! And doubtless luring our young Salamandistron warriors to his side! Who does he think he is, what-what? Juca could not help smiling at Fleetscut's indignation. For sure, he thinks he's king. Canst thou solve any of this riddle poem, Hare? Fleetscut snorted. Of course I canst, squirrel. Us chaps from Salamandistron eat lots of salad. Good for the old brain, don't you know? We try not to scoff large amounts of nuts. Makes the tail bushy, and next thing you know, you want to go climbing trees. He paused to note the look on Juca's face, then continued. Ahem. Now, let me see. Ah, yes. The place where stone and shade and drink can be found is right here. Hmm. The directions are clear enough, but two points north of dawn, er, that's a bit of a poser, ain't it? Ruro provided the answer. Dawn is in the east where the sun rises. Two points north of that is northeast. We must go northeast, methinks. Fleetscut sniffed. I knew that. Just testing you chaps. But what about a spot of breckers first? I've only had a drop of tea so far today. Chap can't go far on that, what? Ruro thrust two hard green apples at him. Remember, friend, thou hast no rations, nor have I or Juca. Come now, we'll travel o'er the top of this rockwood and mayhap we'll find our way with a view from there. A wearying and difficult climb brought them to Rockwood's Peak by mid-morning. As they sat down in the tree shade, breathing hard, a solemn call hailed them from one of Udara's hiding places. Coo-hoo-hoo! You are still on my land, and the morn is half gone. Beware if you are still here at noon. Fleetscott was trying to climb an old gnarled rowan to scout out the countryside. When the owl called, he slipped and barked his shin. Biting his lip, he shouted back, Yah! Go and boil your beak, mattress bottom! Ruro helped him down to earth before bounding easily up into the branches, saying to the old hare, who was wincing and rubbing his shin, I dare, friend. After all, I've scoffed large amounts of nuts. She was back down to report, almost as swiftly as she had gone up, pointing northeast. A dried-up stream bed that way, going off into the distance. Fleetscott was up and about, feeling much better. Struth, just like the poem said, follow where no water runs. Solved that pretty smart, what, what, Juca? Juca led off the march, informing the old hare. I had already figured that much, O thou who art fleet of Scott. Ruro took up the rear, with her friend muttering by her side. Ha! Huh, fleet of Scott, indeed. Can't even pronounce a ballad chap's name right. How'd she like it if I called her Sling the Juca? I say, that's a good idea. Why don't we sling her? It is never a good thing to be hungry, and Fleetscut felt the pangs on that day's march. Single file they went through a twisting, turning, long, dried-out stream bed, with the hare plodding along in the rear, coughing and sniffling from the dust of others tramping ahead. He had neither food nor drink, having bolted the two little sour apples the moment Ruro gave them to him earlier on. First he tried sucking on a pebble to allay his thirst, but when moisture came to his mouth it formed a nasty paste with the dust he was inhaling. 
Next, he began grabbing at pawfuls of grass as he passed. But when he chomped on the first clump, he gave a muffled yelp and spat it out, glaring at the yellow and black banded body humming angrily amid the dust. Confounded bloomin' wasp! Lounging about in the middle of a chap's tuck! Oh, it ain't fair! I'm starving! Ruro turned and tugged his paw to make him keep up. Carry on trying to feed thyself, and thou wilt be left behind. No time for stopping when we're on the march. Late that evening, Juca called a halt. Fleet Scut flopped exhausted alongside Ruro in the dry water course, gazing longingly at the other squirrels. Opening their packs, they sipped from little flasks and ate sparingly of the honey-soaked, fruit-filled farls. With a face the picture of misery and despair, he begged them, I say, chaps, about sharing supper with a pal, what? Ignoring Fleet's cut, they carried on eating and drinking. The old hare tried a different approach. Aha, this is the life, mates. Comrades together, what? Marching, sleeping, singing, firm friends on life's jolly old highway, what? I say there, old pal, old chum, throw your messmate a cob of that stuff over, and a drop to drink, you good old tree walloper. The squirrel in question stowed his food away carefully, glaring hatred at Fleet Scott. Give thy foolish gob a rest, long ears. Twert for thee, we'd be snug in our pine grove, instead of tramping about on some wild goose chase because of thy bad-mouthing our leader. What a gag on thy tongue. Aye, and eat that. Fleetscut slumped back and sulked a bit, watching an ant crawl over his footpaw. He was about to reach for it and try his first taste of insect when a fresh idea struck him. Scooting over on his tail, he got closer to Juca. She wondered what he was about until he winked, smiled at her, and whispered, But you're rather peckish, too, old gal, what? Rotten bunch of cads this lot, aren't they? Look at that bounder over yonder, stuffing his face like a frog at a fry-up. Listen, you're the leader, ain't you? I've got a ripping idea. Now, how does this sound to you? Suppose you issue a stern order for one or two of them to give you half their rations. I mean, they daren't refuse Juca to sling, the old boss tail-kicker, could they? And we just divvy the grub between us, half for my clever wheeze, half for your position as chief. Hee-hee-hee! <laughs> Spiffin' scheme, ain't it, what? The look Juca gave him would have split a solid rock. Fleet Scott scooted hastily back, resigned to a night of hunger and thirst. He lay down, closed his eyes, and shouted, Good night, you grub-grabbin', foul-perishin' mob of skin flints! Hope the noise me tummy's makin' keeps you awake all bloomin' night! Hope you dream of me starvin' to death of hunger! Tail-twitchin', nut-eatin' bark-wallopers! Morning brought Fleet's cut no relief. As soon as he opened his eyes, he was complaining. Yah! Oh, the famine cramps! Me paws have gone dead. I can't see. It's the scoffless lurgy. I've been struck down with the withering ear fever. Food! Some beast save me! Whomp! Juca landed slam in his middle, bringing him down flat and stifling his mouth with both paws as she hissed angrily. Fool! Shouting and wailing across the country! Didn't thou hear Bedel calling for all to keep low, there be vermin abroad? Lie still and silent, or I'll slay thee myself. 
She peeped over the top of the dried stream bank. Ruro and Grood scuttled up to join her. Something be moving over there, Ruro. See? Aye, I see it well enough. The grass is long out there, and 'tis moving the opposite way to the breeze. I wonder how many of them there be. Young Grood was about to make an estimate when Juca cuffed his ear lightly. Curb thy language, Grood. Stay low, every beast, and mayhap they'll pass us by. No sense inviting trouble. Rubbing his stomach, Fleetscut popped his head up, took a quick glance of the waving grass, and called out, "What ho there! Show yourselves. We're friends." Immediately, the spiked heads of two hedgehogs rose above the grass as they strode toward the stream bed. Juca fixed the old hare with her gimlet eye. How didst thou know they were hedgehogs? Fleetscut waggled his ears in cavalier fashion. I'm a salamander-strong hare, you see. We can scent vermin a day away, or at least we used to in the old days. Well, now, you chaps, whom have we the honor of addressing? What? The two burly male beasts rolled awkwardly into the ditch. Good day to yer. I'm Grassum, and this ere's my brother Reedum. You ain't by any chance spotted an og babe wandering loose in these parts, have yer? The hare shook their paws, carefully avoiding the spikes. Can't say we have, really. Give us a description, and we'll keep a weather eye out for the little tyke. Grassum did all the talking. His brother merely nodding and saying "aye" to emphasize the case. Skittles be his given name. We took him off in some foxes last season. Doesn't know who his mum and dad are or where they be. Ain't that right, Reedum? Aye. All right, little Paulful he is, if and you ask me. Talks very educated, very impertinent, very cheeky. An old head on young shoulders. That's what he is, right, Reedum? Aye. Calls us his two wicked uncles, just cause we makes him go to bed early and wash regular. May、eh, read 'em. Why? Anyhow, Skittles done a bunk on us and got himself lost. We been a searchin' for him two days now. Me and read 'em. Why? Anyhow, if a new good beast finds him and we ain't about, you'd best leave him with the first edgehog family or tribe you come across. That's best, ain't it, read 'em? Why? Laboriously, they began climbing out of the stream bed. Fleetscut called hopefully after them. I say, you chaps haven't got the odd morsel of grub about you—a leftover apple pie or some unwanted salad? What? Grassum looked down on him from the bank top. We ain't got a crust to spare atween us, have we, Reedum? Nay. The old hare smiled ruefully. Good day, sirs. Thanks for the information, Grassum. Oh, and thanks for your scintillating conversation, Reedum. I actually got quite excited when you switched from I to Nay. Dash clever trick that what? Juca cast a jaundiced eye over Fleetscut as he marched off. I wish thou wert as talkative as yon Reedum. Hot, dusty, and tiring, the day passed uneventfully, wearying on both paws and spirits of the trekkers. Fleetscott became convinced his end was near from starvation. Juca and Ruro bore their hunger steadfastly, neither asking nor taking sustenance from the sparse rations of their tribal comrades. At evening, the dried stream bed petered out, and they made camp for the night on the open moor, 
squatting around a fire they had kindled in the lee of a boulder. Fleet Scott's moods had ranged from outrage and name-calling to silent high dudgeon, and finally a fatalistic resignation. He lay apart from the others, quiet for a while, then began to moan his thoughts aloud. Oh, dearie, dearie me, tis a hard life and a jolly old sad death what perishing out here on the grassy plains without any beast to mourn over me benighted bones. Hunger, thirst, the scoffless lurgy, withering ear fever, and the dreaded numb dead paw. That's besides tummy shrink ague and fearsome red scut rot. Oh, yes, mates, you name it, and old fleet scut suffered it. A walking bone bag, courageous to the last, too proud to beg a crust from me messmates, fading away sad and slow. Wonder if they'll strike a medal for me, what? A skinny hair with a brave smile, that'd be about right. Oh, and in the background, lots of fat, wobbly squirrels grinning like stuffed toads. Hey, what's that? A slingstone bounced off the ground close to his head. Juca was whirling her sling, carefully loaded with a rock, and she had a wild, determined glint in her eye. We've stood enough of thy ceaseless whimpering and whining, long ears. Speak one more word, and this rock will find thee. Fleetscott turned quickly over and shut his eyes tight. Oh, right, Yarm Arm. Nighty-night now. As a new day dawned, Fleetscott, unable to sleep because of hunger pangs, leapt up roaring, Aha! I think I see his sign, chaps. There tis! Thirteen. Silence reigned in the hidden cavern beneath Salamandistron, broken only by the dripping of water and the snores of Lord Stonepaw and his hares. Not knowing the time of day or night, they had succumbed to their natural urge to sleep. Where in the name of Fang and Fur have they got to? Stiffener Medic came awake at the sound of voices outside the cave. It was the two blue horde rats, Rotface and Grinnick, returning with the food and drink they had been sent for. The boxing hare listened to their conversation. They were obviously lost. Huh, don't ask me. You'd think they'd have left us some sign for direction, or just sat and waited for us. Well, what do you say we just sit down and wait for them? Can't do that. They might be miles away. We could be down here forever. Aha! But they won't last long, will they? We've got the food. <laughs> do you fancy some of this plum pudding from the Lord Badger's kitchens, eh, Grinnick? You must be joking, Rotface. Captain Swint should have the hide off on our backs for stealing vittles. The voices receded down the passage. Stiffener slipped through the rift and went after them, silent as a shadow. Before long, he could see the flicker of their torch up ahead. He followed, hoping they would soon stop to rest. But the rats wandered on willy-nilly from chamber to corridor and cavern to tunnel for what seemed an age. Finally, Stiffener's hopes were rewarded. Grinnack found a low rock shelf and plucked himself down on it. This is hopeless. We're lost, I, and by the looks of it they are too. We've not had sound nor sight of him yet. Rotface sat down next to his companion. You're right there, Grin. These flasks of ale are weighing me down. Me paws are killing me. What say we swap? You carry the drink a while, I'll carry the food, eh? Grinnack snorted. <laughs> 
No chance, mate. You thought they'd be lighter. That's why you ran to pick them up. Over here, idiots! Over here! A voice was calling them. Both rats jumped up, scared of being caught sitting down. Rotface peered into the darkness behind them. Sounds like they're down there. What do you think, Grin? Sounds go different way down here. Maybe they're up yonder. What'll we do then? Give me the torch. I'll go and look where you reckon they are. Stay here and wait for me. Oh no, sly boots. You're not leaving me alone with no light. Well, you go. I'm not scared. I'll wait here. Go on. Grinnack went cautiously, holding the torch high, calling out softly so it would not echo. Captain Swinch? Magician Grottle? Is that you, sirs? A voice called from around a bend in the passage. What do you think it is, Addlebrain? We're here. Grenak hurried around the bend, his face illuminated by the torch. We've been looking all over for you. His words were cut short by a swift, powerful right and a left uppercut which battered him flat with lightning speed. Stiffner even caught the torch before it fell. Rotface peered down the passage and saw the light of the torch wave from side to side. What is it, mate? Have you found them? A passable imitation of Grinnick's harsh voice answered, We're going! Hurry up! The rat scuttled down the passage, dragging the food and drink behind him, afraid of being lost and alone. Wait! Hang on! I'm coming! As he rounded the bend, Stiffener struck. Unfortunately, the boxing hare had not realized that Rotface's head was bowed as he struggled with the packs. Stiffener's blow hit the rat, but only grazed his skull. Rotface dropped the packs. He was a big, solid rat. Shaking his head, he went for his dagger. Ha! Tis only an old rabbit. Come on, Granddad. Let's see the color of your insides. Stiffener Medic was not given to exchanging badinage with vermin. Coolly, he sprang forward, fainting with a left at the rat's stomach. Immediately, the rat stabbed downward with his blade. A swinging right hit him like a thunderbolt, breaking his jaw, and he collapsed with a sigh. Stiffener was off down the passage, the two packs in either paw, the torch clamped in his jaws. Lord Stonepaw and the others fell on the food with gusto, though the badger shook his head disapprovingly. You could have gotten yourself slain. Why didn't you wake me? Stiffner turned his attention from a fruit scone. You need your sleep, sir. So did those two vermin. Couldn't box for acorns, either of them. Blench winked at him. That's old Stiffener for you. Lays him out stiff, he does. Here, my dearie, try some of my plum pudding. The boxing hare accepted it, chuckling. Only did it because I couldn't stand the thought of vermin getting used to your wonderful cooking, marm. Now, even those two grandsons of mine was with us, young Southpaw and his brother Bobweave, they'd have put those two rats down and gone looking for more. There are rascals. Talk about fight. Those two'd swim the great sea just to be in on a good scrap. Of course, I taught them, you know. Ungat Trun had now taken up residence in the mountain. He liked the view from Lord Stonepaw's chamber. Sprawling on the bed, he sampled the badger's best mountain ale while chewing a savory cheese and onion flan from Blunch's kitchen. A knock sounded on the door. At a nod from Ungat, the guard opened it. 
Grand Fregorl glided in, standing to one side as Grottle, Captain Swinch, Rotface, and Grinnack were ushered in by the stoat Captain Frawl. Putting aside food and drink, the wildcat rose from the bed. He circled the four culprits slowly, his banded tail swishing as he noted their trembling paws. I take it that the news is not good. Talk to me, Grottle. Fighting to keep his voice calm and level, the stunted fox made his report. Mightiness, we have searched through endless dark caves beneath your mountain, with no taste of food nor drink passing our lips. It is cold down there, and totally dark. Alas, great one, we found no trace of the strike dog or his creatures, though it was not from lack of trying. Ungat leapt onto the window ledge and stood there, framed by the sky outside. Who are these two horde rats? Why are they here? Captain Swinch rapped orders at Rotface and Grinnack. One pace forward, you two. Stand to attention. Eyes front. Tell his mightiness what happened to you. The rats' heads shook uncontrollably as they rattled forth their concocted story to their fearsome master. They did it piecemeal, alternating one to the other, Rotface nursing his broken jaw. We were sent back for vittles by Captain Swinch, sire. Aye, and when we returned with him, the main search party wasn't there, mighty one, so we was sort of lost. But we never ate nor rested, sire. We searched for him. We searched and searched and searched, sire. Anyhow, mightiness, there we was, a-searchin', when all of a sudden we was surrounded. It was the strike dog, and more'n a score of those rabbits. Er, but well-armed they was, sire. We fought em like mad beasts. There was blood everywhere. Mightiness, there was too many of em. They stole the vittles and left us for dead, sire. Ungat Trun was on the hapless pair like a hawk with two chickens. Rotface and Grinnack screeched as the wildcat's claws sank into their shoulders. He shook both of them, snapping their necks, and then with a mighty heave he hurled the two carcasses out of the wide window onto the rocks below. He was not breathing heavily, nor was there a trace of anger or bad temper on his face as he turned from the window ledge. He stared impassively at Grottle and Swinch as though nothing had happened. Tomorrow, at first light, you will return to your task. The striped dog is alive and hiding down there with his hairs. He will not escape me, because you will find him. Take as many to assist you as you wish. Take supplies, extra torches, anything. But remember this. Return empty-pawed, and you will wish you had died quickly like those two fools who stood lying bare-faced in front of me. Fail me, and your deaths will take the best part of a season as an example to all. Do you understand what I have just said to you both? Swinch and Grottle retreated, bowing. As you command, mightiness. We will find the striped dog and his hairs, great one. Ungat waited until they had made it to the door. Wait. Captain Frawl. Have these two staked out on the shore below, where I may see them from this window. They are not to have food or water. Choose two strong soldiers to beat them with the flats of their own sword blades, and tell them to lay on hard. It will serve as a warning to my forces that no beast fails to carry out the orders of Ungat Trun, not even a captain or a magician. 
They may be released at dawn tomorrow to continue their search. Rip Fang and Doom Eye, the new recruits, were chosen to administer the punishment. They stood over their staked-out victims, holding the swords high, looking up to the window. Ungat signaled that the beatings should begin with a wave of his paw. Rip Fang smiled apologetically at the two quivering figures pinioned on the sand. Orders is orders. No hard feelings, eh? Swish thwack. Swish thwack. The sound of the flogging was soon drowned out by Swinch and Grottle's screams. Ungat Trun turned from the window and prowled down to the dining hall with his grand fragoral hurrying behind. Threescore captive hares were herded into a corner, ringed by armed horde beasts. Captain Rogue, a tough female weasel, saluted the wildcat smartly. These sixty of the lesser orders await your judgment, sire. As usual, the Grand Fregoral addressed her master's words to the prisoners in her toneless cadence. You long ears are of an inferior species, not fit to live in the shadow of the higher orders. It is only on the whim of my master that you still draw breath. Ungatrun, he who makes the stars fall and the earth tremble. Ungatrun, the fearsome beast who drinks wine from the skulls of his enemies, conqueror of the world. You live now only to serve him in slavery. If your work is not satisfactory, one of you will be hurled from the top of this mountain each day. You hold the lives of your own comrades forfeit. Sailors could not restrain herself from crying out, I hope I live to see the day you're chucked from the mountain top, cat. A spearbutt struck her in the face and she went down. The rat who had delivered the blow raised his weapon again, point down to slay the old hare. Ungat stopped him. Halt! Leave that creature be. Parting ranks, the guards allowed Ungat passage to Sailors. He stood over her, shaking his head. I wish my creatures had spirit like yours, Hare. What is it that creates such bravery and loyalty to some old fool of a stripe dog? Ignoring her swollen jaw, Sailors levered herself upright. You wouldn't jolly well know, Cat, and you probably wouldn't understand if I tried to tell you what. The wildcat stood, paws akimbo, smiling slightly. All I know about is conquest. I rule through fear, not affection. I'll wager you know where the striped dog is hiding at the moment, eh? Sailors maintained a defiant silence, exploring a loosened tooth with her tongue. The wildcat shook his head admiringly. Aye, I can see you do. More than likely you'd rather die than tell me. And so would all your comrades. No matter. I'll find him. Just remember now that you are my slaves. You are all prisoners until you die. Then Sailors did a strange thing. She placed one paw against her head, the other over her heart, and smiled. If that's what you think, then you've lost, Cat. We all are free, here in our minds and here in our hearts. Ungat turned on his paw and strode off, calling back, Don't push your luck, or I'll show you how easy it is to break a creature's spirit. He was answered by a concerted roar from the prisoners. You lay Leah! 
Whispering something to Fregorel, the wildcat departed the dining hall without a backward glance. The grand Fregorel held her paws up to gain the hare's attention. His mightiness has decreed that you starve, every one of you, the next two days for your insolence. Take them away and lock them up. Before any of the horde could lay paws on the captives, Torleap, a fine, upright old hare, rapped out some orders. Form twelve ranks, five deep, you lot. Look lively now. Dress off to your right. Tension! Straighten up in the back there, laddie buck. Show these vermin how it's done. Chin in, head back, shoulders straight, eyes forward, ears stiff. That's the stuff. Now, by the right, quick march. One, two, one, two. Right markers, keep those lines straight. Off to their prison cave they marched, surrounded by Captain Rogue's bewildered vermin, who could not comprehend how a defeated band of ancient hares could sing in captivity, although sing they did, loud, long, and courageously. I'm a hare of Salamandistron, and foes don't bother me. I'll fight all day and sing all night this song of liberty. Liberty, liberty, that's for me. The mountain hares are wild and free. One, two, three, hooray! You can't stop sunrise every day. I'm a hare of Salamandistron. I wander near and far. You'll know me when you see me, cause I'll shout you Lelia. Liberty, liberty, that's for me. From good dry land to stormy sea. One, two, three, hooray! You can't stop sunset every day. Ungat Trun could hear it from where he stood at the mountain's main shore entrance. He looked at the black, charred doors, still solid upon their hinges, and out to the shoreline, crowded by his mighty hordes. To no beast in particular, he commented aloud, Fools! Not but old fools! Striding down to the unconscious forms of Grottle and Swinch, he picked up a pail of seawater and hurled it on their backs. They were revived, moaning with pain. Ungat leaned down close, so he had their attention. I want that striped dog found. He was about to threaten further when a vision of the other badger flashed into his thoughts. Big, shadowy, and as forbidding as the war blade he carried across his back. Straightening up, the wildcat gazed out to sea. He could not explain it, but his confidence felt shaken. Moreover, he did not know whence the warrior badger would come, or the day he would arrive. The wildcat was certain of only one thing. The badger would come. 14. Sunshaded, green, and tranquil, the stream stretched, lazily meandering through the woodlands on this, the quester's first full day together. Dotty and Girth sat up forward, chattering away in mole speech. Ruff and Brocktree were aft, paddling. The otter nodded approvingly at their new crew member's velvety back. Looks like we found a treasure there, matey. That breakfast old Girth cooked up this morning would have made his dad proud of him. Bet you're glad we brought him along. Brocktree could not help but agree with his companion. Aye, and he's not feared of boats or water, like most moles. He looks as strong as you or I, Ruff. Do you think so? Well, we'll find out soon enough. Ahoy there, you two in the prow. Pick up your paddles and lend a paw here. Let's make a little speed, eh? 
Girth was a bit inexperienced, but as soon as he got the knack of wielding a paddle, there was none better. Enjoying himself hugely, he commented, Er, not miss, this be better in digging at tunnel holes. He can keep he paws nice and clean. I likes boating on his stream girtly. It be fine for he child such as I. The hairmaid found herself panting as she struggled to keep stroke with girth. His strength and endurance seemed boundless. He was not even breathing heavily. Her, did he gettin to be so strong, Zer Girth? Oh, I spect it be all he vittles, I scoffed. Good grub and lots of sleepin, that beasy stuff. At least that's what my old mum always says. In the early noon, a water meadow appeared to the south. Dottie's keen ears soon picked up sounds from its far side. She called sternward to Brocktree. I say, sir, some kind of jolly old hubbub going on over there. Shall we wander over and take a look, what? The badger lord scanned the side stream, searching for an entrance, but it seemed to be blocked by dead wood cast there from the stream flow. There's no way into the water meadow. Perhaps we should leave our log here and skirt the banks. You'm set there, sir. I'll sort her out. Girth grabbed a hefty beech limb with his big digging claws. With a mighty tug, he tore it free from the debris of driftwood, creating an entrance for them. There you be. Now take her nice and easy, Miss Dot. Ruff chuckled. I never seen that done afore by a mole. The water meadow was extremely hard to negotiate. They were constantly shaking thick, bunched weed and long water lily stems off the paddles. From the far side, the sounds of urgent shouts and creatures thrashing about in the rushes echoed over the water. Get ahead of the rascal! Cut him off, Rigo! I got him! No, I ain't! The little scallywag's away again! Kangle, Ferb, there he goes! Stop the scamp! This was followed by a sharp screech and a splash. Ow, ow, the blighter spiked me! He's fallen in, chief! Furring snouts, look out! Here comes a pike, a big un. The pointed log prow broke through a reed bank, and the four travelers took in the scene at a glance. Several shrews were dancing in agitation, pointing wildly at the water. A tiny hedgehog was going down for the second time, splashing and gurgling. He was in deadly danger. Gliding smoothly toward the hog babe was a pike, its rows of needle-like teeth exposed as its jaws opened in anticipation, the dorsal fin near its tail sticking out of the water, dragging weeds along. Dottie yelled out in dismay, By the left! Look at the size of that brute! He'll crunch the little tyke in one bite, spikes and all! The shrews threw up their paws hopelessly. He's a dead un, all right! Not we can do now, mates. Girth tried to reach out with his paddle to the hog babe, but he was too far away for it to do any good. Brrr, he poor little ham and all. Then Ruff dashed the length of the log to gain momentum and leapt high, soaring over Girth and Dottie in a spectacular dive, roaring while he sailed through the air. You great slab-sided worm gargler, come to me! Vegetation and spray flew everywhere as the big otter hit the water purposely to divert the pike from its prey. 
Instead of swimming for the bait, Ruff went like lightning at the fish. He shot by the pike like an arrow, swirled and brought his powerful tail crashing against its flat, vicious head. Rearing up out of the water, he threw himself on the predator. They both went down. Brocktree, Dotty, and Girth paddled furiously, taking the log in between the pike and the hog babe. Girth hooked the tiny creature's little belt with a digging claw and fished him on board. The shrews were jumping up and down with excitement, yelling encouragement to Ruff. Yee-haw! Hold him, big feller! You got the river wolf! Flashes of otter fur and green-gold scales revolved furiously in the clouded water. Then the two broke the surface. Ruff had his paws clamped like a vice about the pike's mouth, holding it tight shut, while harsh, wet slaps rang out as the mighty predator battered its tail, fins, and body against its captor, struggling to break free and attack him. Ruff used his tail rudder like a club, striking the pike's head madly. Whack! Smack! Splat! Thwack! Bang! The pike fell back under Ruff's assault, eyes glazing over, speckled body going limp. Releasing it, the otter practically flew through the water and surged onto the log, blowing water. Ooh! That'll put paid to his gallop for a while, Dotty, though he'll wake up with a headache like no beast business. Tweren't easy, though. You ever tried stunning a full-grown pike with your tail? Dotty peered behind at her small, round scut. Er, afraid I haven't, old chap. A hare's tail's not exactly built for biffin' pike with, what? The pike must have had a thick skull. Partially recovered, it displayed its savage nature by charging the log. Brocktree thumped it, none too gently, on its snout with his paddle. Gertja! Away with you! I'll really put something on your mind. Be off, sir! With an angry swish of its tail, the fish ripped off into the depths, its voracious appetite unsated. Dropping her paddle for a moment, Dottie rummaged through one of the packs until she found a piece of material which she used as a towel. She handed it to the hog babe, and he draped it around his tiny body, muttering mutinously to himself. Gone it gore all wet now, confounded shoe, pushing me in a water. Skickles didn't want a bath. Girth nudged Dottie as they watched the infant hedgehog. Your miz, be ye little bloke, all right. The hairmaid could not resist smiling at the disgruntled babe. Your, he'm fur rattled, but he'll live, I spect, Girth. No sooner did they touch the shore than Ruff was surrounded by shrews clapping him on the back. You're a rough old beast, matey. You beat the river wolf. You showed him. Aye, he was champion of these waters till you came along. Let me shake your paw, warrior. I'm Logalog Gren. Ruff shook heartily with a shrew chieftain. Pleased to meet you, Gren. Couldn't let the little un get ate, so I had to tail whop old river wolf. Ho ho! And a fine job you did of it, mate. Come and take lunch with us. Beach that log and bring your friends. The shrew camp was little more than blankets stretched over branches to form makeshift tents. Introductions were made all around, and Gren called for food. Brocktree watched in amusement as the shrews argued and fought over who was going to serve Ruff. They squared off at one another, scruffy fur standing up aggressively, pawing their small rapiers and adjusting their multicolored headbands to jaunty angles. Oh, 
Oi, back off there, fiddle paws. I'm serving Mr. Ruff. Talk to me like that, twingy nose, and I'll serve you your teeth on a plate. I'm waiting on Mr. Ruff. Dotty helped herself to hot shrew bread and a bowl of steaming vegetable stew. Touchy lot you've got here, Grin Marm. Are they always like this? Logalog Grin calmly shrugged off an arguing shrew who had stumbled against her. Always, long as any beast can remember. We shrews can't help being what we are, born to argue. I want to thank you and your pals for rescuing Skickles. We found the little tyke wandering round a while back. What a pawful that babe is. I never knew any beast with such a mind of an his own. Ain't that right, Skickles? The babe in question waved a severe paw under Gren's nose. Me name's Skickles, not Skickles. Dotty attempted to help out by translating, using her talent for accents and dialects. Oh, I see. Your name's Skittles? The hog babe scowled darkly, huddling deeper into the towel. Cha! Stupid rabbit! Me name's not Skibbles, it's Skittles! Dottie tried another alternative. You say your name's Skittles? He smiled patronizingly at her, as if the message had finally got over. That's right! Skittles! His name's Skittles, Dottie explained a grin, but he's a bit young to pronounce it properly, so he calls himself Skittles. Gren placed a bowl of stew in front of Skittles, who promptly buried his snout in it. There's one or two things I could call him, and they wouldn't be Skittles. That'un's a right little terror. Skittles poked his stew-covered nose over the bowl at her. Me name not just Skittles, you know. I called Skittlebee Spike Diggle. That's me real long name. Dotty broke shrewbread and dipped it in her stew. What does the B stand for? Skittles eyed her ferociously. The bees for Bertram, but I pull you ears very hard if you tells any beast. Dotty narrowed her eyes and gave Skittles a savage grimace. If you ever call me Rabbit again, or even Rabbit, I'll tan your tail bright red. Then I'll announce to every beast that your middle name's Bertram. So how do you feel about that, Master Skittles? What? Skittles decided that the hair maid had him over a barrel and stumped off without another word. Ruff was the center of attention. The shrew females wiggled their snouts at him in a very flattering manner, while the males served him the best of their food, which, together with the shrew beer they brewed, was voted totally delicious by the friendly otter. Young shrews began showing off their prowess to impress him. They fenced and performed tricks with their rapiers and wrestled, a favorite sport among Logalog Gren's tribe. Dottie and Girth sat watching them. The hair maid was quite impressed. I say, well done, chaps. By the left, Girth, these shrews are jolly good wrestlers, what? The strong mole nodded politely. Same fur to Midland, Miz. But my dad moles be knowing more about wrestling than theyns. Gertly more, oh, are. Dottie was intrigued. I don't suppose you wrestle, do you? Girth twiddled his claws, smiling modestly. Bry, Miss Dottie, I be champion wrestler of e moles. I win de Gert silver buckle belt at it. Look. 
He opened his tunic and showed her the belt he wore beneath. The buckle was of wrought silver, depicting two moles tussling. Gurth's name was etched on it in mole script. G-W-R-T. Course, I don't like a showin' it often to every beast. Dottie nudged her mole friend. You sly old tunnel dog. How about giving me a small demonstration? Go on, please, test your skill on those shrews. Fastening up his tunic, Gert shrugged and flexed his muscles. I vows I won't hurt em, miz. Standing in the midst of the wrestling shrews, Gert called out his challenge in a deep bass voice. I be e child along, ladle, born to down e darkest deep tunnel. I'm faster in lightning, harder in e rocks, and stronger in my mum's ale. Here he bent and scarred a furrow in the ground with his claw. Who be's bold enough to step o'er e loin and wrestle oi? Several of the shrews lined up, rubbing their paws in anticipation. Girth signaled the first one. You look a mighty beast, sir. Step oop. The shrew charged recklessly. Girth sidestepped neatly, cuffing him as he hurtled by. The shrew somersaulted once and landed flat on his back, completely winded. Er, good effort, sir. I'll take two of thee next. Two more impetuous shrews flung themselves at him. Girth did no more than grab their tails, twist, and send them crashing head-on into one another. He bowed. Thank ye, gentle beasts. Anyone else try them luck? A much bigger, older shrew crossed the line and went into an expert wrestler's crouch, holding his paws ready to grip. Smiling broadly at him, Girth accepted the grip. Yow! Wow! Wow! Let go! You're breaking me paws! Girth turned to Dottie, still holding his opponent. Oi, totally, Miss Dot. Them good, but not gooder in oi. He released the shrew and ambled back to his seat. However, another shrew, bolder than his compatriots, leapt on Girth's back and locked all four paws around the mole's neck in a submission stranglehold. Girth reached behind, tweaked the shrew's tail experimentally, then gave it a sharp tug to the right. His opponent fell to the floor, frozen in the same position as when he landed on Girth's back. Smiling and shaking his head, the champion wrestling mole sat down beside Dottie. Her, 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 eem were a cunning hammin' old miz, but goin' the guinea rules. I'll let him lay there a while. Mayap twill teach ye me manner or two. Dottie gazed adoringly at her mole friend. I say, you were magnificent. Would you teach me to wrestle like that girth, please? Brr, I... How could I affuse such an handsome creature as e, marm? Us'll start a trainin' this very evening. Dottie winked at Lord Brocktree. See? The old fatal beauty always does the trick, sir. They lingered at the shrew camp until late evening and finally accepted Gren's invitation to stay overnight. 
Even then, Ruff and Girth had become such firm favorites that the shrews pleaded with them to extend their visit. Dottie liked being with the shrews. She enjoyed their company, and being garrulous and talkative herself, she joined in all the arguments with gusto. Lord Brocktree took quite a bit of convincing that he should take a few days off from his quest, but under the combined persuasive powers of his three friends, he yielded gruffly. The badger lord would not admit it, but he had become very fond of the hog-babe Skittles, and was loath to part from the little fellow. He hid his feelings by pretending that Skittles was an unwanted pest. They wandered the camp together, the tiny hedgehog seated astride the badger's sword-hilt, up on his friend's huge shoulders, carrying on lively conversations. Get down from there, you wretch! It's like having a big boulder perched on my back, you great lump! You make Skittles get out, I chop your head off with this sword, Bach! Oh, well, I suppose you better stay up there. Keep to the hilt, though. Don't go near that blade, you nuisance. Come on, Bach, get up! We go looking for berries! Great seasons of famine. Will some beast rid me of this pestilence? What sort of berries do you want, eh? Nice sweetie ones. That's what Skickles like. Ruff sat with log-a-log grin, sampling shrew beer and chuckling at the antics of Skittles and Brocktree. Will you look at him, Marm? Big softy. That little og is Brock twirled about his paw. Ahoy there, Dotty. Have you wrestled that mole to a standstill yet? The hairmaid neatly tripped her instructor so that he fell sitting next to Ruff. Girth smiled approvingly. No, sir, Miss Dot bain't wind oy yet, but her soon will. She'm a girt clever wrestler. Learns quicker in any beast oy ever instructed, brr I. Dotty sat with them, accepting a beaker of dandelion and burdock cordial from Gren. Ha! Huh, don't listen to that fat fibber. I'm sore as a peeled onion all over from being blinkin' well thrown by him. Still, I am learning one or two jolly good wrestling wheezes, breakfalls, holes, blocks, and what not, what? Gren poured cordial for girth. Mayhap you'll need em if you're bound to follow Lord Brock to the mountain by the seas. From what he tells me, his dreams are worried. He sees visions of great trouble there. Dottie sipped her delicious drink, which had been cooling in the stream for a night and a day. Well, he could be right, Marm. Badger lords ain't like the rest of us. They're fated beasts who see strange things. The shrew chieftain was gnawing her lip, staring off into space when Ruff nudged her. Go on, Gran, say it. You wants to come with us, don't you? She stood up and stretched before answering. Gwasom shrews need something to do. Look at em, cooking, wrestling, arguing. Ah, we've been too long in one place now. Nothing better for shrews than having something to do. Keeps them up to the line. Aye, Ruff, if and you'll have us, the Gwasom are with you all the way. All four clasped paws. Gren was highly pleased now that she had made her decision. Girth twiddled his digging claws politely, asking a question which was puzzling him. Why do we be called Gwasoms, Marm? Forgive my ignorance. Gran explained proudly about the shrew tradition. Gwasom! 
Gorilla Union of Shrews in Mossflower. That's what the letters of our name stand for. I'm called Logalog because all shrew chieftains are. We're rovers, bold water beasts, and fierce warriors, sworn to uphold good and defeat evil. All Gwasim shrews are bound under oath to help one another in battle. Girth winked. Pretty useful to have along, I'd say, Marm. Lord Brocktree returned, both paws full of small hard pears, which he spread on the ground before lifting skittles down to earth. The badger sighed. Couldn't find any berries, but the pestilence here came across these wild pears, sweet but hard as stones. He wouldn't rest until we'd picked some, dreadful rogue. Skittles seated himself on the badger's footpaw. Well, shoes be good cookers. They do something with em. Gren picked up a pear and tasted it. He's right. We've got lots of sweet chestnuts from last autumn. Once these ear pears are stewed down, the cooks can make some lovely pear and chestnut flans. The hog babe looked up and winked with both eyes. See, Bach, I told you, make nice flangs. Glenn, Sicklebee's hungry. I never have a flang. Must be nice. Dottie took the hog babe's paw. Come on, then, famine face. Gather em up and we'll go and lend a paw with the shrew cooks. When Brocktree heard the news that the Gwasim were joining them, he was overjoyed, though he changed his plans on the spot. Right. No more lying around here. I vote that we break camp in the morning and get underway. Ruff objected. Ahoy there, Brock. Hold your paddles, matey. There's me, Girth, Dottie, Grin, and about a hundred shrews. If and we wants to lie round for a day or two, then you'll find you're probably outvoted. Lord Brocktree's eyes told the otter that he was not about to have his decision overruled. Swinging forth his battle blade, he stuck it quivering into the ground. Let's be reasonable about this, friend. Let me explain the rules. One badger lord carries two hundred votes, and his sword carries another hundred. Agreed? Ruff looked from the sword to the badger. Sunlight gleamed from the blade, lighting Brocktree's eyes with a formidable gleam. He smiled nervously at his huge friend. Reason. That's what I likes, mate. Vote carried. We go after breakfast tomorrow. Book Two At the Court of King Bucko Also entitled The Tribulations of a Hairmaid Fifteen Fleet Scott's wild yells wakened the squirrels. Juca rubbed irately at her eyes as she approached the dancing hare, Ruro hurrying to join her. Juca loaded a stone into her sling. He thinks that time has come to silence that long-eared windbag. Ruro placed a restraining paw on her leader's shoulder. Mayhap he is more to be pitied than punished, Juca. I think his mind has snapped, crazed from the hunger. Fleetscott, wouldst thou not like to lie down and rest, old friend? I'll pick some roots for thee to nibble upon, eh? But the old hare continued to prance about and shout, Nibble roots? You think I've gone off me bally rocker? Look, there tis, plain as thou washin' on me granny's line. Ruro stared out into the dawn light. 
Ahead, to the northeast, lay forest lands. Oh, I see. Tis the trees. Well, that be a welcome sight. Fleetscott bounced up and down with impatience. Not the trees, you benighted bush-tailed buffoon! The sign, as it says in the confounded poem. March on through two moons and suns. My sign you'll see, I think. Well, there tis, the sign. Your young eyes are better than mine. You should be able to distinguish it. Ha! Huh, I'm nearly blind from the starvation. Blinking unviddled eye shrink, I think they call it. But I can see the sign. Juca interrupted Fleet Scott's wild tirade. Then cease acting like a drunken toad and point it out. The old hare calmed somewhat at the sight of the loaded sling. Right. Pay attention there. Follow the line of me paw, what? Now, do you see those two tall silver firs yonder, eh? Notice anything about them, what? They've had most of the lower boughs chopped away, and a thin dead trunk placed high on two notches atween them. Juca nodded. Aye, tis true, I see them. Fleetscott smote his forehead with a paw. Thank me, Grandpa's whiskers for that. So, Marm, does that cross piece not look to you as if it's been purposely placed there? Use your noggin, squirrel. That's a letter H. It stands for hair. H is for blinkin', flippin', bloomin' hair. You catch my drift at last, what? Juca commented dryly. Well done, hare. Thou canst spell the name of thine own species. Ruro, break camp. We'll make for yonder sign straight away. Fleetscott followed them, muttering, Good job the chap wasn't a squirrel. How in the name of fur would he bend trees into an S-shape, eh? Stiffen me, but I think the old Tums finally glued itself to me backbone. Hope I make it there before I perish and shrivel up, what? Fortunately, the old hare did not perish, nor shrivel up, and they marched into the tree-shade by mid-morn. Grood stared up at the giant H-sign. Karolka! How did any beast get that splittin', flittin', gurgle-twip up so high? Juca cuffed his ears soundly. Language, Grood! Fleetscott found some young dandelions and devoured them. He came across some wild ramsons, tasting strongly of garlic. He devoured them, too, and continued his foraging, stumbling over the footpaws of squirrels resting in the tree shade. I say, you chaps, move your carcasses. Stop on a poor beast getting a nature's bounty. Bounders! They averted their faces from his breath, disgusted. Phew! Get thee gone, long ears. Thou smellest like a midsummer midden at high noon. Ugh! Fleetscott discovered some basil thyme and stuffed it down. Confounded sissies! Try sniffing yourselves after a couple of days marching without a wash betwixt ye. What a pong! Hello! Here's luck! A couple of lamb's lettuce! Yummy! He ate them, flowers and all, plus some harebells, sweet violets, chicory, and butterwort. End of Side 3 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 4. Lord Brocktree by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 131. The greedy old hare then went on to strip a small apple tree. 
He returned to Juca's tribe about early noon and found them recuperating their strength by dozing in the pleasant green shade. Fleet Scott stuffed down apples as if it were his last day on earth, sour juice foaming out over his whiskers. Woof! Slip! Slip! Got you napping, eh? Well, no hard feelings, you miserable bunch of cads. I could do with a spot of the old shut-eye myself, what-what? Spitting pips and stalks, he lay down and instantly fell into a deep slumber. Afternoon shadows were beginning to lengthen when Juca stirred. She shook Ruro and Betel. Best make a move before eventide. Which way now? Ruro retrieved the parchment of bark scroll which was hanging from Fleetscott's tunic. It says here, Discover then a stream wolf's ford, tug thrice upon the royal cord. Where wouldst thou suppose that to be? Juca judged by the sun shadows. Nor'east has served us well thus far. We'll continue that way. Battle, get them up on their paws. A ford means fresh water. That's good. None too gently, she turned and roused the old hare with a few kicks of her footpaw. Waken thyself, windbag, or we leave you here. Fleetscott came awake, doubled up with agonizing stomach cramps, which he let every beast know about with long, piteous wailing. Ow! 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 Oof! Oof! I knew I'd die. We made these woodlands too late, you chaps. Ow! 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 Ouch! Your old pals are goner. Bury me here, please, quick as you can. Ooh! Anti-trampin' plague! That's what it is. Ooh! Obligingly, several squirrels began kicking leaf loam over the suffering hare. He sprang up, spitting out leaves. Get off, you rotters! What do you think you're up to? Thou askest to bury thee. We would not deny thee that. Aye, long ears, thou'rt green in the gills. Methinks thou'rt close to dark forest gates. Fleet Scott picked wet brown leaves from between his ears. Dark forest gates indeed. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Oh, me poor belly. Ruro grinned and squeezed her friend's shoulders pityingly. Couldn't have been anything that thou ate, of course. Fleet Scott straightened up indignantly and immediately folded over again, hugging his stomach. Might have been a blighted worm in one of those apples. Battle winked at Ruro. Oh, pray tell, sir, which one? Thou great fodder bag, the ate a whole tree full, every one of them sour. Could have slain any other beast. Juca leaned on her broad-bladed spear impatiently. Ruro, do something for the bladder-headed oaf, or methinks he'll wail on until the crack of doom. Fleet Scott sat back against a sycamore, holding his distended stomach with both paws. He shut his eyes and mouth firmly, but not before remarking pointedly, Madam, I'm not eating that mishmash. Are you trying to hasten me flippin' demise, what? Each of the squirrels had gleefully contributed a trickle of their water. Ruro had a small fire going, over which she was boiling hound's tongue leaves, milkwort, green alkanet blossoms, and two sulfur-tufted mushrooms in an old iron war helmet. The smell this concoction produced when she mashed it was horrendous. 
Juca nodded to Battle and Groot as Ruro removed the helmet from the flames. Take hold of the blockhead and grip him tight. Ruro, make him take it all. Battle and Groot held Fleet Scott's head while other squirrels piled on and sat on his limbs. Battle pinched the old hare's nostrils so that he could not breathe. The patient held out until he seemed fit to burst, then opened his mouth wide. Assassins! Hare murderers! Warroop! Ruro poured the offensive mixture down Fleet Scott's throat like a ministering angel, while Juca looked on in grim satisfaction. Fleet Scott bucked and writhed to no avail. Ruro managed to get the last of it down his mouth and sprang to one side as the hare began shuddering all over. Let him go. Stand back, every beast. Fleet Scott leapt up like a startled fawn, scut twitching, ears erect, eyes popping wide, jaws quivering. He shot off among the trees like a shaft from a bow. Foul toads, pollywoggles, great barrel-bummed poisoners, whoa! Moments later, he lolloped back. Rather unsteadily, with a wan smile pasted on his drooping features. Never killed me, did you, smarty tails? What? A stern voice boomed from the edge of the camp. Belay! Put one paw near the rabbit, and we'll drop you all where you stand. A single-bladed hatchet thudded into the ground between Fleet Scott and Juca. Instantly, the woodland was thick with hedgehogs. The squirrels were surrounded. The hog leader, a massive creature made twice as big by the grass and leaves stuck to his quills as camouflage, strutted past Juca and retrieved his hatchet. In the other paw, he carried a shield of toughened beech bark studded with shells. Staring fiercely at the squirrels, he puffed himself out, cheeks, stomach, and chest. Bushy-tailed mice, eh? Well, listen, bullies. I wouldn't stand to see an og treated in that way, tortured and poisoned, nor a rabbit neither. Fleet Scott tapped his quills politely. Er, excuse me, old lad, but I'm a hare, and they were rounding on him. The big hedgehog roared, "Who asked you, eh? Don't dare interrupt when Baron Drucko Spikedigle has the floor, or you'll get yourself chopped up into frog meat. You will." Fleet Scott pawed away the hatchet hovering under his nose. Beg pardon, but don't waggle that thing at me. I'm still feeling a bit frail, don't you know? I was merely explain. Baron Drucko went into a fury then, raising his hatchet and shouting in a voice which caused the leaves sticking round his mouth to blow away. Belay that gab, rabbit! I won't stand it from my ogs. And I won't take it from you. If I whack your head off, that'll cure you of talking. What do you think, rabble? The other hedgehogs began banging their hatchets against their shields, each vying to shout louder than the rest. Ho ho! That's the stuff, Baron. Chop that rabbit's head off. That'd stop his chatter, Baron. Does your honor want us to chop these bush mice up too? A small, wiry female hogwife pushed her way through, grabbing the Baron's hatchet from his paw. She brandished it expertly, clipping the tip off one of his head spikes. Her voice was almost a shriek, high and shrill. 
You're blathering big pincushion. Pin your ears back and listen to what the rabbit's trying to tell you. The Baron deflated totally. Picking up the tip of his head spike, he chewed on it like a toothpick. Merkel Wart, you're showing me up in front of me own rabble. He ducked as she swung the hatchet again. Show you up? Every time you open that great trap of yourn, you show yourself up, breeze barrel. Then, turning quickly aside, she whispered to Fleetscut, "You have your say now. Shout out loud, mind. That's all this rabble pays heed to. Beast what can shout, even rabbits." Fleetscut yelled at the top of his voice, and to his surprise, the hedgehog rabble went silent and listened. "I'm a hare. Do you hear? A bally hare. These squirrels are my friends." They weren't harming me, just helping me through a serious illness. That's all. No need to go chopping any beast up round here, chaps. What? 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 Determined to shout louder than Fleetscut, the Baron hollered at a volume that hurt the hare's ears. Well, why didn't you say so at first, instead of causing all this trouble and strife, eh? The Baron's wife, Merkelwort. Swung the hatchet once more, clipping off another of his head spikes. Because you never gave him a whiffling chance to, Aunt Brain. Sulkily, the Baron picked up the head spike tip and stuck it in his mouth next to the first one. Merklewort pulled them out and stamped on them. Will you stop that, Drucko? You'll have eaten yourself up one day carrying on like that. Ask these creatures if they'd like some black currant and plum crumble. Go on, snit nose. Baron Drucko's offer was readily accepted by Fleetscut and the squirrels. While the latter trooped after Drucko to the hog den, the old hare, well aware of where the ruling power in the tribe lay, made a wobbling though elegant leg to Merklewort, offering his paw. Allow me to escort you, marm. A pretty hog wife should never jolly well walk alone. What? She accepted. Well, well, ain't this grand? That husband of mine wouldn't give you a push off a rock. Baron Drucko's tribe were known as the Rabble. They lived in rabble conditions, even though their camp was not but a temporary one. However, neither Juca nor Fleetscut could pretend that Rabble Blackcurrant and Plum Crumble was anything other than first class. The guests seated themselves on a rotten elm trunk. And dug into sizable bowls of the stuff, steaming hot and covered in sweet maple sauce. You'll have to forgive us," Merklewort remarked casually. "The camp's a bit untidy. Of course, it ain't what we're used to, is it, Drucko?" The Baron licked white sauce from his snout and sniffed. "I should whifflin' well hope not. Still, what's a little untidiness atwixt friends, eh? That's what I always say." Juca shifted to accommodate a beetle grubbing its way out of the rotten log they were seated on. A little untidiness, indeed," she murmured low to Fleetscut. "He thinks the place looks like a battlefield in the midst of a midden." The area was littered with chopped-off head spikes, broken bowls, fruit and vegetable skins, and other debris far too dreadful to mention. Fleetscut coughed politely and made conversation. Lest any beast had heard Juca's remarks. Ahem, I take it that you don't live hereabouts, then, Marm. Merklewort wiped spilled crumble from her lap with a withered dock leaf, which she then devoured. 
Oh, graciousness, no. We're only up here looking for our babe, little Skittles. The whifflin' wanderin' woggle spike, or, <laughs> I mean the darlin' hinfant og, went and got hisself losted. We've seen neither nose nor spike of him for a frog's age. Oh, I do hope he ain't been consoled by vermins. Baron Drucko looked up in the midst of stealing a dozing compatriot's bowl of crumble. Don't you mean consorted? Fleetscott chipped in, making sure his tone was loud enough. I think the word you're looking for is consumed, chaps. Actually, we met up with two hedgehog types, Grassum and Reedum, they called themselves, a couple of days back. They found your babe and adopted him, but the little tyke escaped from them and wandered off again, what? We're keeping a weather eye out for your skittles, though. Some good beast should find him sooner or later. Don't you jolly well fret, folks. Baron Drucko succeeded in filching the bowl of crumble from his rabble-mate, placing his empty bowl in the hedgehog's paws and digging into the fresh one. Aye, long as he don't get consecuted by vermins, whifflin' little nuisance. Well, did I tell you one of the reasons I wanted to come up this way was to enter the contest? Ha! I expect that's why you're wandering this neck of country, too, eh? The old hare put aside his bowl. It was grabbed by a rabble hog who began licking the inside of it thoroughly. Contest? What contest, Baron? First I've heard of it. Baron Drucko cuffed the sleeping hedgehog alongside him into wakefulness. What? Hey, what's the matter? The rabble hog spluttered. Oi! Some beast added me puddin'. The Baron cuffed him another few buffets. It's atten, not added, swill brain. Never mind that. Give me that contest thing you found. The hedgehog searched his spikes, ruminating aloud. Where'd I puttin' it? Sorry, putted it. Aha! Here it is. An extremely grimy birch bark strip was thrust into the hare's paw. He opened it gingerly, wiping off remnants of bygone meals and a few unidentified smears. Fleet Scott read aloud. Come, mother, father, daughter, son, my challenge stands to any beast. I'll take on all or just the one, whether at the fight or feast. Aye, try to beat me and defeat me. Set em up, I'll knock em down. Just try to outbrag me, you'll see. King Bucko Big Bones wears the crown. Juca the Sling raised her eyebrows at the old hare. Methinks Big Bones has a fine opinion of himself. That's the hare thou art going up against. Well, good luck to thee. Yon fellow must have the might to back up his challenge. Merklewort poked a grimy paw at Fleetscut. Ha! Ah, so you are going to take up the challenge, eh? Don't you think you're a bit long in tooth and seasons? Fleetscut patted the top of his gray head and then his chest. Arm. There may be winter on the mountain, but there's spring at its heart. I must accept a challenge if I'm to raise an army to take Salamandastron, for we need this bucko Watson and his followers on our side. So, I'll search old Big Chops out and throw down the valley gauntlet. What? Drucko raised his dripping spikes from the pudding bowl. Why, me too. I'll take a whiffle at it. But you can't, sir. Fleetscott objected. You are blinking baron of hogs. How can you be a king of hares? What? 
Drucko shrugged and collared another bowlful from a smaller rabble hog. Huh. Heirs or hogs, all the same to me. I knows how to be boss and put me paw down firm. Hard but fair, that's me. He emphasized the point by draining the tankard belonging to the hedgehog on his left, rubbing his stomach and belching aloud. Ah, oh, that's betterer. What do you say we join forces and seek this King Bucko out together, eh? We ain't got a clue where to find him. What about you, Cully? Without consulting Juca, Pleatscut drew out the poem he was carrying. Right yar, Baron. We'll go together. Safety in numbers, what? Listen to these directions. Discover then a stream wolf's ford, tugged thrice upon the royal cord, then my honor guard will bring loyal subjects to their king. Does that make any sense to you, old chap? Grucko scratched his stubby head spikes reflectively. Why, it's poetry, ain't it? All those funny words put together like a song, but you speak them instead of singing. That's the answer. It's poetry. He sat back, looking quite pleased with himself until his wiry little wife gave him a shove, which sent him sprawling on his back spikes. Pay no heed to that nincompoke, Merklewart snorted. A stone's got more brains than him. I think I might know where tis. Round here they calls all the pike fishes stream wolf. Two of our scouts found a place a couple of days back, a shallow crossing just afore the stream breaks into the river. That's a ford, ain't it? Juca picked up her short spear. Canst thou take us there, hogwife? Ignoring her husband's struggles to get up off his back, Merklewort bawled at the rabble hogs. Belay! Break camp, hogs! Barleybur, Shunko, take us to that place you scouted out, if and you can unmember where it is. Stir your spikes, or we'll leave you behind, Draco. The combined forces cut into a winding path which took them into what seemed a dim maze of thick, ancient trees. Apart from the odd sunshaft breaking through the foliage, it was silent, still and clothed in a soft green radiance. Juca and Pleatscott marched together at the rear. The squirrel was highly displeased with the old hare's tactics and told him so in no uncertain manner. "'Twould have been fitting had thou asked me about joining my tribe up with these spiked, ill-mannered vagabonds. Rabble they be named, and rabble they are. I like them not. And who gave thee authority to decide whither we go, eh? Thou art no better than them, long ears, treating us in such fashion, after we came all this way with thee.' Fleetscut's dislike of Juca still persisted. Moreover, he was feeling better now full of crumble and ready for an argument. Well, pish-tush, me old bush-tail. You know what we always say at Salamandastron? If you don't like it, then you can jolly well lump it. So there, come all this way with me, indeed. I never asked you to, Marm. You and your squirrels can go sling your hooks, what? Aye, go on back to your safe little pine grove, though it'll probably be swarming with all kinds of bottle-nosed, blue-bottomed vermin by now. Huh. I could say I wish you good luck, but I blinkin' well don't. The squirrel leader bared her teeth viciously. I don't need thy good luck wishes, olden. Ye branded me coward. I'll show you I'm not, nor my warriors. We're with thee to the last step of this journey, 
end where it may. Fleet Scott curled his lip in contempt. Oh, why? You're with me all the way. For vengeance, no. For honor, huh? What would you know about honor? Juca, the famous sling. Cha. To see what weapons and plunder you can get your paws on. That's why you're with me, lady. And you call these hedgehogs ill-mannered vagabonds? Let me tell you, tree walloper, you're no better than them. Matter of fact, they're more honest about it than you. What? Glaring and snorting at one another, the two continued without further words. Sixteen. Lord Stonepaw had been watching the passage outside the cavern for sight or sound of foe beasts. Both he and Stiffener were taking turns on sentry, but there had been little to report in the last several hours. The Badger Lord arrived back in the cavern to find his hairs grouped around Old Bramwell, urging him to recall something. Come on, old chap. You say it's called Little Bob Hare, eh? Now think carefully. How did it go? Bramwell was very old and confused. He looked pleadingly at the faces around him. Hey, what? Surely you can recall it yourselves. This announcement was followed by snorts of impatience. Twas before our time. Nurse Willoway was long gone then. Stonepaw joined them. Placing a paw around Bramwell's skinny old shoulders, he silenced the rest. Calm down now, friends. What's going on here? Bramwell thinks he knows a way out, sir. But the old buffer's gone and forgotten the pally thing. Stonepaw raised his eyebrows reprovingly at the speaker. A hare can forget lots of things when he reaches the winter seasons. You should know that. Look at us. We're no bunch of spring chicks anymore. I'm older than you all. Don't pick on Bramwell. He can't help it, can you, old lad? Bramwell pounded a feeble paw against his gray head. "'Tis in there, sire. The old skip-rope rhyme that Nurse Willoway used to teach young leverets. But alas, it was so long ago I can't remember it, though I'm sure it was called Little Bob Hare or something like that. Hmm. Stonepaw scratched his stripes pensively. I was here in Nurse Willoway's time. She was a stern creature. I'll never forget those herbal tonics and physics Willoway brewed up for the young'uns. What a smell. Glad I never had to take them. Wait. Little Bob Hare? I recall that. Twas the one little hair maids used to chant when I swung the rope for them to skip. I'll tell you what, old friend. You and I will sit down someplace quiet together with a bite of cheese and some ale. We'll work it out together, and Blench can write it down as we remember it. Right. Stiffener, your turn for sentry go. Blench, get some charcoal from the fire and a flat piece of stone. The rest of you, take a nap and stay clear of Bramwell and me. Torley put his ear to the barred oak door of the cell where he and the other captives had been locked. He listened carefully, trying to distinguish the voices he could hear coming from somewhere beyond, but he was distracted by a fat, hungry old hare behind him called Woe Bee, bewailing the fact that she was short of food, as some or most hares will. Torley tried ignoring her, an impossible feat. Bit of a frost that was, sailors, old gal. If you and Torleap hadn't cheeked the trun beast, we might have had a morsel between us to keep fur and ears together. My word, I can't ever recall starving like this. I'm getting pains in me tummy. What time is it? 
Just past noon, what? I'd normally be sitting down to me post-luncheon snack now. Rose petal and maple wafers, scones with strawberry preserve and meadow cream, with a nice pot of mint and comfrey tea. Now we haven't got a crust or a confounded swig of water twixt a lot of us. How long will we have to put up with this state of affairs? Starvin's no fun. Torleap let the crystal monocle drop from his eye. His temper was fraying dangerously, listening to Wobie's endless monologue. She seemed to go on and on and on. Normally polite, he rounded on her brusquely. I say, Marm, do you mind giving the old jaws a blink and rest? What? Confound it all, we could be a lot worse off. Wobie sniffed indignantly. Indeed, sir? A lot worse off, you say? Pray, how? Torley pointed stiffly down with his paw. Well, for a start, we could have been locked up in the cellars in the flippin' dark. Granted, we've got no food, but at least we can see daylight. He gestured to the round hole which formed a window. Sailors nodded her agreement. Lovely view of the sea from up here, what? Suppose Trun thought that if they'd locked us up in the cellars, Lord Stonepaw and the others may have broken us out. Wobie poked her head out of the window hole. The cell was really high up on the mountain. Down below, the beach looked like a mere yellow ribbon, beyond which the great sea stretched until it was lost in a blue haze. Maybe we'd have been better off down below. There's absolutely no escape from this high-up place. I say, Torleap, I can hear those voices you mentioned clearer from here. Hurrying to the window, Torleap confirmed her observation. Stap me, you're right, Marm. Now I beg you, please be silent while I eavesdrop. May hear something jolly important. Two of Ungat Trun's horde captains were holding a conversation in the chamber below the cell. Well out of Ungat Trun's hearing, Rogue the weasel and Meyerfleck the rat were discussing the horde's position. Our soldiers will take a lot of feeding, Rogue. Mark my words. The great one ain't no fool. He knows that. Tomorrow the fleet's putting out to sea for fishing. There's a couple of patrols going to forage the cliffs and dunes for birds' eggs. Wasting their time. No birds or eggs out there. We killed off the seabirds out at sea before we got here, and the rest flew off. I still don't see where all the vittles will come from. Oh, they'll find something sooner or later, I suppose. That we get sent with our troops on an inland forage. Meanwhile, it ain't too bad for the likes of us. We get to live off in the striped dog's larders for a while. Good biddles, eh? Aye, that they are. Come on, we'd better get downstairs. The mighty one's still carrying on about the striped dog and his followers hiding in the cellar caves. I'd hate to be them when they're captured. You know what Trun's like. They'll die long and slow. I heard the mighty ones starving this lot up above so that sooner or later one of them will break and tell where the striped dog's hid himself. I've heard that too. But suppose they don't tell, and he finds the striped dog and those others. What do you think he'll do with this lot in the cell above? Oh, they won't be no use any more. Long and slow, that'll be their fate. Long and slow. In the cell above, every hare had heard the conversation. When the captains had gone, there was a deadly silence among the prisoners. Wobie could not prevent a sob escaping her lips. Torley patted her ears. Don't fret, Marm. They won't catch Lord Stonepaw. 
He's a lot cleverer than those rotten vermin give him credit for. Sailors stared out of the high window longingly. I just wish there was something we could jolly well do to escape this place. Nothing worse than sitting round just waiting, what? Captains Meyerfleck and Rogue were passing the Wildcat's chamber when the door opened and Ungat Trun emerged with Fregorl at his heels. Both captains halted and saluted smartly. Their leader nodded. Ah, I was just about to send for you. Listen now, I want you to take your troops, all your troops, down to the bottom caves. Flood those caves and passages with horde beasts. Show those other idiots down there how to snare an old striped dog and a few hares. I want them taken at any cost. Don't fail me. Meyerflack and Rogue saluted stiffly and marched off, shouting orders to their column leaders. Ungat Trun addressed the silent Fregorl. I've got a small task for you, too. Take whom you like and find me some new spiders. There must be lots in this cave-riddled mountain and the rocks outside. Bring them to me in a striped dog's chamber. They can build webs there and redecorate it for me. Treat them carefully when you find them. I live only to serve your word, mightiness. The Grand Fregorl glided soundlessly off. Old Bramwell was blinking drowsily by the time they had pieced together the skipping rhyme. Stonepaw was tired, too. He stifled a yawn. Well, I hope we haven't forgotten anything. Read it out loud, Blench. The cook read aloud from her neat lines of script, soon picking up the skip-rope chant which little hares had called out long ago as they held their smocks and skipped. Down in the cellars where no beast goes, little Bob Hare went running. He ran and ran and followed his nose where rocks never let the sun in. He got very tired and sat by a pool and found out to his cost, sir, that he was naught but a silly fool who'd gotten himself lost there. Oh, woe is me, cried little Bob. Tis dark and so unsightly. I must find some way out of here to where the sun shines brightly. So he climbed up to the coiling snake, all damp and slippy feeling, and found beyond the big plum cake a hole right through the ceiling. He went up through and chased the blue and made it home for tea, sir. He beat the tide and spinies, too. But his mamma tanned his tail fur. In the silence which followed, Stonepaw turned to his hairs. Well... Let's see if we can make it home for tea, friends, or out of here at least. Troby scratched between his ears. Beg pardon, sir, but are you sure you got it right? As far as I can recall, we did. Right, Bramwell? The ancient hare did not reply to the badger lord. He had drifted off to sleep. Blanche gave her opinion. It looks fine to me, sire. Most of it's just a leveret story about a little feller getting hisself lost down here. Tis the last eight lines is what we want from that bit about the coiling snake, right? Troby was still a bit bewildered by it all. Where in the name of salad do we find a climbing snake, what? A hare called Willop corrected him. Not a climbing snake, twas a coiling snake. It says little Bob climbed up to it, up there. She pointed up at the cave ceiling. 
Like stargazers, the badger and his hares wandered about the cavern, heads thrown back, staring at the stalactite formations. Oops! Got a drop of water in me eye. Watch where you're going, old chap. Go and bump into some other beast. You've near knocked me over twice now, what? Stop right where you are, Troby, or you'll walk straight into that pool. Oh, I say, ha <laughs> ha! One of those thingies hanging down looks just like old Perlo with a great long nose. Ha ha ha! Well, at least I've got a decent nose, not like that apple pit stuck on the end of your muzzle. Cha! Aha! There tis. I see it. There tis. Splash. The Badger Lord's huge paws scooped a dripping Troby up from the pool. Where? Point it out quickly. Dancing to and fro, shaking freezing water from his fur, Troby tried to recite the coiling snake. Er, er, where was I? Oh, confound it! I've lost the bloomin' thing now. Deary me! There's only one thing for it. Get ready to fish me out again, sir. Here goes. Troby flung himself in the air, and an instant before he hit the pool, his paw shot out. There! Stonepaw marked the spot in a flash. Unable to stop himself laughing, he hauled Troby out of the water again. Ho ho ho! Good old Troby! Not only impressions of a bird and a fish, but you did find it over there in the far corner. Don't check it again, though. That pool looks to me as if it might go down forever, and I might not manage to catch you next time. Bramwell doddered forward, rubbing sleep from his eyes. Not like you to be taking a bath before summer, Troby. What's going on here, sir? Above the rock ledges in the cavern's dark, shadowed corner, the stalactite hung, formed by water dripping for countless ages and leaving minuscule limestone deposits, which added gradually to its length. At some point in time, the water took a different course, threading its way around the main column and forming into a type of embossed spiral winding about the stalactite. An unmistakable representation of a coiling snake. Stiffener, being the most agile, was brought in from sentry duty and replaced by Perlo. The boxing hare weighed up the route, shaking his head doubtfully. Those ledges look much too slippery for our hares to climb, sir. Did we bring any rope with us? Stonepaw looked crestfallen. We haven't any rope at all. Then use bow strings and belts, you puddins. Old Bramwell waved an apologetic paw. Didn't mean to call you a puddin', sir. Beg your pardon. The Badger Lord chuckled. You can call me what you like, as long as you come up with ideas like that, my old friend. Belts and bowstrings, eh? Right. Cord girdles, woven belts, and tough bowstrings were soon lashed together into an awkward but serviceable rope. Stiffener coiled it about his shoulders, spat on his paws, and clambered onto the first ledge. It was worn smooth, wet, and slick with trickling water. Willop scraped up a bit of damp sand from the stones at the pool edge, molded it into a ball, and tossed it up to Stiffener. Here, catch! Rub this on your paws. Twill help. The grit did the trick. Up Stiffener went, clinging like a fly to the slippery rock ledges, with his friends below calling out advice to him. Pin yourself flat against the wall and reach up for that bit sticking out above. Move your paws left a touch, Stiff. Bit more. That's it. Now lie flat on your tummy and wriggle along. See that crevice? Wedge into it and climb up there. 
Gradually, bit by painstaking bit, the boxing hare made his way upward until he reached the stalactite they were certain was the coiling snake. Leaning out from the ledge, he took hold of it, inspecting the dark ceiling above. Bramwell called up to him. Do you see the big plum cake? That's what the rhyme says you want to look for. Any sign? Stiffener arched his neck back, searching. Sire, can you move one of those big lanterns this way? Stonepaw shifted a lantern directly beneath the hair. So, there you are, me beauty. I found it, mates, Stiffener called. Be back down in a tick. Stand clear now. The makeshift rope unraveled, its end hitting the floor. Stiffener came down at paw over paw in a manner that would have done credit to any squirrel. He landed lightly. Up there, just right of that coiling snake thing, there's the fat, wide end of a stalactite which must have snapped off. Looks just like a big old plum cake, though not as good as the ones you bake, Blanche Marm. The other side of it is a hole. Goes straight through the ceiling, sir. Anyhow, I swung across there and tied the rope round a little nub of rock inside the hole so we can all climb up there. I reckon the whole space might be wide enough to take a beast your size, sir. Lord Stonepaw hugged Stiffener fondly. Splendid work, Stiffener. You're a real corker. Bramwell was the first to go, with Stiffener right behind him, lest the old fellow got into difficulties. Surprisingly, he did quite well, though at one or two points Stiffener had to get his head and shoulders beneath Bramwell and push. Heaving the ancient hair through the hole, Stiffener started back down again. Stonepaw noticed the boxing hair was beginning to breathe heavily. You won't last out, clambering up and down that rope all the time. We'll have to think of an easier way. Stiffener squatted until his breathing eased. You're right, sir. I ain't getting any younger. I got an idea, though. Let's get two of our strongest up there with me, say Perlow and Troby. The three of us can stay up in the hole, run a fixed noose into the rope, and hoist the rest up one by one. What do you think, sir? Stonepaw agreed readily. An excellent idea. Troby, up you go, friend. Perlow? Perlow? A worried frown flashed across the badger's face, and he hurried to the concealed entrance, picking up a torch as he went. There was no sign of Perlow standing sentry in the narrow rift. Stonepaw heard yelling and clattering from outside. Forcing his great bulk through the crack, the Badger Lord pushed out into the passage and followed the sounds. Around the first bend, Perlow was being set upon by six or more vermin. He fell with two on top of him, the rest scrabbling to get at him. Stonepaw came hurtling into the fray, laying about him with a blazing torch. You lay Ripping the two horde beasts off Perlow, the Badger Lord dispatched both by smashing them head-on against the rock walls of the passage. Taking to their heels, the others fled, running wildly for their lives. Stonepaw pulled Perlow upright and retrieved his torch. Are you badly hurt, my friend? Though blood ran from Perlow's jaw and back, he shook his head. I'll be all right, sir, but they've found our cave. It was my mistake to step out into the passage holding a torch. I heard sounds, you see, and walked right into the vermin like a fool. The badger threw a paw about Perlow to steady him. Come on, we'll soon have you up through the hole and out. 
But even as he found the cavern entrance, Stonepaw could hear the din of many vermin charging along the underground tunnels toward the secret cave that was no longer a secret. 17. Surrounded by a virtual flotilla of shrew log boats, which were a bit more sophisticated than Ruff's simple tree trunk, having been hollowed out and cross-benched, Dottie and Girth sat forward on their elm log, digging their paddles deep and calling out the pace in true Guasom fashion, along with log-a-log Gren's shrews. Dottie liked the shrews, aware of a real sense of comradeship in their company. The vessels sped downstream together with a big shrew called Cubba calling the stroke in his fine bass voice. Taking his orders from Gren, he bellowed out, Ahoy, Guasom! We ain't stopping till we join the river, so let's get our guests there good and fast. The streams are running well, and we'll camp near the river fork, so bend your backs and let's show our friends how Guasom shrews do it. Right. Take your stroke from me. One. Two. Wayla hey coom. Every beast bent to the paddles, roaring back at Cubba. Shrum, shrum. Cubba called the stroke on every third beat. Wayla hey coom. Dottie and her friends joined the Guasom's answer. Shrum, shrum. Oh, the river is deep and swift and wide. Wayla hey coom. And there's my matey at my side. Shrum, shrum. With the sunlight beaming through the trees, Wayla hey coom. We'll all remember days like these. Shrum, shrum. Oh, oh, Wayla hey coom. Shrum, shrum, shrew. I won't forget a friend like you. Brocktree and Ruff cheered when the Guasom quickened the pace. Showing off their prowess, experienced shrews twirled their paddles high on alternate strokes, clicking the blades against those of their neighbors and dipping back without breaking pace. Ruff was full of admiration for their skill. Ha ha! What a fine old bunch of water beasts this gang are! Before long, Girth and Dottie had learned the trick. Her, her, Miss Dot, usins be girt paggle-wallopers, brrrai. Then the entire thing developed into a race. The log boats fairly flew downstream, spray shooting up from their bows. The four friends were caught up in the exhilaration of it all, keeping up with the breakneck stroke, yelling out friendly jibes and exchanging banter with the guasom. Ah, there's woodworm in that log paddling faster than you lot. Oh, is there now, cheeky chops? You'll soon be eating our spray from behind, matey. Grr, don't he strain yourselves, sirs. Just he stopping us in's wake now. Wake, is it? We thought you were asleep. Ho, ho, ho. Scallywag, I'll bend my paddle over your head for that. Tut, tut, me old messmate. You'll have to catch us first. Give him vinegar, cubba. Show him the old double stroke. Come on, sir. Wheel that paddle as if it were your sword, what? Cubba's booming shout rang out over the sun-flecked waters. Ship your paddles. Stop that fuss. Let the stream work carrying us. Every beast stowed paddles, allowing the boats to skim elegantly along on the silent current. Brocktree leaned back, breathing heavily. Whew! We must have covered a day's distance in half a morn there. What do you say, Ruff? Aye. We made the fishes look as if and they was standin' still. 
Dottie flopped down upon the prow, wiping spray from her ears. By the left, and by jingo, I'm kerfoozled. What about you? Girth's smile split his dark-furred features almost in half. Us flew like birds, miss. It were wonderful. The remainder of that memorable day on the stream passed in similar fashion, sometimes racing, other times cruising, with banter, shanties, and good comradeship prevailing over all. In the late afternoon, Gren passed on orders to make landfall at a recognized Guasum camping spot, a shallow, sunlit cove. They waded in the clear water, stretching and getting the feel of paws on solid ground again. A few of the younger shrews went deeper for a swim. Girth watched the cooks setting up their fire and digging out supplies and cauldrons. The kindly mole gave their rations a quick look over before having a word with Dottie. Girth says you lot can have the evening off, the hair maid announced to the delighted shrew cooks. He'll be chef today. You chaps are in for a real treat. My mole pal's going to make girt tunnel stew, followed by preserved apple and plum pudding with sweet chestnut sauce. How does that sound, Watt? The cooks patted Gert's back and hugged him thankfully. Then, in the true manner of shrews, they hung about, observing him at work, offering advice and criticism, and arguing among themselves. You need to peel those turnips thinner. Don't waste any. Pay no heed to that, and Gert, you peel 'em how you like. But I'd roll me pastry wider if I was you. Rubbish! The mole's rolled it too wide as it is. Can't you see? That cauldron'll boil over, and if you don't watch it, shows how much you know, Snigglesnail. A watch cauldron never boils. That's what my mum always said. You're doing that dried fruit all wrong, Gert. Here, let me show you how 'tis done. Dotty had a quick word with Lord Brocktree, who soon settled the argument. Drawing his great battle blade, he sliced a dead limb from an old willow with one mighty stroke. Some wood for your fire, Girth. Oh, while I've got my sword out, do you want me to stop any shrews from interfering with your cooking? I could whack off a few tails, eh? By the time Girth turned to answer, the shrews had fled. Thank ye, Zerbrock. Them serpently muddlin' argifyin' little haminoles. Oh, I never seed aught like 'em. Logalog Gran approached Dotty, Ruff, and Brocktree and pointed downstream. I was going to take a stroll along the bank. We have to cross a ford before we reach the river tomorrow. Just thought I'd best check to see if the ford level is high enough to sail over. If not, we'll have to carry the boats along the bankside. Would you like to take a walk with me, friends? Brocktree sheathed the sword upon his broad back. Be with you in a moment, Marm. I want to check on Skittles. Do you know I've not seen hide nor hair of that rascal since morn? Ruff pointed out a group of young shrews frolicking in the stream, Skittles splashing and giggling with them. There's the rogue. He's been with that gang all day, traveling up front in the lead boat with Gren. The shrew chieftain turned her eyes to the sky. I always make the young'uns sit in my boat so I can keep an eye on 'em. But seasons of vinegar. I've never had to cope with one like that Skittles. He's more trouble than a barrel of beetles. The Badger Lord smiled and shook his head. Aye, he is that. As soon as I mentioned getting a wash this morning, he vanished like smoke. Look at him now, playing in the stream like a little fish. I couldn't get him near water for the life of me. Come on, let's get going before he notices us. They paddled silently off down the bank. 
Before they had got around the bend, however, the hog babe sprang out of the water in front of them, a wicked grin on his face. He scrambled up onto the badger's back, seating himself on the sword hilt before any beast could stop him. Hee-hee-hee! <laughs> Think you was going off without skickles, eh? Brocktree turned his head, growling in the hog babe's face. Be off with you pestilence! Skittles tweaked the badger's nose impudently. See? I nice and clean now, Bach. I come with you, mate. Lord Brocktree turned his face to the front, smiling hugely, though his voice was gruff and stern. Huh. I suppose you'll have to, seeing as you're up there. But sit still, and no nonsense out of you, sir. Skittles saluted. And no nonsense out of you, sir, or I chop your tail off with your sword. Chop! It was a pleasant walk in the warm evening. Dragonflies hovered over the stream, hunting for midges and mayflies. Pepper saxifrage and yellow-cupped silverweed grew in profusion close to the stiller edges. Noon had turned to early evening gold, with pink and cream cloud banks massed prettily to the south. Log-a-log Gren halted them inside of the ford. You can glimpse the river not far from here, friends. Stay well on the banks now. If the water's deep enough, on the ford, our boats should pass over it with no trouble. I'll have to test it with a stick, so keep well on land. The waters hereabouts have stream wolves aplenty hunting in them, and they hide themselves well, so tis best to take care. On reaching the ford, Gren demonstrated what she meant by tossing a few crusts she had brought along into the water. Four long pike shot out of the reed cover and fought each other viciously for the food. Wow! Where they come from, Bark? Brocktree glanced back at the startled hog babe on his shoulder. Stream wolves lie in wait for food, then they pounce, just like the one Ruff saved you from in the water meadows. While the pike were busy, Gren poked a stick into the ford. Tis deep enough. Our craft should pass over safely. I wouldn't trail my paws in there if I was you, Skittles. Look, further down the bank, you can see the river where it meets the stream. Dottie skipped down the bank a piece. I say, chaps, cranberries, scabs of them growing down here. Dainty pink flowers with curling petals stood swaying on wispy, thin-leafed stalks. Beneath them, the small orange-hued berries grew in profusion. They were sweet but sharp to the taste. The friends gathered in the welcome addition to their supplies, sampling the fruit as they picked. Mmm, nice and tasty, Marm. I wager Girth and your cooks could make a batch or two of cranberry tarts with these. Dottie chided the juice-stained hog babe. Steady on, Skittles. You'll make yourself ill if you scoff too many. Don't be greedy now. Lord Brocktree raised an eyebrow at Ruff. That's the best one I've heard for a while. A hare telling another creature not to eat too much. Wonders never cease. Dottie overheard the remark and turned primly on the badger. Manners don't cost anything, you know. My mater always said enough was as good as a feast, sir. Merely advising the little tyke. Skittles, come back here, you rip. But the hog babe was off on an adventure of his own. He dashed away into the surrounding bushes, chortling. Yah, yah, you can't catch Skickles. They raced after him, fearing that he would turn and run into the ford. For a hog babe, Skittles was surprisingly nippy. He put on a good turn of speed, dodging through shrubbery and around tree trunks. Gren and Ruff went one way, 
Dottie and Brocktree the other, hoping to head him off. Then they heard Skittles' shrill screams cut the evening air. Eek! Let go of me! Let go of Skittles! Dottie was brushed to one side as Brocktree grabbed the battle blade from his back and crashed off through the foliage like a juggernaut. Pang! A slingstone ricocheted from the sword blade. Juka the sling stood barring Brocktree's path, whirling her loaded weapon, teeth bared, ready to do battle. Hold hard, striped dog, or the next one puts thine eye out. Oh, corks! You benighted bush-tailed buffoon, pack in slinging. Can't you see that's a badger, Lord? Fleetscut stuck out his paw just in time. Juka's sling wrapped around it, the stone load clacking sharply as it whacked the old hare's paw. He hopped and leaped about in pain, yanking Juka crazily around with him. Ow! Ow! Ouch! You blithering blister-nosed bang-tail! You gone and busted me poor old paw! Ow! Every beast seemed to arrive on the scene together then. Baron Drucko, Merkel Wart, a rabble of hogs, and the squirrel tribe. Gren came dashing up with Dottie and Ruff hard on her heels. Brocktree leaned on his sword-hilt, perplexed. What in the name of all seasons is this? Skittles appeared from beneath a bush and sat down nonchalantly on Brocktree's big footpaw, shaking his head. Name of seasons! War all this, eh? More pandemonium ensued. My little babe, me treasure! Where in the name of carnation have you been, you foul-needled maggot? Ahoy there, marm, curb your tongue. The little bloke's been with us. Ruff tried vainly to placate the angry hog mother, but only succeeded in offending her mate. Shut your trap, babe robber. If my wife axes where in the coronation he's been, then let him tell her. Excuse me a tick, folks, but what's all this about carnations and coronations? Shouldn't the word be tarnation, what? Dottie interjected. Beg pardon, marm, but shouldn't you keep your long ears out of other beasts' business? Bad form, marm. Fleetscott said severely. Who are you jolly well calling long ears? You're a hare yourself, you daughter of an old paw wobbler. A fig for you, sir. Thou art a bit young in seasons to be cheeking thy elders in such manner, miss. Mind, or I'll teach thee a lesson. I say, you broom-tailed paw-breaker, do you mind belting up? This is my quarrel, what? Clang! Silence! Silence, I say! The ring of Brocktree's sword blade upon a rock, coupled with his stentorian roar, created instant quiet. The badger lord sheathed his weapon. Next beast I hear arguing will have me to deal with. Now back to the bank and gather cranberries, all of you. Don't stand there gawping at me. We have the best cooks in all moss flour back at our camp. If you want hot cranberry tarts for supper tonight, you lot would be better off picking berries and arguing. We'll sort all our differences out over a decent meal. Now get moving. Muttered introductions were made as the party bent to pick cranberries. Brocktree and Dottie filled Merklewort and Drucko in on Skittles' encounter with the River Wolf and the trial it had been trying to keep him in order. Titles, histories, and names of friends and relatives were exchanged. Bags, aprons, helmets, and pouches were filled until the area was stripped relatively clean of the good fruit. They trudged back along the bank in the failing light, Baron Drucko shaking his head in despair of his offspring 
as he explained to a smiling brock tree, four times. Four, mind. That little tail snip has gone missing four times since he was born, and him not more'n two seasons old. No wonder me spikes is going gray. Those the missus ain't chopped off with me hatchet. Dottie and Fleetscott had apologized to one another and were getting on quite amicably. Well, stop me. So you're old Blench the cook's niece, what? Bet you can't cook as well as your jolly old aunt, eh, Miguel? Beg pardon? Me cook? I'd burn a salad, sir. Us of the fatal beauty type are pretty awful cooks, if you ask me. Gert's apple and plum pudding with sweet chestnut sauce was set to one side as the Guasim cooks set about making cranberry tarts, which involved arguing. These will go nice with the sweet chestnut sauce, mate. Who taught you to cook bottle snout? Rose hip and honey syrup. That's the proper thing to have with them. Rubbish. You don't need any sauce or syrup with cranberry tarts. A few crystallized cuckoo flower petals. That's all any beast in their right mind would sprinkle them with. Huh. Too late now. They're scoffing them anyway. Stories were told around the stone oven campfire as it reflected the night stream, and new-made friends relaxed on the bank. Brock Tree and Fleet Scott sat together. The Badger Lord was extremely disturbed about the bad news from Salamandastron. My father Stonepaw did right in sending you to gather an army, Fleet Scott. For one of your long seasons, you have done well, despite the difficulties you were under. Relax now, old fellow. I take charge as from here on in. The old hare bowed respectfully to the son, as he had always done to the father. Do you have a plan, Lord? Brocktree's dark eyes glowed in the firelight. Oh, yes, Fleetscott, I have a plan. Trust your badger, Lord. I always have, sire, without question. Do you mind me saying? You remind me of your dad when I was naught but a leveret, though a bit bigger and fiercer, if that's at all possible. Brocktree's great striped muzzle nodded. It's possible, my friend. Tis said to wield a battle blade the size of mine, a badger must suffer from the blood wrath. Fleetscott fell silent then. He had heard tales of badgers, the most reckless and savage of warriors, all affected by the violent scourge known as the blood wrath. Nothing could stop such a beast in combat, not weapons, nor force of fangs and claws. This new lord was a truly perilous beast. That night, Lord Brocktree and the tribe leaders, Juca the Sling, Baron Drucko, Logalog Gren, Girth, son of Long Ladle, and Roughgar Brookback, the Otter, made a pact. Between them, they would gather a great army and take Salamandastron, free it from the claws of Ungat Trun. Lord Brocktree's stern voice caused neck hairs to bristle. The lands our creatures live on must not be tainted by vermin hordes. Babes should be safe to wander alone. This will not be accomplished by one tribe alone. I need you all, any beast that loves freedom. Hedgehogs, shrews, squirrels, moles, otters, mice, voles, and especially hares. We will go with you to the realm of this self-proclaimed hare king. He must be challenged and defeated. Then he and his followers must be persuaded to join us. They will all be fine fighting hares. Girth stared up at the badger's massive form. Well, if in any beast be's girt enough to beat her king, that'll be easier. Brocktree was looking straight at Dottie as he replied. No, Girth, tis only fair that a hare challenges a hare. 
Tell me, Fleet Scott, what is the next clue to this king's whereabouts? Is there anything special we must search for? The old hare repeated the lines he had committed to memory. Discover then a stream wolf's ford, tug thrice upon the royal cord, then my honor guard will bring loyal subjects to their king. Brocktree tossed a few logs into the oven fire. We've already found the stream wolf's ford. Let's get some sleep now. Tomorrow we've got a royal appointment. What do you say, Ruff? Ha <laughs> ha! Royal me rudder. If in thatin's a king, I'm a emperor of otters, mates. Dotty lay awake for a while, wondering why the badger had stared at her so pointedly when he referred to a hare's only being challenged by another hare. But she did not dwell on it overlong. Just before sleep claimed Juca, she heard the young hare maid mutter aloud to herself, "Ahem, all those of my subjects still awake." Take note of this proclamation. Queen Dorothea Duckfontaine Dilworthy is about to take her fatal beauty sleep, so put a clap on your jolly old traps, what what? The shrew cubba wandered back into camp as the cooking fires were being rekindled next morning. He saluted Logalog Gren with a flourish of his rapier. Got up an hour afore dawn, marm, scoured the bank by the ford and found what you're looking for. Jolly decent of you, old beast. Fleetscott called back from his place on the breakfast line. You mean you found the royal what's-a-ma-call-it? Where was it? Cubba sheathed his rapier. Taint much, mate. Just a big, thick red cord hanging from a whopping great orn beam. I'll take you there after breakfast. Don't me log. I'm starving. Brocktree stepped out and shook Cubba's paw. Take my place at the front of the line. Well done, sir. An hour later, their hunger sated by cheese and oatmeal cakes, the remaining cranberry tarts, and some good guassum cider, every beast adjourned to the ford bank. Cubba pointed out the hornbeam tree around the lee side of which hung a red tasseled rope, its length going off up amid the foliage. That's the one. Though I ain't tugged on the rope yet. Brocktree performed an exaggerated bow to Dotty. Would you pray do the honors, my lady? The hairmaid curtsied prettily and fluttered her eyelids. Why, thank ye, my lord. Methinks I'll give it a jolly old tug once or thrice, providing a blinking tree don't follow me, Bonce. What, what? Dotty took firm hold of the cord and gave it three hefty tugs. The thin boughs in the hornbeam crown shook, dislodging a colony of jackdaws. Flapping angrily into the air, they set a din of harsh cries ringing into the quiet woodlands. Baron Drucko watched the birds settle back onto the tree. Ha, ha, ha! You'd think he could afford proper bells if he's supposed to be a king like he says he is. What do we do now? Shall I give the rope a few more tugs? Once again, he was not fast enough to escape Merklewart's hatchet. She clipped one of his head spikes and pushed him down on his bottom so that he was sitting against the hornbeam base. You leave that rope alone, Ninkum Scoop. We sit and wait. Ain't that right, your badgership? Brocktree unwound Skittles from his sword hilt and sat down alongside Drucko. Right, marm, we wait. Juca and Gren deployed both their tribes to the shrubbery where they concealed themselves. The rest sat and waited. Morning was well on before anything happened. It was Gurth who leaned close to Brocktree and announced in a bass whisper, 
Boy, here's some beasts a in this way, sir. The badger lord sat casually, eyes half closed. I see them too, friend. Every beast sits still now. Stay calm. The air hissed, and a light javelin buried its tip in the ground, not far from Ruff's footpaw. Two score rough-looking mountain hares, some still showing white fur patches from last winter, marched up armed to the teeth. Their leader's voice, like his companion's, had a strong burr of the far northern mountains about it. Our wheel now, laddies. We did we hear? Why don't you ask me that instead of the laddies? Rocktree replied, his eyes still half closed. They've only just arrived with you. The leader pulled his javelin point from the soil. His voice had an insolent tone to it. Hearken to me, striped dog. Ye're in new position to be saucy with me. My hairs are upright and armed ready. Ye and these beauties of yearn are sitting doon unprepared, ye ken? The badger lord uttered a short bark. Wassum and squirrels emerged from hiding, rapiers and slings in evidence. The mountain hare saw his troop were surrounded. Brocktree rose to his full height, sword in paw. Oh, I can, all right, hare. I can if you give impudence to Lord Brocktree of Brockhall. You'll find your ears dangling from yonder alarm rope. So keep a civil tongue in your head. The hare was visibly cowed, and his tone became more reasonable. My apologies, Lord, except have to be careful of strangers about these parts. What is it you were wanting? Yuka the sling dropped from a hornbeam bow. Thou wilt take us to this one who calleth himself king. Move! Look fit enough, don't they, what? Fleetscott remarked to Ruff as they followed the hares on a tortuous path through the woodland. Touch a training and discipline should bring those laddies up to the mark. At the center of the party, Brocktree had called Dottie to his side. He gave her murmured instructions. Don't speak until I tell you, when we get to where we're going, miss. Don't get flustered or indignant. Just act calm and look as if you're capable of taking care of yourself. The hairmaid felt slightly nervous and started babbling. Yes, sir. Take care of myself. Act calm. You can bet your belly stripes I will. Most carefulest, calmest blinkin' hair ever twiddled in air, sir. That's me, what? And as for getting flustered or indignant, by the left, sir. There's not a beast alive can muster flee or, or fluster me, and I can be rather indignant when called upon. Why, I recall when Grandpa got stuck in the chimney. Brocktree's paw cuffed her ear lightly. Stop babbling, miss. Listen. A profusion of voices from afar could be heard on the still woodland air. Loud cheering, drumbeats, singing, shouting, and many other unidentified discordant sounds. The hare leader, taking care to keep clear of Rocktree, remarked with jaunty cynicism, Ark, brace yourselves, my babes. You're about to enter the court of King Bucko Big Bones, the roaring beast himself. Dottie took a deep breath and swallowed hard. 18. Troby had already climbed the rope of belts and bowstrings and was sitting in the entrance of the ceiling hole when Lord Stonepaw hurried into the cavern, supporting Perlow. Stiffener Medic ran to help them. Calm as ever, the boxing hare ignored the increasing sounds of Trun's blue horde beasts as they charged toward the hiding place. I see old Perlow's taking a few knocks, sir. Sounds like we've got trouble coming to visit, eh? 
Come on, Perlow, let's get you up the rope. Stonepaw lifted the wounded hare onto the rope, then turned to the others, waiting their turn to climb. I want you all up and through that hole as quick and safe as possible. Stiffener, you'll be last hair up. Stay here until the last one's gone, understood? The boxing hare threw a stiff salute. Sir, but what about you, sir? The badger lord's voice was like thunder. Never mind about me. I've given you an order, and I expect it to be obeyed. Blench, you go next. Help Troby and Perlow to haul the others up into the hole. I don't need to tell you that speed is of the essence. Go! The den outside was very close now. Stonepaw grabbed a javelin and a chunk of rock and lumbered toward the entrance. Stiffener was at his side, paws clenched. I'm coming with you, sir! The badger lord stiff-pawed him in the chest, knocking him back a pace. Stonepaw's voice had sunk to a growl, and there was danger in his eyes. I gave you an order, Stiffener Medic. Are you disobeying me? Tears sprang to the boxing hare's eyes. You know I've never disobeyed your orders, sir, but there'll be too many vermin for you out there. You'll need help, sir. Stonepaw ruffled Stiffener's ears fondly, as he had done many times when the old hare was young. Not this time, old friend. You must get away to lead our warriors. I must hold the entrance to buy you the time to get them out. It is my duty as their lord. Promise me one thing, though. You will try to free sail ears and the others if they are still alive. Promise? Stiffener wiped a paw across his eyes and saluted Lord Stonepaw one last time. Promise? I swear it on me life, sir. You give em blood and vinegar, sir. Slay some for me, eh, what? The first blue rat's head poked around the rift which formed the cavern entrance. Stonepaw turned his back on Stiffener and charged, bellowing the war cry of Salamandastron. Eulalia! It was as if the long seasons had fallen away from the old badger. Strength coursed through his veins like wildfire. Vermin hurtled about him like dandelion clocks in the wind. Wedging himself in the rift, Stonepaw went at them as they crashed on him in waves, Mirefleck and Rogue screeching in the background, urging their horde beasts on. Take him alive! Throw ropes around him! Wound him! Don't kill the striped dog! Mighty Ungat Trun wants him alive! Ten seasons rations to the ones who capture the striped dog! Stonepaw flung the rock and slew Captain Rogue. He hammered, stabbed, and battered at the seething mass with his javelin. Ropes parted like dead grass between the badger's jaws and big blunt claws, and his voice echoed thunderously through the underground passages and caves as he wreaked destruction on his hated foes, regardless of wounds. The blood wrath was upon him. You lay, Lea! Come to the lord of Salamandastron! You lay, Lea! Blood and vinegar! Stiffener followed the final hare through the hole. They were gathered in a huddle, bloodless paws gripping weapons tightly, peering down, unable to see anything. Their ears filled with battle sounds from below. Seizing a torch, the boxing hare gestured forward into the tunnel which lay before them. No hanging about now. Come on, let's go. Blanche threw her ladle forcefully through the hole stifling a sob as she jammed a paw in her mouth. Oh, sire, me poor lord. Troby tried to force his way past Stiffener. Blaggards, 
Fiends, let me at him. The boxing hare winded him with a sharp rap to the stomach. Listen to me. You lot ain't going any place but out of here. I made a promise to Lord Stonepaw, and I means to keep it. We'll get out all right, but we'll be back to free any of our pals who are alive and imprisoned. Nothing we can do now but go. I ain't letting my friend old Stonepaw sacrifice himself so we can climb back down and get killed. Is that clear? I'm in charge now, so march. Pulling up the rope, Stiffener coiled it about his waist and snapped out orders. Troby, you and Perlo lead off. Column of twos, I'll bring up the rear. Here, take this torch, Blanche. Stooped almost double, they took off along the tunnel. It was wide enough to take two hairs, but low-ceilinged, dark and damp. Grottle came scuttling to the edge of the melee. All he could see was blue vermin pushing forward into the rift. The stunted fox nodded at Meyerfleck. So, this was where they were hiding. Have they taken this striped dog yet? Remember, the Mighty One wants him alive. Meyerfleck watched vermin trampling their slain companions while Captains Frawl and Swinch urged them on with whips. Get through there, you slackers! Into the cave and help your mates to capture that beast! Come on, move yourselves! Meyerfleck curled her lips scornfully at the magician. You want to find out how tis going, Grottle? Then why not join our brave soldiers and see for yourself, eh? Grottle shot her a hate-filled glare but did not move. Force of numbers had finally driven Stonepaw back into the cavern, and now they were coming at him from all sides. A quick glance told him that his hairs had escaped safely. He battled on doggedly, wounded in a score of places. Snapping off an arrow which had pierced his shoulder, he roared and charged, wreaking havoc with his shattered javelin. But there was no end to the vermin. Lord Stonepaw began to feel weary and old. Frawl sneaked through with a bunch of soldiers bearing between them a large stone-weighted net. He signaled them to climb upon a low ledge. Some others followed through, and swiftly he whispered orders to them. See, the striped dog won't last much longer. Get behind and drive him over, close to this ledge as you can. The plan worked. Stonepaw was beaten back. Facing his attackers, he could not see the trap that awaited him. Back, back he went, stumbling upon the carcasses of those whom he had slain on either side. Frawl shouted as the badger's shoulders brushed the ledge. Now! Instantly the badger was borne to the ground by the cumbersome coils of the net and the lumps of stone tied to its edges as weights. Letting his javelin fall, he lay flat, gasping for breath. A roar of triumph arose from the vermin. Grottle hobbled through the rift to watch. Nudging Captain Swinch, the fox sniggered. We've got him now. The striped dog's finished. Swinch swaggered forward boldly and kicked at the prostrate badger trapped beneath the net. How do you feel now, striped dog? Ah! Wreathed in ropes, Stonepaw surged forward, crashing the horde captain into the ledge and finishing him. Grottle howled. Stop him! He's away again! Stop him! Stop him! Rearing up, Stonepaw pulled the net along with him. It was far too snarled up and heavy to be rid of. He looked for all the world like some primeval colossus from the dawn of time. Bellowing and roaring, he swept one of the big lanterns from the ledge and smashed it into the barrel of lamp oil near the entrance. Then, giving the barrel a powerful kick, 
Stonepaw crashed it into the rift. Flames crackled and leapt. Fearing he would be trapped in the cavern and slain, Grottle pranced about, screaming hysterically, Kill him! Finish him off! Hurry, you fools! Kill him! Stonepaw began to laugh aloud, the sound booming eerily until it filled the cavern. Dragging rocks and net, he threw himself onto the closest group of vermin, wrapping his fearsome paws about as many as he could grab. Four he held, with another three trapped in the net, to be swept along with him to the edge of the bottomless pool. They bit and scratched and stabbed to no avail. With one last war cry, Lord Stonepaw of Salamandistron summoned up his final strength and jumped. You lay Grottle and the blue horde beasts packed around the pool rim. Pale green luminescence deep down in the icy water shrouded itself around the dark wriggling mass which sank down, down, down until it was lost to sight. Wordlessly they stared at the waters, the silence broken only by water dripping, flames crackling, and the agonized moans of their wounded. Thus died Lord Stonepaw, he who had ruled the mountain longer than any other badger lord. Hares halting in front of him caused Stiffener to stop sharply. Troby, Perlo, what's going on up there? He called to the leaders. A blue light. There's a blue light up ahead, Stiff. The boxing hare made his way up to the front of the column. The tunnel was beginning to tilt slightly uphill, and the stones beneath his paws contained small, shallow pools. From around a bend up ahead there shone a soft blue light. Stiffener took the torch from Blench. Troby, Willop, come with me. Perlo, you stop here with the others and rest yourself. Willop sniffed the air as they drew nigh to the blue light. Well, great season's assault. There's only one thing smells like that, chaps. Seawater. Ha ha, I was right. Listen. Stiffener's ears picked up the faraway sound. I am harm. That's the sea right enough. He went up through and chased the blue and made it home for tea, sir. He beat the tide and spinies, too, but his mama tanned his tail fur. Troby smiled proudly. Stiffener cast a curious eye on him. You feeling all right, mate? Is that blue light affecting you? Troby chuckled happily. I'm feeling fine, stiff old chap. I was just repeating the last lines of Bramwell's skipping poem, the one about little Bob Hare, what? My old memory must be improving. When they rounded the bend, the blue light was clearer, with water patterns shimmering off the rough rock walls. The ground began a downslope. Troby went back to fetch the others, while Willop, who was a sensible creature, summed up their position. Seems like we'll come out very close to the great sea. It must run up here rather strong at high tide, but this slope stops most of it. Can't be high tide now, though. This tunnel's too jolly dry. So I suppose we're all right to proceed, what? The poem says that Little Bob beat the spinies, too. Any beast know what a blinkin' spiny is? Stiffener shrugged. Just have to find out as we go, Marm. Look, we don't know when high tide is due, so we'd better shake a paw. Despite the tragedy they had left behind, the hares felt their spirits rising after being down in the gloomy caves for so long. The blue light promised a good clear day and fresh air, wind, breeze, the sight of green growing things, and most of all, freedom.
They started singing to set up a good pace, sloshing through pools and stumbling over rocks, but returning to their irrepressible nature. There's hares on the mountain much older than I, and still they can manage to scoff the odd pie. I remember old grandmom had no teeth to boot. She used to eat rock cakes and lots of hard fruit. Older and I scoff the odd pie. No teeth to boot, rock cake and fruit. A hare is a marvelous creature. My uncle Alf, with long seasons, was gray. Stale puddin' and pasties'll do me, he'd say. Oh, fetch me good cider and no fancy cuts, and a big rusty hammer to crack hazelnuts. Older and I scoff the odd pie. No teeth to boot, rock cake and fruit. Seasons was gray, pasties he'd say. No fancy cuts, crack hazelnuts. A hare's a marvelous creature. My Auntie Dewdrop was old as the hills. She wondered why ducks always ate with her bills. Their tummies must flutter. The old gal would cry. I once knew a duck ate a dragonfly pie. Older and I scoffed the odd pie. No teeth to boot. Rock cake and fruit. Seasons was gray. Pasties he'd say. No fancy cuts. Crack hazelnuts. Old as the hills, ate with her bills, and he would cry, "Dragonfly pie! A hare's a marvelous creature." Nineteen. Ungat Trun was furious, though he did not let it show. Grottle, Frawl, and Mirefleck lay flat on their faces in front of the wildcat, each waiting to be interrogated by him. Lord Stonepaw's former bedchamber was festooned with fresh spider webs. Flies caught by horrid vermin buzzed about, and the fire was stoked up high. Trun let his eyes wander to the spiders waiting in their webs. Flies never changed their ways. Sooner or later, they would blunder into the sticky gossamer snares. The grand frigoral drifted silently about in the background, sprinkling powder on the braziers to make them give off blue smoke. The wildcat flicked his tail in Captain Frawl's direction. Suppose for a moment that I have you executed, then the flies would feed off your miserable remains, and my spiders would catch the flies and devour them. So, in a roundabout way, they would have eaten you. Do you agree, Frawl? The stoat captain, too terrified to speak, merely nodded his head in frightened agreement of the horrific idea. Ungatron's tail curled beneath Frawl's chin, lifting his head so they were eye to eye. The wildcat leaned forward, a wickedly curious look upon his features. Hmm. And do you imagine that you would make my spiders become as thick and empty-headed as you? Frawl's throat bobbed visibly as he nodded once more. Ungat Trun poured himself a goblet of dark damson wine, then sighed and sat back watching the spiders. Ignoring Frawl's bobbing head, he turned his attention to Mirefleck. I'm disappointed in you. I was under the impression that you had the makings of a good captain. Mayhap there's time yet for you to reflect on your stupidity. What do you think, Mirefleck? Shall I let you live? Give you the opportunity to improve your ways, or would you like to feed my spiders? The rat did not stir or nod, sensing that the wildcat was merely ruminating. She was right. Trun smiled as if humoring Grottle. Ah, my faithful fox magician, you disobeyed me again. I wanted the striped dog alive. 
Yet I've been told that many who were down there heard you shouting for him to be slain. I know you three are telling the truth about the striped dog's death. There were too many witnesses for it to have been a lie. But think, Grottle, there's something you forgot. Can you recall what it is, my friend? Grottle was far too petrified to answer, though he knew his master was about to tell him. Still smiling, Trun spoke. What became of nearly a score of hares? Did you magic them away? Perhaps they vanished into thin air or faded into the rocks down there. Tell me. Grottle had no choice but to reply. Mightiness, I am told there was only one of the long ears seen who escaped, helped by the striped dog. What became of him and his companions no beast can say, sire. We could find no trace of them, though we searched hard and long. Ungatron disregarded the fox. He was staring at two rats who were providing the prisoners escort for Grottle, Frawl, and Meyerfleck. Aren't you two the new recruits to my blue hordes? Refresh my memory. What are your names? The rat with a disfigured tooth curving into his chin replied for them both. Your Highness, we're brother sea rats. I'm Rip Fang, and this is Dumai, my kin rat. Trun nodded as he assessed the pair. Former pirates, eh? I like that. Well, this is a lucky day for you. I'm promoting you both to the rank of captain. Exchange uniforms with Meyerfleck and Frawl. From now on, they are to be the lowest of horde beasts. They will be your servants, bring you food, carry out your wishes, and keep both your accommodations and your kit clean. You have my permission to treat them as harshly as you please. Stripping the uniforms from the former captains, Ripfang and Dumai grinned in wicked anticipation. The wildcat observed the mixture of shame and relief on the faces of his demoted officers before continuing. Not so fast. You aren't off the hook yet, my friends. Before you take up your duties with my new captains, you will return to the cave where the strike dog perished. Take our friend Grottle with you. He'll enjoy it, I'm sure. Now here's what you must do. The three of you will stay down there until you capture the hares or find out how they escaped. These two captains will take an escort to guard you. Each day that you are not successful in your task, you will be flogged with willow canes and given no food. Oh, cheer up. There's water aplenty down there, a great pool of it. You won't get thirsty. Rip Fang, Dumai, get these idiots out of my sight. The unhappy trio were marched unceremoniously off. Ungat Trun curled his tail about the Grand Fregoral's neck and drew her close to him, purring pleasurably. Did you see their faces? I spared them, humiliated them. They looked relieved. Then I sentenced them to a living death, and they just looked blank. I tell you, Fregoral, pleasure comes through power, and power is everything. End of Side 4 Change Side Selector Switch. This book is continued on the next cassette. Side 5, Lord Brocktree, by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 176 The hares sat down to rest a moment in the long, down-sloping tunnel. Bramwell rubbed the back of his neck and complained, Ooh, tain't much fun marching with the old neck bent all day. Ceiling should be a bit higher, what? Stiffener smiled at the ancient hare. Marching all day, you say? 
How'd you know whether tis day or night? Looks all the same to me down here. Bramwell tugged at Blunch's smock. Er, how are things on the vittle front, Barm? Give young Stiffener a carrot. He can't tell night from bally day, what? I can, though, and I'll tell you how. That blue light ahead is going dimmer, so it must be evening out there. Blench turned her bag inside out and shook it. Ain't a crumb of vittles left, old Bram. You're right, though. It must be getting dark outside. The light has faded. I could do a spot of damage to a rhubarb tart right now. Wouldn't mind if it was hot or jolly well cold. Stiffener glared at Willop in the torchlight. A word in your ear, marm. Don't start talking about scoff. Tis the fastest way for a hare to go mad. You'll have every beast going on about feasts they were at seasons ago. All that ripe fruit and crumbly cheese and summer salad eye and bilberry cordial. Look, you've got me at it now. Troby's stomach rumbled, and he sighed unhappily. Yes, let's. Well, what else is there to bloom and well talk about? My tummy's in a blinking turmoil. Stiffener peered down the tunnel. Then think about how lucky we are. Light fading means we got a good chance of not being spotted under cover of darkness. There's something in our favor, mates. Perlow started up, batting at his scut. Youch! Confound it! Some beast just bit me! Stiffener swung the torch in his direction. Where? Right on the end of me bobtail, old lad. Where do you think? Stiffener shoved him roughly aside. I never asked where you were bit. I meant where was the beast that bit you? Blanche held out her no longer empty bag with both paws. Ah, look, bless him. Tis only a little crab thing. Got a spiky back, too. Big claws for such a young'un, though. Perlow wagged his paw in the crab's face. You small cad! How dare you bite my tail! Wait till I tell your mama! Troby grabbed the torch from Stiffener and stared wide-eyed. Zounds! You won't have long to wait, old lad! Here comes his mama right now, and the whole confounded crab clan! They were spiny spider crabs, with spiked backs covered in sharp spines, long red legs, and fearsome-looking claws. Very aggressive crustaceans indeed. Blench tipped the baby crab onto the floor in a hurry. Oh, corks! There must be hundreds and hundreds of the villains. What do you suppose they want? Stiffener weighed up the dangerous situation. So that's what the rhyme meant, the spinies. Listen to that water noise building up down there. The tide must be coming in. We're in those crabs' way. They're trying to get further up the tunnel to stop themselves being washed away by the waves. I don't like the way they're clacking those big nipper things and opening their jaws. Maybe they think we're vittles, something good to eat. Scuttling sideways, the teeming masses of crabs advanced, claws held high and snapping open and shut, blowing froth and bubbles from their gaping mouths. The noise of them could be heard over the advancing tide outside. It sounded like a shower of hailstones as their hard-shelled legs rattled against the rocks. The hares looked to stiffener. What do you think we should do? The boxing hare decided instantly there was only one answer to Bramwell's query. We've got to run for it, straight through the middle of those blighters, and not stop for anything. They're trying to get away from the sea. We're trying to get to it. Might be a bit of an help. Troby, me and you will take the lead and see if and we can batter through. The rest of you stay close together. Willop, Blanche, stick in the middle. Keep tight, old Bramwell. Well, here goes, mates. You lay, Leah!
The charge carried them helter-skelter down the tunnel straight into the crabs. Troby and Stiffener bulled aside as many as they could, striking about with a couple of javelins. It was an almost impossible task. Hares and crabs were so tightly packed in the narrow tunnel confines that it was difficult to make way. Powerful claws tore the javelins from their paws. Spiny shells bumped them painfully. Pointed legs scratched at them in the wild scramble. Some crabs were toppled over backward, and the hares ran over their hard-shelled undersides, avoiding kicking legs and snapping pincers. However, it could not last. The tunnel was far too narrow, and soon became completely jammed with a jumbled melee of hares and crabs. Stiffener looked up. A gigantic specimen was bearing down upon him with both claws ready for action. Troby, throw me the torch, quick! The boxing hare scorched his paws as he caught the torch and thrust it savagely into the big crab's mouth. It gurgled and hissed, latching both claws onto the torch. It was a scene of complete chaos, with trapped hares shouting amid the forest of clacking pincers. Ah! Get this thing off me! Ow! Ouch! Me ear! Let go, you rotter! Get off! Hold Bramwell up! Don't let him fall! Eek! There's one got me nose! Then the wave came. Peak of high tide sent a monstrous roller crashing up the tunnel entrance with all the awesome power of the stormy sea. Boiling white, blue and green, it shot up the bore of the rocky passage and hit the mass of hares and crabs like a mighty sledgehammer, shooting them hard uphill. Then it sucked them back in a whirling vacuum of seawater. Stiffener spun like a top, jolting against rocks and crab shells, his nose, mouth, eyes, and ears choked by the salt water. The entire world became white and filled with roaring noise as he went ears over scut. Stomach down, he was hurled flat, his mouth gaping wide as he skidded along until it was full of sand. A moment later, he was upright in the night air, waist-deep with waves bashing him. Coughing up grit and brine, he wiped the stinging seawater from his eyes. A familiar figure waited toward him. Blench. Watch out, Stiff! Here comes Willip! A wave sent Willip crashing into the boxing hare's back. He staggered up and joined paws with hers and the cook. Keep tight, old barms! Let's find the others! Where's old Bramwell got to? Any beasts seen him? Hi there, young feller! Over here, what? Only then did Stiffener realize that it was raining hard. Bramwell was sitting on the shore in the downpour, waving a piece of driftwood, several others with him. Troby came swimming along, his head popping up alongside Stiffener. He saluted, sank, and resurfaced, spitting a jet of seawater into the air. Fwah! All present and correct, I think. There's Perlow flopping about up coast. Ahoy there, Perlow! How do you do? Fine, old chap. How are you? Lots of weather we're having for the time of season. What, what? Keep your voices down, mates, Stiffener called out in the loudest whisper he could muster. There might be vermin patrols around. Bramwell, we'll meet you in the lee of those rocks. It was a cold, windy, wet, and moonless night as they huddled together on the north side of a ragged rock spur. Bramwell could just make out the shape of Salamandastron's dark bulk to the south of where they sat. This chunk of rock is part of our mountain, a great spur buried beneath the sand and sticking up again here by the sea. 
Willop crouched down and scuttled toward the end of the rock protruding into the sea. Bramwell's right, she reported when she came back. I saw the mouth of the tunnel we came out of. Though tis so thickly overgrown with seaweed, a body would never know twas there, what? Bramwell shivered, shaking his saturated fur. Well, we made it, chaps. We're alive and free, but with no weapons or food. What next, young stiff, eh? Stiffener blinked rain from his eyes. Can't stay here, that's for sure, mates. We'd best move while the going's good. There's some rock ledges and dunes east of here. I picked blackberries there last autumn. Let's take a look over that way, eh? In the hour before dawn, they topped a rise in the sand hills. Some white limestone cliff ridges loomed up on their left. The rain was becoming heavier, whipped sideways by the wind. With both ears plastered flat to his head and his fur thoroughly sand-gritted and wet, Stiffener looked back in the direction of Salamandastron. See, Lord, I've kept me vow so far, and don't you fret now. I'll be going back to our mountain, and if there be a single hare alive there, I'll rescue him. I promise. 20. Dottie had never in her life seen anything like the court of King Bucko, nor had any of her traveling companions. It was situated in a broad, beautiful woodland glade, backed by a steep rocky hill with a stream bordering one side, fringed with crack willow, gelder rose, and osier. But any resemblance to a peaceful sylvan setting ended there. It was packed to bursting with teeming life. Lord Brocktree's party wandered about relatively unnoticed. There were moles, otters, voles, hedgehogs, mice, squirrels, and shrews everywhere, but hares formed the main presence. Hares, big, strong, young, and bold. Fleetscott nodded at them. He had to raise his voice so that Dottie could hear him above the din as they pushed and jostled their way through. Well, stop me ears! We've got a right bunch of corkers here, miss! There's a lot of mountain hares. One can tell by the remains of their white winter patches, what? As for the rest, there's a few gypsies, but a chap can recognize the offspring of salamandistron hares. You know, I can pick out the ears and faces of most. Look just like their mothers and fathers, they do. Deary me, it makes me feel jolly old, I can tell you. Some of these great lumps of fur and bone, huh, I bounced them on me knee when they were tiny leverets. Dottie giggled at the thought it conjured up. Hee-hee! <laughs> You'd get a blinkin' broken knee if you tried bouncing any of those big hulkin' boyos now, what? A carnival atmosphere reigned over the court. Groups of hedgehogs competed with oak clubs on hollow logs, trying to outdrum one another. Squirrels were performing acrobatic feats, flying over the heads of the crowd. A mob of young otters lounged against a stack of barrels with foaming tankards in their paws, roaring out bawdy songs with no pretense whatsoever to harmony or tune, volume seeming to take precedence over all else. Shrews and voles wrestled in packs, one team against another. Mice and moles were cooking over a huge open fire, laughing as they exchanged friendly insults about the results of each other's culinary efforts. A motley orchestra had set itself up on the lower hill slopes, all manner of creatures scraped on fiddles, rattled tambourines, shrilled on flutes and whistles, battered away at borans, flat single-headed drums with double-ended striking sticks, and twanged a variety of odd-stringed instruments. 
Some mountain hares even droned away on sets of bagpipes. Lord Brocktree was the only badger present at the massive gathering, standing out head and shoulders above other beasts. His back-slung battle sword received many admiring glances, and not many creatures tried to bump or jostle him. In fact, not any. The badger lord winced, clapping paws over both his ears. By my stripes! How any creature could put up with this infernal din is beyond me. Let's find somewhere less noisy. They took refuge on the stream bank beneath a couple of crack willows, which afforded generous shade. Log-a-log Gren signaled two of her guassum. Cubba, Ruko, find your way back to the ford and see if you can find a side stream to bring our boats up here. Juka sprang moodily to a low willow branch, where she jabbed her short spear viciously into the trunk. I like it not, this place of loud fools. Tis an affront to the ears and eyes, a gathering of mad beasts. Fleetscott noticed she was staring accusingly at him. Well, pish tush and a pity about you, milady. What do you want me to do about it, eh? Do I run around shushing them all up? Or would you prefer me to carry you back to your pine grove, what? Whirling her loaded sling, Juca sprang down. Thou hast insulted me enough, long ears. Let's settle this thing betwixt us, here and now. Brocktree was between them suddenly, knocking the sling awry. Cast one stone, Juca sling, and I'll snap off the paw that does it and feed it to you. A hare, with six others attending him, marched up to Brocktree. By the cringe in the left, sir, you'll be the badger lord who comes a-visiting. What? His Majesty King Bucko wants a word with you. Don't know who you other bods are, but you'd best wait here, what? Fleetscott placed himself in front of the officious young hare. Aye, but one of these other bods knows who you jolly well are, earwag. Son of Bramwell, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm, you won't remember me, but I knew you. Little fat feller with a runny nose, always sniffing and weeping. What was it they called you? Dribbler, that was it. The hare, a fine, fit-looking beast, sniffed and turned on his heel, stating huffily, That, sir, was a nickname. I'm properly called Windcoat Bramwell Lepus II. You may bring your retinue with you if you wish, Lord Badger. Stifling a smile, Brocktree addressed his creatures. Fall in and follow me, retinue. Let's go and see this bucko. Steps made from logs led up to the fork of an old cherry laurel, padded and draped with hanging velvet to form the royal throne. King Bucko Big Bones was bigger than most hares, and obviously strong-framed. He lounged casually in the tree fork, one footpaw dangling, the other up against the outward-leaning left limb. A broad belt girdled his ample waist, decorated with colored stones, polished arrowheads, and lots of medallions. Around his head, though cocked jauntily over one eye, he wore a gold circlet interwoven with laurel leaves. In one paw he held a scepter of sculpted oak with a crystal chip set in its top. He cast an eye over his visitors as if they were of no great interest. Do you know bow your hides or bend a knee, Taya King? Brocktree's answer was equally dismissive. We bow to no creature, even self-appointed kings. Do you not find it common courtesy to rise in the presence of a badger lord, instead of sitting draped up there like a drunken beast? The royal guards surrounding the tree throne put paws to their weapons, but the king shook his head at them. 
Nay, call for that. Yon beastie'd probably floor the lot of ye. Jings, but you're a biggin, and saucy too, as I heard. By the rocks! That's a broad battle blade, ye bear. I'll trade ye for it. Anything ye like. Brocktree raised a paw to touch the double-hilted weapon. My sword wouldn't do you any good, and it's not for sale or trade. You and another like you couldn't lift it. King Bucko laughed and bounded down the steps, paw outstretched. He gripped the badger's paw and applied pressure. Ach, I like you well, my friend. Do you mean to challenge me? Brocktree stood smiling easily, allowing Bucko to squeeze his paw to the maximum. Then the badger lord squeezed back. White-faced and trembling, the hare was forced to his knees. He managed a pained smile. Jings! I hope you don't challenge me. Would you not let my paw free afore you flatten it completely? The badger released his paw. Bucko stood up, massaging it and smiling ruefully. Don't worry, I won't be challenging you, Brocktree assured him. But one of my party will. I'll let you know who when the time's right. Bucko glanced over Brocktree's followers, then dashed up to Skittles and knelt in front of the hog babe. Ha! So you're the wee terror who wants to fight King Bucko, eh? Let's see what you can do then, ma laddie. Skittles needed no second bidding. He jumped upon the hare and began pummeling him with his tiny paws. I fight ya. Skittlesby's a good fighterer. Bucko held him off, shouting in mock horror. Ack! Get the wild wee beastie off me or I'll be kilt. Still rubbing his paw, he winked at Brocktree. Just as weel, you never break it, my paw. I've got a challenge to answer shortly. Gang ye along and watch. Twill be a bit of sport to entertain ye. Guards, bring my battle gown. The guards draped King Bucko in a magnificently embroidered cloak, and he set off with Brocktree and the others following. A log-circled ring had been cleared further down the stream bank. Dottie stood between Ruff and Girth to view the combat. Creatures packed the circle's edge, fifty deep, while others climbed trees or took to the rocks. An enormous hedgehog stood to one side of the ring, a gang of his followers stroking his spikes and massaging his hefty, gnarled paws. He kept shrugging his shoulders and sniffing a lot. King Bucko entered the ring to deafening applause. Throwing off his cloak, he joined both paws over his head and shook them at his followers in salute. There was a line scratched at the ring's center. Bucko stepped up to it, flexing both knees and rolling his head about to limber up. The big hedgehog stepped up, threw a few punches in midair, and snuffled. A fat bank bull came next, who stood between the contestants, and roared out the rules in a voice that would have put a choir of crows to shame. Good creatures, Hall! Attend my words! The crowd fell silent as the bank bull swelled his chest out. This day! A challenge has been given to your king, Bucko Big Bones, the wild March Hare of the North Mountains, by none other than Pickle Paw Iron Spikes, champion of the southern coasts. Rules are as follows. No weapons or harms to be used by either beast, apart from that 
Anything goes. The fighter left standing picks up the crown as victor. Silence continued as Bucko gave his crown to the bank bull, who marched ten paces over the ground and held it high. He dropped the crown, and as it hit the ground, the fight started. Dotty could not hear herself think for the noise. Ark, give him the old one too, your Majesty. Show him the pickle paw punch. Go on, Iron Spikes. I'll give ten candied chestnuts to one on his Majesty. A silver dagger to a copper spoon. Old Iron Spikes drops him. Watch out for his jolly old left sire. Don't wait around, Iron Spikes. Get in there. With a footpaw each on the line, the fighters faced each other. Both ducked and weaved, though it was only the hedgehog throwing massive barnstorming swipes with left and right. As yet, the hare had not offered a single blow. He stood firm, merely bobbing and bending backward, avoiding each haymaker as it whooshed by overhead or either side of him. Bucko was smiling, iron spikes almost purple with anger and exertion. Dotty could not help whispering to Girth, "What's King Bucko doing? Why doesn't he try to hit the hog?" Girth kept both eyes on the fighters, assessing them. "Ye king be a girt scrapper, Miss. Im worry any hedge pig down. Look ye now, Miss Dot. Ye king gotten old iron spikes." The hairmaid could not see how Bucko had the hedgehog beaten. Suddenly, Iron Spikes dropped one of his paws and straightened up just for a split second, but that was enough. Bucko crouched and swung a massive sideways left as he came up. Boom! It connected with Iron Spikes' jaw. His eyes rolled, and he fell like a stone. Spark out! Dotty had to shout to make herself heard over the cheering. Oh, Corks! What a fighter! What a punch! I'll bet no beast could beat King Bucko, eh, Girth? The good mole smiled at his young friend. Er, Miss, no beast could be de king at boxing, but I bet my tunnel a clever wrestler would. Brr, I. King Bucko picked up the crown and replaced it on his head, and the hairs draped his cloak about him. He leapt over the logs right where Dotty was standing and winked roguishly at the hair maid. Ach, twas a piece of cake, lassie. Yon hog was not but a great fat brawler. Ah, hey, you're a pretty wee thing, ain't you? Dotty did not want to appear overimpressed by Bucko, so she stiffened both ears and looked distant. Actually, pretty's the wrong word, sir. I'm a fatal beauty, really. Runs in the family, you know. Bucko smiled as he chucked her under the chin. Ah, away with you, Missy. I've seen fatal beauties, and you're no one of those. Still, like I say, you're a pretty wee thing. He swept by her and was carried off on the shoulders of his jubilant supporters. Ruff noticed Dotty's quivering lip and angry features and put a paw about her shoulders. Ahoy there, me old mate. What's wrong with your face? The hairmaid shrugged off Ruff's paw. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with my face. But I'll jolly well tell you something, Ruff. I don't like that cad Bucko King or whatever he calls himself. I'd like to take the blighter down a peg or three. What? Ruff stared at her in surprise. An air maiden like you, Dotty? You think you could beat him? The noise was audible as their teeth ground together. I don't think. I know I can beat the blustering bounder. 
Campfires burned all over the glade area as night fell warm and soft. Lanterns hung in the trees reflected their colors into the stream. King Bucko's court was celebrating yet another victory by their ruler. The noise and merriment continued unabated. Dottie sat with Fleet Scott beneath the willow. The rest of their party had gone off to join in the fun and games. The old hare had a worried look as he spoke to his young friend. I say, dash it all, Miss Dottie. I was the one who should have challenged Bucko Big Bones, not you. A young hare maid, what? Dottie poured cider for Fleet Scott. Sorry, old chum. You're far too old. He'd eat you. Besides, you ain't the one he bloomin' well insulted. The honor of the Duckfontaine Dillworthies was at stake. I had to challenge the rotter. Not a fatal beauty, eh? I'll show him. The dark bulk of Lord Brocktree loomed up out of the night. He joined the two hares beneath the willow, shaking his head at Dottie. I delivered your challenge to Bucko Big Bones. Sorry, miss. He wouldn't accept it. The hairmaid sprang up, eyes flashing angrily. Wouldn't accept it? What do you mean, sir? The badger lord shrugged. He just flatly refused to accept any challenge from a young maid. I delivered the message formally, with due gravity and ceremony. It was all done with proper dignity. Dottie was quivering all over, apart from her ears, which stood up ramrod straight. And what did the blackguard say? Tell me, sir, word for word. Brocktree's huge paws fiddled about with a thin branch. He said you should be at home, he explained, almost apologetically, helping your mama to do the washing, and that the whole thing was a silly little joke. Then he laughed with his cronies for a while and told me to tell you there was no way he was going to fight a hair maiden. Said one tap of his paw and your face wouldn't be so pretty, not with a broken jaw. His final words were, Learn to cook and stay clear of real warriors before you become fatally injured with no chance of ever becoming a fatal beauty. That's it, as best as I can remember, miss. Dottie grabbed Fleet Scott roughly and hauled him upright. Give me that box scroll you were telling me about, the one found by that rabble hog. Give it to me this bloomin' instant. The old hare rummaged in his tunic and produced the battered and stained scroll. Dottie snatched it from him. Listen to this, sir. The blighter's own challenge. Her voice shaking with temper, she read the lines aloud. Come, mother, father, daughter, son, my challenge stands to any beast. I'll take on all or just the one, whether at the fight or feast. Aye, try to beat me and defeat me. Set him up, I'll knock him down. Just try to outbrag me, you'll see. King Bucko Big Bones wears the crown. She waved the tattered bark scroll in Brocktree's face. Now, sir, you've heard it. Is that a challenge or not, what? The badger lord nodded gravely. Couldn't be any clearer. Tis a challenge, right enough. Dottie quickly rolled the scroll and jammed it in her belt. Ha! Huh, that's flippin' well good enough for me. Come on. She stormed off, her footpaws almost punching holes in the ground. A wide grin spread across the badger's face. He took hold of Fleet's Cut's paw, tugging him along in her wake. Hurry along, old one. I wouldn't miss this for a feast prepared by Long Ladle himself. Things are going to plan, even better than I dared hope they would. King Bucko was in high good humor. He sat on his tree-fork throne, swilling dandelion beer and laughing uproariously with his comrades 
as he relived the fight with iron spikes that afternoon. Ah, the fat old fraud was swinging both paws like a windmill and puffing like a northeast gale, do you ken? So I just ducked and came up with my good old left cross. Wacko! Did you see the big bra pincushion topple? Ha, ha, ha! Aye, you pick the easy marks, don't you, bucko? The laughter ceased. All eyes turned on Dottie, who was standing, paws akimbo, on the bottom log step. The king waved his scepter dismissively at her. Ah, away with ye, lassie. Go and look for some babies to nurse. Psychophant hairs around the throne guffawed loudly. Dottie bounded up the steps and shook out the bark scroll. She thrust it under the king's nose. It says here that you'll fight mother, father, daughter, or son. That's what it says, right? The big mountain hare flicked the scroll from her paws with his scepter and tossed it over his shoulder. Maybe it does, maybe it don't. What are you getting so stirred up about, my pretty one? Dottie's paw prodded him hard in the chest. Don't you ever call me your pretty one, you great blowbag. I'm here to take up your challenge. One of the guards tried to lay paws on Dottie for prodding his king. He froze as a sword point from below tickled his tail. Lord Brocktree was staring up at him. Stay out of this, or I'll make it my fight with you. Dottie prodded Bucko again, harder this time. Well? The king's former good humor was fast deserting him. Ach, I'm nay going to fight with no wee hair maid. What do you think I am, a bully? Dottie marched off down the steps, her nose in the air. Since you ask, sir, I'll tell you what I think you are. You're no king, just a liar and a coward. In the horrified silence that followed, King Bucko came bounding down the steps after her paws clenched tight. Yeah, you way-faced whelp. We'll settle this right here and new. I'll no have a lassie cheekin' me. He scratched a line in the ground with his scepter and tossed it aside. Placing his foot-paw on the line, he snarled, Get your foot-paw on this mark here and spit like this. He put up his paws in fighting stance and spat over the other side of the line. Dottie gave him a frozen glare. Didn't your mater ever tell you tis rank bad manners to spit? Disgusting habit, sir, but quite in keeping with your form, what? Lord Brocktree stepped in, pointing his sword at Bucko. No quick Paul-the-Mark scraps here, big bones. Let's do it properly, at the designated time. Now, do you accept this hare's challenge? Answer yes or no. The mountain hare's expression was murderous as he grated out his reply. I striped dog, I accept the challenge. You'll be hearing from my seconds afore midnight. Brocktree tipped a paw to his stripes courteously. Thank you. I'll look forward to it. I bid you good night. As they strode off, the badger took Fleet Scott's paw. Hurry, go and get Girth, Juca, Ruff, and Logalog Gren. Tell them to meet us by the willows on the stream bank. Go. Dottie looked shaken. Brocktree patted her back gently. Calm down now, miss. Temper's the sign of a loser. It affects the reason too much. We've got to start your education, and there's not a lot of time to do it in. That's always provided you want to win, eh? Dottie managed to smile. Oh, I want to win all right, sir.
21. Stephaner Maddock was leading his friends over the dunes toward the cliffs. Dawn's first slivers of light showed pale-washed gray behind the limestone heights. Rain teemed down unabated, squalled by the wind that flattened the dune grass. Wet and weary, they stumbled onward, assisting one another through the soft sand. Stiffener nearly jumped out of his skin when an otter popped up right in front of him. Aye, aye, what's this, then? The old hare's outin'? Ain't picked out very good weather for it, mate, have ye? Immediately recognizing the creature as a friend, Stiffener blew a dewdrop of rain from his nose and grinned. No, we ain't. Tell you something else, too. We've lost our picnic baskets. Linen, cutlery, vittles, the lot. The otter threw a paw around the boxing hare's shoulders. Worst things happen at sea, eh? Not to worry me, old lad. We'll find ye a dry berth and a mouthful round the fire. My name's Brogalaw, skipper of sea otters. But let's get you and your fogies in out the rain. Then we'll natter. Brogalaw led them to the cliffs. He clapped paws to his mouth and shouted at the blank stone face, fighting to make himself heard above the storm. Ahoy the holt! "'Tis only Brog with some old hares what have escaped from the wildcat's blue bottoms on the mountain." Troby coughed politely to gain the otter's attention. "'Beg pardon, old boy, but how'd you know that?' Brogalaw winked. "'Tell you later, matey.' A seed-buckthorn bush growing against the cliff face was pushed aside at one corner. The homely face of an otter wife appeared, her nose twitching disapprovingly. Land sakes, Brog, get those poor beasts in out the weather. They filed inside, staring about. It was a big, rough and ready cave, full of otters and a full-grown gray heron, which stood immobile on one leg, watching as Brog grouped them about the fire. Bread was brought to them, with cheese baked on top of it. From a cauldron by the fire, the hares were served with steaming bowls of stew. The otter wife watched appreciatively as they ate hungrily. Ain't it? That's my special tater and welk and leek chowder. I'm Brogalog's mum, Frutch. Ahoy, Derby, break out some seaweed grog and give this crew a beaker apiece. Ha <laughs> ha! That'll put the life back in ye. Stiffener could hear the rain outside battering the cliff face as he sat on the warm sand around the fire with his friends, listening to Brogalog's story. Tis like this, messmates. We're sea otters, see? Lived down the coast south apiece. Quite happy we was, till old Ungad arrived with his blue vermin. I tell you, we just got away with our lives that day. Had to run for it and hide, we did. Those vermin commandeered our best two ships. Stole them, you might say. So, there you have it. We sneaked up the coast after him, tried to take our ships back. No luck, of course. Far too many of the swabs for us. Anyhow... There we be, sitting in this cave, waiting our chances, and open for better times to sail along. Old Bramwell told the hare's tale of woe to the sea otters. The good wife Frutch, a soft-hearted creature, wept silently as she listened, dabbing her apron to the tears. Oh, woe is you, poor beasts! Least they never slayed nor imprisoned none of ours. Can't we help em, Brog? The sturdy sea otter skipper raised sand with his rudder. There, there, now, me little mum. Don't go flooding us all out with your tears. You'll have me blubbing soon. What sort of creatures we be if and we didn't give aid to others worse off than ourselves, I ask you. Of course we'll help. 
Stiffener thanked him on behalf of all the hares. Bramwell moved nervously away from the great heron. Er, don't mind me asking, Brog, but what's that big bird doing living with you, what? Brogalog stroked the heron's snake-like neck fondly. Oh, this feller. Nice old cove, ain't he? Name's Rulango. Been with us since he was a chick. Never speaks, fends and feeds for hisself, and washes twice a day in the sea, don't you, mate? Brogalaw stopped stroking, and the heron nudged his paw with its long, pointed beak, wanting him to continue. He chuckled. I forgot to tell you, don't ever start stroking his neck feathers. You could stroke all season, and it still wouldn't be enough for him. This bird likes to be stroked plenty. Now let's get you sorted. There's pals of yours, you think, still on the mountain, but you don't rightly know where, eh? Blench toyed with the chowder ladle. It was a nice one. Aye, that's true, sir. I can't stand the thought that those vermin villains might be doing nasty things to him. She began sobbing. Frutch sat down beside her and gave her a clean kerchief, and they sobbed together. Brogalog twiddled his rudder tip awkwardly. Oh, I can't be a-doing with this. Look at them. Water in the chowder down. Action! That's what we need. Derby, me and you'll take a scout round the mountain. Relango, me old fish grubber, would you take a flight round the mountain and see what you can see? Sail careful, though. Watch out for those blue vermin. Still, if in the bad weather holds out, most of Ungat's rascals should stay inside the mountain. Well, no time like the present. Let's get underway, mates. Stiffener rose, dusting warm sand from himself. I'll come with you, Brog. The sea otter would not hear of it. You're much too wearied. You need sleep, stiff mate. Come on now, you old codfish. A nice nap by the fire will do you a power of good. We'll be back by the time you wake. If we ain't, then tell Blench and me mum a few funny stories. Cheer em up. You'll be doing me a big favor. Goodbye now. Brogalaw, Derby, and Rulango were gone before any beast could argue. Ripfang and Dumai, like most sea rats, were hard and cruel, and they were enjoying their new positions as horde captains. They sat by a small fire they had made from the remains of the oil barrel staves. Ripfang poked at it with a long willow cane while he watched the three creatures searching the cavern, calling out to them at frequent intervals. Hey there, Frawl. Stay where I can see you. Don't go hiding in dark corners where you can catch a quick nap. How are we supposed to find anything if we can't search? The former stoat captain complained. Ripfang strutted over to him, swishing the cane. Get that paw out. I'll teach you to cheek an officer. Frawl hesitated. Dumai fitted an arrow to his bow. Aiming at the stoat, he drew string. Do like he says, stupid face. I'm warning you, I never miss. Completely humiliated, Frawl was forced to hold out his paw. Swish! Rip Fang delivered a stinging cut of the lithe willow. Frawl's face went tight with pain and he dropped his paw. Rip Fang smiled at him, lifting Frawl's paw with a cane. Like some more, or have you learned your lesson, Winkle Brain? Frawl kept his eyes fixed on the ground. Captain Ripfang, sir, I've learned my lesson, Captain Ripfang. The sea rat smirked at his brother. See, my one's learned now. 
Every time he speaks to me, it's got to be either Sir or Captain or Captain Ripfang. How's your one doing? Dumai kept the arrow notched as he called to Meyerfleck, who was trying to appear unobtrusive behind a fat stalagmite. Stand out where I can see your worthless eye, you scum. Meyerfleck hastened to obey, her shouts echoing in the cavern. Yes, sir, Captain Dumai, sir. Right away, sir. Dumai looked slightly exasperated. This one does everything you tell her. She ain't much fun. Probably cause she knows she can't run faster in an arrow. Ripbang sat back down by the fire. How do you know she can't? Go on, try her. A wicked smile hovered on Dumai's face. He sighted along the arrow and shouted sharply at Meyerfleck. Run! Meyerfleck was fast, but not as quick as an arrow. Dumai looked stunned and dropped the bow. You made me do that. I didn't mean to slay her. What'll the wildcat say? He might have me killed with an error. Ripfang gave his brother a playful shove. Don't be daft. Here, watch this and listen. Frawl, grottle, get yourselves over here on the double. The hapless pair scurried across, saluting. Yes, sir, Captain Ripfang, sir. Ripfang adopted a serious face and a grave tone. Did you hear that Meyerfleck shouting and saying nasty, horrible things about his mightiness? Terrible things, things you couldn't repeat. Did you two hear her? The willow cane pointed from one to the other as they answered. Yes, sir, Captain Ripfang, sir. We both heard her, Captain Ripfang, sir. Ripfang shrugged and winked at his brother. See? Dumai grinned as recognition dawned upon him. Then he was struck by another idea. Aye, and did you both see that and attack me and this other captain and try to escape? The answers came back as expected. Yes, sir, Captain Dumai, sir. We both saw it all, Captain Dumai, sir. The two captains tittered like naughty beast babes who had wriggled out of being punished. Ripfang nodded toward the body of Meyerfleck. Tie that thing with rocks and sling it in the pool, then get on with your searching. Grottle bowed respectfully. We need rope to do that, Captain Ripfang, sir. Dumai looked at the stunted fox as though he were stupid. Then go and get some rope, lots of it. We needs to tie you two up tight tonight. You'll be staying down here. Us captains got to get some decent rest and not vittles. Well, don't stand there looking gormless. Move yourself. Grottle did get lots of rope, a great coil of line from one of the ships. That night, he and Frawl were bound together from tails to necks. Ripfang tested the knots, then pushed the two bound captives down. Make sure you get a good sleep now. You'll be busy tomorrow. Ha, 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 ha. Good night. When the two captains had gone, Frawl growled at Grottle angrily. Why did you bring so much rope? I can hardly move a whisker. We'll be no good for anything in the morning. Grottle's reply was even angrier. Then be still and shut your useless mouth. I didn't bring all this rope down here just to be tied with it. Those two mud brains don't know it, but I found where the long ears made their escape from. There's a way out of here. A way out? Where? 
tell you when you've chewed through this rope. Now get your teeth working, Stoat. We'll need this rope to reach the place. That's why I brought so much. Grottle lay still. They were back to back, but he could hear Frawl gnawing at the rope. And don't be all night about it. We'll be lucky to last another two days with no food and those cruel fools guarding us. Chew harder, Frawl. It's either get away tonight or we're both dead beasts. Ungat Trun did not sleep that night either. His dreams were haunted by the shadowy form of a badger lord with a sword, a big double-hilted war blade, getting closer each night. Early evening of that same day saw Brogalaw and Derby returning to their cave. Stiffener and the hares were awake, eagerly awaiting any news the sea otters could disclose to them, but there was none. Brogalaw stood before the fire, steam rising from his fur. Rain ain't let up by a drop. I tell you, the wind fair chases it round every rock on that mountain. Derby joined his skipper, and they both sipped bowls of broth. Not wishing to appear ill-mannered or impatient, Stiffener let a short time elapse before asking the question. Did you catch sight of any hares, Grog? Sorry, matey, but we didn't. Searched high and low, though, didn't we, Derby? Aye, we did that. But all we saw was foul weather, wet rock, and the odd glimpse of blue vermin. Nary a hare. Is Rilango returned yet? Frutch fed the fire with driftwood. Oh, that old bird'll turn up when it suits him. I'd wager he's out fishing. Rulango likes to fish in the rain. Thoroughly dejected, the hares lounged about, constantly looking toward the entrance to see if the heron would show up. Night fell, and there was still no sign of him. Two younger otters took out a whistle and a small drum and began playing a pretty tune. The one beating the drum began to sing. Oh, I am a sea otter, I lives by the sea, I knows every tide, ebb, and flood, and I'll never break free from the sea, no, not me, cause the sea's in a sea otter's blood. Haul your nets in, mates, and let every beast wish, that tonight we'll be dining on saltwater fish. Well, I've seen her stormy, sunny, and calm, and I've tasted the good briny spray. Just show her respect, and she'll do you no harm. She'll send you home safe every day. Throw those pots in, mates, down deep to the sea. Tonight you and me'll have lobster for tea. Them waves come a-crashin' on out of the blue. Aye, big rollers, all topped white with foam. I sees my old boat prow a-cuttin' em clean through, and I sings, then a-sailin' back home. We're ashore now, mates. Let your mainsail go limp. I've brought my old mum a great net full of shrimp. Scarce had the otters finished singing when Rulango stalked into the cave. Brogalaw stroked the great heron's neck. Well, now, about time you showed up, mate. Did you have a good feed of fish out there? Rulango nodded several times. Brogalaw tickled his crest. You're an old scallywag, fishing while these good beasts are waiting gnawing their whiskers for news of their mateys. So what have you got to say for yourself? Rulango tapped the sandy floor with his widespread talons. The sea otter smoothed out an expanse of the sand, winking happily at Stiffener. Our friend's got news for us. Watch this. Right ho, me old bird. Tell these creatures what ye saw. The heron began drawing in the smooth sand with his beak, 
Stiffener moved close, interpreting what he saw. There's the coastline and the sea. Now he's sketching out our mountain. Look at this, Bramwell. The ancient hare joined Stiffener and watched admiringly. I say, this bird is a good artist. That's Salamandastron, sure enough, viewed from the seaward side, if I'm not mistaken. What's that? Oh, I see, it's him, circling round the rocks, about three-quarters of the way up. Hmm, he's drawing a circle in the mountain. Wait, tis a window hole near the top level. But I don't understand. What are all those funny leaf-shaped things he's sketching inside the window hole? Stiffener stared hard at the leaf shapes. Strange-looking things. I can't tell what they are. However, Bragalaw identified them without hesitation. Why, bless your heart, matey. They're long ears, just like yours. Good bird. You've found where Trun's keeping the hares locked up. Is that right? The heron nodded his head emphatically, then retired to a corner where he perched on one leg. Blench viewed the sketch with dismay. Oh, locks! We've no chance of climbing up that eye. What's to be done, Stiffener? The boxing hare bit his lip and scratched his whiskers. Aye, what's to be done? A difficult question, Marm. Troby slumped moodily by the fire. Of all the rotten luck, chaps, the blinking bounders locked them up in a place far too high for us to do anything. I mean, how in the name of suffering salad are we supposed to get up there, eh? What, what? Brogolaw's mother, Frutch, looked appealingly at him. Oh, say you can help the poor beast, Brog. The skipper of sea otters closed his eyes patiently. I'll give it a try, Mom. But don't go getting your handkerchief out and weeping, or I won't be able to think of anything. Quiet now, and let me ponder this. Frutch blinked back grateful tears. She avoided reaching for her kerchief as she smiled at Blanche. Don't ye fret, my dear. My brog'll find a way to help ye. Silence reigned in the cave. Outside, the wind whipped up the rain into a fresh assault on the cliff face, and waves could be heard breaking on the shore. Brogola nodded to himself a few times as if confirming his thoughts. Then he opened his eyes. Right, mates. Here's the top and bottom of it all. Tis do I for us to climb up to em. But they could climb down with the right help. This is my plan. We need ropes. Good longings. Once we've got em, Relango can fly the ropes up to your mates, and they can lower themselves down. It was a splendid idea, but Willop found an obstacle. I don't see any great long ropes hereabouts. You'll forgive my saying, Brog, but the plan won't jolly well work without ropes. Brogalaw was forced to agree with Willop. You're right, Marm. Ahoy! Rulango's drawing again. The skipper of sea otters took one look at the sketch. You're a crafty old wing flapper, mate. Derby, Colum, Spray Dog, come with me in Rulango. There's work to be done. 22. Cloaked in lengths of old sailcloth, two blue horde rats stood deck watch on the bows of one of Ungat Trun's vast flotilla of vessels, which were anchored in the bay facing Salamandistron. Both rats blinked rain from their eyes, staring miserably at the mountain. 
Bet they're all sitting snug and dry in there tonight, mate. Aye, quaffing grog and filling their bellies with vittles. No, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Vittles is short and grog's only for Ungat Tron and his cronies. I'll bet we get stuck on half rations in a day or so. Maybe you're right, Cully. But I wager they're all warm and dry and sleeping their fat heads off, snoring like hogs. Huh. And look at us, beauties. Standing out here on deck watch in the storm, soaking, cold, hungry, and sleepy. Whoa! What was that? What? I didn't see nothing. What was it? Like some kind of big bird swooped down aft there. Never. I think you need some shut-eye. You see funny things when you're tired. Or at least you think you see them. But I did see it. I'm certain I did. Down at the stern end. Well, let's go down and take a look. If tis there, a quick chop of me cutlass'll settle it. I'll take it down the galley and we'll share it with the cook. Both rats staggered down the slippy deck, clinging to the rails, and climbed the stairs to the stern peak. Well... Where is this big bird of yours? Eh, it must have flew off, but I saw it. Arr, you're talking through your tail, mate. There wasn't no big bird here. All the birds is long gone. Oh, they are, are they? Then tell me, where's that big, thin, heaving line that was coiled up right where you're standing? I don't know, clever snout. You tell me. The big bird took it. Why? "'cause it thought it was a giant worm. "'Don't talk rubbish, mate. "'The hunger's gone to your head. "'That fox Grottle must have took it. "'He was here today looking for ropes.' "'No, I'd take me affidavit. "'The rope was here when we came on watch. "'I saw it.' "'Aye, just like you saw the big bird. "'Listen, mate, you keep on seeing big birds "'and vanishing ropes, "'and I'm not coming on deck watch with you anymore.' Rulango dropped the last rope to Brog and his otters, who were waiting in the sea. Silently they coiled nine strong, thin, heaving lines about them and swam off shoreward, swift and sleek. Derby caused great merriment back at the cave as he related what he had heard, imitating the vermin voices expertly, while Brog knotted the heaving lines into one massively long rope. Perlo watched the long coils building up into a great thick cylinder. Great seasons! No beast would be able to lift that whacking huge thing. How do we move it to the mountain? Rogalaw had thought it all out carefully. Nine of us forms a line, each one carrying only a single rope's length. When we reaches your mountain, Rulango takes the end and flies up to the window and passes it to him. No fancy twiddles, mate. A plain and simple plan. But not to worry. Me and my crew will do it. You rest here. Stiffener had a word to say about that. Sorry, Brog, but I'm coming with you, mate. Tis my sworn duty. I wouldn't feel right lying warm and dry here while your otters were out facing all the danger. I'm going. The otter skipper shook his paw warmly. Twill be a pleasure to have you along, stiff mate. Now, there's no time to lose while tis night and bad weather. If we put some move on, there's a chance we could get your messmate down from the mountain afore daylight. Harkin, crew, we got a hard and fast night's work. Let's be about it. Though he was an old hare, Stiffener's seasons of exercise routines had kept him fit, and he bore his section of the rope as well as any sea otter. 
Grogalog dog-trotted along in the lead, staying to the clifftops, which were easier to travel than the deep sands of the dunes. All nine creatures wore hooded cloaks of soft, green-dyed bark cloth. Spume was whipped from the high-crested waves by the rain-sheeting wind, while dried-out seaweed flotsam from the tide line tumbled crazily about on the wet sand. The skies were moonless, strewn with banks of dark, scudding cloud. Ahead of the column, Rulango winged low over the stunted grass, striving to keep a straight course to the distant mountain. Bragalov had spoken truly. It was a task which was proving to be both hard and fast. They halted not far from Salamandastron's base. Gragalaw and Stiffener, accompanied by the heron, went ahead to scout out the lay of the land. The other seven sea otters sat down on the lee side of a hillock, still carrying the rope. They rested, but stayed alert, ready to go again at a moment's notice. On reaching the sheer rock face, Bragalaw and his friends crouched in the shelter of a bushy spur. Ahoy, Stiff! You're familiar with this place! the sea otter whispered. Be there any exits or entrances round here, mate? The boxing hare blinked out into the rain-washed night. Not round here, Brog. Shh! Some beast coming! On leaden limbs, a weasel sentry plodded by, keeping his head down against the weather, glancing neither left nor right. Brogalaw breathed a sigh of relief as the weasel was swallowed up by the night. Ship me rudder, mates! That was close! However, he spoke too soon. The sentry, coming in the opposite direction, heard the otter as he marched by. Thrusting into the shadows with his spear, he called for assistance to the weasel who had just passed that way. Oi! Scow! Back here, quick! Stiffener heard a note of uncertainty in the guard's voice as he shouted around the spur at them. I knows you're in there. Come out now and show yourselves. Scow, will you hurry up? I got prisoners cornered here. Stiffener came out at top speed, bounding and leaping. He caught the nervous guard unawares and floored him with a massive uppercut. Flinging aside his cloak, the hare grabbed the fallen guard's helmet, shield, and spear. Clapping the helmet on, he held the shield high, masking his face, beckoning Bragalaw and Rulango to step out as if he had captured them. Rather slow and cautious, the weasel sentry appeared out of the darkness and approached Stiffener warily. Where'd you find these two, Rago? Stiffener pointed around the darkened spur with his spear. In there, he muttered gruffly. The weasel edged forward and peered around. He saw his companion lying sprawled on the ground and turned quickly. You ain't, Reg! Ugh! Stiffener's oaken spear butt wrapped him sharply between the eyes, and he dropped without a sound. Bragalaw and Rulango dragged the two unconscious guards into the bushes. The otter skipper began looping the rope end around the heron's long, bony leg. We'll stay down here and pay the line out, mate. You fly up there and give them your end. They'll know what to do. Stiffener glanced up at the sky. Too late, Brog. It would be dawn in an hour or so. The journey here took longer than we thought. My friends are old. They wouldn't stand a chance in broad daylight out on the mountain face. Bragalaw was reluctantly forced to agree. You got a good point there, Stiff. So, what's the drill now? Stiffener made a quick decision. Only one thing for it, friend. Let Rulango take the line up. When they makes it secure, I'll shin up there and tell them what's going on. I'll take me cloak and stop with them. 
you and the bird go back and hide out with your otters for the day. All of you come back here at nightfall, and we'll do it then. Tis the only safe way. Most of the prisoners were sleeping in the high mountain cell. Torleaf and Sail Ears were on duty rota, standing by the window, listening to see if they could hear any news from the chamber below them. Torleaf leaned on the sill and rubbed his red-rimmed eyes. These two new brutes, Rip Fang and Doom Thingy, not much at gossiping, are they? Snore, snore all night. That's all they've blinking well done. I say, Marm, what's the matter? Sailiers was facing the window. She tried to keep her voice calm as she explained the situation. Don't move, Tor. Stay completely still, eyes front. Don't turn round whatever you do. There's a whacking great bird of some sort perched on the window ledge. Blooming creature could take your head off with a single swipe of his beak from where he is. Don't move. Let me deal with this, what? She put on her most winning smile and spoke softly out of the window. Deary me, you are a fine big feller, ain't you? What brings you up here on a night like this, friend? For answer, Rulango lifted his leg. Sailors was taken aback. Well, biff me sideways. He's brought us a rope. Torleap turned slowly and found himself staring into the heron's fierce eyes. He moved closer and waited a moment. Well, he ain't taking my head off, so he must be a friend come to help us. Am I right, sir? Rulango nodded twice, shaking the rope-draped leg. Under the bird's watchful eye, Sailors unfastened the line and began knotting it to an iron ring set in the wall. Take it from me, my fine feathered friend. If I were twenty seasons younger, I still wouldn't live long enough to thank you for the favor you've done us. What? Torleap was wakening the sleepers. Come on, chaps, up on your paws. We're being rescued. We'll be marm. I'd be obliged if you keep the old voice down. What? Rulango flapped off into the graying dawn. Sailors had half of her body out of the window space when she looked down. Well, I'm blowed. Guess what? There's some beast, a hare, I think, trying to climb up the valley rope. Look at this, Torleap. Torleap squinted down through his monocle. By the left, you're right, Marm. Looks like a hare. Hey there, you chaps. Lend a paw to haul the feller up here. When Stiffner was eventually hoisted into the cell and they recognized their old companion, there was profuse hugging, kissing, and paw-shaking. The boxing hare put a paw to his lips, urging him not to make too much noise. Coil the rest of that rope in afore any beast sees it, mates. Dumai lay back on a straw pallet, facing the long rectangular window of the chamber below the hare's cell. Half asleep, he rubbed his eyes. Rip-fang, you awake, brother? Was that a rope I saw going up in the air just then? Rip-fang sat up and yawned. Aye, it was probably Grottle and Frawl escaped, trying to catch a passing cloud, the fools was. Ha, ha, ha! Dumai probed at one eye, blinking furiously. Must have been an eyelid drooped down over me eye. That blue dye plays havoc with my eyesight. Thought it was a rope. Ripfang was now up and about. You never know. It might have been. Let's go and check on them long ears they got locked upstairs. But the two rats never got that far. 
On emerging from the chamber, they were faced with the sinister form of Ungat Trun's Grand Fragoral. His mightiness would have words with you. Follow me. The wildcat looked as if he had passed a sleepless night. He sat in front of a blue-smoking brazier, draped in a silken blanket. Rip-bang and Doom-Eye stood stiffly at attention, both thinking that he knew about the wanton slaying of Meyerflack. Trun surveyed his two new captains from the corner of a red-rimmed eye. You two were sea rats. You must have sailed many places and seen lots of strange things, eh? Rip-bang, being the more eloquent, spoke for them both. Tis so, mighty one. Why do you ask? He quailed as the frightening eyes turned to meet his. Never answer a question with a question when speaking to Ungat Trun. That way you may see the next sunset. In all your travels, have you ever met a badger, a big beast who carries a double-hilted sword on his back? Think now, did you ever encounter such a creature? No, your mightiness. We never met such a beast, sire. The wildcat dismissed them with a wave of his tail. Leave me now. Go about your duties. On their way down to the dining hall, Dumai chuckled with relief. <laughs> I thought he'd found out about Meyerflack. Shut up, Oaf. He will if and you keep shouting it round. Funny, though, him asking about a badger like that. Aye, I've never even seen a badger, have you? Not real like. But sometimes I gets horrible dreams about one, a big un, like Trun said, but not carrying a sword like the badger he wants to know about. Is that right? I never knew you dreamed about a badger, Rip Bang. Er, how do you know what a badger looks like if you ain't never seen one? I never said I ain't heard of one. Look, will you shut up about badgers? I don't like badgers, and I can't help it if I dream about one, can I? Let's go and get some breakfast. I'm starving. But breakfast was disappointing. Dumai prodded with his dagger at the tiny portion of mackerel on a dock leaf and wrinkled his nose, sniffing at it suspiciously. One stingy little cob of fish. Going bad, too, I think. Is this all the vittles we gets? I thought we signed on for better grub than rotten fish. Hey, you, come here. The blue horde rat cook saluted. Anything I can do for you, Cap'n? Cap'n? Oh, why? What's wrong with the vittles round here? That's all there is, Cap'n. Wish his mightiness would get that fox viz to magic up some more provisions. Rip Fang puffed out his narrow chest. He felt it was beneath him to bandy words with a mere low-ranking skivvy. Right, well, anything else to report? Aye, two outside guards deserted, Cap'n, the cook informed him with an insolent grin. There'll no doubt be a few more if and the grub steaks don't improve. Rip Fang had taken a dislike to the cook, so he potted him several times on the end of his bulbous nose. Bad fortune to him if and they do. We'll fetch em back and use em to bait up the fish hooks. Now stop your gossiping and get back to work. Oh. Those two who've gone missing, bring us their pieces of fish. That's in order. He nudged his brother and winked broadly at him. One of the joys of being a captain, eh? Outside, the weather was beginning to clear. Mist rose from the damp rocks, and a warm breeze started to sweep the clouds away, 
Summer had begun. It was to be a most memorable season for all. Most memorable. 23. The storm had not penetrated inland. It was driven up coast and out to sea. Dottie sat on the stream bank, breakfasting on fresh fruit salad with her friends. The hair maid was now under instruction as a contender for King Bucko Big Bones' crown. Gren read out the rules which had been delivered by the king's seconds. Two days from now, the three events will commence. The bragging, the feasting, and the fighting. The bragging will take place on the eve of day one. Whichever beast wins the brag will be the creature voted by common consent of the crowd to have outbragged the other. Dawn of day two, the feasting will commence. The victor will be the one left sitting, still eating, at sunset, or until one creature yields to the other. Noon of day three is the fighting. No weapons or any arms whatsoever are allowed to be taken into the ring. All supporters and seconds must have vacated the ring by the time the crown is dropped. The king has the right to decide whether the contest be from scratch or moving freely. The moment one beast cannot rise and continue fighting, the other will be declared the winner. Note, in the event of bragging or feasting being won, lost, or declared a tie, the winner of the fighting will be declared outright king. These are the approved rules. Fleet Scott laughed scathingly. Bucko's rules made by himself, eh? He's only got to win the jolly old fighting, and he's home and dry, what? That's right, old feller. King Bucko makes the rules in his own court. You've got to be better than him to change them. Aye, and you've got to blink and well prove it, too. They turned to see two extremely fit-looking young hares lounging nearby, taking everything in. I'll give you young whelps something to think about if you don't move yourselves. Rockchery growled. The hares did move. Not away, but closer. They were obviously twin brothers, alike as peas in a pod. They spoke alternately, beginning or finishing off sentences, as if each knew what the other was thinking. Fleetscott was watching them closely as they addressed the badger. Don't get touchy, sir. We're on your and the pretty one's side. Rather on the pretty one's side, especially, what, what? I'm Southpaw, and this fat ugly one's Bob Weave. Fat ugly one? Go away, you bounder. Let Miss Dottie say. Come on, miss. Ain't I the best-looking one who cuts the finest figure? Tell the truth now. Fleet Scott approached them, his paw extended. I'll tell you the truth, you young rips. Bob Weave and Southpaw, eh? You're the orphaned twins, grandsons of Stiffen Medic. I can see it in you both. Fighting hares born and bred, what? Rather. How do you do, sir? Pleased to meet you, old chap. They exchanged greetings with all the party. Dottie took an immediate liking to the twins, though they had the biggest, toughest-looking paws she had ever seen on a hare. Both were extra gentle when they shook her paw. Brocktree had changed his attitude and was quite cordial with them. So, friends, you have the looks of two very perilous beasts. How can you help us? Fleetscott threw a sudden barrage of punches at them. Still smiling and hardly taking notice, they repelled every blow in a casually expert manner. The old hare nodded. Your grandpa talked about you night and day. Said you were the finest boxers on earth. They shuffled modestly. Oh, we keep ourselves busy, sir. Always up to the jolly old mark, you know. 
Dottie was bursting to ask the athletic pair a question. Er, beg pardon, chaps, but if you two are so good, then why haven't you challenged King Bucko? Quite simple, really, Miss Dottie. Right. If I challenged Bucko and floored him, then I'd be King Southpaw. But I couldn't give old Bob Weave orders. True, miss. And if I challenged Bucko and won, I'd be King Bob Weave. Ha! Imagine me trying to give Southpaw orders. Besides, Bucko Big Bones, between you and me and the gatepost, he's a great big windbag. Well, he can be sly and dangerous as well. Makes all his own rules, and breaks them too, what? Juka's sling was beginning to wave her tail impatiently. Then canst thou tell us how the maid will defeat him? Well, we can't tell you exactly, Marm, but we can help her by pointing out Bucko's weaknesses. Girth chuckled appreciatively. Her, her, her. You be doing us in a girt favor if any can, young sirs. Tell away now, we'm all ears. Dottie learned a great deal by listening to Bob Weave and Southpaw. King Bucko liked to play jokes, but he hated the joke being on him. He was vain, quick-tempered, and resorted to cheating at the blink of an eye. But he was surrounded by loyal mountain hares, and moreover, he was no fool at fighting and always won at any cost. Ruff wagged a serious paw at the hair maid. So you see, miss, Bucko ain't no pushover. We got to figure how you can use his faults again him, upset his apple cart. Smack him tail with a big stick. That's what skickles do. Merkel Wart shooed her babe off with a dire warning. I'll smack your tail with a big stick. Go and play, your little plague. Can't you see this is a serious conservation? Skittles climbed up onto Brocktree's sword hilt and sulked. The badger lord reached up and patted the hog babe's paw. Maybe Skittles has provided us with the answer. Brr, you mean smacking your king's tail with sticks, sir? Brocktree scratched his stripes thoughtfully. In a manner of speaking, yes. We smack his pride. Can you see what I'm getting at? Logalog Gren caught on to the idea immediately. Aye, that's how Dottie'll win, by keeping cool and calm. Turn the jokes on Bucko. Get the supporters on her side. Juca began warming to the plant. Play the good-mannered, well-brought-up hairmaid. Use thy wit against the braggart. Make him fall into his own traps. Dottie's friends all began making suggestions to help her. Use his own weight against him. Duck and weave. Aye, show him up to his supporters as a fraud and a cad, what? Keep your nose in the air and dismiss Bucko as a ruffian. Er, make he king rassily, Miss Dot. Don't he box him. Don't fret, miss. We'll show you one or two boxing tricks. Rather, and when he's least expecting it, you can use him. Right, we'll outthink him at every turn. All that first summer's day, they sat on the stream bank, working out a master plan. Dottie practiced her new role of the cool, calm, and distant hairmaid, though she had trouble avoiding the admiring glances of Southpaw and Bob Weave, who were obviously smitten with her. Every now and then, the twins would be so overcome that they would move further up the bank and box the ears off one another. Cubba and Ruku paddled up at midnoon with the log boats strung out behind them. Cubba shipped paddles and looked questioningly at Gren. What's going on here, Marm? 
Are you wagering on which of those two hairs will knock the other's block off first? The Guasum chieftain helped to moor the vessels. Something like that. I'll tell you about it later. Over the next two days, Dottie wrestled with girth, was instructed in the art of boxing by two very enthusiastic young hares, and listened to the wisdom of her elders. It was all very helpful and instructive, except for one thing. Part of her training included a strict diet, no food, and precious little water. For a creature of her young appetite, it was nothing less than sheer brutal torture. When meals were served, she was forced to sit in one of the log boats, guarded by Ruff, out of the sight of food. Nursing a beaker filled with water, with a light sprinkle of crushed oats added to it, she glared at her otter friend. Rotten and stingy, that's what you lot are, miserable grub swipers. When I'm a kingess, or do you think queen sounds better, I'll banish the whole bally gang. Every beast who refused a fatal young royal beauty a morsel. Away with him. Ruff swiped her ears playfully. Tis only for your own good, young'un. You'll thank us for this one day. Oh, and pardon me, what day will that be, sir, what? Glancing over her shoulder, Ruff whispered, Hush ye now, miss. Here comes Bucko hisself. A light skiff with two mountain hares plying it drew alongside. Bucko was seated beneath a canopy with a jug of pale cider and a tray full of pasties and tarts. He grinned roguishly at his challenger. Wheel now, is a bonny summer noontide, lassie. Would you no care for a tart or a pasty? Maybe a beaker of this good pale cider? Join me, pretty one. Dotty blinked serenely. Thank you kindly, but I'd rather not. I've just finished quite a large luncheon. Bucko bit into a tart, and black currant juice ran down his chin. Mmm, not like a fresh black currant tarty, my pretty. Dotty took a dainty sip of her clouded oatmeal water. Not like a fresh mountain hare, I always say. Kindly remove yourself downstream, sir. Your table manners offend me. There may be a few mad toads down there who'd be glad of your company. Toads aren't too choosy, you know. Bucko bolted the rest of the tart and licked his paws. Ach, and ye'd know about toad's manners I can. Dottie gave him her sweetest smile. Indeed, I do. Mother always held them up to me as a bad example. Pity your mother hadn't the sense to show you. Bucko scowled. He tried to stand up, but the skiff swayed. I'll thank ye to leave my mother out of this. Another word aboot her, and I'll teach ye a braw, sharp lesson. The hairmaid stared down her nose at the irate king. Pray save your threats until the appointed time, sir. Bucko signaled his hairs to row on. Ye do wheel to mind that there's many a beastie got themselves slain by their ain sharp tongue. He called back to Dotty. Dotty waved delicately to him with a clean kerchief. Just so, sir, and you'd do well to know that there's many a creature with a sloppy tongue slipped and broke their neck upon it. Toodaloo and all that. Ruff squeezed Dottie's paw as the hare's boat pulled upstream, his face wreathed in a big smile. Full marks, miss. You was magnificent. Dottie kept up the pose, simpering and fluttering her lids. Why, thank you, my good fellow. 
did it earn one, perhaps a smidgen, of that woodland trifle which Girth made, what? The otter shook his head firmly. Afraid not, miss. Yeah! Go and boil your beastly head, you great slab-sided, boat-nosed, plank-tailed excuse for a worthless water-walloper! Brocktree poked his striped head through the willow fronds. Did our young lady say something then, Ruff? Bless her grateful little heart, she did, sir. She was just thanking us for all the trouble we're taking over her education. She's fair overcome with gratitude. The badger lord waggled his paw at Dotty. Mustn't get overexcited now, must we, Missy? Time for your afternoon nap. Remember, tis the bragging challenge tomorrow evening. Can't have you overtiring yourself, can we? Sitting with the luncheon party, Juka Sling put aside her bowl of cold mint tea. She listened wide-eyed to Dotty telling Ruff and Brocktree what she thought of them. Zounds! Methinks yon hairmaid could give young Grood a lesson in choice language. Grood, cover thy ears. It was the evening of the first day. Crowds gathered at the log-bounded arena amid a festive air. There was music, singing, the sound of picnic hampers being shared, and banter from supporters on both sides. Candied fruit and treasured possessions, knives, belts, tail and paw rings of precious materials, some studded with glinting stones, were changing paws as betting opened. As usual, Bucko was the firm favorite. No beast had ever seen him lose, so they weren't about to wager on an outsider. Amid a roll of drums and a blast from a battered bugle, King Bucko Big Bones entered the ring with an honor guard of his cronies. He wore his broad belt, his cloak, two silver paw rings, and the laurel-twined crown perched on his brow at a jaunty angle. Whirling the cloak dramatically, he shed it and threw the garment to his minions. Then he paraded around the perimeter, acknowledging the cheers by leaping high with one clenched paw held up. Dottie wore a demure cloak of light blue with the slightest hint of a frill at its neck. She carried her bag and stood patiently while Merkel Wart and Juka made final adjustments to her flowered straw bonnet, specially loaned to her by Merkel Wart for the occasion. Southpaw and Bob Weave gallantly helped her over the log barrier, and she entered the arena alone. The bank bowl referee puffed himself up officiously and roared in his stentorian voice, "'Gentle beasts, all!' Pray silence for the bragging. King Bucko will not remove his crown for this event. The winner will be judged by the popular opinion of your very good selves. The challenger this evening is Miss Dorothea Duckworthy Dilfontaine of Mossflower. There was a smattering of applause. Dottie tapped the bank bowl. Correction, my good sir. The name's Duck Fontaine Dilworthy. Would you kindly reannounce me, please? The pompous bank bowl was forced to comply with her request. This brought a few encouraging laughs and some shouts. That's the stuff, miss. You tell the old windbag. A gal that jolly well stands up for herself. What? Good show! The bank bowl cut them short with a glare. Then he shouted, Let the bragging start! 
Silence fell on the crowd. Dottie stood quite still in the center of the ring and said nothing. Bucko paced about the edges as if stalking her. Suddenly, he did a splendid cartwheel and a breathtaking leap. He landed very close to Dottie, who did not flinch, and began his brag. Yeah, hoo! I'm the mighty monarch Frey of the Mountains. My name's King Bucko Big Bones. What do you think of that, my bonny wee lassie? Dottie ignored him and waved cheerily to her friends. Isn't he clever? He knows his own name. It must have taken him simply ages to learn it. What? There was a ripple of laughter from the crowd. Bucko stamped until dust rose and leapt clear over Dottie's head. Still, she did not move from her place. Bucko thrust out his barrel chest and thumped it. I'm nay fear to any beast. I was born on a moonless night midst thunder and lightning. Amid the hush that followed, Dottie carefully wiped a speck of dust from her paw with a lace-edged kerchief. Tut tut, what dreadful weather you had! Did you get wet? This time the laughter increased. Raucous guffaws could be heard, some with a distinct mountain hare tone to them. Bucko had to wait for the merriment to subside. His jaw and his paws clenched tight. He thrust his face forward until he was eye to eye with Dottie, and his big voice boomed forth. Yeah, who we beastie? Have you ever looked death straight in the eye, eh? Then look at him which stands afore ye. The crowd waited with bated breath. Dotty peered even closer at her opponent until her nose touched his. Hmm, you do look a little peaky, sir. All that shouting can't be doing you much good. All that jumping about too. Have you got a pain in your tummy? Is that it? Roars and hoots of laughter greeted this remark. Creatures at the ringside were wiping tears from their eyes. Ah ha ha ha! Pain in the tummy. That's a good un. King Bucko was shaking all over, glaring murderously at Dotty. He gripped both paws, raising them over her head as if he were going to bring them down and crush her. She nodded in prim approval of his action. Bit of exercise, sir. Good. My mother always says exercise is the best cure for tummy ache. Come on now, up, down, up. Breathe through your nose. Head well back, sir. She moved just as Bucko's paws came crashing down. One of them catching her shoulder, knocking her slightly off balance. The crowd booed. Foul, foul play, sir. Struck the little hair maid. Several hairs, Baron Drucko, Ruff, and the bank bull referee leapt the logs and rushed forward. The hares and Drucko restrained Bucko, and Ruff placed a paw about Dottie, while the bank bull placed himself between the contestants, bellowing, "Disqualification! Your Majesty has broke the rules. No creature, I said, no creature is allowed to strike another at a bragging challenge." Out of this arena, sire! At this very instant. End of side five. To continue, turn the cassette over. Side six, Lord Brocktree, by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page two nineteen. 
bucko grabbed his cloak and pushed through the crowd, knocking creatures this way and that in his haste to flee the scene of his disgrace. Jubilation reigned. Dottie was swept shoulder-high and carried around the ring several times. Stamping, whistling, and shouting, the crowd cheered her to the echo. Girth and Fleet Scott waved to her as she was borne past them. The old hare was overjoyed. I say, good show! Absolutely top-hole performance from the young'un! Hey, Girth, what, what? Ooh, er, our Miss Dot wind fern squares, er, but she have to do what and she be told, and not go a getting swell at it. He can be still girtly dangerous, er. When the shouting had died down, Lord Brocktree refused numerous offers for Dottie to attend feasts and parties in her honor. He whisked the hairmaid back to their camp beneath the willows. Deaf to her protestations and appeals for food, Brocktree and Grend ordered her to bed down in a shrew log boat. Moreover, they posted sentries on the stream bank to ensure that she did as she was told. Logalog Grend was as stern a taskmistress as any badger. You get some sleep now, young'un. Forget food. As of dawn tomorrow, you're going to wish you'd never seen drink or vittles. The contest goes from sunrise to sunset. It will be a long day for you, so close your eyes. You Gwasim, keep your eyes open or you'll answer to me. Southpaw and Bob Weave had been missing since the end of the bragging contest. Gren joined the others on the stream bank as supper was served. Are those hair twins back yet? Baron Drucko peered out into the darkness. No sign of them yet, Marm. You know heirs. They've probably gone off to some celery bration or other. Gren looked to Merklewort. Celery bration? The hogwife touched her snout knowingly. Don't let our big words fool you, Marm. Drucko means they've gone off to a party. Oh, no, they haven't. Here they come now. Southpaw and Bob Weave slipped into camp and helped themselves to supper. Super-duper scones with strawberry preserve, what? And hot mulled penny cloud and ball rush cordial. I say, you chaps certainly know your vittles from your vitals, hey? Girth tapped his digging claws impatiently. Did he get yon job, zers, Tellisons? The hair twins laughed, as if sharing a secret joke. Oh, the job's waiting on table, you mean? I'll jolly well say we did, eh, South? Rather, that old head cook will do absolutely anything for three flagons of pale cider, what? Drucko waddled angrily over to them. So that's what's happened to me fine pale cider. All three flagons. I was saving that for me season spike day. Merklewort clipped one of his head spikes neatly with her axe. Stop moaning, Drucko. You'll wake Skittles. Listen, if and we want the air maid to win, we've got to make sacrifones. Fleet's got chuckled. Aye, and some sacrifices too, Marm. Merklewort nodded sagely. Them too. Brocktree took off his sword and lay down by the fire. Good. I hope this plan of yours and Ruff's works out, Gren. Unsheathing her rapier, the Gwasim chieftain stuck it in the ground and lay down next to it. Aye, I hope so too. "'Tis costing the Gwasim their last keg of old plum and beetroot wine.' "'Ruff chided her. "'Oh, come on, Gren, stop whining about your wine. "'Oh, that's a good un, whining about wine.' "'But Gren did not see the joke. 
we've carried that keg with us more seasons than I care to remember. There ain't a wine like it in all moss flower. Ask any guassum. One drop of it can cure any ailment of head or stomach. It can clear up coughs, sniffles, and colds in the wink of an eye. Take my word for it. The hair twins shared the last of the scones. Should do the trick then, what? Aye, provided Miss Dottie knows her blinking lines. 24. Dawn arrived bright and sunny. Ruro shielded her eyes as she glanced skyward. More like midsummer's day than the second day of the season. What thinkest thou, Fleet's Cut? Going to be what we hares call a bloomin' scorcher, marm. The old hare turned to Dotty as she walked with her friends to the feasting challenge. How do you feel today, young miss? Chipper, what? The hairmaid's reply was summed up in two fervent words. Flippin' famished! Fleet Scott stared at her sympathetically. I know exactly what you mean, miss. But remember, pace yourself. Don't go wallowing in there and scoffing like a gannet in a ten-season famine. Cool and jolly well calm. That's the ticket for you, my girl. Cool and calm. The crowd had already gathered around the arena, but they parted to allow Dottie's party to enter the ring. Bucko was already there, surrounded by supporters. His minions had spent most of the night planting tales of provocation, enlarging the insults to their king until it appeared to the gullible ones that he was the injured party. A table with two chairs was laid in the center of the ring, bare save for two plates, two goblets, and cutlery. Bucko was already seated, and Dotty took her place at the table's far side. Bucko tilted his chair back onto two legs and smiled sarcastically. Och, we'll hear the lassie is. Better late than never, eh? Don't weep now. I will na raise a paw to ye, pretty one. But mind, I'm wise to all your wee tricks, new ye can. Dotty shook out a clean kerchief, of which she had brought a goodly supply to use at table. She greeted him civilly. Good morrow to you, sir. I hope you're in good appetite. Dinna fret yourself, lassie. I could eat every morsel yon servers put up for both of us. Aye, and still go hame and enjoy my dinner. Dotty carefully wiped the rim of her goblet, not looking up. You can? Oh, that is nice to know, sir. Further conversation was curtailed as the bank bowl referee entered the ring, followed by a line of servers pulling trolleys laden with food and drink. His considerable voice had lost none of its volume. Hearken to me, attend all creatures. Today is the feast and challenge. Choice of fiddles is left to the contestants, as is choice of drinks. No wasting of food or drink by spitting out or throwing away. The contest will take place until sunset or until one or t'other contestant is unable to finish. Let the feasting begin. The servers began loading food onto the table. Southpaw set lots of salads, both fruit and vegetable, on Dottie's side and winked furtively at her. Good luck, miss. Bob Weave tapped the keg of plum and beetroot wine, filled Bucko's goblet, and came around to serve Dottie. 
The hair maid covered her goblet with a paw. I'll take water or cold mint tea, if you please. That wine looks far too jolly strong for me. Bucko swigged from his goblet and smacked his lips. By the mountain rocks, that's a good drop of stuff. Ark, a shame that's too jolly strong for the wee lassie. But I'm a king of hares, and nothing's too strong for Bucko. He piled salad, a wedge of cheese, and an onion and leek turnover on his plate and dug in eagerly. Dotty could tell that he too had been fasting. She piled salad on her plate and forced herself to eat at a normal rate, though the ten chews per mouthful routine that her mother had enforced at home was too much for her. Bucko quaffed his wine and signaled for a refill. With lettuce leaves, watercress, and scallions hanging from his mouth corners, he gulped the lot, waving his fork at Dotty. Nibble away there, pretty missy. I'll show you the way a king eats. Mm. This is raw wine. Suits me fine. Do you not fancy a dram of it, ma pretty? Dotty dabbed her lips with a kerchief. No, thank you, sir. I prefer mint tea. Bucko held his goblet daintily and mimicked her. I prefer mint tea, sir. Ah, away with ye, ye wee fuss budget. Here, new, watch how a wild March Hare warrior eats. He bolted down the wedge of cheese, tore apart a warm rye farl, stuffed it in his mouth, and washed the lot down with another goblet of wine before attacking his turnover. Dotty was so hungry after nearly three days that she almost did likewise. However, she checked herself at the last moment, allowing Southpaw to serve her some sliced apples. By mid-morning, Dotty was still maintaining her sedate pace, though she had eaten a latticed pear tart, some gooseberry crumble with meadow cream topping, two plates of vegetable salad, and a plate of fruit salad, which was only about a quarter of what King Bucko Big Bones had downed. His supporters were yelling encouragement, egging him on. "'Ye show her how tis done, sire!' Aye, scoffer under the table, your majesty. Bucko dug his spoon into a steaming apple sponge pudding. I'm very partial to apple sponge. Here, server, bring me yon pitcher of custard so I can pour it over this. In the crowd, Juca murmured to Drucko, Keep silent now. Don't encourage her to eat fast. Leave that to yonder big-boned fool. Drucko could not help shaking his head in admiration. By the spite! That long-ear king can scoff, though, no doubt about that. The beast's a gluttlet. You mean he's a blutton, ain't I right, Ruff? Ruff nodded, knowing it was useless to argue. Correct, Marm. Look, Bucko's calling the referee over. The officious bank bowl listened as the king registered his complaint. I'm fair sweatin', you can. Yonder sun's beatin' doon on my head like a furnace. Can you no bring me a sunshade? The referee went to the ringside and consulted with several other pompous-looking bank bowls. After much paw-waving and arguing, the huddle broke up and he returned to the table. I'm afraid there's nothing in the rules that says you can have a sunshade, sire. Bucko was forced to eat on as he questioned the decision. He swigged wine and set about a heavy fruitcake. Well, now, my good feller, 
Is there anything in yon rules which states that I cannot have a sunshade? Bucko stole one of Dottie's used kerchiefs and mopped at his brow while the bank bowl considered the quandary. Hmm, er, yes, well, tell you what I'll do, sire. If the young miss requires a sunshade, then you shall both be entitled to have one. But if and she don't, sire, then I'm afraid you'll have to do without the sunshade, sire. Miss Dorothea, do you want a sunshade, miss? Dottie nibbled a woodland trifle thoughtfully. Not really, thank you. Tis far too nice a day. Actually, I quite enjoy the early summer sun. Don't you, sir? The bank bowl shrugged apologetically to Bucko. There you have it, sire. No contestant shall have unequal advantage of the other. You'll have to feast on. Sunshades are out, I'm afraid. Bucko sprayed cake crumbs as he glowered at his opponent. I'll still beat you, we Miss Prissy Paws. He downed another two goblets of wine, cold from the keg, thinking it would cool him down. It was midday. The sun was beating down on both contestants. Dottie was full. She did not want to look at, smell, or taste any more food that day, but she carried on, keeping up a good front, as she had been instructed by her friends. She marveled that Bucko, hot and perspiring as he was, carried on bolting down huge quantities of food. He ate indiscriminately now, not choosing one thing over another. Pies, puddings, breads, salads, flans, and pasties were devoured without favoritism. He was slopping the wine about quite a bit, but still going at it. Bucko, like all March hares, was unpredictable. He was wolfing his way through a strawberry shortcake when he paused and winked at Dottie. You can nay defeat me by consuming your vittles slow. Ho, ho, ho! I'm watching you, pretty one. Well, now, two can play at that wee game, missy. I can eat as slow as ye. Aye, and still be setting here tonight at sunset. Dottie put aside her mint tea and chose a small almond tart. For the first time, Bucko noticed that she appeared slightly disturbed. She fussed about wiping her spoon. Then do so, sir. Tis no concern of mine at what rate you fill your flippin' face. Bucko grinned triumphantly and began chewing his food slowly. He drained his goblet leisurely and picked up a honeyed scone. Slowly he chewed it, ever so slowly, washing it down with lingering draughts of wine. Shortly before mid-afternoon, most of the onlookers moved into the willow shades on the stream bank. Dottie plodded on with a single slice of dry bread, hating the very thought of food, her appetite completely sated. Southpaw and Bob Weave ignored her, focusing all their attention on Bucko, refilling his goblet, heaping up his plate, leaning over him as they did, and yawning. Bees buzzed somewhere nearby. Not a breeze disturbed the hot noon air. The remainder of the crowd at the ringside had fallen silent. Then the eyelids of King Bucko Big Bones began to droop. His head started to nod forward onto his chest, and a morsel of wild cherry turnover slipped from his half-open mouth. Bob Weave winked at Dotty. The hairmaid held her breath. Bucko's half-filled goblet toppled gently over onto the tabletop. He did not seem to notice. 
The king's eyelids drooped lower, lower, then closed softly. His ears flopped forward, and he started to snore. Dottie continued eating as silently as she could, nibbling on the same slice of bread. After what seemed like an age, she saw Lord Brocktree stamp heavily across to the referee. Blinking, as if he himself had not been caught napping, the bank bull struggled upright. Ahem! You shouldn't really be here in the ring, sire. Brocktree nodded in solemn agreement. I know, sir, and I apologize. But from this angle, you can hardly see that one of your contestants has stopped eating. Where? Er, what? Er, stopped eating, you say, sire? The bank bull waddled anxiously across to the table. Dottie stopped eating her bread to point at Bucko. I'm terribly sorry, but this chap's been like that for quite a while now. Would you wake him, please? But Bucko could not be wakened. His head fell forward onto an apple pie, and he lay there snoring lustily. The bank bowl was extremely upset. He climbed onto the table, taking care not to tread on any food, and shouted, Miss Dorothea, er, er, Miss Dorothea, the winner! He went on to roar about how the king had forfeited the day by not being able to continue, quoting chapter and verse of the rules set down by Bucko himself, and calling on the other bank bowls to bear him out as witnesses. King Bucko slept on, oblivious of what was going on around him. A crowd of mountain hares lifted him onto a food trolley and bore him off, still snoring with his cheek resting in an apple pie, defeated. Fleetscott and the hare twins set about demolishing the remainder of the feast. Dottie tried not to watch them, her eyes glazing over in disgust. Yerg! How can you dreadful savages even think of food? I never want to see another flippin' pie, bloomin' puddin', or blinkin' salad again in my young and fatally beautiful life, do you hear? Get all vittles out of my sight. The trio obeyed her instructions with alacrity. Getting these painful reminders out of your sight, miss. I say, don't hog all that trifle, old lad. Rather, we'll try not to prolong the agony, miss. Pass the scones and honey, will you, Fleet? Pass them yourself. You young rips are too fast for me. A bit of respect for age, please. That damson puddin's mine. Desist, wretch, or I'll report you to your grandpa, what? Lord Brocktree's eyes twinkled as he shook Dottie's paw. Two down, one to go, miss. That was a decisive victory, I'd say. I wonder if they've managed to wake Bucko yet. Dottie twitched her ears disapprovingly. Do you know, sir, I've got a feeling we cheated. Logalog Gren replaced the bung in her wine keg. She held it up and shook it, listening to the swish it made. Nearly half a keg, the blackguard supped. Cheated, you say, young'un? We never cheated at all. Bucko defeated himself by showing off and being so greedy. Ain't that so, Juca? Aye, tis true, miss. Twas no small thing to vanquish him at his own game, in his own court, and under his own rules. Bucko had defeated all comers, I'll warrant, by fair means or foul, until he met thee. Thou art a worthy champion. Dottie attempted to rise and fell back, holding her waist. You mean I'm an overstuffed rack? You know, I think my ears have gone fatter. Juca heaved Dottie upright, a smile hovering on her normally serious features. Up ye come. Gren, take her other paw. Methinks a good long walk until nightfall will cure thee, miss. 
If that proves useless, there is always an old squirrel remedy for one who is overeaten. Eh, Fleet Scott? The old hare glared at Juca. He had not forgotten. Take the walk, young'un. Tramp about till your bally paws feel ready to drop off. If you don't, I know what'll happen. That bush-tailed poisoner will boil up half the woodlands in a pot and sit on you till you drink it. Take my word. Just the smell of that squirrel's foul concoction would make a worm gag and rot the feathers off a blinking buzzard. Brocktree and Ruff watched the hair maid totter off between the squirrel and the shrew. Ruff sat back on his rudder. Our little Dottie, eh? A future queen of hares. Who'd have thought it? The badger lord replied confidently. I would, friend. That's why I chose her. That young'un has courage, nerve, and wit. She'll make a truly perilous queen. Cha! She's still gore a biff bucko tomorrow. I think she'd be too little for that. Brocktree looked over his shoulder at Skittles, seated on the great sword hilt. Aye, you've a point there, wretch. Under Bucko's rules, Dottie's two wins count for nothing if he beats her tomorrow. Our plans and her work will have been all for nothing. Ha! Fuck plan harder and work more. Skittles help. Brocktree tickled the hog babe's footpaw affectionately. Well said, mate. I wish I'd been as clever as you when I was a badger babe. Skittles scoffed at the idea. Cha-ha! No little ones cleverer in Skittles. Not no biggins, neither. Me cleverer in all the world, ho I. I wouldn't argue with him, mate, Ruff murmured solemnly to his badger friend. He's got hold of the sword. They walked back to the camp under the willows together. Brocktree's mind was seething with a host of thoughts. His father, old Stonepaw, Salamandastron, the mountain that was his spiritual inheritance, the army he needed to raise so he could regain it, and Dottie. All of his plans, hopes, and dreams rested in the paws of a young hairmaid. Granted, she did not lack courage or determination, but Bucko was an experienced warrior, a wild March mountain hare with countless victories under his belt. Nor was he particular about the way he accomplished them. Was Skittles right? Would Dottie prove too young, small, and inexperienced to overcome King Bucko Big Bones in this, the most difficult of her three challenges? 25. Ungat Trun acquired a new enemy on the night that Grottle made his escape from the underground cavern. Battered, bleeding, and totally exhausted, the fox was swept out into the sea. He floated a while, letting the tide sweep him along, half dead, but half alive. He had craftily hung back in the blue tunnel, letting Frawl run eagerly in front of him, straight into the spider crabs. The stunted fox clung to a piece of driftwood, salt water stinging his eyes as he was swept south on the current. He watched Salamandastron recede and swore to himself that he would return one day. Outwardly, Grottle shivered with the cold but inside he was burning with the unquenchable fires of vengeance. The following evening, Ungat Trun presided over the trial of four blue horde rats. These had been brought before him by Karangul, the only other fox serving in the hordes beside Grottle. Karangul held the title of Captain-in-Chief in all the Wildcats' vast armada. Karangul was a disciplinarian. He lived by his master's rules and laws. 
Very little aboard the ships escaped his keen notice. He gave his evidence in a strange, clipped voice. Where are these beasts charged with mightness? I tell you. They fish, keep fish themselves, eat them. The four horde rats knelt before Ungat Trun, roped together by a thick line about their necks. He watched his spiders a while, then turned to the rats, as if noticing them for the first time. You know what you must do with any fish you catch? Karangul kicked the rat closest to him. You answer. Give them to the captain of the fishing party, the rat mumbled. The wildcat's voice carried no anger, nor any emotion whatsoever. So you know my law. Why did you disobey it and eat the fish? Without any urging, one of the four stood up, his face a mask of sullen defiance. Cause we hadn't had no vittles for two days. We was hungry. Ungat Trun smiled, and the rat shuddered. He knew what was coming. He had witnessed that smile turned upon other beasts. Do I look fat and well-fed? Does the Fregorl, or your captain? We are all hungry until proper foraging grounds have been found. But we do not steal food from the mouths of our comrades. That is why we are the chosen ones. He beckoned the Grand Fregorl with his scepter. Give orders to all my captains to assemble their creatures on the beach at high tide tomorrow. These four will be made an example of. My hordes will witness their execution. Guards, take them away and watch them well. Grangul, stay. I would talk with you. When the guards, prisoners, and Fregorl had departed, Ungat Trun questioned his captain-in-chief. What are they saying aboard my ships? Is it mutiny? Mightness? Not yet. I whip em, work em hard, but no food. They talk, whisper, steal. Need food to live. With all the sinewy litheness of a great cat, the conqueror bounded from his throne and swept out of the room. Follow me. I think I have the answer. Karangul was fairly quick on his paws. However, he had a job keeping up with his master as they bounded upstairs. A guard captain was waiting at the stairhead. At Trun's nod, he fell in behind them. Sailors pulled Stiffener out of the shaft of evening light which framed him in the window. Hide yourself. Some beast's coming. Stiffener stowed himself behind some of the older ones huddled in a corner. He heard the key grate in the lock. Torleaf joined Sailors, and they stood together in front of the others as the door swung open. Threatening with his spear point, the guard captain jabbed at them. Back, you lot! Get back and stand still! Ungat Trun and the hard-faced fox walked in. Torleap took a pace forward, his voice shaking with indignation. I demand food for these hares. We've had nothing but one pail of water since we were locked in here. Disgraceful, sir! The guard captain struck him down with a spear butt. Silence, long ears! Lower orders do not speak in the presence of mighty Ungat Trun. I'll slay the next beast that speaks without permission. Sailors and several others knelt down and began ministering to the fallen Torleap. Ungat Trun nodded toward the hares and smiled, raising his eyes at Karangul. Yes? The fox nodded, satisfied. Yes, mightness. They swept out, the door slammed shut, and the key turned. 
Torleap sat up, rubbing at his swollen face. Stiffener hurried to his side as he murmured in a half-dazed voice, Huh! What do you suppose that was all about, eh? Wolby sobbed. Oh, did you see how that villain and the fox looked at us? My blood fair ran cold, I can tell you. Stiffener helped Torleap up onto his footpaws. Don't blub, Marm. It ain't helping any beast. I've got a pretty good idea what they were sizing us up for, but we won't be hanging around to find out the truth of it. Unstowing the rope from where he had hidden it throughout the day, the old boxing hare began giving orders. It'll be dark soon, and Brog will be waiting down below with his otters. Sailors, is there any way we can jam that lock so they can't come barging in here? Give me a tick and I'll think of something, Stiff. Right you are, Marm. I'll make the line fast and watch at the window for Brog and the crew. Torleap, if you're feeling better, line them up in order to go. Oldest and shakiest first, fittest last. We can lower the first lot. Second lot can shin down without help. Sailors had a brainwave about the lock. Woby, give me that necklet you're wearing, please. The fat old hare clapped a paw to her neck. You can't have this. It was left to me by my mum, and Grandma had it before her. "'Twas always in our family, and I won't give it up. Not my necklet. Tis far too precious to me." Sailors slapped Woby's paw aside and wrenched the necklet off, losing one or two beads in the process. "'Don't be so silly, Marm. This is a matter of life and death, do you hear? And it could mean your life or death. Any beast got a bit of fluffy cloth about them? Here, take the corner of my shawl. Itchy, fluffy old thing. I never liked it, really.' Oh, thank you. I'll need to borrow the pin you fasten it with. Looks good and pointy. Using the pin, sailors poked the homely knitted shawl end into the keyhole, popping in a bead here and there. She went at it until the lock was packed tight with fluffy shawl and slippy beads. There now, try turning a blinking key in that lot, what? Day's final sun rays melted scarlet and gold into the western horizon. A pale sliver of silver crescent moon was visible in the deep, dark blue sky. Suddenly the great heron, Rulango, filled the window space. Stiffener breathed a sigh of relief. Good to see you, mate. Is Brog and the crew down there? One emphatic nod and the heron flew off. The boxing hare spat on his paws and rubbed them. Right, Miss Woby Marm, step up here. You're the first. As soon as the rope end encircled her oversized waist, Woby went into a wailing panic attack. Oh, oh, I'll never make it. I'm not going. I'll slip and fall. I know I will. No, 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 I'm not going. I'll stay here. Oh, me, oh, my. Woo! Torley bristled at Stiffener. I say, old chap, could I see you strike that lady? Bad form, sir. Jolly bad form. Stiffener patted Torleap's chin none too gently. Now, now, don't go off the deep end, old feller. I didn't hurt her. It was just a tap in the right place. It was either that or leave her behind. You wouldn't like one, too, just to help you down and save your nerves, sir. Huh? Torleap assisted Stiffener and Sailors to lower Woby's limp bulk down on the line, waffling away. See what you mean, sir? Very good. Slides down easy, don't she? What? No bally need for that sort of thing with me, you know. Don't mind heights at all, not one little bit. Paw over paw, what? That's me, old chap. Turn a bally squirrel green with envy, repelling, 
Ops Island, call it what you will. A tug on the line told them Prague was ready for the next escaper. Things went smoothly for the next hour or so. Stiffener had got all the oldest ones down and half of the fitter ones when Torlieb held up a paw of warning. Yes, it's those two beasts from down below, Rip Thing and his confounded brother. Stiffener froze. He could hear the voices. That's Tornet. They'll see them going by their window. Torleaf listened more carefully. Hang on. They ain't below. They're at the blinking door. Rip Fang's voice could be heard clearly from beyond the door. Oh, very good, Dumai. What a clever brother I got, eh? Steals the key off the guard, Captain, and now he can't even open the flaming door with it. Come here. Let me try. There followed a deal of poking, scratching, and some very colorful language. Dumai could be heard giggling. <laughs> You're good at this, ain't you? Now you've got three beads and some damp, fluffy old blanket. Any more in there, Rip? Look, shut your stupid gob and get on lookout, will ya? The guard captain might come back at any time now. You're the one who started this, you woggle-headed white snout. Who, me? I never said a screenging word. Oh, didn't you? Let's go and have a look at those long ears, he says. Me and you'll pick out a nice fatten, he says. One of Karangul's captains told me they're going to the cooking pots tomorrow. That's what you said, Blitterhead. Let me have another go. I'll turn the key. Stiffener signaled the next candidate for the line. Come on, mate, move. Next one right behind. We can't afford to hang about anymore. Shift your paws there. Bang. Thud. Ahoy in there. Get this rubbish out the lock hole or it'll be worse for use when we open this door. The banging of a spear butt against the heavy door timbers continued. Stiffener watched another hare disappear over the sill into the night, clinging tight to the rope. When he judged the hare was far enough down, he quietly called for the next one. A loud groan of frustration sounded from outside. Now look at what you've done, idiot. You've gone and broke the key off in the lock, you senseless rat. Well, how was I to know it'd snap rusty old key? Never mind, Rip. We can batter the door down, eh? There were only three hairs left in the cell now. Stiffener guided the next one onto the rope. An argument between the two sea rats was in full flow. Batter the door down? Have you got mud for brains? What happens when the door falls off its hinges, eh? I'll tell you what. There'll be two of us with a spear apiece facing three score of beasts, you slime-brained toad. There followed a scuffling sound and the clacking of spear staves as the pair turned on one another. Stiffener winked at Torleap. We did it, mate. Come on, out you go. What? Oh, er, after you, old chap. Get a grip of that rope, Torleap. No time now for bowing and scraping. Out. The boxing hare watched the taut rope anxiously, waiting for Torleap to get far enough down it to let him take his leave of a hated prison cell. In the passage outside, the altercation between the two sea rats continued. Ow! Ow! You bit me tail! Savage! Well, you shouldn't have called me a slime-brained toad. Fancy calling your own brother a name like that. Look what you've done to me skull! Split it! See? That's blood, that is! Stiffener vaulted onto the sill, took a firm grip of the taut line, and began his descent with the quarrel still going on. Split your skull! 
That's only a scratch. There ain't no blood at all, just a little bump. Dumai, come back. Where are you off to? Dumai scuttled off down the passage. He turned at the stairhead and stuck his tongue out. Snagglefang! Stung by the reference to his single tooth, Rip Fang brandished his spear and chased after his brother. Right, that's done it. There was no call for that. I'll crack your skull good and proper when I get you. Willing paws guided Stiffener to the ground, and Brogolaw was hugging him fiercely. Good to see your old face again, mate. The boxing hare looked about at his friends. Thanks for your help, Brog. I kept my promise to Lord Stonepaw. There ain't a hair left on Salamandastron. Oh, tis so sad. Our home is naught but a vermin den now. Wobie wept into her apron. Stiffener put a paw about her shaking shoulders. There, there, don't take on so, Marm. We'll be back, I promise you. Sorry I had to knock you out like that. Hope it didn't hurt too much, Marm. The old harewife dried her eyes and sniffed. You did the right thing, sir. I was being very silly, carrying on like that. If I'd had enough sense, I'd have hit me for such shocking behavior. Oh, isn't it good that nice Mr. Brogalaw and his otters helped us like this? The sea otter skipper bowed gallantly. Thank ye, marm. But mayhap we could carry on this discussion elsewhere. It don't do to linger around here. Derby, take our friends to the cave. Rolango, go with him to see none get lost. Me and the rest of the crew will follow, wiping out our trail. See you back at the Holt, Stiff. With the derby leading, Stiffener in the rear, and the heron hovering overhead, the escaped prisoners scurried off toward the clifftops. Brogalaw and his crew began cutting bushy branches from the shrubbery growing out the rocks to erase the trail. Don't leave a paw print showing anywheres, mates, or those blue bottoms of truns will be paying our hold to visit. One of the crew stirred the captured sentries with his paw. Bound and gagged lightly, they rolled their eyes fearfully. What do we do with these two beauties, Brog? Brogolov gnawed his lip thoughtfully. I know they're only vermin, but I ain't never slayed an helpless beast afore, and I'm not starting now. Leave them tied up here. The moment we're gone, they'll start breaking themselves loose. They can be Trun's problem. Leastways, that scum'll know he's not having things all his own way when they makes their report. Right, let's make a move, mate. The horde beasts wriggled furiously with their bonds once Brog's party had departed. But a sea otter knows his ropes. It would be some time before the prisoners could hope to be even slightly loose. 26. Brog and his crew arrived back at the cave in broad daylight. It was a fine summer morn, with light breezes coming in from the sea. Stiffener and the hares had only just got there ahead of Brog's party. The track along the cliffs, after climbing down from a mountaintop, had worn the older ones out, and Derby had been forced to make a few rest stops along the way. Greetings and introductions were still being made as Brog entered the cave. He joined Stiffener and put a paw to his brow in mock despair. Season's a salt sea, Stiff, mate. Couldn't you have left that old woby creature behind? We got three of them blubbing now. Brogolaw's mother, Frutch, and Blench, the cook, were being helped by Wobie to stir the chowder pot. All three were sobbing and sniffling gratefully for the hare's deliverance. 
Brog nodded to the two musical young otters, who broke out their small drum and whistle and struck up a song. Now have ye been away far to tarry and to roam? Well, sit ye by the fireside, welcome to your home. The kettle's on to boil, flames a-burnin' bright. No more you'll sleep alone neath those stars at night. Take off your traveling cloak, come put your paws up here. Put a smile in me old eye, take away this weary tear. You've come home, mate, and in time for supper, too. So it feels just great to say, welcome home to you. Frutch brightened up immediately. She kissed her son's cheek. Oh, Brog, you got him to sing our song. Remember I used to bounce you on me tail and sing it to you when you was just a little fat otter kit? Such a chubby, smiling babe you were. The sea otter skipper's tail curled with embarrassment. Mom, you have to go on like that in front of every beast? Stiffener patted his friend's well-muscled back. I wouldn't complain if my mom was around to say things like that, mate. Let's see if we can learn about what's going on among the vermin inside Salamandistron from Sail Ears and Torley. Might help us to make a few plans. What do you say, you little fat otter kit? The boxing hare dodged a swipe of Brog's rudder-like tail and led him over to where the two hares sat. Later that night the fires burned low. Nearly four score hares had been found places to sleep, and Blench was helping Frutch and Wobie to bake bread for breakfast. Stiffener and Brogalaw listened long and carefully to the two hares' account of all they had heard and seen while in captivity. Then, allowing the pair to get some rest, they sat together making plans. So, that's the lie of the land, Brog. What do you think? The sea otter added some old pine cones to the fire. One thing's clear, Stiff. The blue bottoms are low on vittles. Feeding an army that size takes some doing, mate. Tron will have to send foraging parties into the land hereabouts. You catch my drift? Stiffener smiled grimly. A good scheme was forming. Aye, I'm with you, Brog. We don't have the numbers to go up against Tron and invade the mountain, but we can certainly try to cut off the villain's food supplies, eh? Right you are, messmate, and this is how we'll do it. I'll post Rulango to keep a lookout from the air. He can fly well out of arrow range. Whenever he sees a foraging party set out, he'll report to us which direction they're a-going. Stiffener warmed to the idea eagerly. Our crews can harass them, cut them off, steal their supplies, duck and weave, hit them when they're least expecting it. Brog chuckled as he poked a stray pine cone back into the fire. They say an army marches and fights on its stomach. Ha! Let's see what those vermin can do on empty stomachs. Even if they tries to go seaward and fish, we can hammer them. My crew was born in salt water. They knows more about the sea than any vermin from the land. Stiffener Medic and Skipper Brogalaw clasped paws. We'll teach them the art of war, mate. Aye, and twill be the artest lesson they ever learned. Mid-morning sunlight shafted into the passage from the cell window when the door was smashed down. Ungat Trun stared blankly at the prison cell. After a moment, he strode inside and leaned on the sill. Fregorl, the guard captain, and a patrol of horde beasts stood apprehensively in the passage, waiting for the wildcat's wrath to descend on them. Trun removed his helmet, 
closed both eyes and massaged his temples slowly. When he finally spoke, his voice was a barely controlled growl with a high-pitched hiss behind it. I don't want to know who stole the key, nor who snapped it off in the lock. I don't want to hear excuses or explanations from any of you. I don't want to know how the hares escaped or where they've gone. But before the sun sets today, I want to see three score long ears back here. Take your patrols, scour the countryside, send vessels to search the waters and coast north and south of here. But before you go, come down to the shore and watch what happens to four creatures who ate a few fish without asking. Then, all of you, ask yourselves this question. If the mighty Ungat Trung could have four beasts executed for a couple of mouthfuls of fish, what fate would he devise for the entire guard patrol of this level who managed to let sixty valuable prisoners escape? Think! Captain-in-Chief Korangul came marching up as the wildcat emerged from the mountain. Mightness? Ungat Trun eyed him warily. What is it, Captain? Two soldiers! They find sentries who desert at dawn! A sigh of relief almost escaped the wildcat, but he checked it. Ah, the pair who deserted the night before last. Where were they found? Who were the soldiers who found them? They walk here in the main gate. Two soldiers on sentry round mountain were there. The wildcat spoke his mind aloud. So, the two sentries who were supposed to be patrolling round the mountain all night spent their time idling in the shelter of the main gate, by the guard fire, no doubt. They were wakened by the two other fools walking in, so they arrested them. Is that it? Yeah, Mightness. Where are the two deserters now? Sentries know Mightness rules about runaway beasts. They slay him for break of your law. The wildcat made a paw mark in the sand and stared at it. Why am I surrounded by half-wits and dunderheads? He hissed. Mightness? Nothing, Captain. Have the two sentries tied up with the four to be executed. Make certain Fragor tells every beast why they must pay the penalty. Sleeping on guard and shirking their patrol duties, and so on and so on. I've got other things to think about. Captain, before you sailed for me, what did you do? Karangul indicated a faded tattoo on his paw and a hole in his ear where a big brass ring once hung. Mightness, I was Corsair, long ago. The assembled hordes on the beach stood watching their leader, conversing earnestly with his captain-in-chief. Tell me, did you ever come across a badger? One time? A male badger, in his prime, carrying a double-hilted war-blade over his shoulder. Nah, Mightness, old female badger, I see, dead. Trun suddenly lost interest in the conversation and stalked down to the execution site. Horde beasts heard him muttering to himself as he passed them. I cannot see your face, but I see you every night. Yet no beast has even heard of you. But we will meet. Ah, yes, Badger, we will meet. And then you'll see what a wildcat looks like before you die. Noon sun had passed its zenith when Rulango alighted on a dune close to the cave. Brogalaw was waiting for him. He cleared a patch in the sand to let the heron sketch out his report of what he had seen. 
Rogaloff stared tight-lipped as the drawing unfolded before him. Stiffener came out of the cave with Frutch, munching on a slice of flat pastry with obvious enjoyment. Frutch carried two more pieces on a platter. Stiffener popped in the final bit, licking crumbs off his paw. Beech and hazelnut slice, eh, Marm? Your own recipe, too. No wonder Brog looks well, feeding off vittles like yours. Frutch twitched her rudder at the compliment. Our bird likes it, too, you know. Tis a mix of sliced nuts and plum preserve baked atop a shortbread biscuit. Nearing her son and the heron, Frutch called, I brought your favorite slice, fresh from the oven. Rulango stood on one leg and looked distant, while Brog hastily obliterated the picture from the sand with his footpaw. Good old mum. Brought the raspberry cordial, too, did ye? Land sakes, I'll fetch the oven out and the table and chairs, if and you like, Brogalaw. Talk about chasing after an ungrateful son. Here, you great lump, get this down you. Brogalaw and Rulango set about their slices eagerly. Frutch stroked the big bird's neck affectionately. Bless his feathers. There's a bird who never complains and knows what's good for him. What's he been drawing, Brog? The sea otter appeared suddenly absent-minded. Oh, twas nothing for you to worry your pretty old head about. Ahoy, Mom, we're thirsty. Where's that cordial, eh? She trundled off down the dune. I'll go and fetch it. Stiffener tapped a paw in the sand. So then, matey, just what was your bird sketching? Brog dropped his voice a tone. Do you know what that wicked beast did to six of his own? Adam bound together with rocks and drowned in the sea. Aye, tis true. All the blue bottoms, whole hordes of them, was made to stand and watch the poor wretches screaming and pleading for their lives. Stiff, what makes any beast follow a master like that? Stiffener doodled sand patterns with his paw. Who knows, Brog? Fear, wanting to be on the side of a conqueror who always wins. Maybe the vermin join his ranks cause deep down they're as bad and evil as Trun himself. The sea otter skipper shuddered and shook himself. Time we started striking back now, Stiff. Let's take a look at this otter and hare crew of ours, see what weapons they're best suited to besides knives and forks. 27. It was noon of the third day at the court of King Bucko Big Bones, time for the fighting challenge. Spectators were packed tight around the arena. Others sat on the hillside or climbed trees. However, there was no air of festive gaiety. This was serious business. The outcome would decide which hare picked up the crown. The high, bright sun presided over a silent and solemn crowd. A furtive whisper rustled about Bucko and his seconds as they made their way to the ring through the path which fell open before them. The mountain hare had discarded his broad belt for the event, and a paunch, which had not been visible before, was now clearly evident. Creatures commented on it in hushed tones. I say, whatever happened to the trim waist he had, what? Too much scoff and not enough exercise, if you ask me. Maybe so. But old Bucko still looks dangerous enough to do the job. I wouldn't fancy facing him, no, sir. Ah, Kai, yon king's a big braw beastie, near twice the size of the wee lassie. 
I'm thinking twill all be o'er if he lands the bairn one gid blow. Bucko took the log barrier at a bound, his cloak swirling as he tossed it to his seconds. He jammed his scepter between two of the logs, balancing the laurel-wreathed gold coronet on it. Then, grim-faced, he sat down to wait, acknowledging the presence of the bank bowl referee with a curt nod. Glancing up at the sun, Bucko judged which would be the best position to take up without being dazzled. After a while, some of the onlookers began whispering among themselves. Dottie had not yet put in an appearance. Bucko sat calm and motionless. Lord Brocktree and his party led Dottie through the aisle of creatures which opened from the stream side. He and Ruff stepped into the arena, followed by Dottie and Girth. The hairmaid was simply clad in a short green tunic. She sat down on the logs on the opposite side to Bucko, giving him scarce a glance. Waddling to the center of the ring, the bank bowl began his preamble. Good creatures! Attend me! Today is the day of the fighting challenge, and the rules are as follows. No weapons or arms can be he... Bucko stood up and cut him short. Ach, away and stop wearing your old gobboot. We ken the rules as git as any beast here. Let's get on with it. A roar of approval arose as the pompous bank bowl fled the ring. Ruff winked at the hairmaid as he and the others stepped outside the logs bordering the arena. Go to it, Missy. Remember what you've got to do. Dottie leapt up and dashed to the line scored in the earth. She scraped her footpaw along it, calling to her opponent. Come on, bucko. Let's have you up to scratch. Come and face me across this line. I'm waiting. The mountain hare swaggered slowly across, but he did not put his footpaw on the mark. It was obvious he expected some sort of trick. He winked knowingly at Dottie. You're a canny wee beastie, but I'm no fool by ye. You and your friends have cooked something up, I can tell. So you're no getting my footpaw on yon mark. Ye ken what the rules say, pretty one? I'll tell ye. Them rules say the king, that's myself, has the right to decide whether this contest be for a scratch or moving freely. He smiled at the disappointment which clouded her face. So, my bonny wee thing, tis going to be moving freely. That's my decision. Ah, did I look so sad about it? Dottie twitched both ears impertinently. Oh, I don't know, sir. You may be the one who ends up looking sad, what? Bucko did actually look sad for a moment as he pondered his big clenched left paw. Ye've brought this on yourself, missy. I'll be fair grieved to lay ye oot flat. I've no raised my paw to a lassie afore. I promise not to hit ye too hard. Dottie moved a little closer to him. Thank ye, sir, and I promise not to let you hit me at all. Now, do we stand here jaw-wagging all afternoon, or shall we get on with it? What do you say, eh? Dottie was ready. She saw the hard, knobbly paw move in a quick arc. Falling flat, she kicked Bucko's footpaws from under him, leapt upright, and fled. 
The crowd roared aloud at her clever move. Ha! Ha! Did you see that? She sat him down good and hard. Aye! And without even landing a proper blow! Ho! 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 Bucko scrambled upright, flicking dust from his scut, and went after the hair maid like a charging bull. Dottie skidded to a halt as he rushed by her. This time she stood her ground when he turned and charged once more, waiting until he was almost on top of her. Again she went down, falling flat on her back, both hind legs shooting up like pistons. Bucko's own weight and momentum carried him straight into her. Air whooshed from his stomach as it came in contact with Dottie's foot paws, and he went ears over scut, landing hard on his back in a cloud of dust. Dottie was up and running again. Bucko arose, but not so speedily this time, one paw clutching his stomach. He did not give chase, but circled swiftly and cut off Dottie's escape as he backed her against the logs. This time it was his turn to throw himself down, his long, powerful footpaws lashing out at her. Thunk! King Bucko gasped aloud with pain. Dottie had jumped backward onto the log boundary, and the noise was audible as her opponent's footpaws hit the wood. She cleared his head at a bound and trotted to the center of the ring. Bucko took a moment to pull a splinter from his footpaw, then he got upright purposefully and limped out to meet her. They faced each other, Dottie breathing hard, but Bucko breathing harder. His eyes were red with wrath. Stand and fight me, ye wee whelp! He lashed out with a surprisingly quick left paw. Dottie dropped into a crouch, hearing it whistle overhead. She stayed stooped, putting into practice what the twins had taught her. One, two, three. Dottie whacked at the stomach protruding in front of her. Bucko's flailing right thudded against the side of her head. Stars exploded in her eyes, and the crowd noise suddenly seemed very distant. Bucko's left looped around her head and tightened on her neck. Ark, you've got her new, Majesty! Roaring darkness filled Dottie's brain as the breath was cut off in her throat by Bucko's grip. Dimly, she could hear the hair twins bellowing in unison, The old breadbasket, miss! Give it him in the breadbasket! She knew what they meant. Swinging her right furiously, she pummeled the king's stomach, and as he gasped, she slid out of his stranglehold. She found herself facing his back and shoved hard, knocking Bucko face down. He struggled up, spitting earth and wiping dust from both eyes. Lowering his head for a vicious butt, he hurtled forward. Dazed as she was, Dottie knew she had to act quickly. Holding position, the hair maid sucked in her stomach and arched her back. The mountain hare's bowed head struck her fractionally, jarring her hip. Clenching both paws, she brought them down in a sharp double blow on the back of Bucko's neck. Once. Twice. Still bent double, Bucko carried on another three paces, staggering crazily. Then he crumpled and fell. A deathly hush fell upon the crowd. Dottie walked across and stood over the fallen king. A voice from the crowd split the silence. Finish him off! Dottie turned and glared in the direction of the shout. Why don't you try it yourself? Come on! This hare is a brave fighter. He could still finish you off from where he lies, whoever you are. Bending wearily, she tried to lift Bucko, but she collapsed with fatigue alongside him. 
The mountain hare opened one eye and gave her a battered smile. My thanks to you for that, lassie. Twas weel said. Lord Brocktree and Ruff supported Bucko back to the log ring. Dottie followed, limping as she leaned heavily on Gren and Juca. They sat sharing a pail of water from a ladle, the victor and the vanquished. Brocktree and Ruff positioned themselves behind the pair, stopping the numerous paws trying to pat their backs. Well done! What a super-duper scrap, what? Ah, twas one to tell your bairns about in seasons to come. Bravely fought. Never seen anything like it in me bally life. What courage! Stand back there, every beast. Give these two animals room to breathe. Stand back, I say. The bank bull referee pushed his way through, bearing the crown and scepter. Bucko placed a paw about Dottie's shoulder. I'd take it if I were ye, Dorothea. You beat me fair and square, lassie. I couldn't think any beast more deserving of my title than ye. Ah, you're a fatal beauty. So ye are. And you, sir, are a valiant and brave warrior. She passed the crown and scepter to Lord Brocktree. Here you are, sir, crown and thingamy. Don't rightly know what I'm supposed to do with the confounded things. Bucko was taken aback. Ah, you mean you don't want my crown and scepter? Dotty shook her head. No, not really. The plan wasn't for me to become queen or kingess or anything like that. No, we had a bigger idea, and one of which we think will appeal to a great perilous warrior like yourself, sir. Don't you realize you've practically got a blinking great army here at your court, Buck? The former king shrugged ruefully. Aye, twas my intention that one day I'd knock him into shape as an army. Then I could have found my enemy and marched against him with these bra beasts at my back. Brocktree patted Bucko's shoulder. Well, your time has come, sir. You can help us rally this crew into a great fighting force to follow us to Salamandastron and face Ungat Trun. Ungat Trun, the wildcat? Hold on there, Brock. Yon's the very foe I'm bound to find and slay. Dottie gaped in surprise at the mountain hare. You're joking, of course, sir. Ach, tis nay joke, lassie. Feel my back. The hare maid ran her paw across the welted ridges of flesh beneath the fur of Bucko's back. He did this? For the first time since she had known the tough hare, Dottie saw a single tear course down his cheek. Flogged me with the flat of my own sword till it break it o'er my back, and drove my hairs from our hame in the North Mountains. That's the beastie they call Ungat Trun for ye. Aye, the whippin' was carried out by a fox called Karangool on Trun's orders. Karangool, ach, there's a vermin wouldn't sleep easy if he knew Bucko Big Bones was still alive and drawin' breath. The rogue thought he'd left me for dead, you can. Dottie felt a wave of pity sweep over her. She squeezed the mountain hare's big, scarred paw. Let's go somewhere more private and discuss this. Would you care to take a bite of supper with us, neath the jolly old willows? Cheer you up, sir, what? 
Bucko swiftly regained his composure and jauntiness. Ock, I'm fair famished for all that fightin'. Lead on, Brock, my friend. Old Bucko can viddle with the best of em. Ha ha, I'll wager he can too. Ruff murmured to the badger as they set off for the bank. Never knew a hare who couldn't. We'll let old Fleet Scut defend Dottie's feastin' title for her. I say, top hole, what? That's jolly decent of you, sir. Ruff tweaked the old hare's ear. He wasn't supposed to hear that famine chops. It turned out to be anything but a private supper on the stream bank. Colored lanterns and torches decked the trees in the soft summer night. A celebration feast for Dottie's victory had been secretly prepared by the Gwasim. Girth and some moles he had met, and Bucko's cooks, who were determined to give their old master a good send-off and welcome the new mistress. Dottie was so pleased that she rummaged through her worn bag and whipped out the hair accordion. I couldn't sleep last night, so I composed a ditty in the hope that I'd win the challenge today. Good job I did, what? Right, my good subjects, gather round and I'll sing it to you. I know you'll jolly well like it. Brocktree clapped a paw to his brow. I'm sure we will. The terrible twins, Southpaw and Bob Weave, rubbed their paws in anticipation. I say, we didn't know you could warble, miss. Spiffin, what? I'll bet you rather good at it. Brocktree viewed the eager pair with a jaundiced eye. I guarantee tis something you won't forget lightly. Dottie forestalled any further chatter by launching into her ditty with a wobbly falsetto. Oh, whack, folly, doodle, oh, duck, fontaine, Dilworthy is my family name. A fatal beauty have I, good beasts, I'm completely unrehearsed. Having never been kingess or queen, woe to me, I'm doubly cursed. Oh, the crown lives heavy on the ears of a simple maid like me. Now every beast must scrape and bow and bend a jolly old knee. Hee-hee-hee-hee-hee! Oh, whack, folly, doodle, oh, duck, fontaine, Dilworthy is my family name. What a royally difficult life I've got, But I regally say to myself, What, what? A duck, fontaine, must show no pain, Tis fame and fortune's lot. My super-subjects will adore My spiffin' sweet young voice, And loyally cry out, More, more, more! Each night they'll all rejoice, Joy, hoy, 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 hoist! Oh, whack, folly, doodle, oh, duck, fontaine, Dilworthy is my family name. Affairs of state that just can't wait, And decisions of high degree, The balance of a puddin's fate, Rests hard twixt lunch and tea. Let any beast yell, Come, let's feast, Whilst the royal beauty doth sleep, They'll rue the day that they met me. Dorothea, da huck, fontaine, Dilworthy! As Dottie's ears quivered on the last off-key note, the hair-cordian groaned as it discharged a deafened gnat. A mole hurled himself into the stream to escape the discord. The stream bank was empty, every beast having fled during the second painstaking verse. Only Southpaw and Bobweave sat adoringly in front of her, applauding wildly. Bravo, miss! Put a blinkin' nightingale to shame, what? Rather, are you going to give another rendition, Dottie? Sing us another of your charmin' ditties, what? Dottie looked slightly baffled. 
It was the first time any beast had actually sat through her singing and requested more. "'Jolly decent of you chaps, but the old vocal cords need feeding. I'm rather peckish right now. You could do me a favor, though, and see if you can clean out my hair accordion. Confounded things full of gnats and such. Must still be some old pale cider in there attracting the blighters.' She tossed the hair accordion to the twins and wandered off to see if she could find some food. Southpaw and Bob Weave set about boxing each other for the privilege of cleaning out their idol's instrument. Give it here, Southie. She was looking at me when she chucked the thing over. Rats to you, old chap, but I'll give you a swift right. Oof! Here, have some of this, chum. Now, will you let me clean it? Ouch! That does it. Get those paws up. Away from the main merriment, three shrew boats lashed together floated gently on the stream. Sipping shrew beer and dining on pasties, salad, and cheese, Brock Tree, Fleet Scott, and Bucko sat with the tribal chiefs, Ruff, Gren, Drucko, and Juca, to confer on important matters. The former king had formed an alliance with the others. I didn't know where this Salem whatchamacallit place is, but I'm gone with you, and my wild mountain hares'll be a coming tay, the new. We wouldn't have missed a braw battle for naught. Gurth sat with Dottie, the willow leaves lightly brushing their heads. Between them lay a flagon of gooseberry crush and a thick vegetable flan. The sturdy mole waved his tankard toward the log boats. They'm having girdly important talks, miss. I wouldn't be apprised if and we be on e march by morning, right. The hairmaid broke off a piece of flan. Forgetting her table manners, she spoke through a mouthful in mole talk. Hoy wouldn't noiter, sir. Joyous sounds of happy creatures rang through the warm, velvety night. Music, singing, and feasting were everywhere. Those who were weary slept curled on the grass, full and contented, not worrying about the perilous days which lay ahead of them. Dawn's first birds trilled to the rising sun, waking the dew-scattered sleepers in the wide forest glade. Dottie was already up, abandoning her fatal beauty sleep in favor of the momentous events she knew were about to take place. The hairmaid joined Brocktree and the company of chieftains standing on a rock protruding from the hillside. In groups, last night's revelers drifted into the clearing below. Brocktree leaned on his battle blade, Skittles perched on his footpaw. He waited patiently until every beast was standing grouped before him. Then, at his nod, Bucko took the four. Hearken to me, my beasties. There's an old hare here who comes from a mountain and bears a message for all warriors. I've nay doubt you'll listen to what he has to say. Judge for yourselves. I'm nay longer your king. Bucko stood back, allowing Fleetscott to come forward. The old hare held the crown in his paw. Mount Salamandistron is where I come from, as most of you know what. Now there's those here today who were born there, whose parents and grandkin are comrades of mine. I've been gone from there a while now, but I know for certain that any hares left alive on the mountain will be slaves and prisoners of the wildcat Ungat Trun and his blue hordes. He waited until the angry shouts died down. Ha! 
I see that you know the vermin, what? When Bucko was king, he intended to form you into an army to hunt Trun down and face him. Well, that still goes. Only difference is you won't be marching under a king. Our leader is the rightful heir of Salamandastron, Rock Tree. There followed a mixture of cheering and surprised cries. Fleet Scott held up the crown. You hares, let me tell you the law. Some among you will remember the rhyme you learned from your elders. We follow our comrades in peace and war. The hare is a perilous beast, we know. But who commands? Who makes our law? The badger lords. Twas always so. Do you hear that? This is Lord Brocktree of Brock Hall, a badger lord of Salamandastron by birth and by right. And this crown, won for his cause by his brave champion, Dorothea Duckfontaine Dilworthy, is the symbol of his leadership. Fleetscut passed the crown to Brocktree. Every eye was upon the great badger as he took his place in the vanguard of the tribal chieftains. Unwinding the laurel leaves from the thin gold coronet, he cast them aside. His powerful paws crushed the circlet into a narrow double strip. This he wound about his sword hilt with no more effort than he would have used on a green willow wise. Then the badger lord's voice boomed like thunder about the glade, setting every creature's neck hairs on end. Friends, warriors, good beasts all, I am going to defeat the evil one, Ungatrun. I am going to take back from him and his hordes the mountain that is mine. Today, now, I march for Salamandastron. Those who would follow me, call out this war cry. Eulalia! The entire glade exploded in an ear-splitting roar. Eulalia! Dottie knew then the force and power of a badger lord. She was swept along beside him, howling like a mad beast, surrounded by blades, slings, spears, bows, shields, javelins, and bared teeth, all surging irresistibly forward like a gigantic wave. Brocktree's paws pounded the dust high as he ran, whirring his battle blade like a sunlit lightning flash, his huge form standing out like a beacon. You lay lia! You lay lia! You lay lia! For all his seasons, Fleet Scott kept pace alongside the hairmaid. She saw him, tears flowing down his weathered face, brandishing a short-hafted squirrel spear, yelling hoarsely between the battle cries. I never let you down, Lord Stonepaw. I'm coming back home now, sire. You lay Leah. Book three. Comes a Badger Lord, also entitled A Shawl for Aunt Blanche. Twenty-eight. South of Salamandastron, in a sparsely wooded copse, a group of about thirty blue horde beasts and their stoat captain Bile sat in a clearing. They had been foraging for food quite successfully, if any beast were to judge by the bulging haversacks scattered about. Bile was a newly promoted officer, determined to do well. 
He was very happy with the results of the forage, but also quite hungry. So were the vermin under his command. Bile strode about, checking that the haversacks were all fastened tight, aware of the surly glances of his minions. They wanted to eat some of the food instead of having to tramp back to the mountain and deposit it untouched with Ungat Trun's supply officers. It was a tricky situation for Bile, but he put on a jovial air and attempted to flatter the mutinous-looking vermin by praising their efforts. Ho, ho! We did well today, Cullies. I wouldn't be at all surprised if you wasn't all promoted for your good work. A rat spat, narrowly missing Bile's footpaw. Promotion? What good's that, eh? You can't eat promotion. The new captain laughed nervously and winked at another rat. Ha <laughs> ha! You was up that tree like a squirrel after those apples. Where did you learn to climb like that, mate? Instead of answering, the rat began undoing the drawstring on his heavily laden haversack. Bile knew it was time to assert his authority. He spoke sharply. Now, now, none of that, you. Leave them apples alone or I'll have to report you. The rat pulled out an apple, making a wry face at his companions as he mocked Bile. Did you hear the nice new cap'n mates? Going to report me he is. Huh. That's if he makes it back alive. The apple was halfway to the horde rat's mouth when a sling stone struck his paw. He screamed and dropped the apple. First beast to move is a dead'un. A figure clad in a hooded, brown, bark-cloth cloak appeared from behind a juneberry bush, its face hidden behind a woven reed mask, a long whip held in its paw. Bile gasped. The bark crew. The creature behind the mask chuckled harshly. He cracked the whip in Bile's face. Ha ha! Right first time, Berman. You're surrounded by three score of us. Duck your heads. Quick! Instinctively, the forage patrol ducked their heads. Broken twigs and leaves showered down on them as a volley of sling stones rattled through the trees overhead. Four arrows quivered in the ground close to Bile. The whip snaked out, wrapping itself around his paw. See what I mean, stoat? Do you and this worthless pack want to live? Answer me! Since the start of summer, the dreaded bark crew had become the terror of Ungat Trun's foraging patrols. They seemed to be everywhere at once. Bile knew of horde beasts and captains who had been slain when they offered resistance to the brown-cloaked raiders. His voice quavered helplessly as he replied to the sinister figure, Don't slay us, sire. We want to live. W what do you want us to do? Other members of the bark crew entered the vermin camp, bows, swords, and javelins much in evidence. The crew leader pulled Bile forward on the whip around his paw. Get rid of your weapons, all of them, those uniforms too. Strip them off and shed them. Move yourselves. Menaced by the bark crew, the vermin piled their arms in a heap and pulled off their uniforms. They huddled together, awaiting the next command. Sling those haversacks of vittles on spear poles. They threaded the laden haversacks three to a spear haft. When this was done, they were ordered to lie face down on the ground. Walking between the prostrate figures, the bark crew leader consulted his companions aloud. What do you say we do with this scum, eh, mates? The crew were in no doubt as to the fate of their captives. 
Rope them up to some rocks and drown them. Nah, sounds too trunnish to me. Toss them off the cliffs. I vote we tie these vermin to trees and use them for target practice. I like shooting at blue targets. The crew leader had to crack his whip several times to stop the forage patrol from weeping, sobbing, and begging to be spared. He turned bile over roughly with his footpaw. Stow your scringin' and bellerin' stoat. You ain't worth wasting arrows on. So I'm going to let you live. Lined up in threes, within minutes the foraging patrol stood facing a rift in the cliff tops in view of the sea. Taking Bile none too gently by his neck scruff, the bark crew leader made him repeat his orders. We marches straight to the sea, sire. If and we looks left, right, or back, we're dead beasts. We wades into the sea up to our necks and goes that way back to the mountain. I'm to make my report to Ungat Trun that this was the work of the bark crew, and to say that he's a worthless piece of crab bait, and that he's going to starve to death with his Burman army. The whip cracked viciously over the forage patrol's heads. Next time we see your faces, we'll roast ye alive. Quick march! One, two, one, two! The vermin needed little urging to march quicker than they had ever done before. Down the rift, across the shore, and straight into the sea without a backward glance. Frogalaw removed the woven reed mask from his face and clasped paws with stiffener. Another win for the bark crew, matey. Did you notice how thin some of the vermin are starting to look? Stiffener watched the dark dots far off in the sea, each one representing a horde beast wading neck deep back to Salamandistron. They'll look a lot thinner before we're done with them, Brog. Did you say we had three score of us surrounding them? Brogala looked around. Their party numbered twenty-two, counting himself and Stiffener. I thought sixty was enough to do the job, mate. I was going to say we had five score, but that would have really been fibbing. We could jolly well do with five score to carry all the loot we liberated from those rascals today, Willop complained as they turned back to the cops. Ah, well, at least we've got plenty of grub and weapons. What do you think, Steph? Should we blindfold the next lot and make them tote the spoils back to our hideout? Save a lot of bloom and wear and tear on our old carcasses, what? Brog picked up one end of the spear haft, slung with haversacks. Come on, Willet, me old mate. Get the other end of this thing on your poor old shoulder, or we'll miss supper. Ha! Huh, you know, I suddenly feel young again, Brog. Aye. I've noticed every time I mention food, you old lollop-eared grub walloper. I thought sea otters could scoff until I watched hares sit down to vittles. A bright summer evening was drawing to its close. Ungat Trun stood on the beach with his Grand Fregoral and Captain Karangul, watching as Bile and his foraging patrol stumbled through the shallows onto the sands. They presented a very odd picture. Seawater had washed out the blue dye from their fur from tail to neck. Only their faces and heads remained blue. Bile staggered up and saluted the wildcat, his body drooping with exhaustion. Mighty one, we were ambushed. Ungat's upraised paw silenced him. Let me guess, Captain Bile. It was the bark crew again. How many of them were there this time? Five score? Ten? Five score at least, mightiness. 
The bark crew chieftain gave me a message to deliver, sire. The wildcat's tail whipped from side to side angrily. Don't tell me if it's merely insults. Get your patrol out of sight before others see what a pack of clowns you look. Bile bowed and saluted dutifully, then signaled his patrol to get inside the mountain. Later, Ungat Trun sat closeted in his chamber with Fregoral and Karangul. He watched his spiders while his two aides watched him, holding their silence and blinking in the thick smoke that swathed the room. The wildcat pointed upward. Young spiders never seem to get the flies. It's always the older ones. I suppose because they're more experienced, better hunters, wickeder, more ruthless, would you say? Karangul nodded. Yacht is so, mightness. Trun turned his gaze upon the fox. You're a ruthless creature, but I need you here. My mistake was in sending out well-behaved new captains. What we need is wicked ones, cruel, evil creatures who bend the rules to suit themselves. Sea rats and corsairs were always like that, eh, Karangul? The fox's normally stern face broke into a fiendish grin. Yah, mightness, I sailed with bad ones in good old days. The wildcat stroked his whiskers reflectively. I'll wager you did, my friend. Fregoral, those sea rat brothers I had stripped of their rank. Tell the guards to bring them up from the dungeons. Fetch food from the kitchens, too. Good food, not fish heads and stewed grass. Rip Fang and Doom Eye thought they were being brought in front of Ungat Trun because he had decided on a slow, agonizing death for them. They kicked, bit, and struggled with the guards as they were hustled into the wildcat's chamber. No beast was more surprised than they when Ungat ordered their chains removed and the guards dismissed. Panting and rubbing their limbs where the manacles had been, they sat on the floor, their sly eyes flicking from the food to their ruler. Ungat Trun nodded toward the tray, which contained a flagon of damson wine and the last of Blench's fruit scones. You must be hungry. Eat. They stared at him, openly suspicious. Karangul sipped from the flagon and bit off a piece of scone. Eat. Food not poison. Like a pair of ravening wolves, the two rats fell upon the food, stuffing it down and slopping wine. Ungat Trun lectured them as they crammed the vittles into their mouths. By rights, you should be dead now, both of you. Did you think I was fooled by your lies about Grottle and the other two? Maybe you did slay them and throw their bodies into the pool, but not because they insulted me, as you said. No, you killed them for some reason best known only to yourselves. I could have had you executed, but I chose instead to have you locked up and starved, until I decided what I should do with you both. Ripbang looked up, a mess of chewed scone falling from his lips. So, you ain't having us done away with? Thank you, Captain, or, I mean, your mightiness. Oh, don't thank me. Thank them. Ungat's paw was pointing up to the spiders. End of Side 6. To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. 
Side 7, Lord Brocktree, by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page 267. Dumai grabbed the flagon from his brother and swigged at it. What? Does he want us to say thanks to them things? Rip Fang elbowed his slow-thinking brother hard. Shut your gob-wiffle brain. You'll have to excuse him, sire. Dumai ain't very bright. So, me lordship, what is it you wants us to do for you, eh? The wildcat assessed Rip Fang. He was young still, but experienced and hardened to cruelty and death. Evil was stamped on his features, from the treacherous flickering eyes and scarred nose to the unsightly single fang protruding downward from the center of his lipless mouth. I suppose you slew quite a few in your seasons as a sea rat. Rip Fang snatched the flagon back from Dumai and guffawed. Me and me brother here. We killed just about anything that moved. All types of beasts. Young, old, males, or she-males. Har! And we slew them any way we could. And a few ways what don't bear thinking about. Ain't that right, Doom? Dumai dug food scraps from between his blackened teeth with a dirty claw. Aye, right there, Rip. Any way we could, we murdered him. The wildcat sat back and purred. Excellent. Now, listen to me, if you want to keep eating food like that and regain your rank as captains in my hordes. Brogalaw stroked the heron's neck. Good job you found this other cave, Rulango. My old mom was beginning to create and kick up something awful about all the loot we was bringing back. The cave was up coast, slightly north of the sea otter's dwelling, a fortunate find indeed. Stiffener took a torch from its wall mount to light their way out. From floor to roof, the place resembled a well-stocked larder cum armory. Weaponry and uniforms lined its walls, while at the center there was an enormous heap of fruit, vegetables, and edible roots. Plunder taken from the foraging patrols by the bark crew. Outside, they doused the torch in the sand and camouflaged the cave entrance with a dead sea buckthorn bush. Troby kept a branch to cover their tracks. I say, let's get back and see what luck old Derby had today. Maybe his crew brought back some shrimp, what? Brog's mother, Frutch, was in the process of giving Derby and his crew a good dressing down. Seasons of seaweed and salt. What are we supposed to do with all this shrimp? That's what I'd like to know, Master Derby. There can't be a single shrimp left in the sea. Derby dodged a swipe of the otter mom's ladle. Belay with that weapon, Marm. I'm only doing what your son told me to. You ain't supposed to biff members of the bark crew with ladles. That's taking the side of the enemy. Brog rescued the ladle from his mom and hugged her. What's for supper, you little plump battler? Frutch tugged at his whiskers. Put me down, you great rib crusher, or I won't be fit to cook anything for any beast. Suffering sand hills. Did any poor otter mum have to put up with such a son? Frog's nose twitched at the two cauldrons which his mum, Blench, and Woby had perched on the fire. Mmm, skilly and duff, me favorite. The three cooks denied it stoutly. We never did no skilly and duff, did we, Blench? No, marm, we got shrimp soup followed by shrimp stew. Ain't that right, Woby? 
tis for sure, and a nice shrimp salad for afters. Brog's face was the picture of misery. But I could have sworn I smelled skilly and duff. Frutch plucked her ladle from his paw and whacked his tail. Of course tis skilly and duff, you big omadorm, with lots of plums in the duff, the way you like it. Now make yourself useful, and you too, Mr. Stiffener. Lend a paw to get those cauldrons off in the fire. Over supper, Derby told of his crew's exploits at sea that day. Oh, we kept the blue-bottom fishing fleet busy, mates. We swam under their vessels and shredded the nets, stole all their shrimp, and ha, 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 tell Brog what you did, Colonel. Twas like this, see? A sleek otter maid with a face born to mischief explained. I waited till they dropped anchors to fish. Soon as they cast their nets, I attached each boat's net to the next boat's anchor flutes, snarled them up good and proper. <laughs> you should have seen the vermin hauling away at those nets. All the vessels came bumping together. There was blue bottoms flopping and falling this way and that. Harder they hauled, the worse it got. Them boats was knocked together so hard that three of them sprang leaks. Last I saw, they was trying to paddle back to shore and bailing out at the same time, dragging most of the fishing fleet along with them. I tell you, Brog, twas a sight to see. Another of Derby's crew piped up. Aye, then they started fighting among themselves. So I slices through the anchor ropes, and off they went like big flapping birds with the wind behind them. That old fleet hit the shore so hard that they was all run aground. Sailors chuckled with delight at the sea otter's story. Wish I could swim like you chaps, then I could jolly well go along with you. Derby gallantly refilled her bowl from the cauldron. You're doing just fine as the onshore bark crew, marm. I reckon those rascals must really be feeling the pinch now. What do you think, Stiff? I think you're right. They're learning a hard lesson the hard way. Even if Trun and the officers kept the best for themselves, I'll wager they've more or less gone through what stores was left in Blench's larders. Stiffener little knew how truly he spoke. At that exact moment, Ungat Trun was prowling into Salamandastron's dining hall, followed by Fregoral carrying her master's plate. Taking it from her, the wildcat shoved the platter under the cook's nose. What do you call this mess of rubbish? Wiping his paws on his greasy apron, the cook avoided eye contact with his master, stammering nervously. My goodness, tis all we've got left. You had the Vergoral take the last of the good stuff up to your chamber. I drained the wine kegs to fill a pitcher, and those scones was well stale, but they was all I had left. Trun stared around the deserted tables as the cook continued. Tain't worth any piece turning up here for vittles, mighty one. There ain't nothing to serve em. Them bark crew are to blame, I say, stealing the food out in our mouths like that. I've been mixing some moldy flour with chopped seaweed and dandelion roots. Don't know what I'll do when that's gone, sire. Ungat Trun pushed the plate into his trembling paws. Stop babbling and whining and keep your voice down. After tomorrow there'll be food aplenty for all. Put the word about that this is my promise to you. Marching hurriedly from the dining hall, the wildcat was rounding a torch-lit passage leading out to the shore when a shadow fell over him. He fell back with a horrified gasp, shielding his face with a paw. The shadow was that of a great, double-hafted sword-hilt. Trun stood petrified at the sight. 
It grew larger and came closer. A strangled cry was torn from his throat, and he shrank back against the rough rock walls. Two gaunt rats rounded the corner, carrying between them three driftwood spars lashed together, the shadow of which looked for all the world like a giant double-hilted sword haft. They chatted to each other as they toted their burden. I thought you said this'd get all seaweed tangled round it. Well, we jammed it between those rocks on the tide line. It should have got some seaweed stuck to it at high tide. But it never did, did it? Huh. Talk about bright ideas. Noticing Ungat Trun, they dropped the contraption and saluted. Mightiness! The wildcat wiped a trembling paw across his ashen face. Take that thing and burn it! He shouted hysterically. Burn it! Do you hear me? Burn it! Blank-faced, the two rats were knocked to one side as the wildcat swept by them on his way to the shore. They looked at one another and shrugged. What was that all about, mate? Search me. Get that torch off in the wall and put a light to this thing before his mightiness comes back. Was I seeing things, or did he look frightened? Looked like he'd seen a ghost. This won't burn. Tis damp. Well, get your sword and chop it up till you find the dry bits. Ungat Trun sat on the sand, which was still warm from the day's sun. Much as he had hated and despised Grottle, he missed the fox magician's soothing words. Every day the specter of the badger looming in his mind was growing larger. He was surrounded by his blue hordes, yet trapped alone by the visions of his own imagination, with no beast to explain them or chant encouraging prophecies. He stared disdainfully at the silent Grand Fregoral in attendance as ever. Well, what have you got to say for yourself? Nothing, sire, the ferret replied warily. His footpaw shot out, sending her sprawling in the sand. Nothing. That's all you ever say. Get out of my sight. Fregoral made an undignified retreat on all fours. It was wisest to do what Ungat Trun said immediately and without question when he was in one of his dark moods, which were growing more and more frequent as the days went by. Some horde beasts grubbing for seaweed nearby heard their leader laugh bitterly and talk aloud to himself. The mountain of my dreams! Ha! More like the mountain of my nightmares! So, these are the days of Ungat Trun, eh? 29. After breakfast next morning, Derby was leaving with his crew to harass the fishing fleet. Frutch shook her ladle at him, and he held up both paws placatingly. Don't say it, Marm. We've got the message. No more shrimp. Brogalaw entered the cave with Rulango stalking in his wake. Ahoy! Here's a bird who's very partial to shrimp. Feed our friend well, Mum. He just sketched me out an important message. Stiffener, get the bark crew together, mate. There's a small party, about twenty-five blue bottoms, left the mountain at dawn. Rulango reckons they're headed this a ways, armed with bags and avi sacks. Stiffener donned his bark cloth cloak and mask, arming himself with sword, bow, and arrows. He beckoned to the rest of the hares and otters who were gearing themselves up. Another foraging party? Let's send those vermin back sore-tailed and empty-pawed, eh, mates? Wobie threw her apron up over her face. Be gone, the lot of you. 
I don't hold with masks and cloaks. Fair scare a body they do. Away with ye. Torley bowed courteously. No need to fuss yourself, ma'am. Tis only us under this lot. Ripfang and Dumai had taken a hundred and fifty horde beasts out of the mountain long before dawn. They concealed themselves in the crags and crannies behind Salamandistron. Each of them was personally picked by the Rat Brothers. There were a lot of former sea rats and corsairs among their ranks. All in all, they were a mean and savage-looking bunch, armed to the teeth. Ripfang climbed down from his lookout spot. The forage party decoys are well on their way, heading nor'east to the cliff tops and dunes to scout for berries and roots. Do my, take your gang and sweep southeast. Get well back from the cliffs afore you start closing in. Dumai fiddled with his spear, as if reluctant to go. Which way are your lot going? The short way, I'll bet. Rip Fang tossed a long dagger and caught it neatly. We'll be following the same route as the foraging party. I've been drumming that into you half the night. That way we'll catch this bark crew in a pincer movement from back and front. Simple plans, all as works best. I told you. Dumai stuck out his bottom lip sullenly. I still don't like it. From what I've heard, this bark crew just appear out of nowhere. They say they're like spirits. Ripfang brandished his dagger impatiently. That's Ogwash, and you know tis. I'll tell you who I think they are. Those three score escaped long ears, that's who. Are you lot as hungry as I am, eh? There was a rumble of agreement from both mouths and stomachs. Ripfang made a slashing movement with his blade. Then what are we waiting for? There's meat on the paw for the taking. You want to eat? Then move yourselves. Dumai kicked at the dirt, staying where he was. You still haven't said why me and my gang got to go the long way round. Tain't fair. Ripfang flung the dagger, burying it in the earth right between his brother's footpaws. Listen, lumphead, you get going right now. Otherwise, I'm going back inside to report to Ungat Trun, and you can see how well you do taking charge of this lot. Dumai got up huffily and signaled his party to move off. All right, all right, keep your fur on, we're going. Hmm. never thought I'd see a brother of mine snitching to the chief on his own fur and blood. Anyhow, what's the signal for the ambush? I've forgotten it. Ripfang turned his eyes skyward as if seeking help from above. What's to forget, shrimp brain? I've told you ten times already. Furrigir will give two curlew cries. That's the signal for use to attack. You do know what a curlew sounds like, don't you? Dumai led his party out of the rocks, shouting back at his ill-tempered brother. Course I do. It sounds just like you trying to snore through that single pickle stabber of yours, Twiddletooth. Ripfang flung a rock at Dumai, but it fell short. I'll get you for that. Just see if it and I don't. Lying in concealment, the bark crew watched the foragers climb the cliffs at a place where a small streamlet trickled down. Bragala noted their every movement, murmuring low to Stiffener. They're stopping to take a drink now. Some of them picking crowberries and eating them. Nasty, bitter-tasting things. 
I've never liked crowberries. Have you, Stiff? The boxing hare shrugged. Not really. Still, you'll eat anything once the hunger grips your stomach. Dumb, stupid vermin. I pity him in a way. Willip snorted. Save your pity for decent creatures, sir. These are the same rotten bounders who were planning on eating us when they had us locked up. Pity em, indeed. Brog saw two vermin detach themselves and climb to the top. A moment later, they were calling back to the other foragers. There's nettles up here and some bilberries. The rest of the party climbed up. Once on top, they could not be seen by the bark crew, but their voices came back clear. More nettles than bilberries, I'd say. Ouch! They sting! Well, that's what nettles are supposed to do, mate. Pick em. You can brew good beer with nettles. Huh. Will you listen to him? What beast could wait a season for nettles to brew? We'd all be starved dead by then. Oh, stop moaning. Use your blade and cut the nettles. They'll do to make soup with. Brog picked up his javelin. Ain't going to be so easy while they're out in the open. Still... If we jump those blue bottoms quick, it should do the trick. When I show myself, see if you can get a few round the back of them, Stiff. Sailors, you and the others stay just below the cliff top, but show your weapons to let the vermin think they're surrounded. Well, here goes. Good hunting. The forage party leader was a weasel. He did not know that his band had been sent out as a decoy. While the others were busy at their work, he stuffed a paw full of bilberries into his mouth. Tut, tut, matey, stealing food, a voice nearby chided him. Without looking up, the weasel glimpsed the bark-cloth robe and groaned inwardly. You're a leader. You should be setting an example to those under you. The sinister, cloaked and masked figure stood framed by the weapons that poked up over the cliff. Raising his voice, Brog called harshly to the vermin. Move a muscle and you die. A bark crew javelin's a lot sharper than some old nettles, you'll find. A rat knocked over his haversack and berries spilled out. Ow, no! Tis the bark crew! Stiffener walked up from behind him and rested a loaded sling upon the rat's bowed head. Ow, yes, tis the bark crew, you mean. Toss your weapons over by me, all of you. You're surrounded. Shielding his eyes against the sun, the weasel looked up at Brog. You ain't gonna kill us, are you, sir? He gulped aloud. There was a touch of humor in the masked figure's voice. Not just yet. Pick those berries first, but leave the nettles. I don't want you to get your paws pricked. Go on, pick! Nervously, the forage party picked the bilberries. Why do you want to slay us? A rat whined at Torleap. We ain't done no harm to no beast. The hare gave him a resounding kick on his blue-dyed rear. Fibber, cad, bounder, don't look for mercy from me, sir. When the berries were all picked and bagged up, Brog made the vermin shed their uniforms. The weasel leader suddenly broke down and clung, weeping, to Stiffener's cloak. Ah, spare us, sire, spare our lives. Please, I beg you, don't kill us. <laughs> Stiffener's loaded sling wrapped the weasel's paws until he was forced to release the cloak hem. The boxing hare's voice was laden with contempt. Spare your lives, eh? 
like you spared the old badger lord, but he went out like a true warrior, fighting for his life. Look at yourself, coward, blubbing like a stuck toad. Torleap was slinging the bags onto a spear shaft when a strange noise cut the still noon air. Stefaner whirled around to face Brog. What was that? The otter yanked his friend to one side just in time. A slingstone buzzed by like an angry hornet. Dumai's horde beasts came charging out of the eastern moorland, howling and yelling, firing slingstones and discharging arrows at the bark crew. Torleap dashed to the cliff edge and glanced over. I say, there's more coming up this way. He never had time to say more. An arrow thudded into his throat. Torleap tottered for an instant, then fell over the cliff. Brogalaw gathered the bark crew swiftly. Take a stand facing forward and aft, mates. Grab your bows. Stiffener stood back to back with the sea otter, battling the vermin who were scrambling over the cliff top, while Brogalaw faced the crowd charging them from the moorland. Tis a trap, Stiff. They got us surrounded. The boxing hare whirled his sling, knocking a rat back over the cliff. There's a lot of them, but we ain't surrounded yet, Brog. They've got us in a pincer move from back and front. Keep picking off the outsiders. Stop them circling us. The otter alongside Brog went down with a spear through him. Dumai's contingent had slowed their headlong rush and were advancing cautiously now. They tried to stay in a tight bunch, no beast wanting to be strung out on the edges where they would be picked off. Rip Fang had his group halfway over the cliff top before he saw how furiously the bark crew were retaliating. Dropping back below the rim, he called out orders. Keep your heads down. We'll snipe them to bits. Pick your targets. There's only a score and a half of them. Stiffener took out a weasel with a spear that had just missed him a moment ago. Still back to back with Brog, he outlined a plan that was forming in his mind. I'd say we're outnumbered five to one, mate. We'll have to make a break for it, sideways. An arrow hit Brog in the shoulder. He bit his lip and snapped off the shaft. I'm with you, mate. Best go north, away from the location of our cave. Do it soon before we lose any more beasts. Stiffener could feel the arrowhead that had pierced Brog scratching his back. Willop was down on all fours, blood flowing from a gash on her head. The weasel and his forage party were lying flat on the ground, paws covering their heads, unarmed and out of the action. Brog grabbed the weasel and hauled him roughly up. Up on your squinging paws, you blue bottoms, and form two lines, a spear length apart. Move or I'll kill ye. Whimpering and trying to evade missiles, the vermin were forced to obey. Brog ordered his bark crew into the space between the two lines. Keep going north, and strike east the moment you see some trees, mates. We got a living shield to take us out of here. If these blue bottoms try to slow up or break away, you got my permission to slay them. Quick, march! Confused by the sight of two lines of hostages from their own side, the vermin ceased fire, and the bark crew moved smartly off while they had the advantage. Rip Fang hauled himself over the cliff tops, yelling, Don't let them get away, fools! Kill that bark crew! Dumai came running up at the head of his vermin group. Oh, odd luck, Rip. They fooled us that time, eh? Rip Fang punched his brother in the eye. That was you, puddle brain. You never waited for the signal. One of Dumai's patrol, a ferret, stepped forward. You shouldn't have punched him. 
Your brother stepped on a thistle and yelped out loud. We all thought it was the signal, so we charged. Twasn't his fault. Rip Fang punched the ferret square on the nose. Who asked you, slug face? I'm giving orders round here. Now get after him, the lot of you, and slay the bark crew. The ferret wiped blood from his nose and glared at it. Then he lashed out, cracking Rip Fang between the ears with his spear haft. You ain't a cap'n anymore. Trun broke you two back down to the ranks, and besides, we'd have to kill our own mates to get at the bark crew. I ain't doing that. Rip Fang rubbed his head, grinning ruefully. You're right, mate. You ain't doing that. You're staying here. Quick as light, he drew his cutlass and ran the ferret through, then waved the dripping blade in an arc. Any beast else want to stay here? Come on. Who wants to join him? Step up and face me. They backed off, staring dumbly at the slain ferret. Suddenly, Rip Fang was among them, laying about savagely with the flat of his blade. After him, all of you! I don't care who you bring down, as long as you finish the bark crew off! With Rip Fang in the rear, cutlass drawn, they took off after the enemy, who had a good head start. Stiffener cast a glance over his shoulder as he ran. Didn't take them long, Grog! Here they come! The sea otter skipper peered anxiously ahead. No sign of any trees yet, Stiff. Sailors, how's Willop doing? Still groggy, I'm afraid. And there's a young otter here, Fergan, who's taken a javelin through the footpaw. Slowing us down a bit, but that can't be helped, what? Stiffener called Troby and two otters, Ervo and Rad. Fetch double quivers and bows. We'll hold the rear, mates. Don't let them catch up, one of the forage party sobbed. They'll kill us just to get it used. Brog clouded his head soundly. Shut your mouth, or I'll boot you over the cliff. Stiffener and his three archers let the others go on ahead. Stringing shafts to their bows, they brought down two horde beasts who were running ahead of the rest. After another volley, they joined their friends. Troby kept another shaft ready on his bowstring and walked facing back. I think we took out seven vermin back at the cliff tops. Counting the two we just dropped, that makes nine. Not bad, considering we lost only three. Two otters and old Torleap. Stiffener turned to join him. Nine don't make a lot of difference to the crowd they've got, Troby. We're in big trouble unless we can get some help. He raised his voice, calling to the front of the column. Any sign of shelter ahead? Trees? Rocks? Or whatever? Not a thing, matey, an otter's voice replied. All I can see is a big dead old tree near the cliff edge up yonder. Sorry. Brog's voice joined in the shouted conversation. Ahoy! Did you say a big dead tree? I know that one. Used to fish up this way. If and I ain't mistaken, there's a whole circle of rocks on the shore down there, above the tide line. Cut off and take a peek, sailors. Sailors left the group and bounded to the cliff edge. She was back shortly with good news. Brog, old chap, you were right. A ring of rocks, not unlike a blinking small fort. Oh, well done, sir. Stiffener and his archers dropped back and fired off another two volleys of arrows. This time the vermin saw them coming and avoided them. Brog waved the archers to join the column. Never mind that now, mateys. Let's get down to those rocks. 
At the rear of the vermin, Dumai was holding a pawful of wet sand to the eye which his brother had punched. Rip Fang watched him and shook his head in despair. All that'll get you is an eye full of wet sand, you ninny. Dumai spat contemptuously at him. Think you know everything, don't you? You rotten slime punching me in the eye like that. Well, I ain't your brother no more, see? I hope one of those errors out of the air gets you right in your eye. Then you'll see how it feels. Look, they're climbing down the cliffs to the shore. Some beast shouted ahead. Rip Fang ran to the cliff edge and peered along. Trying to make it to those rocks, eh? Well, we've got them now. We can easily surround those rocks. Slow down and catch your breath, mates. They ain't going nowhere. It was hot on the rocks. The sand at the center of the stone circle was dry and hot, too. The bark crew threw themselves down gratefully, shedding cloaks and masks. Sailors tended to the injured, while Brogalaw and Skipper watched the clifftops. Ain't got much time to rest, Stiff. Here they come, climbing down the cliff. How many would you say they've got? Oh, about a hundred and two score more. Too many for us. Brogalaw stroked his whiskers thoughtfully. You're right, but we still got enough to make a fight of it. One thing, though, mate. What do we do with these beasts we captured? They might prove troublesome. Stiffener saw the last vermin stumble down to the shore. Well, we got no more use for them, and we certainly can't feed the scum. I say we let them go. What do you think, Brog? Aye, let's rid ourselves of the pests. Ahoy there, weasel. Get yourself over here. The forage patrol leader practically crawled across. You're going to kill us. I know you are. I can feel it. Brog hauled him up sharply by the ears. Good news, blubber chops. We're letting you go. All of you. What? Er, you mean you're letting us go, sir? Aye, that's what I said. Though if you hang around here weeping and moaning all day, we'll slay you just for the peace and quiet twould give us. So you'd better run for it. As Rip Fang was giving the orders to form a circle around the rocks, Dumai, who was still a fair shot, despite his swollen eye, unshouldered his bow and shot off an arrow at one of the freed prisoners. Ha-ha! <laughs> Got one of them! He was trying to escape! Look, there's more of the bark crew! Rip Fang's cutlass chopped through Dumai's bowstring. What did you do that for? Leave me alone, will yer? Rip Fang pointed angrily at a fallen weasel. See what you've done now, Banhead? Shot one of our own. Dumai looked sheepish. Well, what if and I did? He muttered sulkily. You said twas all right, long as we got the bark crew. Rip Fang ignored him. He called to the forage party, who were half in and half out of the rocks, not knowing which way to go. Over here, you lot. Come on, we won't shoot no more of you. They hurried across, keeping nervous eyes on Dumai, who was restringing his bow. Rip Fang sneered at them. Well, well, what have we got here? A shower of cowards with no uniforms or weapons. You lot better make yourselves slings and gather some stones. Might look better on you if you help to capture the bark crew. Back at the rocks, Stiffener was assessing the situation. Well, 
We've given the vermin some reinforcements now. Still, we'd never have killed them in cold blood. They can't wait us out, because they ain't got the supplies to do it. No, neither have we. The Blue Bottoms still outnumber us by far too many. But we're still dangerous and well-armed. They'll try to pick us off one by one, now that they've got us surrounded. Maybe when dark falls, they'll try a charge. What do you think, Brog? The sea otter was sharpening a javelin against the rock. He nodded grimly. Aye, that's when they'll come. It'll be the bark crew's last stand. Ha-har, <laughs> but we'll make it a good one, eh, mates? Hares and otters gripped their weapons tighter. Aye, no surrender and no quarter, given or asked. Take as many as we can with us. Remember Lord Stone Paul and the others, chaps. This time, Rip Fang kept Dumai close by where he could keep an eye on him. Both rats lay behind a mound of sand they had set up. Rip Fang watched the noon shadows beginning to lengthen. A cry rang out from the rocks. You The ferocity of the war cry caused the sea rat a momentary shudder, but he soon recovered himself. Ha! We've got ye outnumbered by far. Shout all you want. It won't do use any good when night comes and we charge. I'll paint those rocks red with your blood. No news had come back to the mountain of the trap that had been laid for the bark crew, but Ungat Trun felt in better humor than he had for some while. One of his captains had come across a hidden cupboard in the larders, containing three casks of aged rose and green-gauge wine. He donated two of the casks to be shared among his horde captains, and the remaining one he had broached himself. All afternoon he drank deeply from it. The wine induced a pleasant and languorous feeling, and he drifted off into a peaceful sleep as noon sunlight poured through the chamber windows. Stretched on Lord Stonepaw's bed, the wildcat dreamed of nothing in particular. The North Mountains, where his old father reigned, his younger brother, Verdaga Green-Eye, waiting to inherit the throne. Or maybe he was not. He might be considering the life of a conqueror like his elder brother, Ungat. The sleeper smiled. No beast living could claim to have won anything as spectacular as this mighty mountain. Salamandistron, the legendary home of badger lords. Ungatron sighed and turned in his sleep. Then the vision altered. A huge dark paw wrapped itself about his face, blinding and smothering him. The badger lord. He had come. He had come. <coughs> Help me! Sire, lie still while I get this blanket from your head. Writhing wildly, Ungatrun lashed out and caught his grand fregoral a blow which sent her spinning across the room. Ripping and shredding with lethal claws, the wildcat tore the homely blanket from about his head and sat up panting, his head aching abominably. All semblance of good humor had deserted him. Who gave you permission to enter my chamber? He growled at Fregoral. The ferret rose groggily. Sire, you called for help. I came to assist you. The wildcat tossed the tattered blanket aside and made to rise. Assist me? You way-faced poltroon! You dared to think that you had the right to assist me? Be gone! 
before I throw your worthless hide from the window. The Grand Fregorl fled the chamber, followed by a wine goblet which smashed on the door as it slammed. I could have taken this mountain unaided. Ungatron, the Earthshaker, needs help from no beast. Go on. Whine, starve, moan, blunder about, all of you. This is my mountain. I rule it alone. I can hold it alone. Every creature here depends on me. I don't need any of you. Outside, the two guards moved further down the passage away from the door. Shift along there, mate. Don't get too close when the chief's in one of his dark moods. Aye, the captains are all like that, too. What do you suppose started it all? Guzzling wine on a midsummer noon, on empty stomachs, too. I'd done it meself once. Doesn't improve the temper, I can tell ye. Wish it'd get dark, so the night watch could come and relieve us. Tis dangerous standing round here. Ignoring the glories of a setting sun on the sea's far horizon, the bark crew perched in the rocks, anxiously scanning the humps of sand surrounding them. Behind each one, several vermin lay, armed and ready, waiting for the shades of night to descend. Rogala spoke without turning to Stiffener, his eyes roving back and forth. What grieves me about all this is, no matter how many we takes to the dark forest with us, won't make much difference to the numbers Tron has to serve him. The boxing hare checked the shaft on his bowstring. Shame, ain't it? But that's the way of things, Brog. Willop, are you all right, mate? The old hare adjusted the makeshift bandage on her brow. Fit enough to fight, sir. But I'm jolly hungry, don't you know? Funny how a bod can think of food at a blinkin' time like this, what? Can't help it, though. The old tum's rumbling twenty to the dozen. The sea otter chuckled and shook his head. Tis no wonder they call hares perilous beasts, death facing us, and that and has dinner on her mind. Stiffener shrugged. What's on your mind, Brog? Brogalog glanced at the darkening sky. My old mum, the rest of my crew, Dervy, young Conal, and the mateys I grew up with. I'd just like to clap eyes on him one last time. Any beast you'd like to see, Stiff? Hmm. Those twin grandsons of mine, Southpaw and Bob Weave. You should have seen them, Brog. Two braver fighters you'd never come across in a season's march. I reared them, you know, until they grew restless and left the mountain. Maybe it was just as well they did, the way things turned out. As the night drew on, voices began chanting from behind the sand humps which the vermin had put up for protection. Ungat! Trun! 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 Brogolaw's grip tightened around the javelin. Ha-ha! Twon't be much longer now, mates. Here I'm getting their nerve up to charge. The speed and volume of the chant increased. Ungat! Trun! 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 Ungat! Trun, trun, trun! From the rock circle, the otters and hares answered with their own defiant war cry. Blood and vinegar! Eulalia! Stiffener centered his arrow on the dark form's breaking cover. Stand fast, mates! Here they come! The vermin charged. Thirty. 
In a wide valley formed by four grass-topped sand dunes, Lord Brocktree put aside his empty plate and beaker. He lay back upon the sand next to Fleetscott and sighed contentedly, gazing up at dizzying myriads of stars strewn about the soft night sky. Tomorrow, you say, around late noon? Fleetscott left off munching wild raspberries from the prone position and nodded. Indeed, sir. We should reach Salamander Strahd about then, providing we're up and about by dawn, what? Ruff joined them. Bucko, too, both highly pleased. Well, we did it, Brock. A half-season march. Ark, and you said it were nay mere than a wee patrol. Fleetscott wrinkled his nose mischievously. Had to say something to keep you chaps going, what? Bit of a fib, but we made it. Hee <laughs> hee. Sorry about that. My wee patrol turned out to be something of a long patrol, what what? The badger lord closed his eyes and mused. Long patrol, hmm. I'd say that was a... Woof! Skittles had jumped from somewhere high up on one of the dunes. He landed like a stone on Brocktree's stomach, driving the wind from him completely. The hog babe seized his friend's whiskers and hauled on them. Come on, Buck! We go and fish fishes in a big water! The badger gasped breathlessly as he tried to get up. Dottie, get this fiend off me! Throw him in the sea! Dottie had been trying to patch up the battered shawl she was taking as a gift for her Aunt Blanche. She stuffed it carelessly back into her bag and grabbed Skittles' paw. Come on, wretch! We'll go down to the water for a paddle! Skittles held out his other paw to Bucko, whom he was quite friendly with. Bucko for Paggles, too? The mountain hare rose, dusting off sand. Aye, I like wetting my paws in the sea. Come on, laddie. Going paddling, Miss Dottie? Splendid. We'll join you, what? Rather, nothing like a jolly old paddle neath the stars. Southpaw and Bob Weave joined the ever-growing paddling party. Brrr. I bain't feared of a girt sea. I'll come too. Merklewort chased after them, waving a towel. Wait for me. I'll need to give my little babe a good drying when he's paddled. Seawater can cause cornflagenza, you know. That's what my old grandma used to say. And she knew. Southpaw winked at Bob Weave. Cornflagenza, eh? Sounds pretty serious, what? Oh, I don't know. With a blinking name like that, you wouldn't know whether to eat it or suffer from it, old lad. When they reached the tide line, the sea looked enchanting. A half-moon cast a path of golden ripples out from the horizon, and small foam-crested waves ran ashore, spangled with starlight, hissing softly on the cool, wet sand as they broke. Those who wore smocks tucked them up into their belts. Holding paws in a line, they jumped over each wave as it arrived, splashing and laughing joyously. Oh, one, two, three, come to me, from far over the briny sea. Four, five, six, each wave flicks, past my paws, the sand it licks. Seven, eight, nine, all in line, this one rolling in is mine. One to ten, rise and wane, swelling as they come again. Bucko Big Bones splashed water at girth. Yee-hoo! I've no done this since I was a bairn. 
The smiling mole splashed back. Poor, oh, I bain't never done e paglin afore, sir. Gert fun tis for a toil like I. Skittles wriggled free of Dotty and Bucko. Throwing himself flat, he lay on his back in the sea, spouting water like a tiny whale. Yuck! This water tasters salty to me. Merklewort, who had stayed dry on the shore, dashed into the shallows, brandishing her towel frantically. Spit it out, you naughty og, or you'll get seahitis, and your teeth'll drop out. Ow! Why didn't I have a little nice-mannered og made, instead of this umthry kerfubgeon? The instant Skittles saw his mother bearing down on him, he took off. In a spray of giggles and splashes, he romped away along the edge of the tide line. Dotty and the rest gave chase. Skittles, as they had noticed before, could move surprisingly fast for an infant hedgehog. I say, come back, you little rip! Ah, the wee pin cushions away like a fish. Giddy back, your master skick. They pursued him until he could run no more. The hog babe sat down in the shallows, twitching his head spikes resignedly. Skickles had enough now. Mother can dry me. The paddling party sat down on the beach while Merklewort scrubbed at her son with a towel. What have you been told about running off, you dreadful little hog? Wait till your father hears about this, you brigand. Girth silenced her with a wave of his digging claws. Your ushy marm, Miss Dot, can he hear aught? Dotty's finely tuned ears quivered this way and that. Matter of fact, I can, Girth. South of here, it seems to be coming from. Sounds like some sort of ding dong going on. Southpaw and Bob Weave were up and running south along the shoreline, calling back to the others. Sit tight, chaps. We'll be back in a tick. What? Hi. You stay and rest yourself, Miss Dotty. We'll investigate. Bucko sat the well-dried skittles on his lap. Hoots, laddie! Bide here, they say. Look at yon pair go. Dotty borrowed the damp towel to wipe her footpaws. Indeed, sir. I think the bloomin' wind would have trouble trying to keep up with those twins. Girth found some flat pebbles, and they passed the time by skimming them across the shallows. Neck and neck. Sand spurting from their paws, the hair twins raced back, looking as fresh as when they left. Both were excited and disturbed at the same time. Vermin! Those blue vermin old fleet Scott mentioned. About a hundred and fifty of the blithers. Got a small bunch of hares and otters surrounded, the calves. That's right, and they're attacking the poor creatures. Jolly unfair, I'd say. Those otters and hares are taking a terrible hammering. Bucko Big Bones grabbed a chunk of driftwood. Dorothea, away with ye! Bring Brock Tree and the tribes. Merkel Wart, bide here with Girth and the Bairn. Point the way for em. Ye twins, find yourself a weapon apiece, and take me tell you the battle. We'll lend a paw till our clans arrive. Willet lay dead on the rocks. Stiffener stood over her body, a whirling sling in one paw, a sword in the other slashing and whacking at the vermin as they hurled themselves at him. A spear had chopped a chunk out of one of Troby's ears, and he and sail ears had been driven from their position. They stood out on the sand, backs against the rocks, thrusting hard with their spears. 
Bragalaw shouldered an otter who'd been struck twice by arrows. The sea otter skipper was using his broken javelin as a club. He roared out to Stiffner, his voice ringing over the melee. Stiff! There's two outside the circle! Get them back, mate! Stiffner bounded down onto the sand. Cracking the skull of one rat and slashing ferociously at two others, he drove them away from Sailors and Troby, giving them space. Get back up on those rocks, you two, quick! Turning, he ran a weasel through and flattened a stoat with a swift, hefty punch. Rip Fang had done what all careful vermin officers usually do. He had stayed out of the battle, directing it from the rear, and laying about the half-hearted ones who tried to hang back. He had kept Dumai with him, but his brother had bloodlust in his eyes now that he could see victory in sight. The sea rat licked his cutlass blade and danced on the spot with frustration. Let me at him, Rip. I want to kill a few. Rip Fang nudged him sharply. Nah, you don't want to do that, Doom. Look, they've retreated for their last stand. There ain't many left, but they got nothing to lose now, so they'll be real dangerous. Stay out. But Doom-Eye dashed forward, waving his blade. I ain't scared. Come on, Rip. Let's see the color of their guts. Yahar! Charge! Dumai got no further. Bucko laid him senseless with a chunk of driftwood he was swinging. Rip Fang turned and dodged just in time to avoid his second blow. What? You ain't one of them, are you? I ain't seen you before. Southpaw and Bobweave needed no weapons. Both their long hind legs crashed into Rip Fang's head, knocking him out cold. Only ten hares and otters were left forming a tight circle in the sand at the center of the rock circle. The vermin stormed over the rocks and leapt at them, but were repulsed by the ferocity of the reception they received from the gallant defenders. However, the vermin knew they had won the battle, and they pressed home their assault once more. Stiffener had lost his weapon and was using only his knotted paws now. Brog pounded away at the wave of foe beasts with all he had left, a shattered javelin and a lump of rock. Over the clash of battle, the skipper of sea otters called out to his remaining friends, Give it one last go, mateys. We'll meet by the banks of the sunny streams, along with those who've already gone. Suddenly a cry arose from outside the circle. Eulalia! Bucko and the twins came roaring in. They crashed into the enemy's flank and broke through to join the beleaguered party. Momentarily, the vermin fell back. I'm Bucko Big Bones, the mad march hare fray the North Mountains. Ach, tis a grand old evening to be battling. Stiffener wiped blood from his eye and gaped in amazement. By the fur and fang, what are you two doing here? Southpaw and Bob Weave crouched in fighters' stances, grinning at the hesitant vermin surrounding them. What ho, Gramps? Nice time to pay a visit, what? Pop the drop in and lend a paw. Left or right, no difference to us, old chap. A venturesome ferret, who had aspirations to captaincy, charged forward, urging the rest on. There's only three of them! Charge! He collapsed under a frightening barrage of hefty blows from Bob Weave, who shouted as he delivered the punches, Sorry to make a liar out of you, old lad, but listen! 
Eulalia! His war cry echoed back at him like rolling thunder. Eulalia! Blue horde beasts were battered in all directions as Lord Brocktree mounted the rocks, swinging his mighty sword. The vermin fled, screaming, though none of them got more than twenty paces. Squirrels, shrews, hares, otters, moles, and hedgehogs fell upon them. They took no prisoners. Stiffener sat down upon the sand, staring at the badger lord, completely bewildered. It's like seeing Lord Stonepaw when he was young, but bigger, much bigger. Who is this badger? Fleetscut ambled up and sat down beside his old friend. That's the great Lord Brocktree. Big, ain't he? A regular one-beast army, and make no mistake, what? Fleetscut, my dear old chap, where did you spring from? Is this your doing? Did you find Southpaw and Bob Weave and bring Lord Brocktree to our aid? Tell me everything. Later, old friend, there's business to do first. Introductions were made all around. Then the Badger Lord took command. Logalog Gren, see if any vermin survived. I want no more killing. Bring them to me. Juca, tell your squirrels to take these dead horde beasts and leave them below the tide line. The sea will take care of them. Immediately, Juca's tribe set about stripping the dead vermin of armor and weapons. Fleetscut could not help making a loud observation within Juca's hearing. Scavengers! Not but a pack of carrion crows! Juca hurled herself at him, but the sturdy rough leapt between the beasts as they strained to get at each other. Thou long-eared glutton! Who gave thee the right to talk of my tribe in such a manner? I did, that's who! You bunch of bush-tailed carcass thieves! Brog came across to help Ruff hold them apart. Whoa, now, less of that talk. Stow it, you two. At this rate, you'll end up no better than the vermin we're against. Aye, listen to the sea otter and get some sense in your skulls. We're supposed to be friends, not foes. They backed off from each other, glowering. Rip Fang, Doom Eye, and around a dozen vermin who had been knocked unconscious and still looked distinctly groggy were paraded in front of the stern-faced Brock Tree. He silenced their excuses and pleas by picking up his sword. Stop whining. It's not worse than cowards crying. Now, are your leaders slain, or are they here? Speak! Those two, sire, Rip Fang and Doom Eye. Both sea-rats glared daggers of hatred at the one who spoke. Brocktree looked the brothers over. Heed me if you wish to live. You and your creatures will bury our dead. Here, in this sand at the center of this rock circle. Carry them carefully. Treat them respectfully. My creatures will be watching you to see that you do. On all fours, the vermin were forced to dig a hole with their paws, Brog, Stiffener, and the remainder of the bark crew placed their slain friends gently in the grave. When it was filled in, the Badger Lord turned his attention back to the huddle of trembling vermin. This shall be the epitaph of these brave warriors, that they died fighting against superior odds with no hope, yet they never deserted their comrades in whose memories they will live on. If fortune had been reversed, do you think they would have trembled and wept for their lives? Do you? 
His voice rose so sharply that the vermin sat bolt upright. Rocktree did not wait for their answer, but continued, No, they would not act as you do now. They had courage. And I will not act now as you would have, had you been the victors of this fray. I will not kill you. Your miserable lives are spared. But I want you to take a message back to your master from me, Lord Brocktree of Brockhall. 31. It was late morn of the following day. Ungat Trun exited by a window space high up on the mountain and strode up a winding path to a lookout post. Karangul was there with two sentries. He saluted the wildcat. Mightness? Both sentries slid past Trun and backed off down the path, saluting and bowing furiously. He watched them, puzzled. Where are those two going? The Saturnine fox pointed north and slightly west. Ambush party be coming back, Mightness. The wildcat's first reaction was to smile, but his face stiffened as he glimpsed the fourteen figures, neck deep in the sea, plowing their way homeward. Wordlessly, he swept past Karangul, back down the path. The fox followed him. As they came out onto the shore, Karangul looked back. Fregoral was watching from a chamber window, but now she ducked down out of sight, not wanting to be involved with what would follow. Wisely, Karangul dropped behind a pace or two. Ungatrun stared in disbelief as the pitiful party stumbled out of the sea. As before, the blue dye had gone from their coats. Only their heads were still blue. Each had their paws bound tightly in front. Moreover, they could not avoid walking in a straight line. They had been linked together at neck height by four long pikes, lashed two by two, the poles pressing close against their necks. At either end of the pikes were long metal spearheads, which had been twisted together, two at each end, sealing the fourteen like peas in a pod. They collapsed on the sand, fighting for breath, for seawater had swelled the wooden pike shafts, tightening their grip about the captives' necks. Karangul signaled some vermin. They prized the pikes apart, slicing at the ropes that held them together. When they were freed, Rip Fang and the rest lay exhausted, rubbing their throats as they gasped in fresh air. The fox inspected the metal pike heads, wondering what creature possessed the strength to twist them into two spirals like that. Trun snatched the cutlass from a nearby horde beast. Karangul averted his eyes as the wildcat honed the blade on a rock, putting a sharp, jagged edge on it. This he placed against Ripfang's throat. Where are the bodies of the bark crew? Where are the hundred and a half soldiers I set out to deal with them? Answer me truthfully, and I will spare you a slow death. The wildcat stepped back a pace and swung the sword high to one side. He brought it slashing down, expertly stopping the blade a fraction from Rip Fang's exposed neck, and roared, Tell me, you worthless lump of awful! Rip Fang spoke four words, as if they were a magic spell. I saw the badger. The sword clattered against a rock as it fell from Trun's paw. He sat down in the sand next to Ripfang, as if pushed there by a giant paw. Leave us. Every beast go. Karangul, the guards nearby, Dumai, and the others scattered, 
leaving Trun and Rip Fang together alone on the shore. The tail flicked out and pulled the sea rat close. I will not slay you. I have a half cask of wine. It is yours if you tell me all. What did he look like? What did he say? Who was with him? What manner of beast? Tell me. Rip Bang relaxed and squinted up at the sun. Er, and I'm still a cap'n, and me brother do my too? Yes, of course. Now tell me, please. The sea rat pulled Trun's tail from around his neck. Where's this afghask of wine first? I'm thirsty. As night fell, campfires blazed openly in the dunes facing the cave in the cliffs. Frutch sat out on a tussock at the cave mouth, her son by her side. Several others sat around close, enjoying some of the otter mum's plum and nut slices hot from the oven. She looked about at the teeming scene and clapped a paw to her cheek. Well, dearie me, will I never. Fate's a mercy. I never did see so many creatures in all me born days. Brogalaw hugged his mother and planted a big kiss on her brow. Ahoy there, mum. Are you going to keep on saying that all night? You left out, well, nail my rudder. Crutch wiped her eyes on an apron corner, passed Dottie another slice, and patted her son's paw thankfully. Well, seasons of salt water and nail my rudder. Where did you find all these nice beasts, Brog? The sea otter grinned at his new friend, Ruff. Well, at least she's changed her tune, mate. Oh, look out. Here comes tears by the blinking pailful. Blench and Woby joined Frutch. In a trice, they were all passing kerchiefs, weeping and snuffling. Dottie licked crumbs from her paw and looked quizzically at Brog. Beg pardon, sir, but do they always do that? Only when they're happy, miss. Perhaps you'd like to give him a song. That always calms him down a mite. He winced as Brocktree's paw dug him in the side. Oof! What did I say? The badger lord shook his head mournfully. You'll find out, my friend. You'll soon find out. Stiffener remonstrated sternly with the hair twins. Stop fighting, you two. What are you doing with the young'un's bag? Just getting Miss Dottie's hair accordion out, Gramps. No, you ain't, chum. I'm getting it for Miss Dottie. I say, Gramps, wait till you hear her sing. She's a pip. Dottie rescued her instrument smiling sweetly at her admirers as she explained to the weeping trio, My fatal beauty, you know, does it every time. Did I tell you I was nearly a queenness, or something like that? Never mind, ladies, I'll sing you a cheery old ditty, what? Without further ado, Dottie launched into her song. Did ever I tell you, when I was born, Paul cried we were clear out of luck. He sent me out searching for honey, and my head in a beehive got stuck. Poor mother was so forgetful she put a plum puddin' in bed and covered my brother with custard. That'll do us for supper, she said. Oh, woe is me, what a family. There used to be just six of us, but now there's thirty-three. Hee-hee-hee-hee. <laughs> the day Grandma took up knitting, she couldn't tell yarn from fur, but she clacked her needles all evening and knitted herself to the chair. My sister's left home forever. Then returned wet and soaking with tears. 
The fire had died, so twas I got em dried. I pegged em all out by their ears. Oh, woe is me, not another more. There used to be thirty-three of us, but now there's thirty-four. Ha, 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 ha! Old uncle was hard of hearing. He'd a trumpet to hold by his ear. Poor auntie was so short-sighted that she often filled it with beer. When a squirrel dropped by for a visit, she tidied the place in a rush. Auntie swept the floor and varnished the door by using his tail as a brush. Oh, woe is me, and hair's alive. There used to be thirty-four of us, but now there's thirty-five. Five! Blanche had been staring hard at Dottie, gnawing the hem of her kerchief while the hair-maid was singing. They had not been introduced. The old cook's ears suddenly stiffened as she recognized the family likeness, and her paw shot out accusingly. Dillworthy! I knew it as soon as I clapped eyes on you, miss. Those young hairs called you Dottie. You must be Daphne's daughter, Dorothea. Dottie's hair accordion gave out an unearthly squeak, as both she and it were squeezed in a vice-like hug. Aunt Blanche? Of course it is, ye young snip. I should have recognized that voice right away. Last time I saw you was when you were a little fluffy babe, yelling for lettuce broth. What a racket! Overcome by the emotion of the moment, Dottie burst into tears, as did her aunt. Brog led them back to his mum and Woby, who joined them in a good, loud weep. Ruff groaned and covered both ears. Wrap me rudder, mate. Tis hard to tell what's worse, listening to Dottie's caterwauling or your mum's crying choir. Baron Drucko hurried them both into the cave. Let's see if there's somewheres quieter in here. I tell you, we could use those four again the enemy. Bet they'd drive him off that Samalandrocrum mountain. Logalog Gren went with them. As she patted Brog's shoulder, she noticed him wincing. Your shoulder's wounded, Brog. The sea otter managed a rueful grin. So tis, Marm, but don't tell my mum, or there won't be a dry eye this side of winter. I'll take care of it. The shrew beckoned one of the squirrels over. Let Ruro see it. She's the best ever for healing wounds. An immense feeling of joy and relief reigned over the cliffs and cave, which the small party of hares and otters had used as their hiding place. The center of it all was Lord Brocktree. The big badger radiated quiet strength and confidence. Creatures passed close to him so that they could reach out and touch his huge form or admire the massive sword with skittles perched half asleep between its double hilts. Now they could sit out in the open, feeling safe and reassured by his presence. Sailors summed it all up in a single phrase. At last we've got a leader, a real badger lord. Cooking fires were stoked up to full pitch that night. Frutch left off weeping to show her multitude of guests what sea otter hospitality was all about. The otter mum and her helpers were happy to accept the offer of assistance from Gwasim cooks, squirrels, hedgehogs, and the ever-smiling Girth, son of Rog Longladle. Your missus, where did he find all these shrimpers? Woby hauled out another netful, which Dervy and his crew had brought back that afternoon. 
from our very own fisher beast, sir. Good old Derby and the seafaring bark crew. Conal, the cheeky otter maid, raised her rudder in surprise. You was singing a different tune this morning, marm. You threatened to boil me whiskers if we brought back more shrimp. Good job we did, though. Blench appeared in their midst, swirling proudly. My niece Dottie brought me this shawl for my sister Daphne. It's been in our family a long time. Isn't it pretty? The shawl had been shredded, patched, torn, tattered, and inexpertly repaired. But Blench was enchanted with the family heirloom, and no beast was about to hurt her feelings. Oh, it's uh, very unusual, but beautiful. Rather, I like that light brown weave on the hem. The light brown weave crumbled off under Woby's paw. It was mud, which had turned to dust. Blench carried on, swirling and showing it off, blissfully unaware. Lovely, ain't it? And can you smell that perfume from it? Reminds me of something, though I can't just think what it is. Hmm, a bit like pale old cider, eh? Dottie trod meaningly on Ruff's footpaw and glared at him. Never! It was a special perfume belonging to Grandma. I had a lovely letter from my mother, too, you know, but it got lost. Southpaw and Bob Weave took Dottie's paws and hauled her away. I say, Miss Dottie, come and lend a paw with the supplies. These chaps have got a great cave full of vittles up yonder. She made a hasty exit, accompanied by the twins. The feast was an epic triumph, with the centerpiece a great cauldron of shrimp and hot root soup, cooked to Frutch's own family recipe. The Guasom cooks produced pear flans, apple pies, blackberry tarts, and rhubarb crumble. Merklewort and her hog rabble contributed loaves and biscuits hot from the ovens. Girth placed himself in charge of drinks. He made mint and rosehip tea, a cordial of dandelion and burdock, and a great deal of fruit punch. Brogolov had the sentries relieved often so that all could join in. Skittles tried to keep his eyes open, but he was so tired that he fell asleep with a ladle of crumble still in one paw. It was inevitable that singing and dancing would break out. There were many good dancers among the tribes gathered there. A sea otter shanty was started by Brog's two young singing otters, accompanied by drums, flutes, and stone clappers. Amid much fancy paw-stepping by hares, otters, hedgehogs, and squirrels, the music rattled along at a breakneck pace. Oh, rattledy daddledy doodle high a we're full of plum duff and salt water. Now the rattledy dow was a leaky old craft with aprons and kerchiefs for sails fore and aft, and all of her crew thought the cap'n was daft, and he was sure they was all barmy. Her anchor was made from a big rusty pot that they hauled up each morning to serve dinner hot, but the crew was too slow, so the cooks scoffed the lot and a seagull flew off with the puddin'. So tis heave away, mateys, the wind's blowin' west, and the cabin mole's wearin' his grandma's blue vest, while the mate's got a blanket tattooed on his chest to keep his fat stomach from freezin'. Well, there's fish in the sea better mannered than we, for they washes their flippers and don't slop their tea, and we'd be better off on the land, don't you see, cause I think that the old ship is sinkin'. Oh, rattledy-daddledy-doodle-hi-a, nail a pie to the door for me mother. They sang it again, 
this time at double speed. Hairs leapt high, seeing if they could wiggle their ears six times before hitting the ground again. Bucko could do eight ear wiggles. He was the envy of all. Dancers had often to jig out of the way of hedgehogs revolving in mad spins. Otters twined their tails and somersaulted over the fire. Squirrels high-kicked wildly, gritting their teeth as sand flew about. Around them all, the Guasim shrews joined paws and spun in a wide, eye-blurring wheel. Right at the center, Girth danced sedately with Brog's mum, bowing and hopping gracefully, while Frutch curtsied and performed dainty little steps, holding her apron wide. Old Bramwell sat chuckling with Brocktree. Will you look at them, sire! I never saw such jigging in all me seasons, what? I say that pretty young and dotty, those hair twins, won't leave her alone. They want every blinkin' dance with her. Brocktree chuckled. She'd be disappointed if they did leave her alone, a fatal beauty like our dotty. Tell me, Bramwell, what was my father Stonepaw like? You served under him, didn't you? Bramwell wiped both eyes on a large, spotty kerchief and blew his nose. Lord Stonepaw was the wisest gentlest beast a hare ever knew. It was my badger lord, and my good friend, sire. Brocktree knew he was upsetting the old hare, but he had to put the question to him that he had been too moved to ask when Stiffener had sat between himself and Fleetscott and told them that Lord Stonepaw was dead. I never knew him very well, you see. Badgers leave home while their sons are still young. It would be a tense household with two grown male badgers in it. Now, I don't want every little detail, but please tell me, how did he die? Bramwell stared into the fire, answering without hesitation. He went bravely, Lord, more courageously than any beast could imagine, surrounded by those blue murderers. He laid down his life to give us time to escape. Brocktree put a paw about Bramwell's shaking shoulders. You've no need to distress yourself further, old one. I know now. My father died like a true badger lord, full of the blood wrath, taking many vermin with him. Bramwell's tears sizzled in the embers at the fire's edge as he nodded and dabbed at his eyes. Twas so, lord, twas so. Brocktree rose, flickering flame shadows playing over his immobile face. Bramwell looked up at him. The badger lord looked like something carved from rock, which had stood there since the dawn of time. At last, Brocktree shouldered his sword. Waste no more tears, you good old beast. Stonepaw would not want grief. He would want retribution. I am here now. It is the turn of Ungat Trun and his vermin to suffer. I will make them weep full sore before they die. He strode off toward the clifftops alone. Bucko Big Bones threw himself down beside Bramwell, panting from the dance. He seized a flagon of cordial and drained it. Hey, Alden, I seen you talking with the big boy, oh. Ach, twill be a thing to see when that un takes himself off to battle. Ungatron could not sleep. He wandered the upper passages of Salamandistron until he came to a small chamber on its north side where he had chosen to store his own armor and weapons. His restless eyes sought out a long trident leaning against the wall. 
he took the weapon and hefted it. As Trident had served him well many times in battle, three barb-headed copper prongs gleamed dully in the torchlight. He ran his paw over the oaken shaft until it met the cord-bound grip at its middle. Grasping it firmly, he went to the window and stood staring out toward the cliffs in the distance. Brock Tree of Brock Hall, eh? So that's what they call you. I know you are out there somewhere, Badger Lord. I am Ungat Trun, the Earth Shaker, who makes the stars fall from the sky. This mountain is mine, by right of conquest. Here I stay. Come to me. He pointed out of the window at the cliffs with his trident. Brock Tree stood on the cliff tops, the night breeze ruffling his fur, though his eyes never once blinked against the wind. He gazed at the dark shape to the south, the mountain looming high on the western shore edge. Drawing his sword, he pointed it at Salamandastron, starlight shimmering along the burnished blade's length. I know your face, Wildcat. Soon you will see mine. I am coming. You lay lee ah! 32. Morning sun shone down on a strange scene. Dervy and his crew also witnessed it, and they turned from the water's edge and hastened back to camp. Leaders of all the tribes and crews were taking breakfast inside the cave with Brocktree, about to begin a council of war, when Dervy and Conal dashed in, breathless and excited. Come and see! All the blue bottoms are parading out along the shore! The Badger Lord put aside his food. Where? I'd say about a third the distance twixt the air and the mountain. Tis a sight to see, eh, Conal? The cheeky-faced otter maid was grim and shaken. Aye, you can't see the sands of the beach for em. Rulango the heron stalked into the cave. Logalog Gren took a backward pace at the sight of the fearsome bird. Where did that monster come from? Brog went to Rulango and stroked his neck. I forgot to tell ye about this un. He's Rulango, the eyes and ears of the bark crew. Where'd you get to yesterday, mate? He cleared a patch in the sand, and Rulango sketched out several fishes. Brog nodded. Fishing, eh? Well, you've got to eat just like any beast. No need to tell us what's down on the shore. We know. But the heron kept dabbing his talons down on the sand until it was covered in tiny dots. See all these dots? Each one's a blue bottom, Brog explained. Rulango scraped out a row of scratches. He says that for every scratch, there's that many again. Too many for him to sketch. Brocktree shouldered his sword. Come on, I've got to see this. Bring your weapons. Brocktree took with him a selected small band, Dotty and the twins among them. Using the dunes as cover and keeping low, they threaded their way south between the sand hills at the base of the cliffs. When Derby judged they had gone far enough, he led them west toward the shore. Dotty wriggled her way forward, joining Brocktree and Ruff in the long grass on top of a high dune. Oh, my giddy aunt! Look at that lot! Rank upon rank of blue horde beasts lined the beach, twenty wide and ten deep, almost as far as the eye could see. Each section comprised vermin carrying different weapons. One group had pikes, another javelins, yet another was made up of archers. 
There were slingers, sword beasts, and club wielders, each headed by a captain. Ruff started a hasty calculation in the sand, but he soon gave up. "'Tis no use, matey. They'd eat our little army alive." Bucko and Pleatscott crawled up beside them and lay gaping. "'By the left, sir! I didn't imagine there were that many blinkin' vermin on earth!' "'Ach, t'would be plain suicide going up against yon vermin!' However, the Badger Lord took no notice of their comments. His eyes roved slowly over the scene below. I don't see their leader. Ungat Trun isn't there. Dottie pointed out a figure standing at the head of a group of officers below the tide line. I say, sir, what about that chap? He looks like a sort of commanding type, what? The Badger Lord studied the one Dottie had singled out. He's no wildcat. Looks like a fox to me. Any beast know who he is? Derby shaded his eyes against the sun. That's Karangul, captain-in-chief of Trun's fleet. Bucko was halfway up, his eyes blazing madly. Aye, so tis. Bide ye here. I'm bound to kill the scum that slaughtered my family. Rocktree and Ruff bore the mountain hare down forcibly, though he struggled like a wild beast. Take your paws off of me. I have business with yon fox. Brocktree leaned heavily on Bucko, pinning him firmly. Your business is our business too, friend. I'm not getting this party slain or captured because of you. Now do you want me to sit on you? I'm quite heavy, you know. Bucko spat out sand but did not attempt to move. Ach, you can let me go, Brock. I'll deal with yon scum another time. I was behaving like a fool. They released him and continued watching the vermin. What are you thinking, sir? Dottie murmured to Brock. The Badger Lord never took his eyes off the horde beast. Right at this moment I'm thinking lots of things, miss. My first thought is that Brog and the Bark crew have been doing an excellent job. Ha! That's what I was waiting for. Did you see that rat? Front rank, third column, there. I see him. He's just fallen over. Tripped on his spear, do you think, sir? No, Dottie. He's fainted with hunger. The captains seem well enough, but take a good look at the rank-and-file vermin. Ruff, what do you see? Looks like they're having a pretty thin time of things. I'd say they was starving, the whole gang of them. Rocktree glanced back at the clifftops. Right, but more of that later. I think we'd best make ourselves scarce. I can see your bird hovering up yonder, Brog. He'll be flying over here to tell you that there's more vermin leaving the mountain to come along the clifftops. The wildcat is a clever general. He wouldn't miss the chance of hitting us from behind while we're busy watching his troops. Let's get out of here quickly and quietly. As they slid down the rear of the dune, Brog gave orders. Every beast keep low. Back to the caves now, quickly. Dervy? Take Ervo, Rad, and Conal and cover our trail. Ungat Trun sat in council with Korangul and Vergoral. Ripfang was present, too. They waited respectfully until the Wildcat spoke. Do you think they saw the parade? Korangul shrugged. Mightness? Who can tell? I did not see them. Trun nodded at Fregoral to make a report. They could not have been there, O oh Great One. I led the ambush party along the clifftops. 
We searched the dunes, and there was no sign of them, not even paw prints, sire. Rip Fang put in his opinion. I did like you said, mightiness. Took a ship along the coast. There was no sign of him watching from the sea. The wildcat paced the chamber, shaking his head. But I know they were there, spying on my hordes. The badger is no fool. He would have taken the opportunity to assess our strength. I know it. Rip Fang gave voice to what the others were thinking. That oared on the beach today, it could have swept up both sides of the cliffs and scoured your enemies out. Ungatron sat down, looking thoughtful. Yes, I could have done that, but it would leave the mountain undefended. Any good commander knows that this mountain is the prize. The beast who holds it fights from a position of strength. I want them to come to me. Mightness, what if they don't? Trun's claws drummed a tattoo on the tabletop. Then I will have to do as Rip Bang says. Send the hordes to root them out. Hey, Rip Bang? The other two were surprised that Trun should ask the former Sea Rat's opinion. So was Rip Bang, but he answered readily enough. Aye, you're right there, sir. But I wouldn't leave it too long if and I was you. Every day your beasts are getting more hungry. You can't afford a long, drawn-out wait. Ungat Trun turned his eyes to his source of inspiration. Spiders are like that, too. They will wait, but not for long. The moment the time is ripe, they pounce. Back at the store cave, Juka gave out the last bundle of weapons to be distributed around. There, tis empty now. This will be thy home for a while. Frutch held her lantern up to get a better view. I like the other cave better. This is a bit pokey. Blench tightened her apron strings resolutely. Don't fret, dearie. We'll soon make this comfortable. I'll get some moles to scoop out the back there where the rocks are loose. We'll put the ovens again that wall. Woby, what do you think about that ledge yonder? Spread with moss and sailcloth. We'll make fine seats and beds. I'm glad we used up the last of the shrimp. Mayhap we can get some decent meals cooked. Shall I ask the shrew cooks to lend a paw with the dinner frutch? I'd be beholden to them if they did. Such good cooks. Lord Brocktree was addressing a meeting in the big valley between the dunes outside the old cave. Every beast fit to march or fight was in attendance. They sat on the dune sides and hilltops, listening to what their leader had to say. We saw many vermin on the shore this morning, more than a beast could shake ten sticks at. It was meant to be Ungatron's show of force, though the vermin looked so thin and starved that it was more a show of weakness. But still, they are far too numerous for us to meet in open warfare. Now, I have some ideas of my own, but I am open to good and sensible suggestions as to how they can be defeated. Brog immediately held up his paw. I says we carry on cutting off their supplies. The bark crew was doing a first-class job. You said it yourself. Ruff answered for the Badger Lord. Aye, mate. But if we carries on cutting off their vittles, Tron'll get desperate sooner or later, and they'll come out in force after us. With the numbers they got, we'll lose. There was a murmur of agreement. Brocktree held up his paws. Good. That's what I was hoping you'd say. That's what I was thinking myself. But I have a plan. 
Brr. Then do he tell us he plans, er, usin's getting awful ungered settin' out yer. End of side seven. To continue, turn the cassette over. Side eight, Lord Brocktree, by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page three twelve. General laughter greeted Girth's good mole logic. Gren had food brought out by the Guasim, Drucko's rabble hogs lending a paw. It was late afternoon by the time Brocktree finished outlining his plan, which was wholeheartedly approved. Bucko winked admiringly at the badger. I can knew why badger lairds are braw canny beasts. Brocktree's fierce dark eyes looked appraisingly around. Every beast here has their own special part to play. I know tis a perilous and risky scheme, but I think it'll work. So, are you with me? Hold up your paws, all in favor. Not one creature held back. Every paw went up. Skittles held up all four paws, lying flat on his back. Us with you, buck, mate. The difficult part was explaining to Frutch and the very old ones, who would be remaining behind, hidden in the supply cave. Brogalaw tried to placate his weeping mother. Hush now, Mom. We'll take that old mountain quicker and you can say, Naomi Rudder. You can have a nice little room there, all of your own, and a rock garden, too. You always wanted a rock garden, didn't you, me old darling? But Frutch was not to be consoled. Go and do what you gotta do, Brogalaw, but come back alive to me, you great tail-whacking lump. Never mind trying to get round me with mountain caves and rock gardens. When this is all over, I don't want none of it. Tell you what I would like, though, to go back down south coast to our old home. Oh, I do miss it. Blanche loaned Frutch a corner of her apron to weep into. The old cook patted Brog's paw. We'll take good care of your mum, Brog. You get going now. Get our mountain back for us. Fates and seasons of fortune go with you. Oh, and keep an eye out for that niece of mine. Dorothy is a brave hare, but young and headstrong. Brog gave the old cook a hug. Bless your heart, marm. I'll do me best for us all. You got my word. Stay safe now and don't wait too much. It makes the bread soggy. On the way out of the cave, Brog stopped to stroke the heron's long neck and speak softly to the bird. You stay here now, my old matey. Take good care of these old uns, and don't stay out fishing too long. I'll see you when tis all done, I hope. Rilango laid his beak on Brog's shoulder and blinked, and the sea otter skipper patted him roughly. Come on now, yo rogue. Don't start getting soft on me. Brogalaw did quite a bit of blinking himself. Then he straightened up, sniffed loudly, and left the cave. A great pile of wood, sea coal, and grass had been heaped not far from the front of the old cave. Every beast was gathered there when Brog arrived. Already, Brock, I've just been making me farewells to Mum and the oldens. Dottie clapped a paw to her mouth. Aunt Blanche, I forgot to say goodbye to her. Brog shouldered his javelin. I already did that, Missy. She said that you got to take good care of me. Little Skittles was sleepin' and Merkel Ward is stayin' back to keep an eye on things. There ain't a thing to keep us now, so let's be about our work.
Lord Brocktree turned to Juca the sling. No beast would have recognized her from the disguise she wore. The squirrel chieftain had been dyed blue. Her tail was shaven, and she wore a horde beast's uniform. Brocktree nodded approvingly. You look like a true vermin, friend. Now, you know what you have to do. Aye, Lord. As soon as the blue bottoms leave the mountain, I will shoot a burning shaft from one of the high windows. Brocktree clasped Juca's paw. Good luck. Huh, and try not to plunder anything until we get there. Juca eyed Fleetscut coldly. When tis all over, thou and I will have a reckoning. Then she turned and hurried off toward Salamandastron. Ruff shook his head in disapproval at Fleetscut. It's not good to go into battle with bad blood twixt you two. Right. Who's next to go, mates? Dervy and Conal stepped forward with their crew. Strapped to each one's back was a torch, wrapped tightly to protect it from the seawater. Brog issued final instructions. Don't start anything until you see this fire in front of the cave lit and blazing well. Fortune go with you, mates. The sea otters slipped silently off seaward. Brocktree looked around at those left and took Ruff's paw. Your turn now, friend. You and Brog look after yourselves. And you do likewise, Lord Brocktree of Brockall. Dotty and Logalog Gren stood watching as Brog and Ruff led the squirrels and rabble hogs off into the gathering evening. They climbed the cliffs and began a long sweep south. Ah, well, chaps, that leaves only us now, what? Dotty observed. Bucko Big Bones exposed his teeth in a wide grin. Aye, lassie, so wit in the name of seasons are we hanging a boot for. Let's be away, ma bairns. Brocktree's hefty paw descended on Bucko's shoulder. You stay close to me, sir, and none of your mad March mountain hare antics out of you, understand? Bucko checked the six long daggers he had thrust in his belt. Ach, I'll be as quiet as a wee mole, babe. Eh, Girth? I'm open he wills, sir. I were a good infant myself. Stiffener led the little army off through the dunes. We'll get up as close to the tunnel afore dark as we can. Dotty fell in between Southpaw and Bob Weave, who were simultaneously loading their slings. Splendid evening for a jolly old war, eh, Miss Dotty? Rather, I say, do you want me to load your sling, Miss Dotty? Tut, tut, old chap, I'm the sling loader around here, you know. The hairmaid rescued her sling from the irrepressible twins. Oh, give it a rest, you two. I'm perfectly capable of loading me own bloomin' sling. Besides, mother always told me to beware of sling loading types. Wise old mater, what? Pretty, too, if she looks anything like her daughter. At a gruff cough from the badger lord, they fell silent. Darkening clouds merged with dusky sky overhead, and the last crimson sun rays shimmered over the horizon, flaring briefly across the waves. A warm, vagrant breeze stirred grass on the dune tops. Night fell, with moon shadows transforming the landscape into a patchwork of silver sand and velvet shadow. Dotty could scarce suppress a shudder of excitement and apprehension. The battle to win back Salamandastron had finally begun. 33. Ungat Trun paced the mountain passages like a caged beast, agitated and impatient. Everywhere he went, guards stood stiffly to attention in the torch-lit corridors, 
holding their breath as he prowled by, his long cloak swishing. From the top level of the inner mountain he went, through every floor to the bottom. Only the sound of restless waves greeted the wild cat as he emerged, past the sentries, out onto the shore. Two sea rats rowed a small gig into the shallows. Leaping out, they dragged it ashore. Captain-in-Chief Corangul stepped onto the beach. Mightness is quiet this night. Ungat Trun stroked his whiskers slowly. Too quiet altogether. I don't like it, Captain. Tis as if something is waiting to happen. Can you feel it, too? Yeah, Mightness. Together they strolled back to the main mountain entrance. Patrols had been doubled around the perimeter, and six guards, with Rip Fang at their head, marched around from the north side. They halted, saluting Trun with their spears. He nodded to Rip Fang. Anything to report, Captain? Nary a thing, sir. Tis like walking round a burying ground out there, but we're keeping a sharp lookout. Fergoral interrupted further conversation. She'd hurried out of the main entrance, her dark cloak flapping like a bird of ill omen. She pointed. Mighty one, over there, by the cliffside, northward. I saw it from my window. A fire. With Fregoral, Ripfang, and Karangul scurrying in his wake, Trun raced inside, taking stair flights in leaps and bounds. He was breathing heavily by the time he reached the highest level. Vaulting through a frameless window space, the wildcat made his way to the high guard post. A ferret stood pointing his spear to the fire. There, sire! Even from that distance the blaze was visible, lighting up the cliffside with an orange glow. The others arrived behind a trun. He heard Rip Fang chuckle and whirled on him. Something appears to be amusing you, sea rat. Rip Fang indicated the distant bonfire. You got to admit it, ain't short of nerve. Ha! Supposed to be hiding out from you, sir. And there they be, burning a whopper campfire. Aye, and I'll wager they're cooking, too. Stuffing their gobs with food they stole off us. Ho, ho, if and that ain't a sight to see. Karangul watched the wildcat's paws shaking with anger. Mightness, it could be trapped. Ungatrun grabbed him so hard that his claws sank into the fox's paw. The captain-in-chief winced as the wildcat sneered scathingly. Do you think I don't know that, imbecile? The insolence of those creatures, taunting Ungatrun like that. Ripfang cleaned his single tooth with a grimy paw. Aye, that's what tis, a taunt. Plain open defiance, like my old cap'n used to say. But what are you going to do about it? That's the question, sir. Karangul, take half of the entire hordes. Split them in three columns. One either side, cliff tops and dunes, the third to go flat out along the shore and circle round behind them. I want the leaders alive. The rest must be slaughtered. Bring their bodies back with you. Shouting broke out from a sentry post facing the sea. Fire! Fire aboard the ships! Out at the western edge of the vast armada, flames could be seen licking around sails and rigging. Ungat Trun looked from one conflagration to the other. It wasn't a trap. It was a decoy to divert our attention. Well, I'm going to turn it into a trap. Karangul, take some crews out there. Cut the burning vessels away from the others. Save the fleet. For Goral, Ripfang, 
You will take command of those attacking the decoy fire by the cliffs. You heard my orders to Karangul. Go and carry them out. Ungatrun went inside and beckoned the first creature he came across, a guard in the upper passages. You, gather together my captains. Bring them to my chamber. In an instant, the quiet of the summer night was shattered. Horde captains dashed about, bellowing orders, the entire mountain bursting into a hive of activity. Ungatrun met the group of captains in the doorway of his chamber. He marched them out into the corridor and issued hasty instructions. I am taking over the defense of my mountain against any outside attack. Listen to me. Bar all entrances. That includes the window spaces and any paths going up the mountain. You six, take your patrols, bring in all outside sentries, repel any assaults from ground level. You four, spread your creatures about in the passages. Watch out for enemy beasts trying to break in. I'll take the top levels. Send me up a hundred or more troops. Rulango returned to the new cave, minus the lighted torch he had been carrying in his beak. Crutch made sure the entrance was well camouflaged before she accompanied the big hare and back inside. Did the fire light well when you dropped the torch on it? Rulango ruffled his feathers, spread both wings, and did an odd hopping dance, nodding his beak. The otter mom smiled. You're a good bird. See, I baked some slices for you. Slicer for skickles, too, eh, Futch? Bless your little art. Of course there is, my lovey. Stiffener winked at Brocktree. Nicely timed, sire. We won't even wet our paws. The tide's slipped out nice and quiet. Get the lanterns ready and follow me. Best be quiet, though. It echoes loud in there. Dottie and the twins rounded the rock point to see Stiffener holding back a jumble of kelp and seaweed with his javelin. Come on, you young rips, in you go. We ain't got all night. They entered the tunnel by which Stiffener and the prisoners had escaped. Southpaw lit their lantern from Girth's torch. I'll be official lantern bearer for you, Miss Dotting. What? To forestall further argument, the hair maid agreed. Right, you do that, Southpaw. Bob Weave here, you can be the official sling holder. I say, it's jolly damp and gloomy in here. Spooky, too. Eek! What's that? Brocktree pushed in ahead of them, covering Dotty's mouth with a huge paw as he investigated the grisly object. Still partially clad in tattered rags of a uniform, the skeleton of Captain Frawl gleamed white in the lantern light. The eye sockets of the skull remained fixed in a ghastly mask of death. Tiny spike-backed crabs scuttled hither and thither over the vermin's bare bones, seeking any semblance of a gruesome meal. The badger lord shifted the skeleton to one side with a sweep of his footpaw, and little crabs scuttled everywhere, holding their nippers aggressively high. Brocktree took his paw from Dottie's mouth. Nothing to be feared of, miss. Looks like the skeleton of a stoat, if I'm not mistaken. Wonder how he got down here. Stiffener viewed the remains dispassionately. Who knows? One vermin less to deal with, I say. Is those crabs we got to worry about, Lord. There's lots and lots of the confounded beasts down here. Pretty big ones, too. Bucko saw the long, stalked eyes watching them from every crack and crevice. He thrust a torch at them and made them scuttle from its flame. Ach, they'll be no bother to us. We got fire, lots of it. I think, Frey, wit you were telling us, Stiff. Tis only the high tide a-rushin' up here wit disturbs them. 
The mountain hare was right. In the absence of waves crashing into the tunnel, the crabs kept to the wall sides. There was room enough for every beast to proceed in single file. It was a long, hard trek, though. Sometimes they had to bend almost double in the confined rock tunnel. Rocktree had to wriggle along, flat on his stomach. Though they had only been going a few hours, it felt like days. Fleetscott patted his stomach. I say, you chaps, I was about stopping for a morsel of jolly old supper. I'm fair famished, what? You stay famished and let young Dottie stay fair, Stiffener called back. We'll be in the cave soon enough. Then you can eat supper. After an interminable age of groping along through the damp, rocky spaces, the boxing hare halted. Sailors, Troby, bring those ropes here, will you? Brocktree peered through the hole at the eerie, blue-lit cavern beneath, with its stalactites, stalagmites, bottomless pool, and echoing water drips. Dottie pushed through. She measured the hole's diameter with both paws, then tried to gauge the badger lord's burly width. Hmm, afraid you won't fit through that hole, sir. Brocktree unshouldered his sword. Seems you're right, miss. Stand clear, please. He brought the sword point down hard a few times around the hole's edge, knocking out large cobs of the veined limestone. They crashed down into the cave, some into the pool. Blue, wavery reflections of moving water gave the badger's face a spectral, fearsome appearance. Hope no beast heard those stones falling. There, I'll fit through the hole smoothly enough, eh, hey, Gert? You mavy Gert way of solving problems, sir. They did not have to climb down the ropes. Lord Brocktree stayed on top and lowered them, four at a time, two to each rope. When they were all down, he lowered himself gingerly, using both ropes. There now, that wasn't too bad. Let's rest a while and eat. Gren's Gwasim cooks had brought along some supplies, which they ate sitting around the pool. Brocktree hardly touched his food, but sat staring intently into the green-blue translucent depths. Gren swigged from a flask of dark, dancing wine, watching the badger. So what are you thinking of, sire? Brocktree continued scanning the water. My father's stone paw died in this cave, a hero's death, to enable his followers to escape. Gren nodded sympathetically. She uncorked another flask of the wine and tossed it into the center of the pool. Being filled to the top, it sank into the depths, sending up a tracery of dark, purplish wine, like smoke from an oily fire on a windless day. There. That'll let your old dad know you've come to the mountain to take vengeance for him. They all watched the bottle until it was lost to sight in the fathomless depths, leaving only a long, solitary spiral of dark, dancing wine. Brocktree stood up, dry-eyed. Thank you for that, Logalog Gren. Stefaner, will you lead off? I'm completely lost down here. The boxing hare scratched his ears. I ain't too familiar with Salamandastron cellars either, sire. We only stumbled on this place by accident when we were running for our lives. The ever-optimistic Dottie volunteered a suggestion. I don't suppose it'll be that difficult to find our way out of here, what? And I'll bet once Juca has fired off her signal arrow, she'll come looking for us. She should have a pretty fair idea of the place, having to find her way in and what not. Bucko picked up his torch and joined Stiffener. Good thinking, lassie. 
I don't fancy hanging about this place. It makes my back prackle. Let's be away. Juca's heart had been pounding as she approached the main gates. Standing almost barring the way was a group of vermin who looked different from the usual hordes and the wildcat who was obviously Ungatrun. Keeping her eyes straight ahead, the squirrel, hoping fervently that her disguise would not be noticed, strode boldly forward. She passed them as if she were carrying on with some chore or other which was keeping her busy, and breathed a sigh of relief as she made the main entrance. Next moment she was almost bowled over by a hooded and cloaked ferret who dashed out and accosted Trun and the others. "'Mighty one, over there, by the cliffside, northward. I saw it from my window. A fire!' Juca pulled to one side as the wildcat came bounding past, with the rest trying to keep up with him. No beast would dare challenge me in such company, thought Juca. She tagged on and joined the rear of the party. When Ungatrun reached the high-level guard post, Juca followed. However, she stayed almost hidden against the mountainside, keeping in the background as much as possible. Juca saw the flames from both fires and watched Trun giving out his commands to Ripfang, Fregoral, and the tall, saturnine fox called Karangul. When the vermin had departed hurriedly, Juca ventured out. There were three lookout guards still at the post, a ferret and two rats. The ferret was obviously the most senior of the three. He eyed Juca suspiciously, pointing at her with his spear. Oi, what are you doing round here? The squirrel knew her disguise had him fooled. She decided to brazen it out and spat on the ground in true vermin fashion. Ain't doing anything. What are you doing? The ferret was taken aback at her insolence. What am I doing? I'm the night watch in charge of this here lookout post, appointed by Captain Drool. Juca made as if to stroll away, but one of the rats barred her way with his spear haft. I ain't seen you afore. Juca sneered back at him. And I ain't seen you, or I'd remember your ugly face. Now get that spear out of me way. The rat's courage failed him when he saw the dangerous gleam in Juca's eyes, and he allowed her to knock his spear aside. Accompanied by the other rat, the ferrets stepped in. They menaced Juca with their spear points. Slightly unsure of himself, the ferret adopted an officious tone. You've got no business being up here. Who sent you? Ungat Trun did, and stand to attention when you speaks to me. The Mighty One was right. Things are getting far too sloppy round these eye lookout posts. Shooting the two rats a warning glance, the ferret came to attention, the rats speedily following his example. Juga was beginning to enjoy herself. She circled the trio, inspecting them critically, while she pounded her brain in an effort to think how she could rid herself of them. Juca needed to be at the high guard post to fire off her signal arrow. She saw the ferret's throat bob nervously. She nodded understandingly and flashed him a brief smile. I'm only doing me job, same as you, mate. Let's take a look at your spear a moment. Trun's orders, you know. At ease. The trio stood easy, the ferret passing over his spear for inspection. Juca studied it closely. Hmm... Pole's a bit splintery. Could do with a polish, too. When was the last time you sharpened the blade? Some of the starch had gone out of the ferret. Three days back, I think, or maybe four, he muttered. Juca pursed her lips critically and shook her head at him. 
This spirit ain't been sharpened in a season. Do you know it's come loose? Could do with a new nail. Look. She waggled the spear haft, holding tight to the head. A rusty nail was all that held them together, and it soon snapped, leaving Jukub holding the haft in one palm and the head in her other. She raised her eyebrows knowingly. See what I mean, matey? Ah, but don't fret. I won't report you. You know, sometimes a spear pole with no blade can be a useful weapon. I'll show you. You two rats, put down those spears and stand either side of your officer here. The sentries decided that this strange-looking inspector was not such a bad type. They obeyed, letting Juka shove them about until she had them in the required position, outside the guard post, with their backs to the edge of the mountainside. There was a dizzying drop behind them. Juka threw away the spearhead and held the pole sideways. When I did me spear training, my old captain showed me this trick with a spear pole. Watch and pay attention now, mates. The pole moved in a blur. Whack! Thwack! Whack! Three stunning blows, one to the side of each rat's head and the last to the ferret, the pole butt hitting between the eyes. Without a sound, the three guards fell backward over the edge. It was a long way down. Juka checked that the little fire was lit in the guard post and laid out bow and quiver, selecting the shaft with the oil-soaked rags bound to its point. Sounds drifted up from below. She peered down. Vermin came flooding out of the main gates and from the shores round about. They marched off at double speed in three groups, with Fregoral, Ripbang, and Dumai at the head of the columns. Karangul exited next, followed by every ship's crew that was on shore leave, dashing toward the fleet. Then Juka saw the mountain perimeter guards hasten inside. She heard the main entrance doors slam shut and captains yelling for the windows to be barred. At last all became quiet, and the shores in front of the mountain lay deserted. Touching the arrowhead to the fire, she waited a moment until it was blazing well. Then, fitting the shaft to her bowstring, Juka turned south and fired off over the mountaintop. Waiting on the tide line, not too far south of Salamandistron, Brog and Ruff stood at the head of their small army. The sea otter Skipper was first to see the signal arrow, arcing through the night sky like a tiny comet. He pounded Ruff's back. There she goes, mate! Right on time! Ruff's answer was to throw back his head and howl. Eulalia! They thundered along the shoreline, paws pounding the damp sand, weapons waving, a wild, fearless band, giving out the challenge to any beast daring to oppose them. Blood and vinegar! Eulalia! It was only a short distance. Inside the mountain, a weasel horde beast heard the war cries. Moving aside a slat of driftwood from a ground-level window space, he peered out and was immediately cut down by a slingstone. The rat Captain Drull leapt aside as a javelin clattered through. Grabbing the driftwood, he closed the space, shoring it up with a slain weasel and shouting, Stand to! We're under attack! Get to the arrow slits! A bewildered stoat confronted Drull. But, Cap'n, we blocked up the arrow slits. You told us to. Drull booted him to one side and drew his sword. No, I never. Get to the main gate and stand fast. That's where they'll try to break through. Shift yourself! 
Juca climbed back inside the mountain and began making her way down to the cellars. She was still on the highest level, racing along a passageway, when she ran slap-bang into Ungat Trun. They fell headlong, both tripped by the wildcat's trident haft, down a short flight of stairs. Juca landed on top, extricating herself from Trun's cloak folds and mumbling hasty apologies. Momentarily forgetting herself, Juca fell into her natural speech. I beg thy pardon, sire. Art thou injured, pray? Ungat Trun scrambled to get upright, locking eyes with her. You're no horde beast, I can tell. Come here. Juca did the only thing she could do in the circumstances. She leapt over the wildcat and ran for it. Trun was speedily up and after her, calling for assistance. Guards! Stop that creature! She's a spy! Stop her! Juca took a sharp left along a corridor which branched off two ways and jammed herself into a darkened niche as Captain Drull and a mob of guards raced by. Drull came to a forced halt as he turned the corner, and the wildcat grabbed him. Where's this spy? Did you see which way that spy went? Ignoring the question, Drull babbled into Trun's face. Attack, sire! We're being attacked! They're all over the shore outside! They're attacking us! Ungat Trun shook the unfortunate rat mercilessly. I'll go and see to the attack. You take these with you and find that spy. There must be others inside my mountain. Don't stand there dithering. Catch the spy! Juca saw the wildcat race down the opposite arm of the corridor and waited until he was out of sight before she emerged. Drull came skidding around the corner at the head of a large mob of vermin, almost face to face with her. That's the spy! Hey, you! Halt! Stop, I say! But Juca was not about to stop or halt. She went off down the passage with the vermin pack hard on her heels. 34. Dottie blinked. Lights shimmered in her vision each time she closed her eyes and she stumbled against Southpaw. He gallantly held her upright. Steady on, Miss Dottie. Here, take my paw. The hairmaid was glad of his assistance. We've been blundering round in the gloom down here for absolutely ages. Those lights are making my eyes go all funny. Do you suppose we're lost? Good grief. I jolly well hope not, eh, Bob? What? Lost? I don't know, but it looks like we could be, old chap. I think this is the second blinking time I've passed this rock. It's shaped like a salad bowl. I've come to know it rather well, what? Brocktree held up his torch, illuminating the rock in question. Is he right, Stiffener? Are we lost? The boxing hare's ears drooped in shame. I hates to say it, Lord, but I'm afeard we are. A groan rose from those who had been following him. Lost? You mean we've been traipsing round here for hours and hours only to get lost? Hmm, bit of a blinking frost if you ask me, old lad. You're, sir, stiff done a good job, I reckon. Usin's nearly there, hurrah. The badger lord sounded hopeful. What makes you think so, Girth? The good mole wet his digging claws by licking them and held them up as high as he could. Cause, oi, bees feel any fresh her from above, sir. Tis the thing us moles do be a-knowin' about. Bucko, who hated the dark, congratulated Girth. Ach, gid fer ye. My bra, laddie, lead on. Fleetscott chortled aloud. Well, twoggle my paws, the old salad bowl. 
I remember that when I used to pinch puddings and come down here to eat them when I was only a young'un. Sailors chuckled dryly. And that must have been only last season. I recall Cook Blench complaining about a lot of missing vittles. You lanky shanked puddin' purloiner. But Fleet Scott was not listening. He was away, helter-skelter, down the rock tunnels, his cries echoing into the distance. Ha ha! Salad bowl, of course! Can't fool old Fleety. I know me flippin' way out. Of course I jolly well do. Dottie started to run after him, but Gert stopped her. He won't get Zer Fleet, missy. You follow Gert. Oil get us and safe out, trust oi. Brocktree smiled at the stolid, reliable mole. Friend Gert, I'd sooner trust you than a cartload of Fleet's cuts. We'll follow faithfully wherever you lead. Fleet's cut halted for an instant to regain his breath, not too sure if he was on the right path. I say, you lot, where are they gone? Oh, never mind. Now, was it this way or that? Oh, corks, I'm starving. Hope those blue bottoms have left a morsel in the larder for supper, or maybe tea. Huh. It could be blinkin' brekkie time for all a chap had know down this confounded hole. Hello, is that them coming from the other way? That must have been travelin' in circles, what? The sounds Fleet's Cut was hearing drew nearer, but they did not resemble any noises his friends would make. Come on, we've nearly got the spy. Catch the spy! Stop that spy! It was one long passage, with no exits left or right. Fleetscut looked rather nonplussed as Juca came padding up out of the gloom and held up his torch. Oh, it's only you. Stolen any good weapons lately, what? Juca collapsed beside him, words pouring out of her. Right behind me, a load of vermin, coming fast. Where are thy friends? Are they not with thee? No, they're back a ways. Should imagine they'll be along in a while. He caught sight of the yelling mob of vermin racing up the tunnel. Great seasons! There'll be murder if they clash with our lot. We weren't expecting anything like this. Juca grabbed him savagely. No time for explanations now, Long Ears. Hast thou weapons? We must hold them here, thee and me. The enormity of it dawned upon Fleetscut. He snapped his javelin in half and brandished the torch. We'll have to stop him. Here, take this. You lay Holding a half of the double-pointed javelin apiece, they charged forward. Both creatures threw themselves at the vermin mob in the narrowest part of the tunnel. The move took the horde beasts completely by surprise. Battering away with the lighted torch and thrusting with his piece of javelin, Fleet's Cut battled side by side with Juca. They gave no quarter and stood their ground, fighting like a pair of mad beasts, yelling when their javelins found marks and gasping with pain when vermin blades found theirs. Further down the tunnel, sailors held up a paw for silence. What was that, sir? Did you hear it? Rocktree was already rushing by her, his blade drawn. Battle ahead! You lay they thundered along the tunnel and hit the vermin like a tidal wave. The awesome brock tree went straight through the horde beasts, his sword scything a harvest of death. Dottie had hardly a chance to whirl her sling. Bucko shoved her to one side as he went in like a battering ram. Hoot my way, lassie! Yurraha! I'm the mad march hare fray the mountains. Tack your last look at me, ye vermin! 
Skulls cracked against rock as Stiffener Medic and his two grandsons went in weaponless, punching and kicking. Dottie staggered upright, ducking again as a rat went sailing over her head. Girth placed her politely out of his way. Stanny aside, miss, lest he get you dress must. Sailors hugged Dottie to her. Don't look. We should never have brought a maid to this place. Turn your face away, Dottie. It will soon be done. It was done in a frighteningly short time. No vermin was allowed to escape and raise the alarm. Treading carefully, sailors led Dottie forward clear of the carnage. On the other side of the battleground, Bucko was waiting for them. He stood up from the two forms he had been crouching over, Juca and Fleetscott. The mountain hare wedged a torch into the rocks above them. As she knelt by their side, Dottie could see that Juca was already dead. Fleetscott had tight hold of the squirrel's paw. His eyes flickered briefly. He was whispering something, and Dottie had to put her face close to his before she realized that the old hare was talking to Juca. Held a tunnel. They never passed. Lots of weapons for you, my friend. Odd, though. Don't feel a bit hungry. Jolly cold, what? Fleetscott smiled at Dottie. His eyelids flickered one last time, and then they closed forever. The hairmaid looked at sailors through a shimmering haze of tears. They died as friends. Who'd have thought it? The older hare helped her upright. Juca and Fleetscott were the bravest of the brave. Come now, young'un. Let them share the long sleep together. Ungat Trun felt the cold paw of fear traversing his spine. With no more than a hundred vermin at his command, he stood facing the barred main entrance. Rocks and boulders thudded noisily against the fortified oaken doors. Without his vast hordes, the wildcat was virtually a captive inside the mountain he had captured. There were roars of derision from outside. We're coming to get you, Tron. Is that the earth shaking, or is it your paws trembling? Bring up the battering ram. I'm tired of knocking on this door, mates. Let's knock it down. There was no aperture uncovered for the vermin to see what was going on or to retaliate from. Horde beasts stood grouped in the entrance hall, staring in horrified fascination at the reverberating doors. Stoat Captain Bile looked beseechingly to Ungat Trun. They're bringing a battering ram. Did you hear him, sire? Where's Drawl and the others got to? We'll be slain. A blow from the wildcat's trident shaft knocked Bile flat. Trun aimed a kick at the cringing captain. Get up, you whimpering worm. Find Captain Drawl and his sentries. Bring them here immediately. Bile scurried off to do his master's bidding. Brog looked quizzically at Ruff as they both flung rocks at the doors. We never brought no battering ram with us, mate. Ruff hurled a lump of limestone. It made a satisfying thud. Har! But Tron don't know that, do he? We'll need those doors in one piece once we're inside. Remember, Brog, our job's to provide a diversion. Make as much ullabaloo as possible till Brock and our pals can find their way to the doors and ambush Trun from the rear, inside. Look out! Ruff pulled Brog to one side as a gang of rabble hogs loosed their slings. Pebbles rattled against Oak like a spring hailstorm. Baron Drucko yelled encouragement. 
Now give them a few yells, my hogs. Tell those vermins what we're going to do to them. Yeah, you blue-bottomed whifflers, we'll spike you. You can't get away from the rabbelogs. We've thrown an accordion round your mountain, so there. Brog and Ruff joined in with gusto. Chop your heads off and chuck them in your faces, we will. Set lights to your tails and use them for candles, too. Aye, we'll make the stars fall on you all right. The moon, too. On the other side of the door, Ungat Trun paced nervously about, waiting for Bile to return with the reinforcements he had sent in to get. Stand your ground. The wildcat rapped sternly at his quivering vermin. The doors will hold. This trident will take the eyes out of any beast who moves without my permission. Trun spied Bile. The stoat captain was dithering around at the hall entrance as if unsure of which way to go next. Dashing down the hall, the wildcat cornered him. Where's Drawl and the guard patrols? I ordered you to bring them to me. Well, where are they? Forgetting all titles and protocols, Bile blurted out, How should I know? There's a badger with a sword twice the size of me. There's an army with him, and they're coming this way fast. Trun's trident prongs prodded the stoat's neck. Keep your voice down. You and I are leaving here. He shouted to the horde beasts guarding the doors. Hold your positions. Stay there. Captain Bile has found Captain Drull and the guard patrols. We're going to fetch them. I order you to hold the doors. We'll be back soon. But, sire, Bile protested, we don't know. He froze in the silence as the trident pricked his throat. One more word, and I'll leave you behind with him. Now follow me up to the second level. Brogalaw waved his paws furiously. Whoa, mates! Stop your rock-throwing and shouting, and listen! The decoy attackers left off their activities. They did not have to strain their ears to know what was going on on the other side of Salamandastron's main doors. Screams, roars, yells, and the thunder of Eulalia's told them that the plan had worked. Lord Brocktree and his force had made it, up from the cellars to the entrance. Slaughter was raging unchecked against the vermin that Ungat Trun had deserted. Ruff flung away a rock and grabbed his spear. To the gates, Maiartes! To the gates! Derby and his crew raced up from the shore, their coats dripping with seawater. Conal shook herself vigorously. Ain't you lot got inside yet, Brog? Chuckling, the sea otter skipper dodged a spray of water. Oh, don't fret yourself, Missy. We soon will be. The otter maid pointed seaward. Then you'd best be making it quick, mate. Karankul and his crews cut out the burning ships and sunk them. But they caught sight of us and their are on our rudders. See? Ten galleys were being rowed to land, crammed with horde crew vermin, led by Karangul. Brog issued hasty orders. Drucko, bang on them doors as if your life depended on it, cause it does. Form up in four lines, mates, backs to the doors, slings, arrows, and javelins. Stir your stumps. Sounds of battle, loud and wild, rang out from behind the doors. The ships plowed into the shallows, and armed vermin began leaping ashore in droves. Drucko battered the door, a rock in either paw, bellowing with all his might. Brock! Brock! Open up, mate! We're hard-pressed out here! Karangul stood on the prow of his vessel, urging the vermin on toward the mountain. Slay stream dogs! They fire their ships! Kill all beasts! 
Ungat Trun tore driftwood and sacking from a narrow window facing east on the second level. He peeped out and saw a small band of squirrels below. The wildcat nodded, smiling at Captain Bile. We're lucky, my friend. It's all clear. Out you go. Two arrows took the stoat before he cleared the window. Trun spoke up in a voice loud enough to be heard from below. "'Tis no use, mates. The phobies waiting below. Round to the south side. Quick! I know a good place there. He stood perfectly still and waited a short time. When he looked out again, the squirrels had run off to cover the south face. With all the litheness of a wildcat, Ungatron descended to the ground. Treading contemptuously on Bile's carcass, he set off north toward the cliffs. Once the vermin were above the tide line, Brog gave the first rank of archers their order. Now! Eight vermin fell, transfixed by flying arrows. The rest paused, but Karangul drove them onward from his ship's prow. Rush them! They be only few to us! They continued the charge. The archers dropped back to reload as Brog gave a command to the slingers who took their place. Shoot and fall back, mates! Now! Drucko foamed at the mouth as he pounded on the doors. Open up! A forward slaughter fight! Open up, Brock! Ruff took out a front runner with a well-aimed rock. Too late, mate. We'll just have to go down fighting. Brog judged the distance between himself and the charging vermin. It looked as if Ruff was right. The sea otter skipper brought forward his spears and javelins. Kneel here in line, mateys. Points to the fore. Archers, place yourselves between the spears. Right now. Another deadly hail of shafts buzzed through the night air. Vermin fell, but they kept coming, their own front ranks unshouldering bows and fitting shafts to strings. With a creak and a groan, the mighty doors swung inward. Baron Drucko fell face down, still pounding with his two rocks at the earth in the open gateway. Girth and bucko big bones poked their heads around the doors. Welcome to e mounting, sirs. Do you come in now? Ah, my bairns. You'll catch your death of errors standing ruined out there. They piled in regardless, ears over tails in a jumble, and the great doors slammed shut in the vermin horde's face. Lord Brocktree put aside his battle blade. The badger's eyes were red as flame on winter's eve. His huge chest rose and fell as he approached the otters, stumbling over the carcasses of vermin who would fight no more. He stood silent a while, striving to control a blood wrath which coursed like wild striving to fire through his veins control a blood wrath which coursed like wildfire through his veins. Brog and Ruff took a step backward from the fearsome sight. Rocktree shuddered violently, as if trying to rid himself of a phantom foe. Then he held both paws wide, bowed his head, and spoke in a normal tone This is my mountain. Welcome to Salamandistron. 35. Morning was well underway, warm and still under a powdery blue sky. Ungat Trun had traversed the cliff tops for most of the night, searching for the massive horde beasts he had sent to investigate the fire to the north. Only now had he found them. Telltale spirals of smoke marked their campfires in an area between the dunes and the cliffside. Still carrying his trident, the wildcat padded silently down to where Rip Fang, his brother Dumai, 
and some other former sea rats were cooking things in their shields over the flames. Catching sight of Trun, they started to stand to attention, but he waved them back down with a few flicks of his paw. Seating himself between Rip Fang and Dumai, he turned to the more intelligent of the two, showing neither anger nor anxiety. So, Rip Fang, I don't see captives nor the slain bodies of bark crew creatures, nor do I see as many horde beasts as left the mountain last night. What happened? Taking his time, cleaning a morsel of food from his single tooth with a knife point, Rip Fang coolly pushed across a shield containing a form of stew in its curved bowl. You must have been trapping half the night, boss. Here, have a bite of breakfast. The food did not look very appetizing, but it smelled good. Trun picked up a clean seashell, scooped some up and tasted it, nodding agreeably. Not bad at all. What is it? When we was chasing after Fregor, we found clumps of charlock growing everywhere, and stone crop too, sir, Dumai explained proudly. There was a little stream of sweet water with tutsin sprouting round it. Got some periwinkles and mussels off in the rocks below the tide line as well, so we cooked them all up together. Tasty, ain't it? Wish we had some pepperwort, though. I likes pepperwort. Ungat Trun cut him short, his voice calm and reasonable. Very resourceful of you. But Rip Fang, why were you chasing after my grand Fregorl? Well, it was like this, see, Captain. Fregorl was with the band who was supposed to head out along the shore and circle back behind the enemy. But sink me, if in that treacherous ferret didn't just carry straight on going. The wildcat was hungry. He scooped up more of the mess. You mean, she deserted? The very word, Captain, deserted. Aye, and she took a third of our fourth winter. Went like a flight of swallows flying south. But, of course, they headed north. We did like you said, closed in on that big bonfire, but there wasn't hide nor air of any beast there, just a fire. Knowing how you'd feel about old Fregorl taking off with your soldiers like that, we tried to track her down. But they was long gone. Trun tossed away the shell and wiped his mouth. I see. Thank you, my friends. You are both faithful and trustworthy servants. I'll reward you well when the time comes. But for now, we'd best get back to the mountain. The mountain, eh? There was a hint of irony in Rip Fang's tone. How are things going back there, Cap'n? Rip Fang gulped as the trident prongs went either side of his paw. Pressing down, the wildcat pinned the sea rat firmly to the sand. Rip Fang was immediately regretting the dangerous game of disrespect he had started. Ungatron's gold-ringed eyes blazed savagely. Let's go back and see, shall we? I trust you are still loyal to my cause, Rip Fang, that you swear to follow and serve me. Or perhaps you'd like to stay here. Rip Fang knew what the fearsome wildcat meant by the phrase, stay here. He averted his eyes from the murderous gaze. Loyal? Me and me brother are loyal to you, sire. That's why we signed up with you in the first place. You lead and we'll follow your sire. True blue and never fail. Er, soon as you let me have me paw back, sire. The trident lifted, releasing Rip Fang's paw. Trun smiled. Good. Get the columns ready to march, Captain.
They took to the cliff tops where the going was faster, Ungat Trun at the rear, his captains at the front. The brother sea rats held a muttered conversation as they marched at double speed. Did you see his eyes rip? Latin's mad. Stark steering mad. Oh, no, he ain't doom. Dangerous eye, but not mad. Something strange has happened back at the mountain. Whatever it was, it brought Trun out searching for us all through the night. I don't like it, mate. Not one little bit. Maybe we should have run for it, like Frugoral did. You're right, Doom. Too late for that now, though. So what do you think we should do, Rip? I don't know, but I'll think of something. Well, hurry up and think, will you? Shut up. How can I think with you blattering down me ear? So that's all the thanks I gets for cooking your breakfast. Well, keep your ideas. I can think of ideas, too, you know. Ha! You can think of ideas? Who told you that? Your brain's got a full-time job just figuring out how to put one paw in front of the other, so you can march. Doom I purposely stamped on Rip Fang's paw. Youch! Watch where you're treading, you great lolloper! Dumai's smile was full of malicious innocence. Sorry, Rip. Me brain mustn't have been figuring right. Lord Brocktree had ordered the mid-level windows and arrow slits to be opened. Now his creatures stood at every aperture, well-armed and vigilant. Dottie and the twins took their lunchtime snack gratefully from the Guasom cooks and placed it on the windowsill. As they ate, the Badger Lord halted his inspection of the defenses to chat with them while he took his meal. No sign of Ungat Trun yet, miss? Sorry, sir. The blighter hasn't shown up yet. You think he will? Perhaps the rascal's scarpered, what? Brocktree shook his great striped head. No chance of that, I'm certain. He'll be back. This isn't finished yet. Look at those vermin below. They've completely surrounded the mountain. Yet there's not been a single slingstone or arrow from them. That fox, Karangul, he's sitting on the sand just waiting. Waiting for orders, if I'm not mistaken. Doesn't want to make a wrong move. Southpaw and Bob Weave guffawed. Ha ha! The wrongest move old Tron ever made was stealing your mountain, eh, Lord? I'll say, the blighter must be a right puddin'-head, what? Should have stuck to stealing his grandma's pies. Brocktree waved a plum slice under their noses sternly. Never underestimate your enemy. I shouldn't have to tell you that. You're supposed to be fighters. The Badger Lord pulled his paw back with half the slice gone. Bob Weave grinned as he chewed. And never wave scoff near a hare's jolly old mouth. You should know that, sire. What? Brocktree winked at Dottie, then tripped the hare twin slyly. Bob Weave found himself flat on his back, with the great sword point prodding his stomach lightly. It was the badger's turn to grin. Never steal food from the lord of Salamandastron. He has a dreadful way of getting it back. You should know that. Dottie and Southpaw fell about laughing as Bobweave wailed. I say, sir, steady on. You wouldn't chap a chopper, I mean chop a chap open to get a measly mouthful back, would you? Broaders! Why don't you plead for my bally life instead of rolling round grinning like daft ducks? Bucko Big Bones fitted an arrow to his bowstring and took careful aim, not wanting to hit the fox sitting on the sands below. It was a skillful shot. The shaft whizzed down, burying itself between the creature's footpaws. 
The Mountain Hare's voice rang out. Good afternoon to ye, Captain Karangool, is it? I'm looking down another eerie at ye, so dinner move. Maybe ye canna bring me to mind. I'm Bucko Big Bones, and I remember you weel. Aye, and there's scars on my back, so I'll nay forget ye. Ach, quit trembling, fox. I wouldn't slay ye win error. "'Tis far too quick and clean, you ken. "'But don't ye fret, no. "'We'll be meetin' soon, tooth to tooth, and paw to paw. "'You've got my sworn promise on that. "'Off with you now!' Karangul leapt up and ran, four arrows zipping close by before he made the shelter of some rocks and shouted to his archers, "'Get him! Middle window, second level, big hair beast! Get him!' Shafts rained through the window space. Bucko stood to one side, smiling grimly. Brog looked up from collecting the fallen arrows. Ahoy, mate! A spot of trouble? Ach, no. I was just giving yon fox something to think about. Sort of jogging his bad old memory a wee bit. Karangul did have a bad old memory. He could not recall from numerous evil deeds in the past why the hare was seeking revenge upon him. While he crouched behind the rocks, reviewing his wicked career, Ungat Trun's claws tugged the back of his cloak. Why are you hiding here, Captain? Lightness? Not hiding. Waiting for you. Well, I'm here, as you see. Make your report. I need to know all that has gone on here in my absence. Stiffener knocked on the Badger Lord's chamber door in the mid-afternoon. Entering, he found Brocktree hurling incense burners from the window. Wiping dust and cobwebs from his paws, the Badger looked around. That's better. I'm sure this chamber wasn't full of muck and spiders in my father's day, eh? The boxing hare went to the window and stared down at the vermin crowded on the beach. There were even more than before. You're right, sire. It was always neat and clean, but that's not what I've come here to talk about. Brocktree sat down on the edge of the bed. I can see that you've got something on your mind, friend. I'm always ready to listen. Speak on, Stephaner. The boxing hare banged his paws down on the sill impatiently. We've been here most of the night and the best part of the day. When does the fighting start? Brocktree joined him at the window and placed a paw about Stiffener's shoulders. You're a brave beast, Stiffener Medic, a truly perilous hare, one of the true sons of Salamandastron. But you've only got to look out of its window to see that the foe still has far superior numbers to our small force. When we set out from Bucko's court, I thought I had enough warriors at my back to face any army. But I was not prepared for anything like Trun's hordes. He must have every vermin on the face of the earth here. We have fought with him, wisely, and with the aid of good planning. I could give the signal right now to continue the battle. I'm certain that my friends, brave friends like you, would hurl themselves on the foe with no question or quarter given. Most of you would die, and that's no guess. It's a fact. Hear me. I refuse to sacrifice the lives of good and gallant creatures. Stiffener gnawed on his lip, troubled and puzzled. 
But if we stay here and don't fight, Tron ain't about to turn and march away. That murdering wildcat wants Salamander Tron as much as you, Lord. What do we do? Proctory tapped his head with one paw. We think, Stefaner. We use our brains. Listen, do you hear? Strains of music and merriment sounded faintly from the window spaces on the second level, growing louder by the moment. Stefaner was scratching his ears as Brocktree showed him to the door. What's going on, sire? Oh, sorry, didn't you know? Go and see young Dottie. She'll explain it all to you. Hurry now or you'll miss a good feast. That should baffle the bluebottoms, eh? Dottie's scheme was simple, to show the starving vermin that there was no shortage of food on her side, nor of courage and good cheer. In short, to dishearten the blue vermin hordes. Lord Brocktree had given the plan his blessing. It gave him time to think of his own solution to the problem, in peace and relative quiet. Down on the shore, the vermin could not help but stare pitifully up at the happy, well-fed defenders. Ungat Trun and Karangul were some distance away, behind the rocks, assessing their own force numbers and laying their own plans. Ripfang and Dumai were behaving in a most undignified manner for two horde captains. Every time a pie-crust or scrap of cheese was tossed from the second-level windows, they joined in the wild scrabble for it. Dottie and her friends gave the impression that there was a limitless amount of food at their disposal. In reality, there was not, but they kept up the pretense perfectly, stuffing down goodies and glugging down cordials, cheerily waving to the gaunt-faced vermin packing the shore. Logalog Gren even sang a song about nice things to eat, which had the vermin drooling. Gwasim cooks burned branches of aromatic herbs used in their cooking, and the scent drifted downward, adding to the faux beast's distress as Gren sang, I won't eat pie or puddin' filled with grass and roots. For me, a tart's a goodin' with ripe, plump, juicy fruits. Take some cherries and blackberries, honey so thick and sweet, in golden crust all fit to burst. Aye, that's the stuff to eat, mates, that's the stuff to eat. Say nay who can to mushroom flan, all baked with onion sauce, unless you think tis better than a crisp green salad course. Sup cider pale or nut-brown ale? Oh, isn't lunch a dream? Surrounded by an apple pie with lots of meadow cream, mates. Lots of meadow cream. A hollow-cheeked rat gave a strangled sob. Fitting an arrow to his bow, he shouted insanely, Ah, ha, 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 I can't stand it no more, I tell you. I'll stop him singing, just you see if and I don't. Dumai grabbed the shaft from the crazed rat's bowstring and caught the unlucky vermin a hefty kick which sent him sprawling. You ain't been given no orders to attack. Don't dare go shooting at those creatures. They're chucking vittles down to us. A bitter-faced ferret laughed mirthlessly. Vittles? You call those vittles? A few scraps of cheese and some crust of pie and bread? Cha. Ripfang shoved a cutlass under the complainant's snout. Shut your scringing gob. Any vittles is good vittles when a beast's starving. Gurr threw down an apple with only one bite out of it. Ripfang went after it, flaunting his authority. Hoy, put that down. I saw it first. Give me that apple. 
I'm your captain. That's an order, you hear? Toward evening, Brocktree put in an appearance and called a halt to things. One or two of the hares, Dottie included, seemed puzzled by his decision. The Badger Lord ordered the second-level openings to be closed. Come to the dining hall. I have an announcement to make. They completed blocking the window spaces with much speculation. Dorothea, what do you think Big Brock has to say? Dunno, old chap. Your guess is as good as mine, what? You think he's going to start the final battle? Who knows? We're far too outnumbered, I reckon. True, but we're in the best position. We hold a mountain. Aye, but think, we could end up in the same blinking boat as the vermin, under siege and starving, if the war takes any time at all. Brr, why don't usins just go to e hall and listen to what Zer Brock be wantin' to tell us? Brockalaw led off, patting Gert's back. Ha <laughs> ha! There speaks a wise cove, eh, bucko? Ah, aye, ye can't eh, argue with mole logic. Leaning on the hilt of his great sword, the lord of Salamandistron waited until the hum of voices died away before explaining his plan. They say the only way to kill a snake is to cut off its head. Ungat Trun's blue vermin are the snake. He is its head. Without him they are leaderless. Tonight... I am sending out a challenge to Trun, which should settle this conflict. I will meet him face to face, claw to paw, and tooth to fang in combat to the death. An immediate hubbub broke out. Dottie jumped up beside the badger, silencing them in her severest manner. Will you be quiet this instant, please? Such bad manners, behaving like a horde of vermin, bad form. Baron Drucko's loud grumble echoed around the hall. Ain't we entitled to no pinion? The hair-maid shot him a frosty glare. You certainly are, sir, but only after his lordship has had his say. Then we'll elect a spokesbeast to represent us all. I vote that'll jolly well be me. Amid the laughter which followed, the hair-twins cried out, Well said, Miss Dotty. Capital idea, what? I second that old chap. Motion carried without argument. Drucko's response was a shout which all heard. Oh, all right, long as she don't start singing. Withdraw that remark, sir, or step outside with me. What? Not before he steps outside with me. I'll box his ill-mannered spikes flat. Brocktree's booming voice silenced every beast. Stop this silly quarreling or I'll stop it for you. An immediate hush fell. The Badger Lord continued. There will be no arguments or opinions about this. It is my decision, as your leader. Tomorrow at noon I will meet Ungatron out on the shore in front of this mountain. There will be no quarter given or asked, and a free choice of weapons. Having said that, I do not expect for one moment that the Wildcat will obey any rules. He did not get as far as he has by being a fair-minded creature. So... To guard against any treachery, I will make my own arrangements with you so that the proper precautions are taken. Dottie, will you and Stiffener see to the guard patrols for tonight? Ruff, Gren, Fragalaw, Drucko, and Girth, come to my chamber. Those of you not on sentry, get a good rest. You will need it to stand you in good stead tomorrow. A blazing javelin whipped out of the mountain, cutting a fiery trail through the night. 
It buried its point in the damp sand below the tide line, extinguishing the flaming tip. Weasel Captain Bargut plucked the weapon from the sand and carried it to the rocks, where Ungat Trun was still in conference with Karangul. Mightiness, this came from the mountain. I think there is a message tied to it. Taking the javelin, Trun dismissed Bargut. He slit the twine, holding the scroll to the weapon's middle with one razor-sharp claw. Karangul watched the wildcat as he scanned the parchment which had been rolled around the haft. Ungat Trun's shoulders began shaking. At first, the fox thought his master was suffering an attack of ague. Then he realized Ungat Trun was laughing, a sight no creature had ever beheld. The wildcat made no sound, but his eyes narrowed to slits, and his mouth curved up at either end, his whole body quivering convulsively. Everything comes to the beast who waits, eh, Karangul? Mightness? Here I am, trying to think of a way to accomplish my plan when the striped dog unwittingly solves it all for me. Good news, eh, Mightness? Better than you think. Much better. Come, follow me. Ruff put his eye to a crack in the wood of a window shutter peering at the approaching shapes. Well, they're coming, Brock. Oh, bunch of the blue scum. Can you see Trun with them, Ruff? Not so far, mate. Hang on. Aha. I sees the cat now, but just a glimpse. That un's taking no chances. He's well shielded by three ranks of guards. Shields up, too. The group halted within hailing distance. Trun's shout rang out from between the ranks. I received your message, striped dog. Brocktree's sharp growl answered. Well, cat, do you agree to the terms? How could I not agree? The one left standing takes all. But can I trust you to honor your word? I am a badger lord. My word is my life and honor. Good. I am Ungat Trun the Conqueror. I, too, will pledge you my word. I will respect your terms. Tomorrow, then, when the noon is high, we will meet there, where you stand, upon the shore at this moment. Then I will look upon your face, striped dog. And I will look upon yours, cat. Not for long. I will close your eyes forever. You waste your breath on idle threats. Go away, cat. There followed a moment's silence, broken once or twice by outraged growls from the wildcat. Ruff returned to his spy hole in the shutter and peered out. Looks like they're gone, Brock. Instinct guided Brocktree to the rift in the rock wall of his bedchamber. Moving the bed, he ran his paw along the crack. About halfway down, he found the widening where both his paws fitted. Only a beast with the strength of a badger could move the slab. Corded sinews stood out against bunched muscles beneath Brocktree's fur. Knowing that other badgers had done this before him, it gave Brocktree much pleasure to unleash his own raw power. The slab seemed to groan, then it moved inward, unable to resist his might. Though he had never been in the secret place of badger lords before, Brocktree felt at home there his mind familiar with it. 
Fetching a lantern from his bedchamber, he traced the lines of carving which told the mountain's history, the legacy left him by the mummified figures of past badger rulers. Earthrun the Gripper, Spear Lady Gorse, Blue Stripe the Wild, Cedar Ruler the Just. He stared sadly at the place which stood unoccupied. His father, Lord Stonepaw, had been denied the right of taking his place there. From the bedchamber he carried through the big chair. It was almost like a rough throne. This had been his father's. He could feel it. Placing it in the space, he sat down. There was a heap of dark powder on a ledge, and he reached for some. It smelled like strange herbs, dried and crushed. A faint memory of a scent like this came to him. Brock tree sprinkled some in the lantern's air vent. Leaning back in his father's chair, he closed his eyes and inhaled. It was an ancient fragrance, autumnal woods, faded summers, a winter sea and soft spring evenings. Badgers came and went through the crossroads of his mind, some dim and spectral, like those who had gone before, others light and ethereal, as if yet unborn. There was even a strong, fearless mouse, bearing a beautiful sword, every bit as great a warrior as the badgers who roamed through his dreams. Battles were fought beneath forgotten suns. Ships ranged the heaving seas through lightning-torn skies. Armies marched dusty paths, comrades in arms singing lustily. Brocktree's dream world turned through seasons of famine and feast, maidens singing, babes playing happily, silent lakes, chuckling streams, flower-strewn bowers, and fruit-laden orchards. Then the tableau changed. Deserted caves, burning dwellings, vermin driving enslaved creatures over the slain members of their friends and family. Blood, war, misery, suffering. And finally, the face of a wildcat he had not yet looked upon, Ungat Trun. The once fragrant aroma became bitter in Lord Brocktree's nostrils, and he awoke shouting, No! It shall not happen! Do you hear me, cat? No! Smearing a flat rock with vegetable oil, the badger lord began to put an edge to either side of the broad blade. Never having been a singer, he recited the ancient lines of a badger's sword song as he worked. My blade, like winter's cold, doth bite. Come, guide me, badger lord, for truth and justice we must fight. Wield me your battle sword. Defend the weak, protect the meek. Take thy good comrade's part. By point, like lightning, send to seek the foe-beast's evil heart. Eulalia loud, like thunder cry, Be thou mine eyes and brain. We join in honor, thee and I, to strike in war again. Ungat Trun had singled out his best ship and moored it at the fleet's south edge, close to shore. Closeted in the main cabin with Karangul, Ripfang, and Dumai, he laid further plans. The wildcat was a beast who left nothing to chance, and now that the moment was close, he took precautions by covering all angles. I need an archer. The very finest bow-beast, one who never misses. Is there such a creature in my hordes? Brimming with confidence, Ripfang replied, Look ye no further, Captain. 
my brother Dumai can pick off a butterfly on the wing, and I'd take me oath on that. You ain't never seen a beast living that can fire off a shaft like old Dumai here. Ain't that right, mate? Dumai tapped the bow and quiver he always carried. I'm the best, mighty one. You can count on me. Trun's tail curled out and drew him close. Dumai's paws quivered as he gazed into the wildcat's savage eyes. Fail me, and I'll make sure you die bit by bit, sea rat. Now, here's what you must do. Climb the mountain tonight, letting no beast see you. Find a spot where you can command a good view of the combat. If the fight is going against me, kill the badger. Go now. Take your brother with you. And make sure you find a good hiding place. Be certain none see you. When the pair had departed, Trun gave Karangul his instructions. You are certain this is our fastest vessel? Yeah, mightness. She sailed faster than wind. Then crew this ship with your best creatures, and be ready to make sail on the noon tide. If all goes wrong, I will need to get away from here with all haste. Understand? Mightness, she be ready, waiting. Karangul was trapped by the bulkhead. He could move no further back as the trident points prodded his chest. Make sure she is, my friend, or you will curse the mother who gave birth to you. Trun left then to go aboard his own ship and spend the remainder of the night in his more luxurious stateroom. Hidden behind some hatch covers, Rip Fang and Dumai waited until the wildcat was gone. Karangul, still rubbing his chest, ushered them into the cabin. You hear what Trun say? Rip Fang's face was the picture of wicked indignation. Every word, mate, every word. So, his mightiness is feared that it might all go wrong. I never thought I'd hear Trun talking like that. We don't want to be siding with no beast who's got the idea he might be a loser. Dumai's head bobbed up and down in agreement. You're right, Rip. Let's up anchor and get away from it all right now. Us three could sail this craft easily. Karangul preened his brush thoughtfully. No, best we stay, hear me. If Tron be losing, you shoot the strike dog, yeah. Then you kill Tron also. Us three be lords then, we take all. But what if that striped dog slays Trun right off? That'd knock all the fight out of our horde beasts. What then, eh? Karangul produced two brass hoops from his cloak. He threaded them through the holes in his ears and smiled. Ah, then you get off mountain fast. I be waiting, crewed up for sale. We forget this place. Go piratin' again. Rip Fang did a little jig of delight, rubbing his paws. Ho, 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 ho. Ain't you the one, Captain? Where with you? Dottie and her friends were laying a few plans of their own at that very moment. Gran had the floor. When our Badger Lord goes out there to face Trun tomorrow, he'll have enough on his mind. Now, I know Brock's given us our orders, but there ain't no reason why we shouldn't make double sure of things. Trun knows nothing of honor. That cat can't be trusted. Take my word for it, mates. Brog nodded his agreement wholeheartedly. You're right, Gren. So what's this game? Gren turned to Dottie. Tell them, miss. 
The hairmaid outlined the plan she and the shrew had devised. Right, listen up, chaps. Gren and Draco will stay inside the mountain. They'll have the Gwasim, the Rabble Hogs, and Juka's tribe with them. Slings and bows cover every window and arrow slit. I'll be outside with our force of hares and otters. We'll push in close to the place of combat, make two rough circles, more or less back-to-back, -back, fully armed, of course. That way we'll be able to watch the vermin and keep an eye out for trickery. If Lord Brock gets hurt, we'll surround him and drag him back into the mountain, where Gran will be waiting to barricade the main entrance once we're inside. But if our badger slays the cat, this is the counterplan. Bucko will give out with a loud eulalia to Gren. She'll lead her forces outside and try to circle the blue bottoms. With a bit of luck, we'll have them both ways, us in the middle, the rest at their backs. Not a word to Brocktree now. He thinks he's going to carry the day by whacking Tron alone. Girth waved a digging claw airily. Er, and so he will. There bain't no warrior like Zer Brocko. Boy, Oki, there bain't. But usins be keepin' watch on ebermints one way or t'other. My old dad allus says count e diggin' claws if in you shakin' paws with ebermint. Bucko Big Bones looked up from honing his javelin point. Ah, your old feathers a bra rock of sense, my friend. Off tay your beds, my bairns. Tis after midnight. You can. Ruff shouldered a long-bladed sword. I'll take first watch with the night sentries. Good night to ye all, and good victory tomorrow, mates. Thank ye, sir. Oi, bidden ye good night, too. Good night, Miss Dottie. Pleasant dreams, what? Don't grub too many vermin in your slumbers. It can be jolly tiring, you know. Good night, Grandpa Stiff. Night, you two. I'll give ye a call at dawn. Aye, you can call me in Drucko, too, if you please. And bring us a wee tray of breakfast, old pal. Any beast not on the breakfast line by dawn will be fighting on an empty stomach. Did you hear that, Mr. Big Bones? I say, log-a-log, Grandmarm, can I have Bucko's scoff if he's not there, what? You'll get what you're given, Troby. There'll be little enough to go round as it is, after what you put away this afternoon. Amid the good-humored joshing, they filed off, some to bed, others to guard posts, laughing and joking. However, every beast knew that at noon of the next day the merriment would cease, temporarily for some, permanently for others. 36. Lord Brocktree of Brockhall unshouldered his great sword and strode into the sandy arena. Behind him the sea lay calm, like a glittering mirror. He breathed deep and stood ready, clad only in a loose green tunic, a broad woven belt circling his waist. Dottie and her friends jostled their way roughly through the blue-furred vermin. Trampling paws and knocking aside weapons, they pushed their way to the inner fringe of the wide sandy circle. It was hot. Golden noon sun blazed down out of a cloudless blue sky. Standing at the western edge of the ring, Dottie felt herself shoved to one side as Ungat Trun prowled into the place of combat. A tremor of apprehension ran through the hair maid. The wildcat was a barbarous sight. 
His pointed ears could be seen through the slits of a round steel helmet with a spike on top and a shoulder-length fringe of fine chain mail. He wore a purple tunic topped by a copper breastplate. Above his paws were metal bracelets with spikes bristling from them. In one paw he carried the big trident, in the other a woven net edged with metal weights. Silence fell upon the packed shore, a quietness that was almost unearthly in its intensity. Lord Brocktree came to the center of the arena. Lifting the sword level with his face, he saluted his enemy in the traditional manner of a beast about to do combat. But salutes, rules, and formalities did not figure in Ungat Trun's nature. A screeching growl ripped from his throat, and he charged. Kerrang! Metal struck metal as the badger met his rush. The sword slammed down between the tines of the trident, shockwaves running through the paws of both beasts. Digging in their footpaws, they bent to the task of trying to push one another backward. Both were huge male animals in their prime, well-matched. Brocktree allowed himself to be thrust back a pace, then he retaliated with a roar, sending Trun skidding across the ring, plowing two furrows in the sand. Suddenly the wildcat whipped the net about his opponent's footpaws, catching the badger unawares and crashing him to the sand. Rip! The sword came thrusting and slicing through the net meshes, its point punching a hole in Trun's breastplate. He let go of the net and danced backward. Brocktree tore the net from his body and came after his adversary, whirling it. He flung the net, and Trun leapt to one side, the metal weights whacking his side painfully as it sailed by. He stabbed downward in an attempt to lame Brocktree, but the badger shifted swiftly, an outside prong tearing the side of his footpaw. Ignoring the wound, he stamped down on the trident, trapping it against the ground. Flicking up the huge sword, he laid Trun's right paw bare to the bone. Trun fell down, but only to grab the net. Whirling it about his paw, he came up, battering the badger's face with the weights. They broke and circled, the trident probing, the sword seeking. Then the net shot up, enveloping Brocktree's head followed by a paw full of sand, which the wildcat flung into his eyes. Trun had no time to stab, so he hit Brocktree hard on the side of his head with the trident butt. The badger fell heavily, blinking and trying to rip the meshes from his face. Trun raised the trident for the kill, but the badger rolled over. Folding his body into a curled-up position, Brocktree hauled sharply on the net, and Trun stumbled forward, his back bent, as he fell toward Brocktree, the badger lashed out with his uninjured footpaw, smacking it into the wildcat's nose with a sickening thud. Trun fell backward. Brocktree struggled upright, tearing himself free of the net, and quickly pawed the sand from his eyes. From flat on his back, Trun beheld his foe bearing down on him, sword upraised. He shoved the trident out in front of him to counter the weapon's swing, and Brocktree's battle blade sheared right through one of the thick, barbed copper prongs, which zinged off skyward. Dumai fitted the shaft to his bowstring. Time for the striped dog to die. Trun's flat on his back. He drew back the seasoned yew bow to its limit, and sighting expertly down the arrow, he fired. The force of the blow, which had severed Trun's trident prong, took Brocktree a staggering pace forward. 
but he whirled and straightened so quickly that the arrow, which would have pierced the base of the badger's skull from behind, thwacked through his left shoulder. Rip Fang clapped a paw to his brow. Idiot! You missed! End of Side 8 Change Side Selector Switch This book is continued on the next cassette. Side 9 Lord Brocktree by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 356 Dumai's lip pouted sulkily as he laid another shaft on his bowstring. The strike dog cheated. He moved. But I still got him, Rip. Watch me finish him off with this next error. But Ruff was already moving. Grabbing Bucko's javelin, he kept his eyes on the vermin head he had spotted, poking above the rocks atop the second level. One paw out straight, the other wide outstretched, balancing the weapon, the big otter did a hop-skipping sideways run right across the arena. His footpaws pounded the sand as he gained momentum, one eye centered firmly on the high target, and he let out an almighty yell as he hurled the javelin with all his strength. It whistled up through the hot summer air with almost every eye on it, up, up with breathtaking speed. Dumai had the arrow stretched tight on his bowstring. He stood up and placed his cheek against it, closing one eye to sight on Brocktree. Though he had not intended it, Ruff's javelin actually cut the bowstring. Dumai could not lower his chin. He turned to show his brother the javelin, growing out of his neck on either side, and fell dead on top of him. With a sob of horror, Rip Fang heaved the body off himself and fled. Lord Brocktree towered over Trun like a giant oak. As the wildcat tried to rise, he kicked him flat again. The pandemonium which had rung through the arena when the arrow struck the badger lord fell hushed. Every eye was on Brocktree, standing over his enemy, the barbed shaft embedded in his shoulder, filled with the terrible blood wrath. Dragging the arrow out without the slightest sign of a flinch, the badger lord flung it into the wildcat's face. Kicking the net to one side, he stamped down hard on the trident shaft. It broke with a loud crack, leaving Trun with a paw full of splinters. For the first time in his life, Ungat Trun felt cold fear. He tried to drag himself backward, but Brocktree's powerful paws seized him and hauled him up until their faces were touching. Like a knell of doom, the badger's voice rang in his ears. Now I see your face, Ungat Trun. Look upon me! Trun finally looked into the eyes of his tormentor, but this time it was no vision. The terrifying nemesis of his dreams had at last become flesh and blood. One word escaped the wildcat's lips and echoed around the silent, crowded shore. Mercy! The next thing every beast heard was the bone-jarring snap of Ungat Trun's spine as Brocktree caught him in a swift, deadly embrace. He picked up his sword, pointing with it at the huddled figure on the sand. Cast this thing into the sea! The second-level barricades fell, and a hail of arrows and slingstones shot out over the crowd. You lay lee Bumping, falling, so the fleet of vessels, Alamandistron, Bucko Big Bones grabbed a sword. Yeah, let's send them on their way! 
Watson. Log a log a log a log. Ripfang was already in the sea. Captain, tis ring. Wait for me. He caught a rope trailing from the after end and hauled himself up wearily over the rail and spit out seawater. Trun's dead. Everything's lost. The fox curled his lip contemptuously. I know that fool. Why you think I sail? Bucko was first to the sea. Dashing into the shallows after the fleeing vermin, he chanced to glance south at the vessel which was already crewed and underway. The mountain hare's eyes lit up with grim satisfaction. There, leaning over the stern rail, was the fox called Karangul. Bucko tore south, spray flying everywhere. Grasping his sword in his teeth, he gave a wolfish grin and went after the ship. Still sprawled by the stern, recovering his breath, Rip Fang watched the crew trim the sails to let the breeze take her south. He turned his attention to Karangul, who was guiding the tiller. Huh. Some mate you are, Fox. You was going to sail off and leave me after all the plans we made together, eh? Karangul did not even bother to look at him. Stop your moaning. Got aboard, didn't ye? Rip Fang was facing away from Karangul, and now he could see Bucko swimming strongly after the ship. Suddenly, the sea rat became philosophical. You're right, mate. I did get aboard, and well shut of that lot too. Poor old Dumai's back there lying slain. Shame that was. Still, worse things happen at sea, eh, mate? Karangul aimed a sharp kick at Rip Fang. You don't mate me, rat. I captain now. Rip Fang continued appealing to the fox's better nature. You don't mean that, do you? You said we was all going to be captains. I know Dumai ain't around no more, but that's no reason why we can't be captains together, is it, me old cully? A sword appeared in Karangul's paw. He swung it upward, readying himself to take Rip Fang's head off. Only room for one captain on this ship. Rip Fang leapt up and sprang to attention, saluting smartly. You're right there, Captain. I wish you to report a beast following your ship. One of those long ears, just after us there. Karangul went to the rail and leaned over. He felt a momentary wave of fear as he glimpsed Bucko, but it soon passed when he realized the hare was in the water while he was aboard a fast ship headed south. Yeah, that long ears come after me. I not know why. Rip Fang sneaked up behind Karangul and suddenly heaved him overboard into the sea. Why don't you go and ask him what he wants? Karangul wallowed in the vessel's wake, shouting at Rip Fang, Ahoy! Pull me up, mate! The sea rat tut-tutted severely. I ain't your mate. Remember what you said? Only room for one captain aboard this ship. Well, you're talking to him. He tipped a broken mast spar over the side. You can be captain of that. Stare careful, captain. Goodbye, and a worst of luck to you. Karangul had lost his sword in the fall overboard. Bucko still had his. He sat on the spar facing the fox with the sword pointed at his eyes. Ach, tis a broad day for sailing, my bonny wee foxy. 
Now you set still there, and I'll tell you a sad old tale about a poor young hare wit was left for dead by a wicked old fox who bit him with a sword blade. Bucko's chuckle was neither pleasant nor friendly. Well, now, I see you recognize me at last. Tell me, my friend, how does it feel to be without your great horde of vermin to help you out? Whoop! Karangul screamed in pain as the flat of Bucko's sword struck him smartly across his shoulder. The mountain hare bellowed in his face. Tell me! Evening sun was dipping low on the horizon. Dottie sat with all her friends and comrades in arms. From where they rested, on a broad terrace of rock slabs and vegetation, above the mountain's main entrance, the whole scene of that day's activities was spread before them. Like autumn leaves strewn by the wind, distant vessels ranged far and wide over the darkening sea, to the north and south, and out to the west. Shading his eyes from the sun's crimson glow, Stiffener watched them growing smaller. Lots of those ships overladen with vermin, you know. I'd say some of them will sink before the next dawn comes. Baron Drucko wrinkled his brow spikes in that manner hedgehogs adopt when they could not care less. Serves them right. Ain't our fault they wouldn't stand and make a fight of it. Ha! Huh. Ran like forfacarticers, they did. No beast bothered inquiring what a forfacartiker could be. Well, I for one am jolly well glad they did run, Dottie admitted. We never lost one creature in that little scrabble across the shore to the shallows. What do you say, rough old chap? I'm with you, Missy. There was more vermin drowned than slain in combat. A score or so of ours wounded, no great slaughter. Almost what they call a bloodless victory. An iron arrowhead clinked on the rocks, and Lord Brocktree emerged from an open window space to sit with them. Any beast want to keep that as a souvenir of the battle? Ruro dug it out of my shoulder. That squirrel's a marvel when it comes to patching a beast up. Girth viewed the badger lord. He had compresses of herbs bandaged to shoulder, back, side, and footpaw, plus one across his striped brow, which gave him a roguish air. Brr, you'm looking like you been in a good old Bartle, sir. Brocktree took a sip from the tankard he was carrying. I suppose I do, but I'm feeling no pain at all. One of your cooks gave me this to drink, Draco. What is it? The Baron took a drink and winked knowingly. Special berry and pear wine with some cowslip and royal fern essence. That'll make you sleep tonight, sire. Troby took a mouthful and nodded approvingly. Taste absolutely spiffin'. Wish I'd been wounded. Rogalaw tweaked the hungry hare's ear. Don't start talking about vittles and drink again, you great long-eared stomach. We're flat out of grub. But you won't need to wait long. Here comes my bird to the rescue. Rulango soared gracefully in out of the evening sky. If it were at all possible for a heron to smile, Dottie would have said that the great bird tried his best. He was all over Brog, wafting him with both wings and knocking his beak against the sea otter's paws, as if checking he was unhurt. Brog stroked Rulango's neck to calm him down. 
Steady on there, old mattress back. I'm all right. How's my mom and the rest of me mates? Snug and safe, are they? Rulango placed both wings over his eyes, letting his head bob up and down. Rogalaw roared, laughing. Still weeping and crying, eh? Good old mum. She and her pals ain't happy if they can't have a good blubber. Listen, matey, you get back to the cave and tell them to womp up vittles for victors. Lots of the stuff. As much as they can cook afore morning. I'm sending Southpaw and Bob Weave, Dervy and Conal and some Gwassum over there, and we'll get them moved, lock, stock, and vittles back here. I tell you, mates, I feels a feast coming on. Stiffener's eyes lit up, as did many others. I say, splendid idea, old lad, what? Aye, a great feast at Salamandastron, with enough scoff to sink a gang of my rabbelogs. And singing and music for days and days, Gran added. Oh, er, and darncing too. I likes to darnce. And when it goes dark, we'll light big bonfires on the beach so we can carry on all night. Capital, and Miss Dottie can play the hair accordion and sing. Why didn't I think of that, South? What a great wheeze. Ruff pulled a face. Don't you think we suffered enough in battle? Dottie stared severely at the otter, then broke out giggling. <laughs> I'll sing an extra-long ballad just for you. Lord Brocktree laughed until the bandage on his brow slipped and fell over his eyes. Oh, look out, it's gone dark. Time for bed, you lot. Sounds of merriment rang out from the happy creatures on the mountain, so loud that a pair of seagulls, building a nest in the rocks, squawked complainingly. The birds had come back to the western shores. 37. It was lonely on the far reaches of shoreline to the north of Salamandastron. Night had fallen over the restless sea. A flood tide was rising, claiming back the flotsam and jetsam it had cast up on its previous visit. How long Angat Trun had lain there, he could not tell. Salt water crusted the wildcat's eyes, slopping bitterly into his half-open mouth. He could not move his body. Most of it was numb, frozen solid, as if encased in a block of ice. But his chest, head, and neck were on fire with unearthly pain. The last thing he could recall was the badger lord, crimson-eyed as they came face to face, snarling at him. Now I see your face, Ungatrun. Look upon me! Beyond that, everything was a blank and unknown void. But the wildcat was not dead. He recovered consciousness slowly, sodden, freezing cold and grunting in agony every time a wave smashed over his helpless body, moving him down the slope of the shore. Damp seaweed and the sharp edge of a shell pressed against his cheek. Something small and spiny scuttled across his face. From the corner of one eye he could see a half-moon and the star-scattered skies. Another wave buffeted him. Now he could see the sand and a rocky outcrop. Realization invaded his senses with a shock of terror as his awful position dawned upon him. He was lying at the mercy of the sea. Flood tide was drawing him back into the waves where he would be swept out into the vast unknown deeps. Hissing like a huge reptile, another wave crashed over him, 
rolling his broken body into the shallows. The wildcat turned his gaze landward and gave an agonized groan. Then he saw something. Two footpaws and a bushy tail. Some beast, a fox, was sitting on the rocks watching him. Karangul. It had to be Karangul. His own voice sounded distant, strange to him, as he croaked out, Please, help me. The fox came down off the rocks and crouched before him. Trun managed one word before the fox pushed him further into the water. Groddle? Then he was swept away on the current, drawn out to sea with rollers lifting him high on their crests and tossing him down into their troughs. Groddle watched the bobbing object until it became a far-out speck amid the night sea. He was chanting aloud, though his former master was beyond hearing the crippled fox magician whom he had bullied and tormented for so long. Nonetheless, Groddle chanted on. These are the days of Ungat Trun, the fearsome beast. O oh, mighty one, he who makes the stars fall. Conqueror, earthshaker, son of King Mortspear, brother to Verdaga, lord of all the blue hordes who are as many as the leaves of autumn. O oh, all-powerful Ungat Trun. Turning his back upon the sea, the crippled fox limped away and was never seen in those lands again. 38. Mornings were dawning in soft mist. The days grew shorter, sunsets earlier and more crimson. The earth was turning its season from summer to autumn. Hares had come to the mountain, traveling from far corners to serve under the banner of Salamandastron's ruler, the fabled Lord Brocktree. Travelers carried abroad tales of his valor and the brave army who had defeated the evil might of Ungat Trun and his blue hordes. There was a fresh spirit of joy and freedom upon the lands. Now any beast could range the earth in peace. But there were also creatures leaving the mountain to return to their homes. Ten ships from the defeated fleet had been recovered and made good and seaworthy. Two score vermin captives, their coats scoured clean of blue dye, had worked on the vessels, making them ready for this special day. Brogoloth took five of the ships. His crew of sea otters and their families boarded, laden with gifts for their voyage south. Then he came ashore with Dervy, Conal, and the heron, Rilango, to say farewell. Dottie was embracing them when she went into floods of tears. She fought to stem them to no avail. Oh, I say, you chaps, sniff, sniff, I feel absolutely dreadful, boo-hoo. Can't help myself, frog, wah, getting your tunic all wet, look, boo-hoo-ha. The kindly sea otter skipper gave her his kerchief. Ha-har, you carry on, miss, I'm used to this sort of thing, you know. What with my mum weeping and wailing, I'll wager we end up bailing out tears to stop us sinking afore we're back home down south coast. Lord Brocktree stood in the mountain's main entrance, waving with his sword as Brog and his friends returned aboard their ship. Farewell and fair winds, friends. Brog, you'll come back and visit, I trust? Aye, Lord. Keep the vittles a-cooking. 
You never know what season the old bark crew will come blowing up the coast to eat you out of house and home. Watch out for us, Ruff. Tears sprang into Ruff's eyes, and he looked at the badger. Brocktree nodded and clasped his paw fondly. Go on, get along with you. See you next spring, mayhap. Kissing Dottie, Ruff bounded past her into the water. Ahoy, Brog! I'm coming with you. I always wanted to learn how to be a sea otter. Lend a paw here, mates. As he was hauled aboard, Bucko Big Bones came marching out of the main gate, followed by his mountain hares. Ah, wheel, Brock. There's my ships, and here am I. I won't stand a ruined weeping like a wee bairn. Tis aft hey, the North Mountains for me and my clan. Mine, though, will be ever ready to come if you call for us. Not that you'll be needin' help. A braw beast like yourself, with all these fine young hares a-floodin' in by the day. Fare ye weel. Dotty held Bucko's paw before he boarded his vessel. I'm going to miss you pretty awfully, you know, Bucko. Wouldn't you consider staying on a few seasons? Help me to command the new long patrol that Lord Brock's forming. We'd have lots of super adventures, you and me, ranging the shores and woodlands and what not. What, what? The mountain hare ruffled her ears affectionately. Ach, no, lassie. I'm yearning to return to my mountains. But we'll be the highland branch of your long patrol, if you like. I'll call myself General Bucko. Fare ye weel, Dorothea, live lying and happy. You're a fatal beauty, the new. Biting her kerchief so as not to let Bucko see her weeping, Dottie hurried back to the main entrance. Ruro was waiting for her, wearing a silver medallion about her neck. Look at the honor thy badger lord bestowed upon me. I'm to be leader of my tribe. "'Tis called a Juca medal. "'The hair-maid inspected the beautiful insignia, "'a likeness of Juca, twirling what else but a sling. "'It's lovely, Ruro. "'I won't say good-bye, "'cause your pine grove's not more than a couple days' walk from us. "'We'll call and see one another often, what?' "'Ruro signaled her tribe to move off. "'Tis a promise, Dottie.' "'Dottie turned to Logalog Gren. "'And you, Grenmarm. You and your guasim will be on your way then, won't you, what? The shrewd chieftain nodded close to tears herself. If ever you need us, just send word. Merklewart chased after Skittles. He came out of the mountain like a tiny boulder, knocking Dotty flat. A great smile plastered all over his cheeky face. We're going to stay on a mounting a few seasons with you and Bach. I paggle every day in a water with you, Dotty. Merklewort took a swipe at the hog babe with a dish towel, but he scampered up onto the badger lord's sword hilt. Choppy you tail off if you do that again, mummy. Girth flicked Skittles' snout with his digging claw. You have respects for e mother, Lickles, sir. I'm staying here just to keep my eye on e villain. And as for e, Miss Dot, you come with oi. Your Aunt Blanche says ye got to learn e cooking. Dottie ducked beneath Brocktree's paw for protection. Oh, I say, sir, bit much, isn't it? How in the name of seasons is a gal supposed to be bosses of your blinkin' long patrol and walk around the bloomin' kitchens helping Aunt Blanche? What am I? Patrol bosses or flippin' cook?
Broctory hid a smile as he looked down at her. The title is Patrol General, Miss, not Bosses. And there's a whole lifetime ahead of you, Dottie. You're still young enough to learn lots of new things. Now, is every beast here? I see they've hauled anchors. Brog's bound south and Bucko's bound north. Striding out on the sands, Rocktree looked about at the legions of hares sitting on the mountain terraces and perched on the shore rocks. Up on your paws now, my friends, he called. Let's give our departing comrades a real Salamandastron farewell. Ready? One, two. Leaning over the sterns of their vessels, both Brogolov and Bucko Big Bones could not help joining in with the thunderous roar from the shore. The ten ships sailed off into the golden afternoon with the farewell war cry gladdening the hearts of all. You Epilogue Lord Rossano put aside the final piece of parchment. His pail was empty, the tabletop covered in bundles of scrolls. He looked around the crowded dining hall. So there you have it, my friends, how the great Lord Brocktree first came to our mountain and the odd bond of comradeship which existed between him and a young hairmaid. Dottie, as far as my researches show, became the first officer when our long patrol was formed. Thank you for listening to my account. The audience cheered him to the echo, standing to give the Badger Lord an appreciative ovation. There was only one creature not applauding, Rosano's son, Snowstripe. He was three seasons younger than his sister, Melanius, and still a divin in many ways. Snowstripe had been sitting on his mother's lap, listening to the final episode of his father's narrative when he had drifted off into a slumber. Rosalon had covered him with her shawl and let him sleep on. It was the noisy volume of the cheering that woke him. Snowstripe yawned, rubbing sleep from his eyes. Rosano gathered his little son up, still wrapped in the shawl. Come on, matey. Time you were in bed. Looking up at his father, the youngster murmured drowsily, Is the story finished, Papa? The badger lord shook his head solemnly. Only a part of it, my son, a small part. One day you and your sister will rule this mountain, and you will find that the story carries on. Both of you will live through your own adventures. Make good friends of honest creatures. The defense of our coasts will be your responsibility, though fate and seasons forbid that you will have to face vermin, invasion, and war. Salamandastron's story will continue as long as there are brave badgers to rule the mountain wisely. Your mother and I have often told you and Melanius the law of badger lords. Can you remember what we said? As they mounted the stairs, Snowstripe's eyelids began to droop, but he recited by heart the lessons he had been taught. Defend the weak, protect both young and old, never desert your friends. Give justice to all, be fearless in battle, and always ready to defend the right. Snowstripe gave out a yawn, and his eyelids fluttered, gradually closing. Anything more? 
Rosano whispered in his ear. As sleep overcame the little badger, he nodded. Hmm, the badger lord of Salamandistron must always show a welcome and good cheer to all of true heart who come to visit here in peace. Our gates will be ever open to them. Snowstripe's voice trailed off as slumber claimed him, and Rosano completed the last line for his son. For this is the word of the Badger Lord and the law of Salamandistron, passed down to us from Lord Brocktree. End of Lord Brocktree by Brian Jakes B-R-I-A-N-J-A-C-Q-U-E-S Illustrated by Fangorn Read by Brian Kahn In the studios of the American Printing House for the Blind, Louisville, Kentucky, for the Library of Congress, April 2001. Published by Philomel Books, a division of Penguin Putnam Books for Young Readers, 345 Hudson Street, New York, New York, 10014. Further reproduction or distribution in other than a specialized format is prohibited. If you found any cassette in this book to be defective, please place a rubber band or piece of string around that cassette for identification. Place it in the container on top of the front stack of cassettes.